This is Audible. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows by J.K. Rowling, read by Jim Dale. An unabridged performance brought to you by Pottermore from J.K. Rowling. Chapter One: The Dark Lord Ascending. The two men appeared out of nowhere, a few yards apart in the narrow moonlit lane. For a second, they stood quite still, wands directed at each other's chests. Then, recognizing each other, they stowed their wands beneath their cloaks and started walking briskly in the same direction. News? Asked the taller of the two. The best. Replied Severus Snape. The lane was bordered on the left by wild, low-growing brambles; on the right, by a high, neatly manicured hedge. The men's long cloaks flapped around their ankles as they marched. Thought I might be late," said Yaxley, his blunt features sliding in and out of sight as the branches of overhanging trees broke the moonlight. It was a little trickier than I expected. But I hope he will be satisfied. You sound confident that your reception will be good. Snape nodded, but did not elaborate. They turned right into a wide driveway that led off the lane. The high hedge curved with them, running off into the distance beyond the pair of impressive wrought iron gates barring the men's way. Neither of them broke step. In silence, both raised their left arms in a kind of salute. And passed straight through, as though the dark metal were smoke. The yew hedges muffled the sound of the men's footsteps. There was a rustle somewhere to their right. Yaxley drew his wand again, pointing it over his companion's head, but the source of the noise proved to be nothing more than a pure white peacock strutting majestically along the top of the hedge. He always did himself well, Lucius. Peacocks. Yaxley thrust his wand back under his cloak with a snort. A handsome manor house grew out of the darkness at the end of the straight drive, lights glinting in the diamond-paned downstairs windows. Somewhere in the dark garden beyond the hedge, a fountain was playing. Gravel crackled beneath their feet as Snape and Yaxley sped toward the front door, which swung inward at their approach, though nobody had visibly opened it. The hallway was large, dimly lit, and sumptuously decorated, with a magnificent carpet covering most of the stone floor. The eyes of the pale-faced portraits on the walls followed Snape and Yaxley as they strode past. The two men halted at a heavy wooden door leading into the next room, hesitated for the space of a heartbeat, then Snape turned the bronze handle. The drawing room was full of silent people sitting at a long and ornate table. The room's usual furniture had been pushed carelessly up against the walls. Illumination came from a roaring fire beneath a handsome marble mantelpiece surmounted by a gilded mirror. Snape and Yaxley lingered for a moment on the threshold. As their eyes grew accustomed to the lack of light, they were drawn upward to the strangest feature of the scene. An apparently unconscious human figure hanging upside down over the table, revolving slowly as if suspended by an invisible rope, and reflected in the mirror and in the bare, polished surface of the table below. 
None of the people seated underneath this singular sight was looking at it except for a pale young man sitting almost directly below it. He seemed unable to prevent himself from glancing upward every minute or so. Yuxley! Snape! said a high, clear voice from the head of the table. You are very nearly late. The speaker was seated directly in front of the fireplace, so that it was difficult, at first, for the new arrivals to make out more than his silhouette. As they drew nearer, however, his face shone through the gloom, hairless, snake-like, with slits for nostrils and gleaming red eyes whose pupils were vertical. He was so pale that he seemed to emit a pearly glow. Severus, here, said Voldemort, indicating the seat on his immediate right. Yaxley, beside Dolohov. The two men took their allotted places. Most of the eyes around the table followed Snape, and it was to him that Voldemort spoke first. So, my lord, the Order of the Phoenix intends to move Harry Potter from his current place of safety on Saturday next, at nightfall. The interest around the table sharpened palpably. Some stiffened, others fidgeted, all gazing at Snape and Voldemort. Saturday, at nightfall, repeated Voldemort. His red eyes fastened upon Snape's black ones with such intensity that some of the watchers looked away, apparently fearful that they themselves would be scorched by the ferocity of the gaze. Snape, however, looked calmly back into Voldemort's face, and after a moment or two, Voldemort's lipless mouth curved into something like a smile. Good. Very good. And this information comes from the source we discussed, said Snape. My lord? Yaxley had leaned forward to look down the long table at Voldemort and Snape. All faces turned to him. My lord, I have heard differently. Yaxley waited, but Voldemort did not speak, so he went on. Dawlish, the Auror, let slip that Potter will not be moved until the thirtieth, the night before the boy turns seventeen. Snape was smiling. My source told me that there are plans to lay a false trail. This must be it. No doubt a confundus charm has been placed upon Dawlish. It would not be the first time. He is known to be susceptible. I assure you, my lord, Dawlish seemed quite certain, said Yaxley. If he has been confounded, naturally he is certain, said Snape. I assure you, Yaxley, the Auror Office will play no further part in the protection of Harry Potter. The Order believes that we have infiltrated the Ministry. The Order's got one thing right, then, eh? said a squat man sitting a short distance from Yaxley. He gave a wheezy giggle that was echoed here and there along the table. Voldemort did not laugh. His gaze had wandered upward to the body revolving slowly overhead, and he seemed to be lost in thought. My lord, Yaxley went on, 
Dawlish believes an entire party of auras will be used to transfer the boy. Voldemort held up a large white hand, and Yaxley subsided at once, watching resentfully as Voldemort turned back to Snape. Where are they going to hide the boy next? At the home of one of the Order, said Snape. The place, according to the source, has been given every protection that the Order and Ministry together could provide. I think that there is little chance of taking him once he is there, my lord, unless, of course, the Ministry has fallen before next Saturday, which might give us the opportunity to discover and undo enough of the enchantments to break through the rest. Well, Yaxley, Voldemort called down the table, the firelight glinting strangely in his red eyes. Will the Ministry have fallen by next Saturday? Once again, all heads turned. Yaxley squared his shoulders. My lord, I have good news on that score. I have... With difficulty and after great effort, succeeded in placing an imperious curse upon pious thickness. Many of those sitting around Yaxley looked impressed. His neighbor, Dolohov, a man with a long, twisted face, clapped him on the back. It is a start, said Voldemort. But thickness is only one man. Scrimger must be surrounded by our people before I act. One failed attempt on the minister's life will set me back a long way. Yes, my lord, that is true. But, you know, as head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, Thickness has regular contact not only with the minister himself, but also with the heads of all the other ministry departments. It will, I think, be easy now that we have such a high-ranking official under our control to subjugate the others, and then they can all work together to bring Scrimger down. As long as our friend Thickness is not discovered before he has converted the rest, said Voldemort. At any rate, it remains unlikely that the Ministry will be mine before next Saturday. If we cannot touch the boy at his destination, then it must be done while he travels. We are at an advantage there, my lord, said Yaxley, who seemed determined to receive some portion of approval. We now have several people planted within the Department of Magical Transport. If Potter apparates or uses the flu network, we shall know immediately. He will not do either, said Snape. The Order is eschewing any form of transport that is controlled or regulated by the Ministry. They mistrust everything to do with the place. All the better, said Voldemort. He will have to move in the open. Easier to take by far. Again, Voldemort looked up at the slowly revolving body as he went on. I shall attend to the boy in person. There have been too many mistakes where Harry Potter is concerned. Some of them have been my own. That Potter lives is due more to my errors than to his triumphs. The company around the table watched Voldemort apprehensively, each of them, by his or her expression, 
afraid that they might be blamed for Harry Potter's continued existence. Voldemort, however, seemed to be speaking more to himself than to any of them, still addressing the unconscious body above him. I have been careless, and so have been thwarted by luck and chance, those wreckers of all but the best laid plans. But I know better now. I understand those things that I did not understand before. I must be the one to kill Harry Potter, and I shall be. At these words, seemingly in response to them, a sudden wail sounded, a terrible, drawn-out cry of misery and pain. Many of those at the table looked downward, startled, for the sound had seemed to issue from below their feet. Wormtail, said Voldemort, with no change in his quiet, thoughtful tone and without removing his eyes from the revolving body above. Have I not spoken to you about keeping our prisoner quiet? Yes, my lord, gasped the small man halfway down the table, who had been sitting so low in his chair that it had appeared at first glance to be unoccupied. Now he scrambled from his seat and scurried from the room, leaving nothing behind him but a curious gleam of silver. As I was saying continued Voldemort, looking again at the tense faces of his followers. I understand better now. I shall need, for instance, to borrow a wand from one of you before I go to kill Potter. The faces around him displayed nothing but shock. He might have announced that he wanted to borrow one of their arms. No volunteers, said Voldemort. Let's see. Lucius, I see no reason for you to have a wand anymore. Lucius Malfoy looked up. His skin appeared yellowish and waxy in the firelight, and his eyes were sunken and shadowed. When he spoke, his voice was hoarse. My lord? Your wand, Lucius. I require your wand. I... Malfoy glanced sideways at his wife. She was staring straight ahead, quite as pale as he was, her long blonde hair hanging down her back, but beneath the table her slim fingers closed briefly on his wrist. At her touch, Malfoy put his hand into his robes, withdrew a wand, and passed it along to Voldemort, who held it up in front of his red eyes, examining it closely. What is it? Helm, my lord, whispered Malfoy. And the core? Dragon. Dragon heartstring. Good, said Voldemort. He drew out his own wand and compared the lengths. Lucius Malfoy made an involuntary movement. For a fraction of a second, it seemed he expected to receive Voldemort's wand in exchange for his own. The gesture was not missed by Voldemort, whose eyes widened maliciously. Give you my wand, Lucius, my wand. Some of the throng sniggered. I have given you your liberty, Lucius. Is that not enough for you? But I have noticed that you and your family seem less than happy of late. 
What is it about my presence in your home that displeases you, Lucius? Nothing. Nothing, my lord. Such lies, Lucius. The soft voice seemed to hiss on, even after the cruel mouth had stopped moving. One or two of the wizards barely repressed a shudder as the hissing grew louder. Something heavy could be heard sliding across the floor beneath the table. The huge snake emerged to climb slowly up Voldemort's chair. It rose seemingly endlessly and came to rest across Voldemort's shoulders, its neck the thickness of a man's thigh, its eyes with their vertical slits for pupils, unblinking. Voldemort stroked the creature absently with long, thin fingers, still looking at Lucius Malfoy. Why do the Malfoys look so unhappy with their lot? Is my return, my rise to power, not the very thing they profess to desire for so many years? Of course, my lord, said Lucius Malfoy, his hands shook as he wiped sweat from his upper lip. We did desire it. We do! To Malfoy's left, his wife made an odd, stiff nod, her eyes averted from Voldemort and the snake. To his right, his son Draco, who had been gazing up at the inert body overhead, glanced quickly at Voldemort and away again, terrified to make eye contact. My lord! said a dark woman halfway down the table, her voice constricted with emotion. It is an honor to have you here in our family's house. There can be no higher pleasure. She sat beside her sister, as unlike her in looks, with her dark hair and heavily lidded eyes, as she was in bearing and demeanor. Where Narcissa sat rigid and impassive, Bellatrix leaned toward Voldemort, for mere words could not demonstrate her longing for closeness. No higher pleasure repeated Voldemort, his head tilted a little to one side as he considered Bellatrix. That means a great deal, Bellatrix, from you. Her face flooded with color, her eyes welled with tears of delight. My lord knows I speak nothing but the truth. No higher pleasure, even compared with the happy event that I hear has taken place in your family this week. She stared at him, her lips parted, evidently confused. I don't know what you mean, my lord. I'm talking about your niece, Bellatrix, and yours, Lucius and Narcissa. She has just married the werewolf, Remus Lupin. You must be so proud. There was an eruption of jeering laughter from around the table. Many leaned forward to exchange gleeful looks. A few thumped the table with their fists. The great snake, disliking the disturbance, opened its mouth wide and hissed angrily. But the Death Eaters did not hear it, so jubilant were they at Bellatrix and the Malfoys' humiliation. Bellatrix's face, so recently flushed with happiness, had turned an ugly, blotchy red. She is no niece of ours, my lord! She cried over the outpouring of mirth. We, Narcissa and I, have never set eyes on our sister since she married the mudblood. This brat has nothing to do with either of us, nor any beast she marries. 
What say you, Draco? asked Voldemort, and though his voice was quiet, it carried clearly through the catcalls and jeers. Will you babysit the cubs? The hilarity mounted. Draco Malfoy looked in terror at his father, who was staring down into his own lap, then caught his mother's eye. She shook her head almost imperceptibly, then resumed her own deadpan stare at the opposite wall. Enough, said Voldemort, stroking the angry snake. Enough! And the laughter died at once. Many of our oldest family trees become a little diseased over time, he said, as Bellatrix gazed at him, breathless and imploring. You must prune yours, must you not, to keep it healthy. Cut away those parts that threaten the health of the rest. Yes, my lord, whispered Bellatrix, and her eyes swam with tears of gratitude again. At the first chance. You shall have it, said Voldemort, and in your family, so in the world. We shall cut away the canker that infects us until only those of the true blood remain. Voldemort raised Lucius Malfoy's wand, pointed it directly at the slowly revolving figure suspended over the table, and gave it a tiny flick. The figure came to life with a groan and began to struggle against invisible bonds. Do you recognize our guest, Severus? asked Voldemort. Snape raised his eyes to the upside-down face. All of the Death Eaters were looking up at the captive now, as though they had been given permission to show curiosity. As she revolved to face the firelight, the woman said in a cracked and terrified voice, Severus, help me! Ah, yes, said Snape, as the prisoner turned slowly away again. And you, Draco? asked Voldemort, stroking the snake's snout with his wand-free hand. Draco shook his head jerkily. Now that the woman had woken, he seemed unable to look at her any more. But you would not have taken her classes, said Voldemort. For those of you who do not know, we are joined here tonight by Charity Burbage, who, until recently, taught at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. There were small noises of comprehension around the table. A broad, hunched woman with pointed teeth cackled. Yes, Professor Burbage taught the children of witches and wizards all about muggles, how they are not so different from us. One of the Death Eaters spat on the floor. Charity Burbage revolved to face Snape again. Severus, please. "'Silence!' said Voldemort, with another twitch of Malfoy's wand, and Charity fell silent as if gagged. "'Not content with corrupting and polluting the minds of wizarding children, last week Professor Burbage wrote an impassioned defense of mudbloods in the Daily Prophet.' Wizards, she says, must accept these thieves of their knowledge and magic. The dwindling of the purebloods is, says Professor Burbage, a most desirable circumstance. 
She would have us all mate with muggles, or, no doubt, werewolves. Nobody laughed this time. There was no mistaking the anger and contempt in Voldemort's voice. For the third time, Charity Burbage revolved to face Snape. Tears were pouring from her eyes into her hair. Snape looked back at her, quite impassive, as she turned slowly away from him again. Avada Kedavra! The flash of green light illuminated every corner of the room. Charity fell with a resounding crash onto the table below, which trembled and creaked. Several of the Death Eaters leapt back in their chairs. Draco fell out of his onto the floor. Dinner, Nagini, said Voldemort softly, and the great snake swayed and slithered from his shoulders onto the polished wood. Chapter Two In Memoriam Harry was bleeding. Clutching his right hand in his left and swearing under his breath, he shouldered open his bedroom door. There was a crunch of breaking china. He had trodden on a cup of cold tea that had been sitting on the floor outside his bedroom door. What the— He looked around. The landing of Number 4 Privet Drive was deserted. Possibly the cup of tea was Dudley's idea of a clever booby trap. Keeping his bleeding hand elevated, Harry scraped the fragments of cup together with the other hand and threw them into the already crammed bin just visible inside his bedroom door. Then he tramped across to the bathroom to run his finger under the tap. It was stupid, pointless, irritating beyond belief that he still had four days left of being unable to perform magic but he had to admit to himself that this jagged cut in his finger would have defeated him. He had never learned how to repair wounds, and now he came to think of it, particularly in light of his immediate plans, this seemed a serious flaw in his magical education. Making a mental note to ask Hermione how it was done, he used a large wad of toilet paper to mop up as much of the tea as he could before returning to his bedroom and slamming the door behind him. Harry had spent the morning completely emptying his school trunk for the first time since he had packed it six years ago. At the start of the intervening school years, he had merely skimmed off the topmost three-quarters of the contents and replaced or updated them, leaving a layer of general debris at the bottom. Old quills, desiccated beetle eyes, single socks that no longer fit. Minutes previously, Harry had plunged his hand into this mulch, experienced a stabbing pain in the fourth finger of his right hand and withdrawn it to see a lot of blood. He now proceeded a little more cautiously. Kneeling down beside the trunk again, he groped around in the bottom and, after retrieving an old badge that flickered feebly between Support Cedric Diggory and Potter Stinks, a cracked and worn-out sneaker-scope and a gold locket inside which a note signed R.A.B. had been hidden, he finally discovered the sharp edge that had done the damage. He recognized it at once. It was a two-inch-long fragment of the enchanted mirror that his dead godfather Sirius had given him. Harry laid it aside and felt cautiously around the trunk for the rest, but nothing more remained of his godfather's last gift except powdered glass, which clung to the deepest layer of debris like glittering grit. 
Harry sat up and examined the jagged piece on which he had cut himself, seeing nothing but his own bright green eye reflected back at him. Then he placed the fragment on top of that morning's daily profit, which lay unread on the bed, and attempted to stem the sudden upsurge of bitter memories, the stabs of regret and of longing the discovery of the broken mirror had occasioned by attacking the rest of the rubbish in the trunk. It took another hour to empty it completely, throw away the useless items, and sort the remainder in piles according to whether or not he would need them from now on. His school and Quidditch robes, cauldron, parchment, quills, and most of his textbooks were piled in a corner to be left behind. He wondered what his aunt and uncle would do with them. Burn them in the dead of night, probably, as if they were the evidence of some dreadful crime. His muggle clothing, invisibility cloak, potion-making kit, certain books, the photograph album Hagrid had once given him, a stack of letters, and his wand— had been repacked into an old rucksack. In a front pocket were the marauder's map and the locket with the note signed R.A.B. inside it. The locket was accorded this place of honor not because it was valuable. In all usual senses it was worthless, but because of what it had cost to attain it. This left a sizable stack of newspapers sitting on his desk beside his snowy owl Hedwig one for each of the days Harry had spent at Privet Drive this summer. He got up off the floor, stretched, and moved across to his desk. Hedwig made no movement as he began to flick through the newspapers, throwing them onto the rubbish pile one by one. The owl was asleep, or else faking. She was angry with Harry about the limited amount of time she was allowed out of her cage at the moment. As he neared the bottom of the pile of newspapers, Harry slowed down, searching for one particular issue that he knew had arrived shortly after he had returned to Privet Drive for the summer. He remembered that there had been a small mention on the front about the resignation of Charity Burbage, the Muggles' studies teacher at Hogwarts. At last he found it. Turning to page ten, he sank into his desk chair and reread the article he had been looking for. Albus Dumbledore remembered by Elpheus Doge. I met Albus Dumbledore at the age of eleven, on our first day at Hogwarts. Our mutual attraction was undoubtedly due to the fact that we both felt ourselves to be outsiders. I had contracted dragon pox shortly before arriving at school, and while I was no longer contagious, my pockmarked visage and greenish hue did not encourage many to approach me. For his part, Albus had arrived at Hogwarts under the burden of unwanted notoriety. Scarcely a year previously, his father, Percival, had been convicted of a savage and well-publicized attack upon three young muggles. Albus never attempted to deny that his father, who was to die in Azkaban, had committed this crime. On the contrary, when I plucked up courage to ask him, he assured me that he knew his father to be guilty. Beyond that, Dumbledore refused to speak of the sad business, though many attempted to make him do so. Some, indeed, were disposed to praise his father's action, and assumed that Albus, too, was a muggle-hater. They could not have been more mistaken. As anybody who knew Albus would attest, he never revealed the remotest anti-muggle tendency. Indeed, his determined support for muggle rights gained him many enemies in subsequent years. In a matter of months, however, Albus's own fame had begun to eclipse that of his father. 
By the end of his first year, he would never again be known as the son of a muggle-hater, but as nothing more or less than the most brilliant student ever seen at the school. Those of us who were privileged to be his friends benefited from his example, not to mention his help and encouragement, with which he was always generous. He confessed to me in later life that he knew even then that his greatest pleasure lay in teaching. He not only won every prize of note that the school offered, he was soon in regular correspondence with the most notable magical names of the day, including Nicholas Flamel, the celebrated alchemist, Matilda Bagshot, the noted historian, and Adalbert Waffling, the magical theoretician. Several of his papers found their way into learned publications, such as Transfiguration Today, Challenges in Charming, and The Practical Potioneer. Dumbledore's future career seemed likely to be meteoric, and the only question that remained was when he would become Minister of Magic. Though it was often predicted in later years that he was on the point of taking the job, however, he never had ministerial ambitions. Three years after we had started at Hogwarts, Albus's brother, Aberforth, arrived at school. They were not alike. Aberforth was never bookish and, unlike Albus, preferred to settle arguments by dueling rather than through reasoned discussion. However, it is quite wrong to suggest, as some have, that the brothers were not friends. They rubbed along as comfortably as two such different boys could do. In fairness to Aberforth, it must be admitted that living in Albus's shadow cannot have been an altogether comfortable experience. Being continually outshone was an occupational hazard of being his friend, and cannot have been any more pleasurable as a brother. When Albus and I left Hogwarts, we intended to take the then-traditional tour of the world together, visiting and observing foreign wizards before pursuing our separate careers. However, tragedy intervened. On the very eve of our trip, Albus's mother, Kendra, died leaving Albus the head and sole breadwinner of the family. I postponed my departure long enough to pay my respects at Kendra's funeral, then left for what was now to be a solitary journey. With a younger brother and sister to care for, and little gold left to them, there could no longer be any question of Albus accompanying me. That was the period of our lives when we had least contact. I wrote to Albus, describing, perhaps insensitively, the wonders of my journey, from narrow escapes from chimeras in Greece to the experiments of the Egyptian alchemists. His letters told me little of his day-to-day -day life, which I guessed to be frustratingly dull for such a brilliant wizard. Immersed in my own experiences, it was with horror that I heard, toward the end of my year's travels, that yet another tragedy had struck the Dumbledores the death of his sister, Ariana. Though Ariana had been in poor health for a long time, the blow, coming so soon after the loss of their mother, had a profound effect on both of her brothers. All those closest to Albus, and I count myself one of that lucky number, agree that Ariana's death and Albus's feeling of personal responsibility for it, though of course he was guiltless, left their mark upon him forevermore. I returned home to find a young man who had experienced a much older person's suffering. Albus was more reserved than before, and much less light-hearted. To add to his misery, the loss of Ariana had led not to a renewed closeness between Albus and Aberforth, but to an estrangement 
In time, this would lift. In later years, they re-established, if not a close relationship, then certainly a cordial one. However, he rarely spoke of his parents or of Ariana from then on, and his friends learned not to mention them. Other quills will describe the triumphs of the following years. Dumbledore's innumerable contributions to the store of wizarding knowledge, including his discovery of the twelve uses of dragon's blood, will benefit generations to come, as will the wisdom he displayed in the many judgments he made while chief warlock of the Wizengamot. They say, still, that no wizarding duel ever matched that between Dumbledore and Grindelwald in 1945. Those who witnessed it have written of the terror and the awe they felt as they watched these two extraordinary wizards do battle. Dumbledore's triumph and its consequences for the wizarding world are considered a turning point in magical history to match the introduction of the International Statute of Secrecy or the downfall of He Who Must Not Be Named. Albus Dumbledore was never proud or vain. He could find something to value in anyone, however apparently insignificant or wretched, and I believe that his early losses endowed him with great humanity and sympathy. I shall miss his friendship more than I can say, but my loss is as nothing compared to the wizarding worlds. That he was the most inspiring and the best loved of all Hogwarts headmasters cannot be in question. He died as he lived, working always for the greater good, and— to his last hour, as willing to stretch out a hand to a small boy with dragonpox as he was on the day that I met him. Harry finished reading, but continued to gaze at the picture accompanying the obituary. Dumbledore was wearing his familiar, kindly smile, but as he peered over the top of his half-moon spectacles, he gave the impression, even in newsprint, of X-raying Harry, whose sadness mingled with a sense of humiliation. He had thought he knew Dumbledore quite well, but ever since reading this obituary he had been forced to recognize that he had barely known him at all. Never once had he imagined Dumbledore's childhood or youth. It was as though he had sprung into being as Harry had known him, venerable and silver-haired and old. The idea of a teenage Dumbledore was simply odd, like trying to imagine a stupid Hermione or a friendly blast-ended Scroot. He had never thought to ask Dumbledore about his past. No doubt it would have felt strange, impertinent even, but after all, it had been common knowledge that Dumbledore had taken part in that legendary duel with Grindelwald, and Harry had not thought to ask Dumbledore what that had been like, nor about any of his other famous achievements. No, they had always discussed Harry, Harry's past, Harry's future, Harry's plans— and it seemed to Harry now, despite the fact that his future was so dangerous and so uncertain, that he had missed irreplaceable opportunities when he had failed to ask Dumbledore more about himself, even though the only personal question he had ever asked his headmaster was also the only one he suspected that Dumbledore had not answered honestly. What do you see when you look in the mirror? I... I see myself holding a pair of thick, woolen socks. After several minutes' thought, Harry tore the obituary out of the prophet, folded it carefully, and tucked it inside the first volume of Practical Defensive Magic and its Use Against the Dark Arts. Then he threw the rest of the newspaper onto the rubbish pile 
and turned to face the room. It was much tidier. The only things left out of place were today's daily profit, still lying on the bed, and on top of it, the piece of broken mirror. Harry moved across the room, slid the mirror fragment off today's profit, and unfolded the newspaper. He had merely glanced at the headline when he had taken the rolled-up paper from the delivery owl early that morning and thrown it aside, after noting that it said nothing about Voldemort. Harry was sure that the Ministry was leaning on the Prophet to suppress news about Voldemort. It was only now, therefore, that he saw what he had missed. Across the bottom half of the front page, a smaller headline was set over a picture of Dumbledore striding along, looking harried. Dumbledore, the truth at last? Coming next week, the shocking story of the flawed genius considered by many to be the greatest wizard of his generation. Stripping away the popular image of serene, silver-bearded wisdom, Rita Skeeter reveals the disturbed childhood, the lawless youth, the lifelong feuds, and the guilty secrets that Dumbledore carried to his grave. Why was the man tipped to be Minister of Magic, content to remain a mere headmaster? What was the real purpose of the secret organization known as the Order of the Phoenix? How did Dumbledore really meet his end? The answers to these and many more questions are explored in the explosive new biography The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore by Rita Skeeter, exclusively interviewed by Betty Braithwaite, page 13, inside. Harry ripped open the paper and found page 13. The article was topped with a picture showing another familiar face, a woman wearing jeweled glasses with elaborately curled blonde hair, her teeth bared in what was clearly supposed to be a winning smile, wiggling her fingers up at him. Doing his best to ignore this nauseating image, Harry read on. In person, Rita Skeeter is much warmer and softer than her famously ferocious quill portraits might suggest. Greeting me in the hallway of her cosy home, she leads me straight into the kitchen for a cup of tea, a slice of pound cake, and, it goes without saying, a steaming vat of freshest gossip. Well, of course, Dumbledore is a biographer's dream, says Skeeter. Such a long, full life. I'm sure my book will be the first of very, very many. Skeeter was certainly quick off the mark. Her 900-page book was completed a mere four weeks after Dumbledore's mysterious death in June. I asked her how she managed this super-fast feat. Oh, when you've been a journalist as long as I have, working to a deadline is second nature. I knew that the wizarding world was clamoring for the full story, and I wanted to be the first to meet that need. I mentioned the recent widely publicized remarks of Elpheus Doge, special advisor to the Wizengamot, and long-standing friend of Albus Dumbledore's, that Skeeter's book contains less fact than a chocolate frog card. Skeeter throws back her head and laughs. Darling Dodgy. I remember interviewing him a few years back about mer-people rights, bless him. Completely gaga, seemed to think we were sitting at the bottom of Lake Windermere, kept telling me to watch out for trout. And yet, Elpheus Doge's accusations of inaccuracy have been echoed in many places. Does Skeeter really feel that four short weeks have been enough to gain a full picture of Dumbledore's long and extraordinary life? 
Oh, my dear, beam Skeeter, wrapping me affectionately across the knuckles, you know as well as I do how much information can be generated by a fat bag of galleons, a refusal to hear the word no, and a nice sharp quick quotes quill. People were queuing to dish the dirt on Dumbledore anyway. Not everyone thought he was so wonderful, you know. He trod on an awful lot of important toes. But old dodgy Doge can get off his high hippogriff because I've had access to a source most journalists would swap their ones for, one who has never spoken in public before, and who was close to Dumbledore during the most turbulent and disturbing phase of his youth. The advanced publicity for Skeeter's biography has certainly suggested that there will be shocks in store for those who believe Dumbledore to have led a blameless life. What were the biggest surprises she uncovered, I ask? Now, come off it, Betty. I'm not giving away all the highlights before anybody's bought the book, laughed Skeeter. But I can promise that anybody who still thinks Dumbledore was white as his beard is in for a rude awakening. Let's just say that nobody hearing him rage against you-know-who would have dreamed that he dabbled in the dark arts himself in his youth. And for a wizard who spent his later years pleading for tolerance, he wasn't exactly broad-minded when he was younger. Yes, Albus Dumbledore had an extremely murky past, not to mention that very fishy family which he worked so hard to keep hushed up. I ask whether Skeeter is referring to Dumbledore's brother, Aberforth, whose conviction by the Wizengamot for misuse of magic caused a minor scandal fifteen years ago. Oh, Aberforth is just the tip of the dung heap laughed Skeeter. No, no, I'm talking about much worse than a brother with a fondness for fiddling about with goats, worse even than the muggle-maiming father. Dumbledore couldn't keep either of them quiet anyway. They were both charged by the Wizengamot. No, it's the mother and the sister that intrigued me, and a little digging uncovered a positive nest of nastiness. But, as I say, you'll have to wait for chapters nine to twelve for full details. All I can say now is it's no wonder Dumbledore never talked about how his nose got broken. Family skeletons notwithstanding, does Skeeter deny the brilliance that led to Dumbledore's many magical discoveries? He had brains, she concedes, although many now question whether he could really take full credit for all of his supposed achievements. As I reveal in Chapter 16... Ivor Dillonsby claims he had already discovered eight uses of dragon's blood when Dumbledore borrowed his papers. But the importance of some of Dumbledore's achievements cannot, I venture, be denied. What of his famous defeat of Grindelwald? Oh, now I'm glad you mentioned Grindelwald, says Skeeter with a tantalizing smile. I'm afraid those who go dewy-eyed over Dumbledore's spectacular victory must brace themselves for a bombshell or perhaps a dung bomb. Very dirty business indeed. All I'll say is, don't be so sure that there really was the spectacular duel of legend. After they've read my book, people may be forced to conclude that Grindelwald simply conjured a white handkerchief from the end of his wand and came quietly. Skeeter refuses to give any more away on this intriguing subject so we turn instead to the relationship that will undoubtedly fascinate her readers more than any other. Oh, yes, says Skeeter, nodding briskly. I devote an entire chapter to the whole Potter-Dumbledore relationship. It's been called unhealthy, even sinister. 
Again, your readers will have to buy my book for the whole story, but there is no question that Dumbledore took an unnatural interest in Potter from the word go. Whether that was really in the boy's best interests? Well, we'll see. It's certainly an open secret that Potter has had a most troubled adolescence. I ask whether Skeeter is still in touch with Harry Potter, whom she so famously interviewed last year. A breakthrough piece in which Potter spoke exclusively of his conviction that you-know-who had returned. Oh, yes, we've developed a close bond, says Skeeter. Poor Potter has few real friends, and we met at one of the most testing moments of his life, the Triwizard Tournament. I am probably one of the only people alive who can say that they know the real Harry Potter. Which leads us neatly to the many rumours still circulating about Dumbledore's final hours. Does Skeeter believe that Potter was there when Dumbledore died? Well, I don't want to say too much. It's all in the book. But eyewitnesses inside Hogwarts Castle saw Potter running away from the scene moments after Dumbledore fell, jumped, or was pushed. Potter later gave evidence against Severus Snape, a man against whom he has a notorious grudge. Is everything as it seems? That is for the wizarding community to decide, once they've read my book. On that intriguing note, I take my leave. There can be no doubt that Skeeter has quilled an instant bestseller. Dumbledore's legions of admirers, meanwhile, may well be trembling at what is soon to emerge about their hero. Harry reached the bottom of the article, but continued to stare blankly at the page. Revulsion and fury rose in him like vomit. He balled up the newspaper and threw it with all his force at the wall, where it joined the rest of the rubbish heaped around his overflowing bin. He began to stride blindly around the room, opening empty drawers and picking up books, only to replace them on the same piles barely conscious of what he was doing, as random phrases from Rita's article echoed in his head. An entire chapter to the whole Potter-Dumbledore relationship. It's been called unhealthy, even sinister. He dabbled in the dark arts himself in his youth. I've had access to a source most journalists would swap their ones for. Lies! Harry bellowed and through the window he saw the next-door neighbor who had paused to restart his lawnmower look up nervously. Harry sat down hard on the bed. The broken bit of mirror danced away from him. He picked it up and turned it over in his fingers, thinking, thinking of Dumbledore and the lies with which Rita Skeeter was defaming him. A flash of brightest blue. Harry froze, his cut finger slipping on the jagged edge of the mirror again. He had imagined it, he must have done. He glanced over his shoulder, but the wall was a sickly peach color of Aunt Petunia's choosing. There was nothing blue there for the mirror to reflect. He peered into the mirror fragment again, and saw nothing but his own bright green eye looking back at him. He had imagined it. There was no other explanation. Imagined it, because he had been thinking of his dead headmaster. If anything was certain... It was that the bright blue eyes of Albus Dumbledore would never pierce him again. Chapter 3 The Dursleys Departing The sound of the front door slamming echoed up the stairs, and a voice yelled, Oi, you! Sixteen years of being addressed thus left Harry in no doubt whom his uncle was calling, 
Nevertheless, he did not immediately respond. He was still gazing at the mirror fragment in which, for a split second, he had thought he saw Dumbledore's eye. It was not until his uncle bellowed, Boy! that Harry got slowly to his feet and headed for the bedroom door, pausing to add the piece of broken mirror to the rucksack filled with things he would be taking with him. You took your time, roared Vernon Dursley, when Harry appeared at the top of the stairs. Get down here! I want a word! Harry strolled downstairs, his hands deep in his jeans' pockets. When he reached the living room, he found all three Dursleys. They were dressed for travelling. Uncle Vernon in a fawn zip-up jacket, Aunt Petunia in a neat salmon-coloured coat, and Dudley, Harry's large, blonde, muscular cousin, in his leather jacket. Yes? asked Harry. Sit down, said Uncle Vernon. Harry raised his eyebrows. Please, added Uncle Vernon, wincing slightly as though the word was sharp in his throat. Harry sat. He thought he knew what was coming. His uncle began to pace up and down, Aunt Petunia and Dudley following his movements with anxious expressions. Finally, his large purple face crumpled with concentration, Uncle Vernon stopped in front of Harry and spoke. I've changed my mind, he said. What a surprise, said Harry. Don't you take that tone, began Aunt Petunia in a shrill voice, but Vernon Dursley waved her down. It's all a lot of claptrap, said Uncle Vernon, glaring at Harry with piggy little eyes. I've decided I don't believe a word of it. We're staying put. We're not going anywhere. Harry looked up at his uncle and felt a mixture of exasperation and amusement. Vernon Dursley had been changing his mind every twenty-four hours for the past four weeks, packing and unpacking and repacking the car with every change of heart. Harry's favourite moment had been the one when Uncle Vernon, unaware that Dudley had added his dumbbells to his case since the last time it had been unpacked, had attempted to hoist it back into the boot and collapsed with roars of pain and much swearing. "'According to you,' Vernon Dursley said now, resuming his pacing up and down the living room, "'we, Petunia, Dudley and I, are in danger from... from... some of my lot.' Right? said Harry. Well, I don't believe it, repeated Uncle Vernon, coming to a halt in front of Harry again. I was awake half the night thinking it all over, and I believe it's a plot to get the house. The house? repeated Harry. What house? This house, shrieked Uncle Vernon, the vein in his forehead starting to pulse. Our house! House prices are skyrocketing around here. You want us out of the way, and then you're going to do a bit of hocus-pocus, and before we know it, the deeds will be in your name, and... Are you out of your mind? demanded Harry. A plot to get this house? Are you actually as stupid as you look? Don't you dare! squealed Aunt Petunia, but again Vernon waved her down. Slights on his personal appearance were, it seemed, as nothing to the danger he had spotted. Just in case you've forgotten, said Harry, I've already got a house. My godfather left me one, so why should I want this one? All the happy memories? There was silence. Harry thought he had rather impressed his uncle with this argument. You claim, said Uncle Vernon, starting to pace yet again, that this lord thing, Voldemort, 
said Harry impatiently. And we've been through this about a hundred times already. This isn't a claim, it's fact. Dumbledore told you last year, and Kingsley and Mr. Weasley. Vernon Dursley hunched his shoulders angrily, and Harry guessed that his uncle was attempting to ward off recollections of the unannounced visit a few days into Harry's summer holidays of two fully grown wizards. The arrival on the doorstep of Kingsley Shacklebolt and Arthur Weasley had come as a most unpleasant shock to the Dursleys. Harry had to admit, however, that as Mr. Weasley had once demolished half of the living room, his reappearance could not have been expected to delight Uncle Vernon. Kingsley and Mr. Weasley explained it all as well, Harry pressed on remorselessly. Once I'm seventeen, the protective charm that keeps me safe will break, and that exposes you as well as me. The order is sure Voldemort will target you, whether to torture you to try and find out where I am, or because he thinks by holding you hostage I'd come and try to rescue you. Uncle Vernon's and Harry's eyes met. Harry was sure that in that instant they were both wondering the same thing. Then Uncle Vernon walked on, and Harry resumed. You've got to go into hiding, and the Order wants to help. You're being offered serious protection, the best there is. Uncle Vernon said nothing, but continued to pace up and down. Outside, the sun hung low over the privet hedges. The next-door neighbor's lawnmower stalled again. I thought there was a Ministry of Magic, asked Vernon Dursley abruptly. There is, said Harry, surprised. Well, then, why can't they protect us? It seems to me that as innocent victims, guilty of nothing more than harbouring a marked man, we ought to qualify for government protection. Harry laughed. He could not help himself. It was so very typical of his uncle to put his hopes in the establishment, even within this world that he despised and mistrusted. You heard what Mr. Weasley and Kingsley said, Harry replied. We think the ministry has been infiltrated. Uncle Vernon strode to the fireplace and back, breathing so heavily that his great black moustache rippled, his face still purple with concentration. All right, he said, stopping in front of Harry yet again. All right, let's say for the sake of argument we accept this protection. I still don't see why we can't have that Kingsley bloke. Harry managed not to roll his eyes, but with difficulty. This question had also been addressed half a dozen times. As I've told you, he said through gritted teeth, Kingsley is protecting the muggle. I mean, your prime minister. Exactly. He's the best, said Uncle Vernon, pointing at the blank television screen. The Dursleys had spotted Kingsley on the news, walking along discreetly behind the muggle prime minister as he visited a hospital. This, and the fact that Kingsley had mastered the knack of dressing like a muggle, not to mention a certain reassuring something in his slow, deep voice had caused the Dursleys to take to Kingsley in a way that they had certainly not done with any other wizard, although it was true that they had never seen him with his earring in. Well, he's taken, said Harry, but Hestia Jones and Daedalus Diggle are more than up to the job. If we'd ever seen CVs, began Uncle Vernon, but Harry lost patience. Getting to his feet, he advanced on his uncle now pointing at the TV set himself. These accidents aren't accidents. The crashes and explosions and derailments and whatever else has happened since we last watched the news, people are disappearing and dying, and he's behind it. Voldemort. 
I've told you this over and over again. He kills muggles for fun. Even the fogs. They're caused by Dementors, and if you can't remember what they are, ask your son. Dudley's hands jerked upward to cover his mouth. With his parents and Harry's eyes upon him, he slowly lowered them again and asked, There are more of them? More? laughed Harry. More than the two that attacked us, you mean? Of course there are. There are hundreds, maybe thousands by this time, seeing as they feed off fear and despair. All right, all right, blustered Vernon Dursley. You've made your point. I hope so, said Harry, because once I'm seventeen, all of them, Death Eaters, Dementors, maybe even in theory, which means dead bodies enchanted by a dark wizard, We'll be able to find you and we'll certainly attack you. And if you remember the last time you tried to outrun wizards, I think you'll agree you need help. There was a brief silence in which the distant echo of Hagrid smashing down a wooden front door seemed to reverberate through the intervening years. Aunt Petunia was looking at Uncle Vernon. Dudley was staring at Harry. Finally, Uncle Vernon blurted out, But what about my work? What about Dudley's school? I don't suppose those things matter to a bunch of layabout wizards. Don't you understand? shouted Harry. They will torture and kill you like they did my parents. Dad, said Dudley in a loud voice. Dad, I'm going with these order people. Dudley, said Harry, for the first time in your life you're talking sense. He knew that the battle was won. If Dudley was frightened enough to accept the Order's help, his parents would accompany him. There could be no question of being separated from their diddykins. Harry glanced at the carriage clock on the mantelpiece. They'll be here in about five minutes, he said, and when none of the Dursleys replied, he left the room. The prospect of parting, probably forever, from his aunt, uncle, and cousin was one that he was able to contemplate quite cheerfully but there was nevertheless a certain awkwardness in the air. What did you say to one another at the end of sixteen years' solid dislike? Back in his bedroom, Harry fiddled aimlessly with his rucksack, then poked a couple of owl nuts through the bars of Hedwig's cage. They fell with dull thuds to the bottom, where she ignored them. We're leaving soon, really soon, Harry told her, and then you'll be able to fly again. The doorbell rang. Harry hesitated, then headed back out of his room and downstairs. It was too much to expect Hestia and Daedalus to cope with the Dursleys on their own. Harry Potter, squeaked an excited voice the moment Harry had opened the door. A small man in a mauve top hat was sweeping him a deep bow. An honor, as ever. Thanks, Daedalus, said Harry, bestowing a small and embarrassed smile upon the dark-haired Hestia. It's really good of you to do this. They're through here, my aunt and uncle and cousin. Good day to you, Harry Potter's relatives, said Daedalus happily, striding into the living room. The Dursleys did not look at all happy to be addressed thus. Harry half expected another change of mind. Dudley shrank nearer to his mother at the sight of the witch and wizard. I see you are packed and ready. Excellent. The plan, as Harry has told you, is a simple one, said Daedalus, pulling an immense pocket watch out of his waistcoat and examining it. 
We shall be leaving before Harry does, due to the danger of using magic in your house. Harry, being still underage, it could provide the Ministry with an excuse to arrest him. We shall be driving, say, ten miles or so, before disapparating to the safe location we have picked out for you. You know how to drive, I take it? he asked Uncle Vernon politely. No, how to... Of course I ruddy know how to drive, spluttered Uncle Vernon. Very clever of you, sir, very clever. I personally would be utterly bamboozled by all those buttons and knobs, said Daedalus. He was clearly under the impression that he was flattering Vernon Dursley, who was visibly losing confidence in the plan with every word Daedalus spoke. Can't even drive, he muttered under his breath, his moustache rippling indignantly. But fortunately, neither Daedalus nor Hestia seemed to hear him. You, Harry, Daedalus continued, will wait here for your guard. There's been a little change in the arrangements. What do you mean? said Harry at once. I thought Mad-Eye was going to come and take me by side-along apparition. Can't do it, said Hestia tersely. Mad-Eye will explain. The Dursleys, who had listened to all of this with looks of utter incomprehension on their faces, jumped as a loud voice screeched, Hurry up! Harry looked all around the room before realizing that the voice had issued from Daedalus's pocket watch. Quite right. We're operating to a very tight schedule, said Daedalus, nodding at his watch and tucking it back into his waistcoat. We are attempting to time your departure from the house with your family's disapparition, Harry. Thus the charm breaks at the moment you all head for safety. He turned to the Dursleys. Well, are we all packed and ready to go? None of them answered him. Uncle Vernon was still staring, appalled, at the bulge in Daedalus's waistcoat pocket. Perhaps we should wait outside in the hall, Daedalus, murmured Hestia. She clearly felt that it would be tactless for them to remain in the room while Harry and the Dursleys exchanged loving, possibly tearful farewells. There's no need, Harry muttered, but Uncle Vernon made any further explanation unnecessary by saying loudly, well, this is goodbye then, boy. He swung his right arm upward to shake Harry's hand, but at the last moment seemed unable to face it and merely closed his fist and began swinging it backward and forward like a metronome. Ready, Diddy? asked Aunt Petunia, fussily checking the clasp of her handbag so as to avoid looking at Harry altogether. Dudley did not answer, but stood there with his mouth slightly ajar, reminding Harry a little of the giant, Grawp. Come along, then, said Uncle Vernon. He had already reached the living room door when Dudley mumbled, I don't understand. What don't you understand, Popkin? asked Aunt Petunia, looking up at her son. Dudley raised a large, ham-like hand to point at Harry. Why isn't he coming with us? Uncle Vernon and Aunt Petunia froze where they stood staring at Dudley as though he had just expressed a desire to become a ballerina. What? said Uncle Vernon loudly. Why isn't he coming too? asked Dudley. Well, he... he doesn't want to, said Uncle Vernon, turning to glare at Harry and adding, You don't want to, do you? Not in the slightest, said Harry. 
There you are, Uncle Vernon told Dudley. Now, come on, we're off. He marched out of the room. They heard the front door open, but Dudley did not move, and after a few faltering steps, Aunt Petunia stopped too. What now? barked Uncle Vernon, reappearing in the doorway. It seemed that Dudley was struggling with concepts too difficult to put into words. After several moments of apparently painful internal struggle, he said, But where's he going to go? Aunt Petunia and Uncle Vernon looked at each other. It was clear that Dudley was frightening them. Hestia Jones broke the silence. But surely you'd know where your nephew is going? she asked, looking bewildered. Certainly we know, said Vernon Dursley. He's off with some of your lot, isn't he? Right, Dudley, let's get in the car. You heard the man. We're in a hurry. Again, Vernon Dursley marched as far as the front door, but Dudley did not follow. Off with some of our lot? Hestia looked outraged. Harry had met this attitude before. Witches and wizards seemed stunned that his closest living relatives took so little interest in the famous Harry Potter. It's fine, Harry assured her. It doesn't matter, honestly. Doesn't matter, repeated Hestia, her voice rising ominously. Don't these people realize what you've been through? What danger you are in? The unique position you hold in the hearts of the anti-Voldemort movement? Uh, no, they don't said Harry. They think I'm a waste of space, actually, but I'm used to. I don't think you're a waste of space. If Harry had not seen Dudley's lips move, he might not have believed it. As it was, he stared at Dudley for several seconds before accepting that it must have been his cousin who had spoken. For one thing, Dudley had turned red. Harry was embarrassed and astonished himself. Well, uh, thanks, Dudley. Again, Dudley appeared to grapple with thoughts too unwieldy for expression before mumbling, You saved my life. Not really, said Harry. It was your soul the Dementor would have taken. He looked curiously at his cousin. They had had virtually no contact during this summer or last, as Harry had come back to Privet Drive so briefly and kept to his room so much. It now dawned on Harry, however, that the cup of cold tea on which he had trodden that morning might not have been a booby trap at all. Although rather touched, he was nevertheless quite relieved that Dudley appeared to have exhausted his ability to express his feelings. After opening his mouth once or twice more, Dudley subsided into scarlet-faced silence. Aunt Petunia burst into tears. Hestia Jones gave her an approving look that changed to outrage as Aunt Petunia ran forward and embraced Dudley rather than Harry. So, so sweet, Dudders, she sobbed into his massive chest. So, such a lovely boy saying thank you. But he hasn't said thank you at all, said Hestia indignantly. He only said he didn't think Harry was a waste of space. Yeah, but coming from Dudley, that's like, I love you, said Harry, torn between annoyance and a desire to laugh as Aunt Petunia continued to clutch at Dudley as if he had just saved Harry from a burning building. Are we going or not? roared Uncle Vernon, reappearing yet again at the living room door. I thought we were on a tight schedule. Yes, yes, we are, 
said Dedalus Diggle, who had been watching these exchanges with an air of bemusement, and now seemed to pull himself together. We really must be off. Harry... He tripped forward and wrung Harry's hand with both of his own. Good luck. I hope we meet again. The hopes of the wizarding world rest upon your shoulders. Oh, said Harry. Right. Thanks. Farewell, Harry, said Hestia, also clasping his hand. Our thoughts go with you. I hope everything's okay, said Harry with a glance toward Aunt Petunia and Dudley. Oh, I'm sure we shall end up the best of chums, said Diggle brightly, waving his hat as he left the room. Hestia followed him. Dudley gently released himself from his mother's clutches and walked toward Harry, who had to repress an urge to threaten him with magic. Then Dudley held out his large pink hand. Blimey, Dudley, said Harry over Aunt Petunia's renewed sobs. Did the Dementors blow a different personality into you? Dunno, muttered Dudley. See ya, Harry. Yeah, said Harry, taking Dudley's hand and shaking it. Maybe. Take care, Big D. Dudley nearly smiled, then lumbered from the room. Harry heard his heavy footfalls on the graveled drive, and then a car door slammed. Aunt Petunia, whose face had been buried in her handkerchief, looked around at the sound. She did not seem to have expected to find herself alone with Harry. Hastily stowing her wet handkerchief into her pocket, she said, Well, goodbye, and marched toward the door without looking at him. Goodbye, said Harry. She stopped and looked back. For a moment, Harry had the strangest feeling that she wanted to say something to him. She gave him an odd, tremulous look and seemed to teeter on the edge of speech, but then, with a little jerk of her head, she bustled out of the room after her husband and son. Chapter 4 The Seven Potters Harry ran back upstairs to his bedroom, arriving at the window just in time to see the Dursleys' car swinging out of the drive and off up the road. Dedalus's top hat was visible between Aunt Petunia and Dudley in the back seat. The car turned right at the end of Privet Drive. Its windows burned scarlet for a moment in the now-setting sun, and then it was gone. Harry picked up Hedwig's cage, his firebolt, and his rucksack, gave his unnaturally tidy bedroom one last sweeping look, and then made his ungainly way back downstairs to the hall, where he deposited cage, broomstick, and bag near the foot of the stairs. The light was fading rapidly now, the hall full of shadows in the evening light. It felt most strange to stand here in the silence and know that he was about to leave the house for the last time. Long ago, when he had been left alone while the Dursleys went out to enjoy themselves, the hours of solitude had been a rare treat. Pausing only to sneak something tasty from the fridge, he had rushed upstairs to play on Dudley's computer or put on the television and flick through the channels to his heart's content. It gave him an odd, empty feeling to remember those times. It was like remembering a younger brother whom he had lost. Don't you want to take a last look at the place? he asked Hedwig, who was still sulking with her head under her wing. We'll never be here again. Don't you want to remember all the good times? I mean, look at this doormat. 
What memories? Dudley puked on it after I saved him from the Dementors. Turns out he was grateful after all. Can you believe it? And last summer, Dumbledore walked through that front door. Harry lost the thread of his thoughts for a moment, and Hedwig did nothing to help him retrieve it, but continued to sit with her head under her wing. Harry turned his back on the front door. And under here, Hedwig, Harry pulled open a door under the stairs, is where I used to sleep. You never knew me then. Blimey, it's small. I'd forgotten. Harry looked around at the stacked shoes and umbrellas, remembering how he used to wake every morning, looking up at the underside of the staircase, which was more often than not adorned with a spider or two. Those had been the days before he had known anything about his true identity, before he had found out how his parents had died or why such strange things often happened around him. But Harry could still remember the dreams that had dogged him, even in those days. Confused dreams, involving flashes of green light, and once, Uncle Vernon had nearly crashed the car when Harry had recounted it, a flying motorbike. There was a sudden deafening roar from somewhere nearby. Harry straightened up with a jerk and smacked the top of his head on the low doorframe. Pausing only to employ a few of Uncle Vernon's choicest swear words, he staggered back into the kitchen, clutching his head and staring out of the window into the back garden. The darkness seemed to be rippling, the air itself quivering. Then, one by one, figures began to pop into sight as their disillusionment charms lifted. Dominating the scene was Hagrid, wearing a helmet and goggles and sitting astride an enormous motorbike with a black sidecar attached. All around him, other people were dismounting from brooms and, in two cases, skeletal black-winged horses. Wrenching open the back door, Harry hurtled into their midst. There was a general cry of greeting as Hermione flung her arms around him. Ron clapped him on the back, and Hagrid said, All right, Harry, ready for the off? Definitely, said Harry, beaming around at them all. But I wasn't expecting this many of you. Change of plan growled Mad-Eye, who was holding two enormous bulging sacks, and whose magical eye was spinning from darkening sky to house to garden with dizzying rapidity. Let's get under cover before we talk you through it. Harry led them all back into the kitchen, where, laughing and chattering, they settled on chairs, sat themselves upon Aunt Petunia's gleaming work surfaces, or leaned up against her spotless appliances. Ron, long and lanky, Hermione, her bushy hair tied back in a long plait, Fred and George grinning identically, Bill, badly scarred and long-haired, Mr. Weasley, kind-faced, balding, his spectacles a little awry, Mad-Eye, battle-worn, one-legged, his bright blue magical eye whizzing in its socket, Tonks, whose short hair was her favorite shade of bright pink, Lupin, grayer, more lined, Fleur, slender and beautiful, with her long silvery blonde hair. Kingsley, bald, black, broad-shouldered. Hagrid, with his wild hair and beard, standing hunchbacked to avoid hitting his head on the ceiling. And Mundungus Fletcher, small, dirty, and hangdog, with his droopy basset hound's eyes and matted hair. Harry's heart seemed to expand and glow at the sight. He felt incredibly fond of all of them, even Mundungus, whom he had tried to strangle the last time they had met. 
Kingsley, I thought you were looking after the Muggle Prime Minister, he called across the room. He can get along without me for one night, said Kingsley. You're more important. Harry, guess what? said Tonks from her perch on top of the washing machine, and she wiggled her left hand at him. A ring glittered there. You got married, Harry yelped, looking from her to Lupin. I'm sorry you couldn't be there, Harry. It was very quiet. That's brilliant. Congrat- All right, all right, we'll have time for a cosy catch-up later, roared Moody over the hubbub, and silence fell in the kitchen. Moody dropped his sacks at his feet and turned to Harry. As Daedalus probably told you, we had to abandon Plan A. Pious thickness has gone over, which gives us a big problem. He's made it an imprisonable offence to connect this house to the flu network, place a port key here, or apparate in or out, all done in the name of your protection, to prevent you-know-who getting in at you. Absolutely pointless, seeing as your mother's charm does that already. What he's really done is to stop you getting out of here safely. Second problem, you're underage, which means you've still got the trace on you. I don't... The trace! The trace! said Mad-Eye impatiently. The charm that detects magical activity around under-seventeens, the way the Ministry finds out about underage magic. If you or anyone around you casts a spell to get you out of here, Thickness is going to know about it, and so will the Death Eaters. We can't wait for the trace to break, because the moment you turn seventeen, you'll lose all the protection your mother gave you. In short, pious thickness thinks he's got you cornered good and proper. Harry could not help but agree with the unknown thickness. So, what are we going to do? We're going to use the only means of transport left to us. The only ones the trace can't detect, because we don't need to cast spells to use them. Brooms, Thestrals, and Hagrid's motorbike. Harry could see flaws in this plan, however... He held his tongue to give Mad-Eye the chance to address them. Now, your mother's charm will only break under two conditions. When you come of age, or... Moody gestured around the pristine kitchen. You no longer call this place home. You and your aunt and uncle are going your separate ways tonight, in the full understanding that you're never going to live together again, correct? Harry nodded. So, this time, when you leave... There'll be no going back, and the charm will break the moment you get outside its range. We're choosing to break it early, because the alternative is waiting for you-know-who to come and seize you the moment you turn seventeen. The one thing we've got on our side is that you-know-who doesn't know we're moving you tonight. We've leaked a fake trail to the Ministry. They think you're not leaving until the 30th. However, this is you-know-who we're dealing with, so we can't just rely on him getting the date wrong. He's bound to have a couple of Death Eaters patrolling the skies in this general area, just in case. So, we've given a dozen different houses every protection we can throw at them. They all look like they could be the place we're going to hide you. They've all got some connection with the Order. My house, Kingsley's place, Molly's Auntie Muriel's, you get the idea. Yeah, said Harry, not entirely truthfully, because he could still spot a gaping hole in the plan. 
You'll be going to Tonks, parents. Once you're within the boundaries of the protective enchantments we've put on their house, you'll be able to use a port key to the burrow. Any questions? Uh, yes, said Harry. Maybe they won't know which of the twelve secure houses I'm heading for at first, but won't it be sort of obvious once... He performed a quick headcount. Fourteen of us fly off toward Tonks' parents? Ah, said Moody. I forgot to mention the key point. Fourteen of us won't be flying to Tonks' parents. There will be seven Harry Potters moving through the skies tonight, each of them with a companion, each pair heading for a different safe house. From inside his cloak, Moody now withdrew a flask of what looked like mud. There was no need for him to say another word. Harry understood the rest of the plan immediately. No, he said loudly, his voice ringing through the kitchen. No way. I told them you'd take it like this, said Hermione with a hint of complacency. If you think I'm going to let six people risk their lives, because it's the first time for all of us, said Ron, this is different, pretending to be me. Well, none of us really fancy it, Harry, said Fred earnestly. Imagine if something went wrong and we were stuck as specky scrawny gits forever. Harry did not smile. You can't do it if I don't cooperate. You need me to give you some hair. Well, that's that plan scuppered, said George. Obviously, there's no chance at all of us getting a bit of your hair unless you cooperate. Yeah, thirteen of us against one bloke who's not allowed to use magic. We've got no chance, said Fred. Funny, said Harry. Really amusing. If it has to come to force, then it will, growled Moody, his magical eye now quivering a little in its socket as he glared at Harry. Everyone here's overage, Potter, and they're all prepared to take the risk. Mundungus shrugged and grimaced. The magical eye swerved sideways to glare at him out of the side of Moody's head. Let's have no more arguments. Time's wearing on. I want a few of your hairs, boy, now. But this is mad. There's no need... No need, snarled Moody, with you-know-who out there and half the ministry on his side. Potter, if we're lucky, he'll have swallowed the fake bait and he'll be planning to ambush you on the 30th. But he'd be mad not to have a Death Eater or two keeping an eye out. It's what I'd do. They might not be able to get at you or this house while your mother's charm holds, but it's about to break and they know the rough position of the place. Our only chance is to use decoys. Even you-know-who can't split himself into seven. Harry caught Hermione's eye and looked away at once. So, Potter, some of your hair, if you please. Harry glanced at Ron, who grimaced at him in a just-do-it sort of way. Now! barked Moody. With all of their eyes upon him, Harry reached up to the top of his head, grabbed a hank of hair, and pulled. Good, said Moody, limping forward as he pulled the stopper out of the flask of potion. Straight in here, if you please. Harry dropped the hair into the mud-like liquid. The moment it made contact with its surface, the potion began to froth and smoke. Then, all at once, it turned a clear, bright gold. Oh, you look much tastier than crab and goil, Harry said Hermione, before catching sight of Ron's raised eyebrows, blushing slightly and saying, Oh, you know what I mean. Goyle's potion looked like bogies. Right then, 
Fake potters line up over here, please, said Moody. Ron, Hermione, Fred, George, and Fleur lined up in front of Aunt Petunia's gleaming sink. We're one short, said Lupin. Here, said Hagrid gruffly, and he lifted Mundungus by the scruff of the neck and dropped him down beside Fleur, who wrinkled her nose pointedly and moved along to stand between Fred and George instead. I've told you I'd sooner be a protector, said Mundungus. Shut it, growled Moody. As I've already told you, you spineless worm, any Death Eaters we run into will be aiming to capture Potter, not kill him. Dumbledore always said you know who would want to finish Potter in person. It'll be the protectors who have got the most to worry about. The Death Eaters will want to kill them. Mundungus did not look particularly reassured, but Moody was already pulling half a dozen egg-cup-sized glasses from inside his cloak, which he handed out before pouring a little polyjuice potion into each one. All together, then. Ron, Hermione, Fred, George, Fleur, and Mundungus drank. All of them gasped and grimaced as the potion hit their throats. At once, their features began to bubble and distort like hot wax. Hermione and Mundungus were shooting upward. Ron, Fred, and George were shrinking. Their hair was darkening. Hermione's and Fleur's appearing to shoot backward into their skulls. Moody, quite unconcerned, was now loosening the ties of the large sacks he had brought with him. When he straightened up again, there were six Harry Potters gasping and panting in front of him. Fred and George turned to each other and said together, Wow! We're identical! I don't know, though. I think I'm still better looking, said Fred, examining his reflection in the kettle. Bah! said Fleur, checking herself in the microwave door. Bill, don't look at me. I'm hideous. Those whose clothes are a bit roomy have got smaller here, said Moody, indicating the first sack. And vice versa. Don't forget the glasses. There's six pairs in the side pocket, and when you're dressed... There's luggage in the other sack. The real Harry thought that this might just be the most bizarre thing he had ever seen, and he had seen some extremely odd things. He watched as his six doppelgangers rummaged in the sacks, pulling out sets of clothes, putting on glasses, stuffing their own things away. He felt like asking them to show a little more respect for his privacy as they all began stripping off with impunity, clearly much more at ease with displaying his body than they would have been with their own. I knew Ginny was lying about that tattoo, said Ron, looking down at his bare chest. Harry, your eyesight really is awful, said Hermione as she put on glasses. Once dressed, the fake Harrys took rucksacks and owl cages, each containing a stuffed snowy owl, from the second sack. Good, said Moody as, at last, seven dressed, bespectacled, and luggage-laden Harrys faced him. The pairs will be as follows. Mondongus will be travelling with me by broom. Why am I with you? grunted the Harry nearest the back door. Because you're the one that needs watching, growled Moody. And sure enough, his magical eye did not waver from Mondongus as he continued. Arthur and Fred. I'm George, said the twin at whom Moody was pointing. Can't you even tell us apart when we're Harry? Sorry. George. I'm only yanking your wand. I'm Fred, really. Enough messing around, snarled Moody. 
The other one, George, or Fred, or whoever you are, you're with Remus. Miss Delacour? I'm taking Fleur on a Thestral, said Bill. She's not that fond of brooms. Fleur walked over to stand beside him, giving him a soppy, slavish look that Harry hoped with all his heart would never appear on his face again. Miss Granger with Kingsley, again by Thestral. Hermione looked reassured as she answered Kingsley's smile. Harry knew that Hermione too lacked confidence on a broomstick. Which leaves you and me, Ron, said Tonks brightly, knocking over a mug tree as she waved at him. Ron did not look quite as pleased as Hermione. And you're with me, Harry. That all right? said Hagrid, looking a little anxious. We'll be on the bike. Brooms and thestrals can't take me weight, see? Not a lot of room on the seat with me on it, though, so you'll be in the sidecar. That's great, said Harry, not altogether truthfully. We think the Death Eaters will expect you to be on a broom, said Moody, who seemed to guess how Harry was feeling. Snape's had plenty of time to tell them everything about you he's never mentioned before. So if we do run into any Death Eaters, we're betting they'll choose one of the Potters who look at home on a broomstick. All right, then, he went on, tying up the sack with the fake Potter's clothes in it and leading the way back to the door. I make it three minutes until we're supposed to leave. No point locking the back door. It won't keep the Death Eaters out when they come looking. Come on. Harry hurried into the hall to fetch his rucksack, firebolt, and Hedwig's cage before joining the others in the dark back garden. On every side, broomsticks were leaping into hands. Hermione had already been helped up onto a great black thestral by Kingsley, Fleur onto the other by Bill. Hagrid was standing ready beside the motorbike, goggles on. Is this it? Is this Sirius's bike? The very same, said Hagrid, beaming down at Harry. And the last time you was on it, Harry, I could fit you in one hand. Harry could not help but feel a little humiliated as he got into the sidecar. It placed him several feet below everybody else. Ron smirked at the sight of him sitting there like a child in a bumper car. Harry stuffed his rucksack and broomstick down by his feet and rammed Hedwig's cage between his knees. It was extremely uncomfortable. Arthur's done a bit of tinkering said Hagrid, quite oblivious to Harry's discomfort. He settled himself astride the motorcycle, which creaked slightly and sank inches into the ground. It's got a few tricks up its handlebars now. That one was my idea. He pointed a thick finger at a purple button near the speedometer. Please be careful, Hagrid, said Mr. Weasley, who was standing beside them holding his broomstick. I'm still not sure that was advisable, and it's certainly only to be used in emergencies. All right, then, said Moody. Everyone ready, please. I want us all to leave at exactly the same time, or the whole point of the diversion's lost. Everybody mounted their brooms. Out tight now, Ron, said Tonks, and Harry saw Ron throw a furtive, guilty look at Lupin before placing his hands on either side of her waist. Hagrid kicked the motorbike into life. It roared like a dragon, and the sidecar began to vibrate. Good luck, everyone, shouted Moody. See you all in about an hour at the burrow. On the count of three. One, two, three. There was a great roar from the motorbike, and Harry felt the sidecar give a nasty lurch. 
He was rising through the air, fast, his eyes watering slightly, hair whipped back off his face. Around him brooms were soaring upward, too. The long black tail of a thestral flicked past. His legs, jammed into the sidecar by Hedwig's cage and his rucksack, were already sore and starting to go numb. So great was his discomfort that he almost forgot to take a last glimpse of Number 4 Privet Drive. By the time he looked over the edge of the sidecar, he could no longer tell which one it was. Higher and higher they climbed into the sky. And then, out of nowhere, out of nothing, they were surrounded. At least thirty hooded figures, suspended in midair, formed a vast circle in the midst of which the Order members had risen, oblivious. Screams, a blaze of green light on every side. Hagrid gave a yell and the motorbike rolled over. Harry lost any sense of where they were. Streetlights above him, yells around him. He was clinging to the sidecar for dear life. Hedwig's cage, the firebolt, and his rucksack slipped from beneath his knees. No! Hedwig! The broomstick spun to earth, but he just managed to seize the strap of his rucksack and the top of the cage as the motorbike swung the right way up again. A second's relief, and then another burst of green light. The owl screeched and fell to the floor of the cage. No! No! The motorbike zoomed forward. Harry glimpsed hooded Death Eaters scattering as Hagrid blasted through their circle. Hedwig! Hedwig! But the owl lay motionless and pathetic as a toy on the floor of her cage. He could not take it in, and his terror for the others was paramount. He glanced over his shoulder and saw a mass of people moving, flares of green light, two pairs of people on brooms soaring off into the distance, but he could not tell who they were. Hagrid! We've got to go back! We've got to go back! He yelled over the thunderous roar of the engine, pulling out his wand, ramming Hedwig's cage onto the floor, refusing to believe that she was dead. Hagrid! Turn around! My job's to get you there safe, Harry! bellowed Hagrid, and he opened the throttle. Stop! Stop! Harry shouted, but as he looked back again, two jets of green light flew past his left ear. Four Death Eaters had broken away from the circle and were pursuing them, aiming for Hagrid's broad back. Hagrid swerved, but the Death Eaters were keeping up with the bike. More curses shot after them, and Harry had to sink low into the sidecar to avoid them. Wriggling around, he cried, Stupefy! and a red bolt of light shot from his own wand, cleaving a gap between the four pursuing Death Eaters as they scattered to avoid it. Hold on, Harry! This'll do for him! roared Hagrid, and Harry looked up just in time to see Hagrid slamming a thick finger into a green button near the fuel gauge. A wall, a solid brick wall, erupted out of the exhaust pipe. Craning his neck, Harry saw it expand into being in midair. Three of the Death Eaters swerved and avoided it, but the fourth was not so lucky. He vanished from view and then dropped like a boulder from behind it, his broomstick broken into pieces. One of his fellows slowed up to save him, but they and the airborne wall were swallowed by darkness as Hagrid leaned low over the handlebars and sped up. More killing curses flew past Harry's head from the two remaining Death Eaters' ones. They were aiming for Hagrid. 
Harry responded with further stunning spells. Red and green collided in midair in a shower of multicolored sparks, and Harry thought wildly of fireworks and the muggles below who would have no idea what was happening. Here we go again, Harry! Hold on! yelled Hagrid, and he jabbed at a second button. This time a great net burst from the bike's exhaust, but the Death Eaters were ready for it. Not only did they swerve to avoid it, but the companion who had slowed to save their unconscious friend had caught up. He bloomed suddenly out of the darkness, and now three of them were pursuing the motorbike, all shooting curses after it. This'll do it, Harry! Hold on tight! yelled Hagrid, and Harry saw him slam his whole hand onto the purple button beside the speedometer. With an unmistakable bellowing roar, dragonfire burst from the exhaust, white-hot and blue, and the motorbike shot forward like a bullet with a sound of wrenching metal. Harry saw the Death Eaters swerve out of sight to avoid the deadly trail of flame, and at the same time felt the sidecar sway ominously. Its metal connections to the bike had splintered with the force of acceleration. It's all right, Harry! bellowed Hagrid, now thrown flat onto his back by the surge of speed. Nobody was steering now, and the sidecar was starting to twist violently in the bike's slipstream. I'm on it, Harry! Don't worry! Hagrid yelled, and from inside his jacket pocket he pulled his flowery pink umbrella. Hagrid! No! Let me! Riparo! There was a deafening bang, and the sidecar broke away from the bike completely. Harry sped forward, propelled by the impetus of the bike's flight. Then the sidecar began to lose height. In desperation, Harry pointed his wand at the sidecar and shouted, Wingardium Leviosa! The sidecar rose like a cork, unsteerable, but at least still airborne. He had but a split second's relief, however, as more curses streaked past him. The three Death Eaters were closing in. I'm coming, Harry! Hagrid yelled out of the darkness, but Harry could feel the sidecar beginning to sink again. Crouching as low as he could, he pointed at the middle of the oncoming figures and yelled, Impedimenta! The jinx hit the middle Death Eater in the chest. For a moment, the man was absurdly spread-eagled in midair, as though he had hit an invisible barrier. One of his fellows almost collided with him. Then the sidecar began to fall in earnest, and the remaining Death Eater shot a curse so close to Harry that he had to duck below the rim of the car, knocking out a tooth on the edge of his seat. I'm coming, Harry! I'm coming! A huge hand seized the back of Harry's robes and hoisted him out of the plummeting sidecar. Harry pulled his rucksack with him as he dragged himself onto the motorbike's seat and found himself back to back with Hagrid. As they soared upward away from the two remaining Death Eaters, Harry spat blood out of his mouth, pointed his wand at the falling sidecar, and yelled, Confringo! He knew a dreadful, gut-wrenching pang for Hedwig as it exploded. The Death Eater nearest it was blasted off his broom and fell from sight. His companion fell back and vanished. Harry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, moaned Hagrid. I shouldn't have tried to repair it myself. You've got no room. It's not a problem. Just keep flying, Harry shouted back as two more Death Eaters emerged out of the darkness, drawing closer. As the curses came shooting across the intervening space again, Hagrid swerved and zigzagged. 
Harry knew that Hagrid did not dare use the dragonfire button again, with Harry seated so insecurely. Harry sent stunning spell after stunning spell back at their pursuers, barely holding them off. He shot another blocking jinx at them. The closest Death Eaters swerved to avoid it, and his hood slipped, and by the red light of his next stunning spell, Harry saw the strangely blank face of Stanley Shunpike. Stan? Expelliarmus! Harry yelled. That's him! It's him! It's the real one! The hooded Death Eater's shout reached Harry even above the thunder of the motorbike's engine. Next moment, both pursuers had fallen back and disappeared from view. Harry! What's happened? bellowed Hagrid. Where have they gone? I don't know. But Harry was afraid. The hooded Death Eater had shouted, It's the real one. How had he known? He gazed around at the apparently empty darkness and felt its menace. Where were they? He clambered around on the seat to face forward and seized hold of the back of Hagrid's jacket. Hagrid, do the dragonfire thing again. Let's get out of here. Hold on tight then, Harry. There was a deafening, screeching roar again, and the white-blue fire shot from the exhaust. Harry felt himself slipping backward off what little of the seat he had. Hagrid flung backward upon him, barely maintaining his grip on the handlebars. I think we've lost him, Harry. I think we've done it, yelled Hagrid. But Harry was not convinced. Fear lapped at him as he looked left and right for pursuers he was sure would come. Why had they fallen back? One of them had still had a wand. It's him. It's the real one. They had said it right after he had tried to disarm Stan. We're nearly there, Harry. We've nearly made it, shouted Hagrid. Harry felt the bike drop a little, though the lights down on the ground still seemed remote as stars. Then the scar on his forehead burned like fire as a Death Eater appeared on either side of the bike. Two killing curses missed Harry by millimeters, cast from behind. And then Harry saw him. Voldemort was flying like smoke on the wind, without broomstick or thestral to hold him, his snake-like face gleaming out of the blackness, his white fingers raising his wand again. Hagrid let out a bellow of fear and steered the motorbike into a vertical dive. Clinging on for dear life, Harry sent stunning spells flying at random into the whirling night. He saw a body fly past him, and he knew he had hit one of them. But then he heard a bang and saw sparks from the engine. The motorbike spiraled through the air, completely out of control. Green jets of light shot past them again. Harry had no idea which way was up, which down. His scar was still burning. He expected to die at any second. A hooded figure on a broomstick was feet from him. He saw it raise its arm. No! With a shout of fury, Hagrid launched himself off the bike at the Death Eater. To his horror, Harry saw both Hagrid and the Death Eater falling out of sight, their combined weight too much for the broomstick. Barely gripping the plummeting bike with his knees, Harry heard Voldemort scream, Mine! It was over. He could not see or hear where Voldemort was. He glimpsed another Death Eater swooping out of the way and heard, Avada! As the pain from Harry's scar forced his eyes shut, his wand acted of its own accord. He felt it drag his hand around like some great magnet, saw a spurt of golden fire through his half-closed eyelids, heard a crack and a scream of fury. The remaining Death Eater yelled. Voldemort screamed, No! Somehow, 
Harry found his nose an inch from the dragonfire button. He punched it with his wand free hand, and the bike shot more flames into the air, hurtling straight toward the ground. Hagrid! Harry called, holding onto the bike for dear life. Hagrid! Atheo! Hagrid! The motorbike sped up, sucked toward the earth. Face level with the handlebars, Harry could see nothing but distant lights growing nearer and nearer. He was going to crash, and there was nothing he could do about it. Behind him came another scream. Your wand, Selwyn! Give me your wand! He felt Voldemort before he saw him. Looking sideways, he stared into the red eyes and was sure they would be the last thing he ever saw. Voldemort preparing to curse him once more. And then Voldemort vanished. Harry looked down and saw Hagrid spread-eagled on the ground below him. He pulled hard at the handlebars to avoid hitting him, groped for the brake, but with an ear-splitting, ground-trembling crash, he smashed into a muddy pond. Chapter 5 Fallen Warrior Hagrid? Harry struggled to raise himself out of the debris of metal and leather that surrounded him. His hands sank into inches of muddy water as he tried to stand. He could not understand where Voldemort had gone and expected him to swoop out of the darkness at any moment. Something hot and wet was trickling down his chin and from his forehead. He crawled out of the pond and stumbled toward the great dark mass on the ground that was Hagrid. Hagrid? Hagrid? Talk to me. But the dark mass did not stir. Who's there? Is it Potter? Are you Harry Potter? Harry did not recognize the man's voice. Then a woman shouted, They've crashed! Ted, crashed in the garden! Harry's head was swimming. Hagrid, he repeated stupidly, and his knees buckled. The next thing he knew, he was lying on his back on what felt like cushions, with a burning sensation in his ribs and right arm. His missing tooth had been regrown. The scar on his forehead was still throbbing. Hagrid? He opened his eyes and saw that he was lying on a sofa in an unfamiliar lamp-lit sitting room. His rucksack lay on the floor a short distance away, wet and muddy. A fair-haired, big-bellied man was watching Harry anxiously. Hagrid's fine, son, said the man. The wife's seeing to him now. How are you feeling? Anything else broken? I've fixed your ribs, your tooth, and your arm. I'm Ted, by the way. Ted Tonks, Dora's father. Harry sat up too quickly. Lights popped in front of his eyes, and he felt sick and giddy. Voldemort, easy now, said Ted Tonks, placing a hand on Harry's shoulder and pushing him back against the cushions. That was a nasty crash you just had. What happened, anyway? Something go wrong with the bike? Arthur Weasley overstretched himself again? Him and his muggle contraptions? No, said Harry, as his scar pulsed like an open wound. Death Eaters. Loads of them. We were chased. Death Eaters? said Ted sharply. What do you mean, Death Eaters? I thought they didn't know you were being moved tonight. I thought... They knew, said Harry. Ted Tonks looked up at the ceiling as though he could see through it to the sky above. Well, we know our protective charms hold then, don't we? They shouldn't be able to get within a hundred yards of the place in any direction. 
Now Harry understood why Voldemort had vanished. It had been at the point when the motorbike crossed the barrier of the Order's charms. He only hoped they would continue to work. He imagined Voldemort a hundred yards above them as they spoke, looking for a way to penetrate what Harry visualized as a great transparent bubble. He swung his legs off the sofa. He needed to see Hagrid with his own eyes before he would believe that he was alive. He had barely stood up, however, when a door opened and Hagrid squeezed through it, his face covered in mud and blood, limping a little, but miraculously alive. Harry! Knocking over two delicate tables and an aspidistra, he covered the floor between them in two strides and pulled Harry into a hug that nearly cracked his newly repaired ribs. Blimey, Harry, how did you get out of that? I thought we were both goners. Yeah, me too. I can't believe... Harry broke off. He had just noticed the woman who had entered the room behind Hagrid. You! he shouted, and he thrust his hand into his pocket, but it was empty. Your wand's here, son, said Ted, tapping it on Harry's arm. It fell right beside you. I picked it up. And that's my wife you're shouting at. Oh, I'm... I'm sorry. As she moved forward into the room, Mrs. Tonks's resemblance to her sister Bellatrix became much less pronounced. Her hair was a light, soft brown, and her eyes were wider and kinder. Nevertheless, she looked a little haughty after Harry's exclamation. What happened to our daughter? she asked. Hagrid said you were ambushed. Where is Nymphadora? I don't know, said Harry. We don't know what happened to anyone else. She and Ted exchanged looks. A mixture of fear and guilt gripped Harry at the sight of their expressions. If any of the others had died, it was his fault, all his fault. He had consented to the plan, given them his hair. The port key, he said, remembering all of a sudden. We've got to get back to the burrow and find out. Then we'll be able to send you word, or, or Tonks will, once she's... Dora will be okay, Dromida, said Ted. She knows her stuff. She's been in plenty of tight spots with the Aurors. The port key's through here, he added to Harry. It's supposed to leave in three minutes, if you want to take it. Yeah, we do, said Harry. He seized his rucksack, swung it onto his shoulders. I... He looked at Mrs. Tonks, wanting to apologize for the state of fear in which he left her, and for which he felt so terribly responsible but no words occurred to him that did not seem hollow and insincere. I'll tell Tonks, Dora, to send word, when she... Thanks for patching us up. Thanks for everything. I... He was glad to leave the room and follow Ted Tonks along a short hallway and into a bedroom. Hagrid came after them, bending low to avoid hitting his head on the door lintel. There you go, son. That's the port key. Mr. Tonks was pointing to a small, silver-backed hairbrush lying on the dressing table. Thanks, said Harry, reaching out to place a finger on it, ready to leave. Wait a moment, said Hagrid, looking around. Harry, where's Hedwig? She... she got hit, said Harry. The realization crashed over him. He felt ashamed of himself as the tears stung his eyes. The owl had been his companion, his one great link with the magical world whenever he had been forced to return to the Dursleys. 
Hagrid reached out a great hand and patted him painfully on the shoulder. Never mind, he said gruffly. Never mind. She had a great old life. Hagrid, said Ted Tonks warningly as the hairbrush glowed bright blue, and Hagrid only just got his forefinger to it in time. With a jerk behind the navel as though an invisible hook and line had dragged him forward, Harry was pulled into nothingness, spinning uncontrollably, his finger glued to the portkey as he and Hagrid hurtled away from Mr. Tonks. Seconds later, Harry's feet slammed onto hard ground, and he fell onto his hands and knees in the yard of the burrow. He heard screams. Throwing aside the no longer glowing hairbrush, Harry stood up, swaying slightly, and saw Mrs. Weasley and Ginny running down the steps by the back door as Hagrid, who had also collapsed on landing, clambered laboriously to his feet. Harry, you are the real Harry? What happened? Where are the others? cried Mrs. Weasley. What do you mean? Isn't anyone else back? Harry panted. The answer was clearly etched in Mrs. Weasley's pale face. The Death Eaters were waiting for us, Harry told her. We were surrounded the moment we took off. They knew it was tonight. I don't know what happened to anyone else. Four of them chased us. It was all we could do to get away. And then Voldemort caught up with us. He could hear the self-justifying note in his voice, the plea for her to understand why he did not know what had happened to her sons. But, thank goodness you're all right, she said, pulling him into a hug he did not feel he deserved. Haven't got any brandy, have you, Molly? asked Hagrid, a little shakily. For medicinal purposes. She could have summoned it by magic, but as she hurried back toward the crooked house, Harry knew that she wanted to hide her face. He turned to Ginny, and she answered his unspoken plea for information at once. Ron and Tonks should have been back first, but they missed their port key it came back without them, she said, pointing at a rusty oil can lying on the ground nearby. And that one, she pointed at an ancient sneaker, should have been Dad and Fred's. They were supposed to be second. You and Hagrid were third, and... She checked her watch. If they made it, George and Lupin ought to be back in about a minute. Mrs. Weasley reappeared, carrying a bottle of brandy, which she handed to Hagrid. He uncorked it and drank it straight down in one. Mom! shouted Ginny, pointing to a spot several feet away. A blue light had appeared in the darkness. It grew larger and brighter, and Lupin and George appeared, spinning and then falling. Harry knew immediately that there was something wrong. Lupin was supporting George, who was unconscious and whose face was covered in blood. Harry ran forward and seized George's legs. Together, he and Lupin carried George into the house and through the kitchen to the sitting room, where they laid him on the sofa. As the lamplight fell across George's head, Ginny gasped and Harry's stomach lurched. One of George's ears was missing. The side of his head and neck were drenched in wet, shockingly scarlet blood. No sooner had Mrs. Weasley bent over her son than Lupin grabbed Harry by the upper arm and dragged him none too gently back into the kitchen, where Hagrid was still attempting to ease his bulk through the back door. Oi! said Hagrid indignantly. Let go of him! Let go of Harry! Lupin ignored him. What creature sat in the corner the first time that Harry Potter visited my office at Hogwarts? he said, giving Harry a small shake. Answer me. Uh, a Grindylow in a tank, wasn't it? Lupin released Harry 
and fell back against a kitchen cupboard. What was that about? roared Hagrid. I'm sorry, Harry, but I had to check, said Lupin tersely. We've been betrayed. Voldemort knew that you were being moved tonight, and the only people who could have told him were directly involved in the plan. You might have been an imposter. So why aren't you checking me? panted Hagrid, still struggling to fit through the door. You're half-giant, said Lupin, looking up at Hagrid. The polyjuice potion is designed for human use only. None of the Order would have told Voldemort we were moving tonight, said Harry. The idea was dreadful to him. He could not believe it of any of them. Voldemort only caught up with me toward the end. He didn't know which one I was in the beginning. If he'd been in on the plan, he'd have known from the start I was the one with Hagrid. Voldemort caught up with you, said Lupin sharply. What happened? How did you escape? Harry explained briefly how the Death Eaters, pursuing them, had seemed to recognize him as the true Harry, how they had abandoned the chase, how they must have summoned Voldemort, who had appeared just before he and Hagrid had reached the sanctuary of Tonks's parents. They recognized you? But how? What had you done? I... Harry tried to remember. The whole journey seemed like a blur of panic and confusion. I saw Stan Shunpike, you know, the bloke who was the conductor on the night bus, and I tried to disarm him instead of... Well, he doesn't know what he's doing, does he? He must be imperious. Lupin looked aghast. Harry, the time for disarming is past. These people are trying to capture and kill you. At least stun if you aren't prepared to kill. We were hundreds of feet up. Stan's not himself, and if I stunned him and he'd fallen... He'd have died the same as if I'd used Avada Kedavra. Expelliarmus saved me from Voldemort two years ago, Harry added defiantly. Lupin was reminding him of the sneering Hufflepuff Zacharias Smith, who had jeered at Harry for wanting to teach Dumbledore's army how to disarm. Yes, Harry, said Lupin with painful restraint, and a great number of Death Eaters witnessed that happening. Forgive me, but it was a very unusual move then, under imminent threat of death. Repeating it tonight in front of Death Eaters, who either witnessed or heard about the first occasion, was close to suicidal. So, you think I should have killed Stan Shunpike? said Harry angrily. Of course not, said Lupin, but the Death Eaters, frankly, most people would have expected you to attack back. Expelliarmus is a useful spell, Harry, but the Death Eaters seem to think it is your signature move, and I urge you not to let it become so. Lupin was making Harry feel idiotic, and yet there was still a grain of defiance inside him. I won't blast people out of my way just because they're there, said Harry. That's Voldemort's job. Lupin's retort was lost. Finally succeeding in squeezing through the door, Hagrid staggered to a chair and sat down. It collapsed beneath him. Ignoring his mingled oaths and apologies, Harry addressed Lupin again. Will George be okay? All Lupin's frustration with Harry seemed to drain away at the question. I think so, although there's no chance of replacing his ear, not when it's been cursed off. There was a scuffling from outside. Lupin dived for the back door. Harry leapt over Hagrid's legs and sprinted into the yard. Two figures had appeared in the yard, and as Harry ran toward them, he realized they were Hermione, now returning to her normal appearance, and Kingsley, 
both clutching a bent coat hanger. Hermione flung herself into Harry's arms, but Kingsley showed no pleasure at the sight of any of them. Over Hermione's shoulder, Harry saw him raise his wand and point it at Lupin's chest. The last words Albus Dumbledore spoke to the pair of us. Harry is the best hope we have. Trust him, said Lupin calmly. Kingsley turned his wand on Harry, but Lupin said, It's him. I've checked. All right. All right, said Kingsley, stowing his wand back beneath his cloak. But somebody betrayed us. They knew. They knew it was tonight. So it seems, replied Lupin. But apparently they did not realize that there would be seven Harrys. Small comfort, snarled Kingsley. Who else is back? Only Harry, Hagrid, George, and me. Hermione stifled a little moan behind her hand. What happened to you? Lupin asked Kingsley. Followed by five injured, two might have killed one, Kingsley reeled off. And we saw you-know-who as well. He joined the chase halfway through, but vanished pretty quickly. Remus, he can fly, supplied Harry. I saw him too. He came after Hagrid and me. So that's why he left, to follow you, said Kingsley. I couldn't understand why he'd vanished, but what made him change targets? Harry behaved a little too kindly to Stan Shunpike, said Lupin. Stan, repeated Hermione, but I thought he was in Azkaban. Kingsley let out a mirthless laugh. Hermione, there's obviously been a mass breakout which the Ministry has hushed up. Travers Hood fell off when I cursed him. He's supposed to be inside, too. But what happened to you, Remus? Where's George? He lost an ear, said Lupin. Lost an... repeated Hermione in a high voice. Snape's work, said Lupin. Snape? shouted Harry. You didn't say... He lost his hood during the chase. Sectumsempra was always a speciality of Snape's. I wish I could say I'd paid him back in kind, but it was all I could do to keep George on the broom after he was injured. He was losing so much blood. Silence fell between the four of them as they looked up at the sky. There was no sign of movement. The stars stared back, unblinking, indifferent, unobscured by flying friends. Where was Ron? Where were Fred and Mr. Weasley? Where were Bill, Fleur, Tonks, Mad-Eye, and Mundungus? Harry, give us a hand, called Hagrid hoarsely from the door, in which he was stuck again. Glad of something to do, Harry pulled him free, then headed through the empty kitchen and back into the sitting room, where Mrs. Weasley and Ginny were still tending to George. Mrs. Weasley had staunched his bleeding now, and by the lamplight Harry saw a clean, gaping hole where George's ear had been. How is he? Mrs. Weasley looked around and said, I can't make it grow back, not when it's been removed by dark magic, but it could have been so much worse. He's alive. Yeah, said Harry. Thank God. Did I hear someone else in the yard? Ginny asked. Hermione and Kingsley, said Harry. Thank goodness, Ginny whispered. They looked at each other. Harry wanted to hug her, hold on to her. He did not even care much that Mrs. Weasley was there. But before he could act on the impulse, there was a great crash from the kitchen. 
I'll prove who I am, Kingsley, after I've seen my son. Now, back off if you know what's good for you. Harry had never heard Mr. Weasley shout like that before. He burst into the living room, his bald patch gleaming with sweat, his spectacles askew. Fred right behind him, both pale but uninjured. Arthur, sobbed Mrs. Weasley. Oh, thank goodness. How is he? Mr. Weasley dropped to his knees beside George. For the first time since Harry had known him, Fred seemed to be lost for words. He gaped over the back of the sofa at his twin's wound as if he could not believe what he was seeing. Perhaps roused by the sound of Fred and their father's arrival, George stirred. How do you feel, Georgie? whispered Mrs. Weasley. George's fingers groped for the side of his head. Saint-like, he murmured. What's wrong with him? croaked Fred, looking terrified. Is his mind affected? Saint-like, repeated George, opening his eyes and looking up at his brother. You see, I'm holy. Holy, Fred. Get it? Mrs. Weasley sobbed harder than ever. Color flooded Fred's pale face. Pathetic, he told George. Pathetic. With a whole wide world of ear-related humor before you, you go for holy. Ah, well, said George, grinning at his tear-soaked mother. You'll be able to tell us apart now anyway, Mum. He looked around. Hi, Harry. You are Harry, right? Yeah, I am, said Harry, moving closer to the sofa. Well, at least we got you back okay, said George. Why aren't Ron and Bill huddled around my sickbed? They're not back yet, George, said Mrs. Weasley. George's grin faded. Harry glanced at Ginny and motioned to her to accompany him back outside. As they walked through the kitchen, she said in a low voice, Ron and Tonks should be back by now. They didn't have a long journey. Auntie Muriel's not that far from here. Harry said nothing. He had been trying to keep fear at bay ever since reaching the burrow, but now it enveloped him, seeming to crawl over his skin, throbbing in his chest, clogging his throat. As they walked down the back steps into the dark yard, Ginny took his hand. Kingsley was striding backward and forward, glancing up at the sky every time he turned. Harry was reminded of Uncle Vernon pacing the living room a million years ago. Hagrid, Hermione, and Lupin stood shoulder to shoulder, gazing upward in silence. None of them looked around when Harry and Ginny joined their silent vigil. The minutes stretched into what might as well have been years. The slightest breath of wind made them all jump and turn toward the whispering bush or tree in the hope that one of the missing order members might leap unscathed from its leaves. And then a broom materialized directly above them and streaked toward the ground. It's them! screamed Hermione. Tonks landed in a long skid that sent earth and pebbles everywhere. Remus! Tonks cried as she staggered off the broom into Lupin's arms. His face was set and white. He seemed unable to speak. Ron tripped dazedly toward Harry and Hermione. You're okay, he mumbled, before Hermione flew at him and hugged him tightly. I thought, I thought. All right, said Ron, patting her on the back. I'm fine. Ron was great, said Tonks warmly, relinquishing her hold on Lupin. Wonderful! Stunned one of the Death Eaters, straight to the head, and when you're aiming at a moving target from a flying broom... You did? 
said Hermione, gazing up at Ron with her arms still around his neck. Always the tone of surprise, he said a little grumpily, breaking free. Are we the last back? No, said Ginny. We're still waiting for Bill and Fleur and Mad-Eye and Mundungus. I'm going to tell Mum and Dad you're okay, Ron. She ran back inside. So what kept you? What happened? Lupin sounded almost angry at Tonks. Bellatrix, said Tonks. She wants me quite as much as she wants Harry, Remus. She tried very hard to kill me. I just wish I'd got her. I owe Bellatrix. But we definitely injured Rodolphus. Then we got to Ron's Auntie Muriel's and we'd missed our portkey and she was fussing over us. A muscle was jumping in Lupin's jaw. He nodded but seemed unable to say anything else. So, what happened to you lot? Tonks asked, turning to Harry, Hermione and Kingsley. They recounted the stories of their own journeys, but all the time the continued absence of Bill, Fleur, Mad-Eye and Mundungus seemed to lie upon them like a frost its icy bite harder and harder to ignore. I'm going to have to get back to Downing Street. I should have been there an hour ago, said Kingsley finally, after a last sweeping gaze at the sky. Let me know when they're back. Lupin nodded. With a wave to the others, Kingsley walked away into the darkness toward the gate. Harry thought he heard the faintest pop as Kingsley disapparated just beyond the burrow's boundaries. Mr. and Mrs. Weasley came racing down the back steps, Ginny behind them. Both parents hugged Ron before turning to Lupin and Tonks. Thank you, said Mrs. Weasley, for our sons. Don't be silly, Molly, said Tonks at once. How's George? asked Lupin. What's wrong with him? piped up Ron. He's lost. But the end of Mrs. Weasley's sentence was drowned in a general outcry. A thestral had just soared into sight and landed a few feet from them. Bill and Fleur slid from its back, windswept but unhurt. Bill, thank God, thank God! Mrs. Weasley ran forward, but the hug Bill bestowed upon her was perfunctory. Looking directly at his father, he said, Mad-Eye's dead. Nobody spoke. Nobody moved. Harry felt as though something inside him was falling falling through the earth, leaving him forever. We saw it, said Bill. Fleur nodded, tear tracks glittering on her cheeks in the light from the kitchen window. It happened just after we broke out of the circle. Mad-Eye and Dung were close by us. They were heading north, too. Voldemort, he can fly, went straight for them. Dung panicked. I heard him cry out. Mad-Eye tried to stop him, but he disapparated. Voldemort's curse hit Mad-Eye full in the face. He fell backward off his broom, and there was nothing we could do, nothing. We had half a dozen of them on our own tail. Bill's voice broke. Of course you couldn't have done anything, said Lupin. They all stood looking at each other. Harry could not quite comprehend it. Mad-Eye dead? It could not be. Mad-Eye, so tough, so brave the consummate survivor. At last it seemed to dawn on everyone, though nobody said it, that there was no point waiting in the yard any more. And in silence they followed Mr. and Mrs. Weasley back into the burrow and into the living room, where Fred and George were laughing together. What's wrong? said Fred, scanning their faces as they entered. What's happened? Who's... Mad-Eye, 
said Mr. Weasley. Dead. The twins' grins turned to grimaces of shock. Nobody seemed to know what to do. Tonks was crying silently into a handkerchief. She had been close to Mad-Eye. Harry knew his favorite and his protege at the Ministry of Magic. Hagrid, who had sat down on the floor in the corner where he had most space, was dabbing at his eyes with his tablecloth-sized handkerchief. Bill walked over to the sideboard and pulled out a bottle of fire whiskey and some glasses. Here, he said, and with a wave of his wand, he sent twelve full glasses soaring through the room to each of them, holding the thirteenth aloft. Mad-Eye! Mad-Eye! they all said, and drank. Mad-Eye! <coughs> echoed Hagrid, a little late, with a hiccup. The fire whiskey seared Harry's throat. It seemed to burn feeling back into him, dispelling the numbness and sense of unreality, firing him with something that was like courage. So Mundungus disappeared, said Lupin, who had drained his own glass in one. The atmosphere changed at once. Everybody looked tense, watching Lupin, both wanting him to go on, it seemed to Harry, and slightly afraid of what they might hear. I know what you're thinking, said Bill, and I wondered that too, on the way back here, because they seemed to be expecting us, didn't they? But Mundungus can't have betrayed us. They didn't know there would be seven Harrys. That confused them the moment we appeared. And, in case you've forgotten, it was Mundungus who suggested that little bit of skullduggery. Why wouldn't he have told them the essential point? I think Dung panicked. It's as simple as that. He didn't want to come in the first place. But Mad-Eye made him, and you-know-who went straight for them. It was enough to make anyone panic. You-know-who acted exactly as Mad-Eye expected him to, sniffed Tonks. Mad-Eye said he'd expect the real Harry to be with the toughest, most skilled Aurors. He chased Mad-Eye first, and when Mundungus gave them away, he switched to Kingsley. Yes, and that is all very good, snapped Fleur. But still it does not explain how they knew we were moving Harry tonight, does it? Somebody must have been careless. Somebody let slip the date to an outsider. It is the only explanation for them knowing the date but not the old plan. She glared around at them all, tear tracks still etched on her beautiful face, silently daring any of them to contradict her. Nobody did. The only sound to break the silence was that of Hagrid, hiccuping from behind his handkerchief. Harry glanced at Hagrid, who had just risked his own life to save Harry's. Hagrid, whom he loved, whom he trusted, who had once been tricked into giving Voldemort crucial information in exchange for a dragon's egg. No, Harry said aloud, and they all looked at him surprised. The fire whiskey seemed to have amplified his voice. I mean, if somebody made a mistake, Harry went on, and let something slip, I know they didn't mean to do it, it's not their fault, he repeated, again a little louder than he would usually have spoken. We've got to trust each other. I trust all of you. I don't think anyone in this room would ever sell me to Voldemort. More silence followed his words. They were all looking at him. Harry felt a little hot again and drank some more fire whiskey for something to do. As he drank, he thought of Mad-Eye. Mad-Eye had always been scathing about Dumbledore's willingness to trust people. Well said, Harry, said Fred unexpectedly. Yeah, ear, ear, said George, with a half-glance at Fred, the corner of whose mouth twitched.
Lupin was wearing an odd expression as he looked at Harry. It was close to pitying. You think I'm a fool? demanded Harry. No, I think you're like James, said Lupin, who would have regarded it as the height of dishonor to mistrust his friends. Harry knew what Lupin was getting at, that his father had been betrayed by his friend Peter Pettigrew. He felt irrationally angry. He wanted to argue, but Lupin had turned away from him, set down his glass upon a side table, and addressed Bill. There's work to do. I can ask Kingsley whether— No, said Bill at once. I'll do it. I'll come. Where are you going? said Tonks and Fleur together. Mad-Eye's body, said Lupin. We need to recover it. Can't it? began Mrs. Weasley with an appealing look at Bill. Wait, said Bill. Not unless you'd rather the Death Eaters took it. Nobody spoke. Lupin and Bill said goodbye and left. The rest of them now dropped into chairs, all except for Harry, who remained standing. The suddenness and completeness of death was with them like a presence. I've got to go too, said Harry. Ten pairs of startled eyes looked at him. Don't be silly, Harry, said Mrs. Weasley. What are you talking about? I can't stay here. He rubbed his forehead. It was prickling again. It had not hurt like this for more than a year. You're all in danger while I'm here. I don't want— But don't be so silly, said Mrs. Weasley. The whole point of tonight was to get you here safely, and thank goodness it worked. And Fleur's agreed to get married here rather than in France. We've arranged everything so that we can all stay together and look after you. She did not understand. She was making him feel worse, not better. If Voldemort finds out I'm here— But why should he? asked Mrs. Weasley. There are a dozen places you might be now, Harry, said Mr. Weasley. He's got no way of knowing which safe house you're in. It's not me I'm worried for, said Harry. We know that, said Mr. Weasley quietly. But it would make our efforts tonight seem rather pointless if you left. You're not going anywhere, growled Hagrid. Blimey, Harry, after all we went through to get you here. Yeah, what about my bleeding ear? said George, hoisting himself up on his cushions. I know that. Mad I wouldn't want... I know! Harry bellowed. He felt beleaguered and blackmailed. Did they think he did not know what they had done for him? Didn't they understand that it was for precisely that reason that he wanted to go now, before they had to suffer any more on his behalf? There was a long and awkward silence in which his scar continued to prickle and throb, and which was broken at last by Mrs. Weasley. Where's Hedwig, Harry? she said coaxingly. We can put her up with Pigwidgeon and give her something to eat. His insides clenched like a fist. He could not tell her the truth. He drank the last of his fire whiskey to avoid answering. Wait till it gets out you did it again, Harry, said Hagrid. Escaped him. Fought him off when he was right on top of you. It wasn't me, said Harry flatly. It was my wand. My wand acted of its own accord. After a few moments, Hermione said gently, But that's impossible, Harry. You mean that you did magic without meaning to. You reacted instinctively. No, said Harry. The bike was falling. I couldn't have told you where Voldemort was. 
But my wand spun in my hand and found him and shot a spell at him, and it wasn't even the spell I recognized. I've never made gold flames appear before. Often, said Mr. Weasley, when you're in a pressured situation, you can produce magic you never dreamed of. Small children often find before they're trained. It wasn't like that, said Harry through gritted teeth. His scar was burning. He felt angry and frustrated. He hated the idea that they were all imagining him to have power to match Voldemort's. No one said anything. He knew that they did not believe him. Now that he came to think of it, he had never heard of a wand performing magic on its own before. His scar seared with pain. It was all he could do not to moan aloud. Muttering about fresh air, he set down his glass and left the room. As he crossed the dark yard, the great skeletal thestral looked up, rustled its enormous bat-like wings, then resumed its grazing. Harry stopped at the gate into the garden, staring out at its overgrown plants, rubbing his pounding forehead and thinking of Dumbledore. Dumbledore would have believed him, he knew it. Dumbledore would have known how and why Harry's wand had acted independently, because Dumbledore always had the answers. He had known about wands, had explained to Harry the strange connection that existed between his wand and Voldemort's. But Dumbledore, like Mad-Eye, like Sirius, like his parents, like his poor owl, all were gone, where Harry could never talk to them again. He felt a burning in his throat that had nothing to do with fire whiskey. And then, out of nowhere, the pain in his scar peaked. As he clutched his forehead and closed his eyes, a voice screamed inside his head. You told me the problem would be solved by using another's wand. And into his mind burst the vision of an emaciated old man lying in rags upon a stone floor, screaming, a horrible, drawn-out scream, a scream of unendurable agony. No, no, I beg you, I beg you. You lied to Lord Voldemort, Ollivander. I did not. I swear I did not. You sought to help Potter, to help him escape me. I swear I did not. I believed a different wand would work. Explaining what happened. Lucius's wand is destroyed. I cannot understand. The connection exists only between your two ones. Lies, please, I beg you. And Harry saw the white hand raise its wand and felt Voldemort's surge of vicious anger, saw the frail old man on the floor writhe in agony. Harry. It was over as quickly as it had come. Harry stood shaking in the darkness, clutching the gate into the garden, his heart racing, his scar still tingling. It was several moments before he realized that Ron and Hermione were at his side. Harry, come back in the house, Hermione whispered. You aren't still thinking of leaving? Yeah, you got to stay, mate, said Ron, thumping Harry on the back. Are you all right? Hermione asked, close enough now to look into Harry's face. You look awful. Well, said Harry shakily, I probably look better than Hollivander. When he had finished telling them what he had seen, Ron looked appalled, 
but Hermione downright terrified. But it was supposed to have stopped. Your scar. It wasn't supposed to do this anymore. You mustn't let that connection open up again. Dumbledore wanted you to close your mind. When he did not reply, she gripped his arm. Harry, he's taking over the ministry, and the newspapers, and half the wizarding world. Don't let him inside your head, too. Chapter 6 The Ghoul in Pajamas The shock of losing Mad-Eye hung over the house in the days that followed. Harry kept expecting to see him stumping in through the back door like the other Order members, who passed in and out to relay news. Harry felt that nothing but action would assuage his feelings of guilt and grief, and that he ought to set out on his mission to find and destroy Horcruxes as soon as possible. Well, you can't do anything about the— Ron mouthed the word, Horcruxes, till you're seventeen. You've still got the trace on you. And we can plan here as well as anywhere, can't we? Or, he dropped his voice to a whisper, Do you reckon you already know where the you-know-whats are? No, Harry admitted. I think Hermione's been doing a bit of research, said Ron. She said she was saving it for when you got here. They were sitting at the breakfast table. Mr. Weasley and Bill had just left for work. Mrs. Weasley had gone upstairs to wake Hermione and Ginny, while Fleur had drifted off to take a bath. The trace'll break on the 31st, said Harry. That means I only need to stay here four days. Then I can... Five days, Ron corrected him firmly. We've got to stay for the wedding. They'll kill us if we miss it. Harry understood they to mean Fleur and Mrs. Weasley. It's one extra day, said Ron, when Harry looked mutinous. Don't they realize how important? Course they don't, said Ron. They haven't got a clue. And now you mention it, I wanted to talk to you about that. Ron glanced toward the door into the hall to check that Mrs. Weasley was not returning yet, then leaned in closer to Harry. Mum's been trying to get it out of Hermione and me, what we're off to do. She'll try you next, so brace yourself. Dad and Lupin have both asked as well, but when we said Dumbledore told you not to tell anyone except us, they dropped it. Not Mum, though. She's determined. Ron's prediction came true within hours. Shortly before lunch, Mrs. Weasley detached Harry from the others by asking him to help identify a lone man's sock that she thought might have come out of his rucksack. Once she had him cornered in the tiny scullery off the kitchen, she started. Ron and Hermione seem to think that the three of you are dropping out of Hogwarts, she began in a light, casual tone. Oh, said Harry. Well, yeah, we are. The mangle turned of its own accord in a corner, wringing out what looked like one of Mr. Weasley's vests. May I ask why you are abandoning your education? said Mrs. Weasley. Well, Dumbledore left me... stuff to do, mumbled Harry. Ron and Hermione know about it, and they want to come, too. What sort of stuff? I'm sorry, I can't... Well, frankly, I think Arthur and I have a right to know, and I'm sure Mr. and Mrs. Granger would agree, said Mrs. Weasley. Harry had been afraid of the concerned parent attack. He forced himself to look directly into her eyes, noticing as he did so that they were precisely the same shade of brown as Ginny's. This did not help. 
Dumbledore didn't want anyone else to know, Mrs. Weasley. I'm sorry. Ron and Hermione don't have to come. It's their choice. I don't see that you have to go either, she snapped, dropping all pretense now. You're barely of age, any of you. It's utter nonsense. If Dumbledore needed work doing, he had the whole order at his command. Harry, you must have misunderstood him. Probably he was telling you something he wanted done, and you took it to mean that he wanted you. I didn't misunderstand, said Harry flatly. It's got to be me. He handed her back the single sock he was supposed to be identifying, which was patterned with golden bulrushes. And that's not mine. I don't support Puddlemere United. Oh, of course not, said Mrs. Weasley, with a sudden and rather unnerving return to her casual tone. I should have realized. Well, Harry, while we've still got you here, you won't mind helping with the preparations for Bill and Fleur's wedding, will you? There's still so much to do. No, I... of course not, said Harry, disconcerted by this sudden change of subject. Sweet of you, she replied, and she smiled as she left the scullery. From that moment on, Mrs. Weasley kept Harry, Ron, and Hermione so busy with preparations for the wedding that they hardly had any time to think. The kindest explanation of this behavior would have been that Mrs. Weasley wanted to distract them all from thoughts of Mad-Eye and the terrors of their recent journey. After two days of non-stop cutlery cleaning, of color-matching favors, ribbons, and flowers, of denoming the garden and helping Mrs. Weasley cook vast batches of canopies, however, Harry started to suspect her of a different motive. All the jobs she handed out seemed to keep him, Ron, and Hermione away from one another. He had not had a chance to speak to the two of them alone since the first night, when he had told them about Voldemort torturing Ollivander. I think Mum thinks that if she can stop the three of you getting together and planning, she'll be able to delay you leaving, Ginny told Harry in an undertone as they laid the table for dinner on the third night of his stay. And then what does she think's going to happen? Harry muttered. Someone else might kill off Voldemort while she's holding us here making volavant. He had spoken without thinking and saw Ginny's face whiten. So it's true, she said. That's what you're trying to do. I... not... I was joking, said Harry evasively. They stared at each other, and there was something more than shock in Ginny's expression. Suddenly Harry became aware that this was the first time that he had been alone with her since those stolen hours in secluded corners of the Hogwarts grounds. He was sure she was remembering them too. Both of them jumped as the door opened, and Mr. Weasley, Kingsley, and Bill walked in. They were often joined by other Order members for dinner now, because the borough had replaced Number 12 Grimald Place as the headquarters. Mr. Weasley had explained that after the death of Dumbledore, their secret keeper, each of the people to whom Dumbledore had confided Grimald Place's location had become a secret keeper in turn. And as there are around twenty of us, that greatly dilutes the power of the Fidelius charm. Twenty times as many opportunities for the Death Eaters to get the secret out of somebody. We can't expect it to hold much longer. But surely Snape will have told the Death Eaters the address by now? asked Harry. Well, Mad-Eye set up a couple of curses against Snape in case he turns up there again. We hope they'll be strong enough both to keep him out and to bind his tongue if he tries to talk about the place, but... 
We can't be sure. It would have been insane to keep using the place's headquarters now that its protection has become so shaky. The kitchen was so crowded that evening it was difficult to manoeuvre knives and forks. Harry found himself crammed beside Ginny. The unsaid things that had just passed between them made him wish they had been separated by a few more people. He was trying so hard to avoid brushing her arm, he could barely cut his chicken. No news about Mad-Eye, Harry asked Bill. Nothing, replied Bill. They had not been able to hold a funeral for Moody, because Bill and Lupin had failed to recover his body. It had been difficult to know where he might have fallen, given the darkness and the confusion of the battle. The Daily Prophet hasn't said a word about him dying or about finding the body, Bill went on. But that doesn't mean much. It's keeping a lot quiet these days. And they still haven't called a hearing about all the underage magic I used escaping the Death Eaters? Harry called across the table to Mr. Weasley, who shook his head. Because they know I had no choice, or because they don't want me to tell the world Voldemort attacked me? The latter, I think. Scrimger doesn't want to admit that you know who is as powerful as he is, nor that Azkaban's seen a mass breakout. Yeah, why tell the public the truth, said Harry, clenching his knife so tightly that the faint scars on the back of his right hand stood out, white against his skin. I must not tell lies. Isn't anyone at the Ministry prepared to stand up to him? asked Ron angrily. Of course, Ron, but people are terrified, Mr. Weasley replied. Terrified that they will be next to disappear, their children the next to be attacked. There are nasty rumours going around. I, for one, don't believe the Muggle Studies professor at Hogwarts resigned. She hasn't been seen for weeks now. Meanwhile, Scrimger remains shut up in his office all day. I just hope he's working on a plan. There was a pause in which Mrs. Weasley magicked the empty plates onto the work surface and served apple tart. We must decide how you will be disguised, Harry, said Fleur once everyone had pudding. For the wedding, she added, when he looked confused. Of course, none of our guests are Death Eaters, but we cannot guarantee that they will not let something slip after they have had champagne. From this, Harry gathered that she still suspected Hagrid. Yes, good point, said Mrs. Weasley from the top of the table where she sat, spectacles perched on the end of her nose, scanning an immense list of jobs that she had scribbled on a very long piece of parchment. Now, Ron, have you cleaned out your room yet? Why? exclaimed Ron, slamming his spoon down and glaring at his mother. Why does my room have to be cleaned out? Harry and I are fine with it the way it is. We are holding your brother's wedding here in a few days' time, young man. And are they getting married in my bedroom? asked Ron furiously. No. So, why in the name of Merlin's saggy left... Don't talk to your mother like that, said Mr. Weasley firmly, and do as you're told. Ron scowled at both his parents, then picked up his spoon and attacked the last few mouthfuls of his apple tart. I can help. Some of it's my mess, Harry told Ron, but Mrs. Weasley cut across him. No, Harry, dear, I'd much rather you helped Arthur muck out the chickens, and Hermione, I'd be ever so grateful if you'd change the sheets for Monsieur and Madame Delacour. You know they're arriving at eleven tomorrow morning. But as it turned out, there was very little to do for the chickens. 
There's no need uh, to mention it to Molly, Mr. Weasley told Harry, blocking his access to the coop. But, uh, Ted Tonk sent me most of what was left of Sirius's bike, and, uh, I'm hiding, that's to say, keeping it in here. Fantastic stuff. There's an exhaust gaskin, as I believe it's called, the most magnificent battery, and it'll be a great opportunity to find out how brakes work. I'm going to try and put it all back together again when Molly's not I mean, when I've got time. When they returned to the house, Mrs. Weasley was nowhere to be seen, so Harry slipped upstairs to Ron's attic bedroom. I'm doing it! I'm doing... Oh, it's you, said Ron in relief as Harry entered the room. Ron lay back down on the bed which he had evidently just vacated. The room was just as messy as it had been all week. The only change was that Hermione was now sitting in the far corner, her fluffy ginger cat Crookshanks at her feet, sorting books, some of which Harry recognized as his own, into two enormous piles. Hi, Harry, she said, as he sat down on his camp bed. And how did you manage to get away? Oh, Ron's mum forgot that she asked Ginny and me to change the sheets yesterday, said Hermione. She threw numerology and grammatica onto one pile and the rise and fall of the dark arts onto the other. We were just talking about Mad-Eye, Ron told Harry. I reckon he might have survived. But Bill saw him hit by the killing curse, said Harry. Yeah, but Bill was under attack too, said Ron. How can he be sure what he saw? Even if the killing curse missed, Mad-Eye still fell about a thousand feet said Hermione, now weighing Quidditch teams of Britain and Ireland in her hand. He could have used a shield charm. Fleur said his wand was blasted out of his hand, said Harry. Well, all right, if you want him to be dead, said Ron grumpily, punching his pillow into a more comfortable shape. Of course we don't want him to be dead, said Hermione, looking shocked. It's dreadful that he's dead, but we're being realistic. For the first time... Harry imagined Mad-Eye's body, broken as Dumbledore's had been, yet with that one eye still whizzing in its socket. He felt a stab of revulsion mixed with a bizarre desire to laugh. The Death Eaters probably tied it up after themselves. That's why no one's found him, said Ron wisely. Yeah, said Harry. Like Barty Crouch, turned into a bone and buried in Hagrid's front garden. They probably transfigured Moody and stuffed him. Don't! squealed Hermione. Startled, Harry looked over just in time to see her burst into tears over her copy of Spellman Syllabary. Oh no, said Harry, struggling to get up from the old camp bed. Hermione, I wasn't trying to upset. But with a great creaking of rusty bedsprings, Ron bounded off the bed and got there first. One arm around Hermione, he fished in his jeans pocket and withdrew a revolting-looking handkerchief that he had used to clean out the oven earlier. Hastily pulling out his wand, he pointed it at the rag and said, Tergio! The wand siphoned off most of the grease. Looking rather pleased with himself, Ron handed the slightly smoking handkerchief to Hermione. Oh, thanks, Ron. I'm sorry. She blew her nose and hiccuped. It's just so awful, isn't it? Right after Dumbledore, I j just n never imagined Mad-Eye dying. Somehow he seems so tough. 
Yeah, I know, said Ron, giving her a squeeze. But you know what he'd say to us if he was here? C constant vigilance, said Hermione, mopping her eyes. That's right, said Ron, nodding. He'd tell us to learn from what happened to him, and what I've learned is not to trust that cowardly little squit Mundungus. Hermione gave a shaky laugh and leaned forward to pick up two more books. A second later, Ron had snatched his arm back from around her shoulders. She had dropped the monster book of monsters on his foot. The book had broken free from its restraining belt and snapped viciously at Ron's ankle. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Hermione cried as Harry wrenched the book from Ron's leg and retied it shut. What are you doing with all those books anyway? Ron asked, limping back to his bed. Just trying to decide which ones to take with us, said Hermione, when we're looking for the Horcruxes. Oh, of course, said Ron, clapping a hand to his forehead. I forgot we'll be hunting down Voldemort in a mobile library. Ha ha, said Hermione, looking down at Spellman's syllabary. I wonder, will we need to translate runes? It's possible. I think we'd better take it to be safe. She dropped the syllabary onto the larger of the two piles and picked up Hogwarts, a history. Listen, said Harry. He had sat up straight. Ron and Hermione looked at him with similar mixtures of resignation and defiance. I know you said after Dumbledore's funeral that you wanted to come with me, Harry began. Here he goes, Ron said to Hermione, rolling his eyes. As we knew he would, she sighed, turning back to the books. You know, I think I will take Hogwarts a history. Even if we're not going back there, I don't think I'd feel right if I didn't have it with... Listen, said Harry again. No, Harry, you listen, said Hermione. We're coming with you. That was decided months ago. Years, really. But shut up, Ron advised him. Are you sure you've thought this through? Harry persisted. Let's see said Hermione, slamming travels with trolls onto the discarded pile with a rather fierce look. I've been packing for days, so we're ready to leave at a moment's notice, which, for your information, has included doing some pretty difficult magic, not to mention smuggling Mad-Eye's whole stock of Polyjuice potion right under Ron's mum's nose. I've also modified my parents' memories so that they're convinced they're really called Wendell and Monica Wilkins, and that their life's ambition is to move to Australia, which they have now done. That's to make it more difficult for Voldemort to track them down and interrogate them about me, or you, because unfortunately I've told them quite a bit about you. Assuming I survive our hunt for the Horcruxes, I'll find Mum and Dad and lift the enchantment. If I don't, well, I think I've cast a good enough charm to keep them safe and happy. Wendell and Monica Wilkins don't know that they've got a daughter. You see... Hermione's eyes was swimming with tears again. Ron got back off the bed, put his arm around her once more, and frowned at Harry, as though reproaching him for lack of tact. Harry could not think of anything to say, not least because it was highly unusual for Ron to be teaching anyone else tact. I... Hermione, I'm sorry. I didn't... didn't realize that Ron and I know perfectly well what might happen if we come with you. Well, we do. Ron... Show Harry what you've done. Nah, he's just eaten, said Ron. Go on, he needs to know. Oh, all right. 
Harry, come here. For the second time, Ron withdrew his arm from around Hermione and stumped over to the door. Come on. Why? Harry asked, following Ron out of the room onto the tiny landing. Descendo, muttered Ron, pointing his wand at the low ceiling. A hatch opened right over their heads, and a ladder slid down to their feet. A horrible, half-sucking, half-moaning sound came out of the square hole, along with an unpleasant smell like open drains. That's your ghoul, isn't it? asked Harry, who had never actually met the creature that sometimes disrupted the nightly silence. Yeah, it is, said Ron, climbing the ladder. Come and have a look at him. Harry followed Ron up the few short steps into the tiny attic space. His head and shoulders were in the room before he caught sight of the creature curled up a few feet from him, fast asleep in the gloom with its large mouth wide open. But it... it looks... Do ghouls normally wear pajamas? No, said Ron, nor have they usually got red hair or that number of pustules. Harry contemplated the thing, slightly revolted. It was human in shape and size and was wearing what, now that Harry's eyes became used to the darkness, was clearly an old pair of Ron's pajamas. He was also sure that ghouls were generally rather slimy and bald, rather than distinctly hairy and covered in angry purple blisters. He's me, see? said Ron. No, said Harry, I don't. I'll explain it back in my room. The smell's getting to me, said Ron. They climbed back down the ladder, which Ron returned to the ceiling, and rejoined Hermione, who was still sorting books. Once we've left, the ghoul's gonna come and live down here in my room, said Ron. I think he's really looking forward to it. Well, it's hard to tell, because all he can do is moan and drool, but he nods a lot when you mention it. Anyway, he's gonna be me with Spattergoit. Good, eh? Harry merely looked his confusion. It is, said Ron, clearly frustrated that Harry had not grasped the brilliance of the plan. Look, when we three don't turn up at Hogwarts again, everyone's going to think Hermione and I must be with you, right? Which means the Death Eaters will go straight for our families to see if they've got information on where you are. But hopefully it'll look like I've gone away with Mum and Dad. A lot of Muggleborns are talking about going into hiding at the moment, said Hermione. We can't hide my whole family. It'll look too fishy, and they can't all leave their jobs, said Ron. So, we're going to put out the story that I'm seriously ill with Spattergroit, which is why I can't go back to school. If anyone comes calling to investigate, Mum or Dad can show them the ghoul in my bed, covered in pustules. Spattergroit's really contagious, so they're not going to want to go near him. It won't matter that he can't say anything either, because, apparently, you can't once the fungus has spread to your uvula. And your mum and dad are in on this plan? asked Harry. Daddy's? He helped Fred and George transform the ghoul. Mum, well, you've seen what she's like. She won't accept we're going till we've gone. There was silence in the room, broken only by gentle thuds as Hermione continued to throw books onto one pile or the other. Ron sat watching her and Harry looked from one to the other, unable to say anything. The measures they had taken to protect their families made him realize, more than anything else could have done, that they really were going to come with him, and that they knew exactly how dangerous that would be. He wanted to tell them what that meant to him, but he simply could not find words important enough. 
Through the silence came the muffled sounds of Mrs. Weasley shouting from four floors below. Ginny's probably left a speck of dust on a poxy napkin ring, said Ron. I don't know why the Delacours have got to come two days before the wedding. Fleur's sister's a bridesmaid. She needs to be here for the rehearsal, and she's too young to come on her own, said Hermione, as she poured indecisively over Break with a Banshee. Well, guests aren't going to help Mum's stress levels, said Ron. What we really need to decide, said Hermione, tossing defensive magical theory into the bin without a second glance and picking up an appraisal of magical education in Europe, is where we're going after we leave here. I know you said you wanted to go to Godric's Hollow first, Harry, and I understand why, but, well, shouldn't we make the Horcruxes our priority? If we knew where any of the Horcruxes were, I'd agree with you said Harry, who did not believe that Hermione really understood his desire to return to Godric's Hollow. His parents' graves were only part of the attraction. He had a strong, though inexplicable, feeling that the place held answers for him. Perhaps it was simply because it was there that he had survived Voldemort's killing curse. Now that he was facing the challenge of repeating the feat, Harry was drawn to the place where it had happened, wanting to understand. Don't you think there's a possibility that Voldemort's keeping a watch on Godric's Hollow? Hermione asked. He might expect you to go back and visit your parents' graves once you're free to go wherever you like. This had not occurred to Harry. While he struggled to find a counter-argument, Ron spoke up, evidently following his own train of thought. This R.A.B. person, he said, you know, the one who stole the real locket? Hermione nodded. He said in his note he was going to destroy it, didn't he? Harry dragged his rucksack toward him and pulled out the fake Horcrux in which R.A.B.'s note was still folded. I have stolen the real Horcrux and intend to destroy it as soon as I can, Harry read out. Well, what if he did finish it off, said Ron. Or she, interposed Hermione. Whichever, said Ron. It'd be one less for us to do. Yes, but we're still going to have to try and trace the real locket, aren't we? said Hermione, to find out whether or not it's destroyed. And once we get hold of it, how do you destroy a Horcrux? asked Ron. Well, said Hermione, I've been researching that. How? asked Harry. I didn't think there were any books on Horcruxes in the library. There weren't, said Hermione, who had turned pink. Dumbledore removed them all, but he... He didn't destroy them. Ron sat up straight, wide-eyed. How in the name of Merlin's pants have you managed to get your hands on those Horcrux books? It, it wasn't sealing, said Hermione, looking from Harry to Ron with a kind of desperation. They were still library books, even if Dumbledore had taken them off the shelves. Anyway, if he really didn't want anyone to get at them, I'm sure he would have made it much harder to... Get to the point, said Ron. Well... It was easy, said Hermione in a small voice. I just did a summoning charm, you know, Asio, and they zoomed out of Dumbledore's study window right into the girls' dormitory. But when did you do this? Harry asked, regarding Hermione with a mixture of admiration and incredulity. Just after his Dumbledore's funeral, said Hermione in an even smaller voice right after we agreed we'd leave school and go and look for the Horcruxes. When I went back upstairs to get my things, it, it just occurred to me that the more we knew about them, the better it would be. 
and I was alone in there, so I tried, and it worked. They flew straight in through the open window, and I, I packed them. She swallowed, and then said imploringly, I can't believe Dumbledore would have been angry. It's not as though we're going to use the information to make a Horcrux, is it? Can you hear us complaining? said Ron. Where are these books, anyway? Hermione rummaged for a moment, and then extracted from the pile a large volume bound in faded black leather. She looked a little nauseated and held it as gingerly as if it was something recently dead. This is the one that gives explicit instructions on how to make a Horcrux. Secrets of the Darkest Art. It's a horrible book, really awful, full of evil magic. I wonder when Dumbledore removed it from the library. If he didn't do it until he was headmaster, I bet Voldemort got all the instructions he needed from here. Why did he have to ask Slughorn how to make a Horcrux, then, if he'd already read that? asked Ron. He only approached Slughorn to find out what would happen if you split your soul into seven, said Harry. Dumbledore was sure Riddle already knew how to make a Horcrux by the time he asked Slughorn about them. I think you're right, Hermione. That could easily have been where he got the information. And the more I've read about them, said Hermione, the more horrible they seem, and the less I can believe that he actually made six. It warns in this book how unstable you make the rest of your soul by ripping it, and that's just by making one Horcrux. Harry remembered what Dumbledore had said about Voldemort moving beyond usual evil. Isn't there any way of putting yourself back together? Ron asked. Yes, said Hermione, with a hollow smile, but it will be excruciatingly painful. Why? How do you do it? asked Harry. Remorse, said Hermione. You've got to really feel what you've done. There's a footnote. Apparently the pain of it can destroy you. I can't see Voldemort attempting it somehow, can you? No, said Ron before Harry could answer. So... Does it say how to destroy Horcruxes in that book? Yes, said Hermione, now turning the fragile pages as if examining rotting entrails. Because it warns dark wizards how strong they have to make the enchantments on them. From all that I've read, what Harry did to Riddle's diary was one of the few really foolproof ways of destroying a Horcrux. What, stabbing it with a basilisk fang? asked Harry. Ah, oh, well, lucky we've got such a large supply of basilisk fangs, then, said Ron. I was wondering what we were going to do with them. It doesn't have to be a basilisk fang, said Hermione patiently. It has to be something so destructive that the Horcrux can't repair itself. Basilisk venom only has one antidote, and it's incredibly rare. Phoenix tears, said Harry, nodding. Exactly said Hermione. Our problem is that there are very few substances as destructive as basilisk venom, and they're all dangerous to carry around with you. That's a problem we're going to have to solve, though, because ripping, smashing, or crushing a horcrux won't do the trick. You've got to put it beyond magical repair. But even if we wreck the thing it lives in, said Ron, why can't the bit of soul in it just go and live in something else? Because a horcrux is the complete opposite of a human being. Seeing that Harry and Ron looked thoroughly confused, Hermione hurried on. Look, if I picked up a sword right now, Ron, and ran you through with it, I wouldn't damage your soul at all. Which would be a real comfort to me, I'm sure, said Ron. Harry laughed. 
It should be, actually, but my point is that whatever happens to your body, your soul will survive, untouched, said Hermione. But it's the other way round with a horcrux. The fragment of soul inside it depends on its container, its enchanted body for survival. It can't exist without it. That diary sort of died when I stabbed it, said Harry, remembering ink pouring like blood from the punctured pages and the screams of the piece of Voldemort's soul as it vanished. And once the diary was properly destroyed, the bit of soul trapped in it could no longer exist. Ginny tried to get rid of the diary before you did, flushing it away, but obviously it came back good as new. Hang on, said Ron, frowning. The bit of soul in that diary was possessing Ginny, wasn't it? How does that work, then? While the magical container is still intact, the bit of soul inside it can flit in and out of someone if they get too close to the object. I don't mean holding it for too long. It's nothing to do with touching it, she added before Ron could speak. I mean close emotionally. Ginny poured her heart out into that diary. She made herself incredibly vulnerable. You're in trouble if you get too fond of or dependent on the Horcrux. I wonder how Dumbledore destroyed the ring, said Harry. Why didn't I ask him? I never really... His voice tailed away. He was thinking of all the things he should have asked Dumbledore, and of how, since the headmaster had died, it seemed to Harry that he had wasted so many opportunities when Dumbledore had been alive to find out more, to find out everything. The silence was shattered as the bedroom door flew open with a wall-shaking crash. Hermione shrieked and dropped secrets of the darkest art. Crookshank streaked under the bed, hissing indignantly. Ron jumped off the bed, skidded on a discarded chocolate frog wrapper, and smacked his head on the opposite wall. And Harry instinctively dived for his wand before realizing that he was looking up at Mrs. Weasley, whose hair was disheveled and whose face was contorted with rage. I'm so sorry to break up this cozy little gathering, she said, her voice trembling. I'm sure you all need your rest, but there are wedding presents stacked in my room that need sorting out, and I was under the impression that you had agreed to help. Oh, yes, said Hermione, looking terrified as she leapt to her feet, sending books flying in every direction. We will. We're sorry. With an anguished look at Harry and Ron, Hermione hurried out of the room after Mrs. Weasley. It's like being a house elf, complained Ron in an undertone, still massaging his head as he and Harry followed. Except without the job satisfaction. The sooner this wedding's over, the happier I'll be. Yeah, said Harry. Then we'll have nothing to do except find horcruxes. It'll be like a holiday, won't it? Ron started to laugh, but at the sight of the enormous pile of wedding presents waiting for them in Mrs. Weasley's room, stopped quite abruptly. The Delacours arrived the following morning at eleven o'clock. Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Ginny were feeling quite resentful toward Fleur's family by this time, and it was with ill grace that Ron stumped back upstairs to put on matching socks, and Harry attempted to flatten his hair. Once they had all been deemed smart enough, they trooped out into the sunny backyard to await the visitors. Harry had never seen the place looking so tidy. The rusty cauldrons and old Wellington boots that usually littered the steps by the back door were gone, replaced by two new flutterby bushes standing either side of the door in large pots. Though there was no breeze, the leaves waved lazily, giving an attractive rippling effect. The chickens had been shut away, 
The yard had been swept, and the nearby garden had been pruned, plucked, and generally spruced up, although Harry, who liked it in its overgrown state, thought that it looked rather forlorn without its usual contingent of capering gnomes. He had lost track of how many security enchantments had been placed upon the borough by both the Order and the Ministry. All he knew was that it was no longer possible for anybody to travel by magic directly into the place. Mr. Weasley had, therefore, gone to meet the Delacours on top of a nearby hill, where they were to arrive by portkey. The first sound of their approach was an unusually high-pitched laugh, which turned out to be coming from Mr. Weasley, who appeared at the gate moments later, laden with luggage, and leading a beautiful blonde woman in long, leaf-green robes, who could only be Fleur's mother. "'Maman!' cried Fleur, rushing forward to embrace her. "'Papa!' Monsieur Delacour was nowhere near as attractive as his wife. He was a head shorter and extremely plump, with a little pointed black beard. However, he looked good-natured. Bouncing toward Mrs. Weasley on high-heeled boots, he kissed her twice on each cheek, leaving her flustered. "'You have been to much trouble,' he said in a deep voice. "'Fleur tells us you have been working very hard.' "'Oh, it's been nothing, nothing.' trilled Mrs. Weasley. No trouble at all. Ron relieved his feelings by aiming a kick at a gnome who was peering out from behind one of the new flutterby bushes. Dear lady, said Monsieur Delacour, still holding Mrs. Weasley's hand between his own two plump ones and beaming, we are most honored at the approaching union of our two families. Let me present my wife, Apolline. Madame Delacour glided forward and stooped to kiss Mrs. Weasley, too. Enchanté, she said. Your husband has been telling us such amusing stories. Mr. Weasley gave a maniacal laugh. Mrs. Weasley threw him a look, upon which he became immediately silent and assumed an expression appropriate to the sickbed of a close friend. And, of course, you have met my little daughter, Gabrielle said Monsieur Delacour. Gabrielle was Fleur in miniature. Eleven years old, with waist-length hair of pure silvery blonde, she gave Mrs. Weasley a dazzling smile and hugged her, then threw Harry a glowing look, batting her eyelashes. Ginny cleared her throat loudly. Well, come in, do, said Mrs. Weasley brightly, and she ushered the Delacours into the house with many no-pleases and after-yous and not-at-alls. The Delacours, it soon transpired, were helpful, pleasant guests. They were pleased with everything and keen to assist with the preparations for the wedding. Monsieur Delacour pronounced everything from the seating plan to the bridesmaid's shoes. Charmant! Madame Delacour was most accomplished at household spells and had the oven properly cleaned in a trice. Gabrielle followed her elder sister around, trying to assist in any way she could and jabbering away in rapid French. On the downside, the burrow was not built to accommodate so many people. Mr. and Mrs. Weasley were now sleeping in the sitting room, having shouted down Monsieur and Madame Delacour's protests and insisted they take their bedroom. Gabrielle was sleeping with Fleur in Percy's old room, and Bill would be sharing with Charlie, his best man, once Charlie arrived from Romania. Opportunities to make plans together became virtually non-existent, and it was in desperation that Harry, Ron, and Hermione took to volunteering to feed the chickens, just to escape the overcrowded house. But she still won't leave us alone, 
snarled Ron, as their second attempt at a meeting in the yard was foiled by the appearance of Mrs. Weasley carrying a large basket of laundry in her arms. Oh, good! You fed the chickens, she called as she approached them. We'd better shut them away again before the men arrive tomorrow, to put up the tent for the wedding, she explained, pausing to lean against the henhouse. She looked exhausted. Milliman's magic marquees. They're very good. Bill's escorting them. You'd better stay inside while they're here, Harry. I must say it does complicate organizing a wedding, having all these security spells around the place. I'm sorry, said Harry humbly. Oh, don't be silly, dear, said Mrs. Weasley at once. I didn't mean... Well, your safety's much more important. Actually, I've been wanting to ask you how you want to celebrate your birthday, Harry. Seventeen, after all. It's an important day. I don't want to fuss, said Harry quickly, envisaging the additional strain this would put on them all. Really, Mrs. Weasley, just a normal dinner would be fine. It's the day before the wedding. Oh, well, if you're sure, dear, I'll invite Remus and Tonks, shall I? And how about Hagrid? That'd be great, said Harry, but please don't go to loads of trouble. Not at all, not at all. It's no trouble. She looked at him, a long, searching look then smiled a little sadly, straightened up, and walked away. Harry watched as she waved her wand near the washing line, and the damp clothes rose into the air to hang themselves up, and suddenly he felt a great wave of remorse for the inconvenience and the pain he was giving her. Chapter 7 The Will of Albus Dumbledore he was walking along a mountain road in the cool blue light of dawn. Far below, swathed in mist, was the shadow of a small town. Was the man he sought down there, the man he needed so badly he could think of little else, the man who held the answer, the answer to his problem? Oi, wake up! Harry opened his eyes. He was lying again on the camp bed in Ron's dingy attic room. The sun had not yet risen, and the room was still shadowy. Pigwidgeon was asleep with his head under his tiny wing. The scar on Harry's forehead was prickling. You were muttering in your sleep. Was I? Yeah, Gregorovich. You kept saying, Gregorovich. Harry was not wearing his glasses. Ron's face appeared slightly blurred. Who's Gregorovich? I don't know, do I? You were the one saying it. Harry rubbed his forehead, thinking. He had a vague idea he had heard the name before, but he could not think where. I think Voldemort's looking for him. Poor bloke, said Ron fervently. Harry sat up, still rubbing his scar, now wide awake. He tried to remember exactly what he had seen in the dream, but all that came back was a mountainous horizon and the outline of the little village cradled in a deep valley. I think he's abroad. Who? Grigorovich? Voldemort. I think he's somewhere abroad, looking for Grigorovich. It didn't look like anywhere in Britain. You reckon you were seeing into his mind again? Ron sounded worried. Do me a favor and don't tell Hermione, said Harry, although how she expects me to stop seeing stuff in my sleep. He gazed up at little Pigwidgeon's cage, thinking, why was the name Grigorovich familiar? I think, he said slowly, He's got something to do with Quidditch. There's some connection, but I can't, I can't think what it is. Quidditch? said Ron. 
Sure you're not thinking of Gorgovich? Who? Dragomir Gorgovich, chaser, transferred to the Chudley Cannons for a record fee two years ago. Record holder for most quaffle drops in a season. No, said Harry, I'm definitely not thinking of Gorgovich. I try not to either, said Ron. Well, happy birthday, anyway. Wow, that's right. I forgot. I'm seventeen. Harry seized the wand lying beside his camp bed, pointed it at the cluttered desk where he had left his glasses, and said, Asio glasses! Although they were only around a foot away, there was something immensely satisfying about seeing them zoom toward him, at least until they poked him in the eye. Slick, snorted Ron. Reveling in the removal of his trace, Harry sent Ron's possessions flying around the room, causing Pigwidgeon to wake up and flutter excitedly around his cage. Harry also tried tying the laces of his trainers by magic. The resultant knot took several minutes to untie by hand, and, purely for the pleasure of it, turned the orange robes on Ron's Chudley Cannon's posters bright blue. I'd do your fly by hand, though, Ron advised Harry, sniggering when Harry immediately checked it. Here's your present. Unwrap it up here, it's not for my mother's eyes. A book, said Harry, as he took the rectangular parcel. Bit of a departure from tradition, isn't it? This isn't your average book, said Ron. It's pure gold. Twelve fail-safe ways to charm witches. Explains everything you need to know about girls. If only I'd had this last year, I'd have known exactly how to get rid of lavender, and I would have known how to get going with, well... Fred and George gave me a copy, and I've learnt a lot. You'd be surprised. It's not all about wand work, either. When they arrived in the kitchen, they found a pile of presents waiting on the table. Bill and Monsieur Delacour were finishing their breakfasts, while Mrs. Weasley stood chatting to them over the frying pan. Arthur told me to wish you a happy 17th, Harry, said Mrs. Weasley, beaming at him. He had to leave early for work, but he'll be back for dinner. That's our present on top. Harry sat down, took the square parcel she had indicated, and unwrapped it. Inside was a watch, very like the one Mr. and Mrs. Weasley had given Ron for his seventeenth. It was gold, with stars circling around the face instead of hands. It's traditional to give a wizard a watch when he comes of age, said Mrs. Weasley, watching him anxiously from beside the cooker. I'm afraid that one isn't new like Ron's. It was actually my brother Fabian's, and he wasn't terribly careful with his possessions. It's a bit dented on the back, but... The rest of her speech was lost. Harry had got up and hugged her. He tried to put a lot of unsaid things into the hug, and perhaps she understood them, because she patted his cheek clumsily when he released her, then waved her wand in a slightly random way, causing half a pack of bacon to flop out of the frying pan onto the floor. Happy birthday, Harry, said Hermione, hurrying into the kitchen and adding her own present to the top of the pile. It's not much, but I hope you like it. What did you get him? She added to Ron, who seemed not to hear her. Come on, then, open Hermione's, said Ron. She had bought him a new sneakerscope. The other packages contained an enchanted razor from Bill and Fleur. Ah, yes, this will give you the smoothest shave you will ever have, Monsieur Delacour assured him. But you must tell it clearly what you want. Otherwise, you might find you have a little less hair than you would like. 
chocolates from the Delacours, and an enormous box of the latest Weasley's Wizard Weezes merchandise from Fred and George. Harry, Ron, and Hermione did not linger at the table, as the arrival of Madame Delacour, Fleur, and Gabrielle made the kitchen uncomfortably crowded. I'll pack these for you, Hermione said brightly, taking Harry's presence out of his arms as the three of them headed back upstairs. I'm nearly done. I'm just waiting for the rest of your underpants to come out of the wash, Ron. Ron's splutter was interrupted by the opening of a door on the first floor landing. Harry, will you come in here a moment? It was Ginny. Ron came to an abrupt halt, but Hermione took him by the elbow and tugged him on up the stairs. Feeling nervous, Harry followed Ginny into her room. He had never been inside it before. It was small but bright. There was a large poster of the wizarding band The Weird Sisters on one wall, and a picture of Gwenog Jones, captain of the all-witch Quidditch team, the Hollyhead Harpies, on the other. A desk stood facing the open window, which looked out over the orchard where he and Ginny had once played two-a-side Quidditch with Ron and Hermione, and which now housed a large, pearly-white marquee. The golden flag on top was level with Ginny's window. Ginny looked up into Harry's face, took a deep breath, and said, Happy Seventeenth. Yeah, thanks. She was looking at him steadily. He, however, found it difficult to look back at her. It was like gazing into a brilliant light. Nice view, he said feebly, pointing toward the window. She ignored this. He could not blame her. I couldn't think what to get you, she said. You didn't have to get me anything. She disregarded this, too. I didn't know what would be useful. Nothing too big, because you wouldn't be able to take it with you. He chanced a glance at her. She was not tearful. That was one of the many wonderful things about Ginny. She was rarely weepy. He had sometimes thought that having six brothers must have toughened her up. She took a step closer to him. So then I thought, I'd like you to have something to remember me by. You know, if you meet some vela when you're off doing whatever you're doing. I think dating opportunities are going to be pretty thin on the ground, to be honest. There's the silver lining I've been looking for, she whispered. And then she was kissing him as she had never kissed him before, and Harry was kissing her back and it was blissful oblivion, better than fire whiskey. She was the only real thing in the world, Ginny, the feel of her, one hand at her back and one in her long, sweet-smelling hair. The door banged open behind them, and they jumped apart. Oh, said Ron pointedly. Sorry. Ron? Hermione was just behind him, slightly out of breath. There was a strained silence, then Ginny said, in a flat little voice, Well, happy birthday anyway, Harry. Ron's ears were scarlet. Hermione looked nervous. Harry wanted to slam the door in their faces, but it felt as though a cold draught had entered the room when the door opened, and his shining moment had popped like a soap bubble. All the reasons for ending his relationship with Ginny, for staying well away from her, seemed to have slunk inside the room with Ron and all happy forgetfulness was gone. He looked at Ginny, wanting to say something, though he hardly knew what, but she had turned her back on him. 
He thought that she might have succumbed for once to tears. He could not do anything to comfort her in front of Ron. I'll see you later, he said, and followed the other two out of the bedroom. Ron marched downstairs, through the still-crowded kitchen and into the yard, and Harry kept pace with him all the way, Hermione trotting along behind them, looking scared. Once he reached the seclusion of the freshly mown lawn, Ron rounded on Harry. You ditched her! What are you doing now, messing her around? I'm not messing her around, said Harry, as Hermione caught up with them. Ron! But Ron held up a hand to silence her. She was really cut up when you ended it. So was I. You know why I stopped it, and it wasn't because I wanted to. Yeah, but you go snogging her now, and she's just going to get her hopes up again. She's not an idiot. She knows it can't happen. She's not expecting us to, to end up married, or... As he said it, a vivid picture formed in Harry's mind of Ginny in a white dress, marrying a tall, faceless, and unpleasant stranger. In one spiraling moment it seemed to hit him. Her future was free and unencumbered, whereas his... He could see nothing but Voldemort ahead. If you keep groping her every chance you get, it won't happen again, said Harry harshly. The day was cloudless, but he felt as though the sun had gone in. Okay. Ron looked half resentful, half sheepish. He rocked backward and forward on his feet for a moment, and then said, Right, then. Well, that's... yeah. Ginny did not seek another one-to-one -one meeting with Harry for the rest of the day. Nor, by any look or gesture, did she show that they had shared more than polite conversation in her room. Nevertheless, Charlie's arrival came as a relief to Harry. It provided a distraction, watching Mrs. Weasley force Charlie into a chair, raise her wand threateningly, and announce that he was about to get a proper haircut. As Harry's birthday dinner would have stretched the burrow's kitchen to breaking point, even before the arrival of Charlie, Looping, Tonks, and Hagrid, several tables were placed end to end in the garden. Fred and George bewitched a number of purple lanterns, all emblazoned with a large number seventeen, to hang in mid-air over the guests. Thanks to Mrs. Weasley's ministrations, George's wound was neat and clean, but Harry was not yet used to the dark hole in the side of his head despite the twins' many jokes about it. Hermione made purple and gold streamers erupt from the end of her wand and draped themselves artistically over the trees and bushes. Nice, said Ron, as with one final flourish of her wand, Hermione turned the leaves of the crabapple tree to gold. You've really got an eye for that sort of thing. Thank you, Ron, said Hermione, looking both pleased and a little confused. Harry turned away, smiling to himself. He had a funny notion that he would find a chapter on compliments when he found time to peruse his copy of Twelve Fail-Safe Ways to Charm Witches. He caught Ginny's eye and grinned at her, before remembering his promise to Ron and hurriedly striking up a conversation with Monsieur Delacour. Out of the way, out of the way, sang Mrs. Weasley, coming through the gate with what appeared to be a giant beach-ball-sized snitch floating in front of her. Seconds later, Harry realized that it was his birthday cake, which Mrs. Weasley was suspending with her wand, rather than risk carrying it over the uneven ground. When the cake had finally landed in the middle of the table, Harry said, That looks amazing, Mrs. Weasley. Oh, it's nothing, dear, she said fondly. 
Over her shoulder, Ron gave Harry the thumbs up and mouthed, Good one. By seven o'clock, all the guests had arrived, led into the house by Fred and George, who had waited for them at the end of the lane. Hagrid had honoured the occasion by wearing his best and horrible hairy brown suit. Although Lupin smiled as he shook Harry's hand, Harry thought he looked rather unhappy. It was all very odd. Tonks, beside him, looked simply radiant. Happy birthday, Harry, she said, hugging him tightly. Seventeen, eh? said Hagrid as he accepted a bucket-sized glass of wine from Fred. Six years to the day since we met Harry. Do you remember it? Vaguely, said Harry, grinning up at him. Didn't you smash down the front door, give Dudley a pig's tail, and tell me I was a wizard? I forget the details, Hagrid chortled. All right, Ron, Hermione. We're fine, said Hermione. How are you? Ah, not bad. Been busy. We got some newborn unicorns. I'll show you when you get back. Harry avoided Ron and Hermione's gazes as Hagrid rummaged in his pocket. Here, Harry. Couldn't think what to get you, but then I remembered this. He pulled out a small, slightly furry drawstring pouch with a long string, evidently intended to be worn around the neck. Mokeskin. Hide anything in there, and no one but the owner can get it out. They're rare, them. Hagrid, thanks. It's nothing, said Hagrid with a wave of a dustbin-lid-sized hand. And there's Charlie. Always liked him. Hey, Charlie! Charlie approached, running his hands slightly ruefully over his new, brutally short haircut. He was shorter than Ron, thick-set, with a number of burns and scratches up his muscly arms. Hi, Hagrid. How's it going? Been meaning to write for ages. How's Norbert doing? Norbert? Charlie laughed. The Norwegian Ridgeback? We call her Norberta now. What? Norbert's a girl? Oh, yeah, said Charlie. How can you tell? asked Hermione. They're a lot more vicious, said Charlie. He looked over his shoulder and dropped his voice. Wish Dad would hurry up and get here. Mum's getting edgy. They all looked over at Mrs. Weasley. She was trying to talk to Madame Delacour while glancing repeatedly at the gate. I think we'd better start without Arthur, she called to the garden at large after a moment or two. He must have been held up at... Oh! They all saw it at the same time. A streak of light that came flying across the yard and onto the table where it resolved itself into a bright silver weasel, which stood on its hind legs and spoke with Mr. Weasley's voice. Minister of Magic, coming with me. The Patronus dissolved into thin air, leaving Fleur's family peering in astonishment at the place where it had vanished. We shouldn't be here, said Lupin at once. Harry, I'm sorry, I'll explain another time. He seized Tonks's wrist and pulled her away. They reached the fence, climbed over it, and vanished from sight. Mrs. Weasley looked bewildered. The minister? But why? I don't understand. But there was no time to discuss the matter. A second later, Mr. Weasley had appeared out of thin air at the gate, accompanied by Rufus Scrimger, instantly recognizable by his mane of grizzled hair. The two newcomers marched across the yard toward the garden and the lantern-lit table, where everybody sat in silence, watching them draw closer. As Scrimger came within range of the lantern light, 
Harry saw that he looked much older than the last time they had met, scraggy and grim. Sorry to intrude, said Scrimger as he limped to a halt before the table, especially as I can see that I am gatecrashing a party. His eyes lingered for a moment on the giant snitch cake. Many happy returns. Thanks, said Harry. I require a private word with you, Scrimger went on. Also with Mr. Ronald Weasley and Miss Hermione Granger. Us? said Ron, sounding surprised. Why us? I shall tell you that when we are somewhere more private, said Scrimger. Is there such a place? he demanded of Mr. Weasley. Yes, of course, said Mr. Weasley, who looked nervous. The, uh, sitting room. Why don't you use that? You can lead the way, Scrimger said to Ron. There will be no need for you to accompany us, Arthur. Harry saw Mr. Weasley exchange a worried look with Mrs. Weasley as he, Ron, and Hermione stood up. As they led the way back to the house in silence, Harry knew that the other two were thinking the same as he was. Scrimger must, somehow, have learned that the three of them were planning to drop out of Hogwarts. Scrimger did not speak as they all passed through the messy kitchen and into the burrow's sitting room. Although the garden had been full of soft golden evening light, it was already dark in here. Harry flicked his wand at the oil lamps as he entered, and they illuminated the shabby but cosy room. Scrimger sat himself in the sagging armchair that Mr. Weasley normally occupied, leaving Harry, Ron, and Hermione to squeeze side by side onto the sofa. Once they had done so, Scrimger spoke. I have some questions for the three of you, and I think it will be best if we do it individually. If you two, he pointed at Harry and Hermione, can wait upstairs, I will start with Ronald. We're not going anywhere, said Harry, while Hermione nodded vigorously. You can speak to us together, or not at all. Scrimger gave Harry a cold, appraising look. Harry had the impression that the minister was wondering whether it was worthwhile opening hostilities this early. Very well, then, together, he said, shrugging. He cleared his throat. I am here, as I'm sure you know, because of Albus Dumbledore's will. Harry, Ron, and Hermione looked at one another. A surprise, apparently. You were not aware, then, that Dumbledore had left you anything? Or... All of us? said Ron. Me? And Hermione, too? Yes, all of... But Harry interrupted. Dumbledore died over a month ago. Why has it taken this long to give us what he left us? Isn't it obvious? said Hermione, before Scrimger could answer. They wanted to examine whatever he's left us. You had no right to do that, she said, and her voice trembled slightly. I had every right, said Scrimger dismissively. The decree for justifiable confiscation gives the Ministry the power to confiscate the contents of a will. That law was created to stop wizards passing on dark artifacts, said Hermione, and the Ministry is supposed to have powerful evidence that the deceased's possessions are illegal before seizing them. Are you telling me that you thought Dumbledore was trying to pass us something cursed? Are you planning to follow a career in magical law, Miss Granger? asked Scrimger. No, I'm not, retorted Hermione. I'm hoping to do some good in the world. Ron laughed. Scrimger's eyes flickered toward him and away again as Harry spoke. 
So why have you decided to let us have our things now? Can't think of a pretext to keep them? No, it'll be because the thirty-one days are up, said Hermione at once. They can't keep the objects longer than that unless they can prove they're dangerous, right? Would you say you were close to Dumbledore, Ronald? asked Scrimger, ignoring Hermione. Ron looked startled. Me? Not... not really. It was always Harry who... Ron looked around at Harry and Hermione, to see Hermione giving him a stop-talking-now sort of look, but the damage was done. Scrimger looked as though he had heard exactly what he had expected and wanted to hear. He swooped like a bird of prey upon Ron's answer. If you were not very close to Dumbledore, how do you account for the fact that he remembered you in his will? He made exceptionally few personal bequests. The vast majority of his possessions, his private library, his magical instruments, and other personal effects were left to Hogwarts. Why do you think you were singled out? I don't know, said Ron. I, when I say we weren't close, I mean, I think he liked me. You're being modest, Ron, said Hermione. Dumbledore was very fond of you. This was stretching the truth to breaking point. As far as Harry knew, Ron and Dumbledore had never been alone together, and direct contact between them had been negligible. However, Scrimger did not seem to be listening. He put his hand inside his cloak and drew out a drawstring pouch, much larger than the one Hagrid had given Harry. From it he removed a scroll of parchment, which he unrolled and read aloud. The last will and testament of Albus Percival Wolfric Brian Dumbledore. Yes, here we are. To Ronald Billius Weasley, I leave my deluminator in the hope that he will remember me when he uses it. Scrimgeour took from the bag an object that Harry had seen before. It looked something like a silver cigarette lighter, but it had, he knew, the power to suck all light from a place and restore it with a simple click. Scrimger leaned forward and passed the deluminator to Ron, who took it and turned it over in his fingers, looking stunned. That is a valuable object, said Scrimger, watching Ron. It may even be unique. Certainly it is of Dumbledore's own design. Why would he have left you an item so rare? Ron shook his head, looking bewildered. Dumbledore must have taught thousands of students, Scrimger persevered. Yet the only ones he remembered in his will are you three. Why is that? To what use did he think you would put his deluminator, Mr. Weasley? Put out lights, I suppose, mumbled Ron. What else could I do with it? Evidently Scrimger had no suggestions. After squinting at Ron for a moment or two, he turned back to Dumbledore's will. To Miss Hermione Jean Granger, I leave my copy of The Tales of Beadle the Bard, in the hope that she will find it entertaining and instructive. Scrimger now pulled out of the bag a small book that looked as ancient as the copy of Secrets of the Darkest Art upstairs. Its binding was stained and peeling in places. Hermione took it from Scrimger without a word. She held the book in her lap and gazed at it. Harry saw that the title was in runes. He had never learned to read them. As he looked, a tear splashed onto the embossed symbols. Why do you think Dumbledore left you that book, Miss Granger? 
asked Scrimger. He, he knew I liked books, said Hermione in a thick voice, mopping her eyes with her sleeve. But why that particular book? I don't know. He must have thought I'd enjoy it. Did you ever discuss codes or any means of passing secret messages with Dumbledore? No, I didn't, said Hermione, still wiping her eyes on her sleeve. And if the Ministry hasn't found any hidden codes in this book in thirty-one days, I doubt that I will. She suppressed a sob. They were wedged together so tightly that Ron had difficulty extracting his arm to put it around Hermione's shoulders. Scrimger turned back to the will. To Harry James Potter, he read, and Harry's insides contracted with a sudden excitement. I leave the snitch he caught in his first Quidditch match at Hogwarts as a reminder of the rewards of perseverance and skill. As Scrimger pulled out the tiny walnut-sized golden ball, its silver wings fluttered rather feebly, and Harry could not help feeling a definite sense of anticlimax. Why did Dumbledore leave you this snitch? asked Scrimger. No idea, said Harry. For the reasons you just read out, I suppose. To remind me what you can get if you persevere and whatever it was. You think this is a mere symbolic keepsake, then? I suppose so, said Harry. What else could it be? I'm asking the questions, said Scrimger, shifting his chair a little closer to the sofa. Dusk was really falling outside now. The marquee beyond the windows towered ghostly white over the hedge. I notice that your birthday cake is in the shape of a snitch, Scrimger said to Harry. Why is that? Hermione laughed derisively. Oh, it can't be a reference to the fact Harry's a great seeker. That's way too obvious, she said. There must be a secret message from Dumbledore hidden in the icing. I don't think there's anything hidden in the icing, said Scrimger. But a snitch would be a very good hiding place for a small object. You know why, I'm sure. Harry shrugged. Hermione, however, answered. Harry thought that answering questions correctly was such a deeply ingrained habit she could not suppress the urge. Because snitches have flesh memories, she said. What? said Harry and Ron together, both considered Hermione's Quidditch knowledge negligible. Correct, said Scrimger. A snitch is not touched by bearskin before it is released, not even by the maker who wears gloves. It carries an enchantment by which it can identify the first human to lay hands upon it in case of a disputed capture. This snitch, he held up the tiny golden ball, will remember your touch, Potter. It occurs to me that Dumbledore, who had prodigious magical skill, whatever his other faults, might have enchanted this snitch so that it will open only for you. Harry's heart was beating rather fast. He was sure that Scrimger was right. How could he avoid taking the snitch with his bare hand in front of the minister? You don't say anything, said Scrimger. Perhaps you already know what the snitch contains. No, said Harry, still wondering how he could appear to touch the snitch without really doing so. If only he knew legitimacy, really knew it, and could read Hermione's mind. 
he could practically hear her brain whirring beside him. Take it, said Scrimger quietly. Harry met the minister's yellow eyes and knew he had no option but to obey. He held out his hand, and Scrimger leaned forward again and placed the snitch slowly and deliberately into Harry's palm. Nothing happened. As Harry's fingers closed around the snitch, its tired wings fluttered and were still. Scrimger, Ron, and Hermione continued to gaze avidly at the now partially concealed ball, as if still hoping it might transform in some way. That was dramatic, said Harry coolly. Both Ron and Hermione laughed. That's all, then, is it? asked Hermione, making to prise herself off the sofa. Not quiet, said Scrimger, who looked bad-tempered now. Dumbledore left you a second bequest, Potter. What is it? asked Harry, excitement rekindling. Scrimger did not bother to read from the will this time. The sword of Godric Gryffindor, he said. Hermione and Ron both stiffened. Harry looked around for a sign of the ruby-encrusted hilt, but Scrimger did not pull the sword from the leather pouch, which, in any case, looked much too small to contain it. So, where is it? Harry asked suspiciously. Unfortunately, said Scrimger, that sword was not Dumbledore's to give away. The sword of Godric Gryffindor is an important historical artifact, and, as such, belongs— It belongs to Harry, said Hermione hotly. It chose him. He was the one who found it. It came to him out of the sorting hat. According to reliable historical sources, the sword may present itself to any worthy Gryffindor, said Scrimger. That does not make it the exclusive property of Mr. Potter, whatever Dumbledore may have decided. Scrimger scratched his badly shaven cheek, scrutinizing Harry. Why do you think Dumbledore wanted to give me the sword? said Harry, struggling to keep his temper. Maybe he thought it would look nice on my wall. This is not a joke, Potter, growled Scrimger. Was it because Dumbledore believed that only the sword of Godric Gryffindor could defeat the heir of Slytherin? Did he wish to give you that sword, Potter, because he believed, as do many, that you are the one destined to destroy he who must not be named? Interesting theory, said Harry. Has anyone ever tried sticking a sword in Voldemort? Maybe the Ministry should put some people onto that, instead of wasting their time stripping down deluminators or covering up breakouts from Azkaban. So is this what you've been doing, Minister? Shut up in your office, trying to break open a snitch. People are dying. I was nearly one of them. Voldemort chased me across three counties. He killed Mad-Eye Moody. But there's been no word about any of that from the Ministry, has there? And you still expect us to cooperate with you? You go too far! shouted Scrimger, standing up. Harry jumped to his feet, too. Scrimger limped toward Harry and jabbed him hard in the chest with the point of his wand. It singed a hole in Harry's T-shirt like a lit cigarette. Oi! said Ron, jumping up and raising his own wand. But Harry said, No, do you want to give him an excuse to arrest us? Remembered you're not at school, have you? 
said Scrimger, breathing hard into Harry's face. Remember that I am not Dumbledore, who forgave your insolence and insubordination. You may wear that scar like a crown, Potter, but it is not up to a seventeen-year-old boy to tell me how to do my job. It's time you learnt some respect. It's time you earned it, said Harry. The floor trembled. There was a sound of running footsteps, then the door to the sitting room burst open, and Mr. and Mrs. Weasley ran in. We, we thought we heard, began Mr. Weasley, looking thoroughly alarmed at the sight of Harry and the minister virtually nose to nose. Raised voices, panted Mrs. Weasley. Scrimger took a couple of steps back from Harry, glancing at the hole he had made in Harry's T-shirt. He seemed to regret his loss of temper. It, it was nothing, he growled. I regret your attitude, he said, looking Harry full in the face once more. You seem to think that the ministry does not desire what you, what Dumbledore desired. We ought to be working together. I don't like your methods, minister, said Harry. Remember? For the second time, he raised his right fist and displayed to Scrimger the scars that still showed white on the back of it, spelling, I must not tell lies. Scrimger's expression hardened. He turned away without another word and limped from the room. Mrs. Weasley hurried after him. Harry heard her stop at the back door. After a minute or so, she called, He's gone! What did he want? Mr. Weasley asked looking around at Harry, Ron, and Hermione as Mrs. Weasley came hurrying back to them. To give us what Dumbledore left us, said Harry. They've only just released the contents of his will. Outside in the garden, over the dinner tables, the three objects Scrimger had given them were passed from hand to hand. Everyone exclaimed over the Deluminator and the tales of Beedle the Bard, and lamented the fact that Scrimger had refused to pass on the sword but none of them could offer any suggestion as to why Dumbledore would have left Harry an old snitch. As Mr. Weasley examined the Deluminator for the third or fourth time, Mrs. Weasley said tentatively, Harry, dear, everyone's awfully hungry. We didn't like to start without you. Shall I serve dinner now? They all ate rather hurriedly, and then, after a hasty chorus of happy birthday and much gulping of cake, the party broke up. Hagrid, who was invited to the wedding the following day, but was far too bulky to sleep in the overstretched burrow, left to set up a tent for himself in a neighboring field. Meet us upstairs, Harry whispered to Hermione, while they helped Mrs. Weasley restore the garden to its normal state, after everyone's gone to, gone to bed. Up in the attic room, Ron examined his deluminator, and Harry filled Hagrid's moke-skin purse, not with gold, but with those items he most prized. Apparently worthless, though some of them were. The Marauder's Map, the Shard of Sirius's Enchanted Mirror, and R.A.B.'s Locket. He pulled the strings tight and slipped the purse around his neck, then sat holding the old snitch and watching its wings flutter feebly. At last Hermione tapped on the door and tiptoed inside. Afliato, she whispered, waving her wand in the direction of the stairs. Thought you didn't approve of that spell, said Ron. Times change, said Hermione. Now, show us that deluminator. Ron obliged at once. Holding it up in front of him, he clicked it. The solitary lamp they had lit went out at once. The thing is, 
whispered Hermione through the dark. We could have achieved that with Peruvian instant darkness powder. There was a small click, and the ball of light from the lamp flew back to the ceiling and illuminated them all once more. Still, it's cool, said Ron a little defensively, and from what they said, Dumbledore invented it himself. I know, but surely he wouldn't have singled you out in his will just to help us turn out the lights? Do you think he knew the Ministry would confiscate his will and examine everything he'd left us? asked Harry. Definitely, said Hermione. He couldn't tell us in the will why he was leaving us these things, but that still doesn't explain. Why he couldn't have given us a hint when he was alive? asked Ron. Well, exactly, said Hermione, now flicking through the tales of Beedle the Bard. If these things are important enough to pass on right under the nose of the Ministry, you'd think he'd have let us know why unless he thought it was obvious. Thought wrong then, didn't he? said Ron. I always said he was mental. Brilliant and everything, but cracked. Leaving Harry and old snitch. What the hell was that about? I've no idea, said Hermione. When Scrimger made you take it, Harry, I was so sure that something was going to happen. Yeah, well, said Harry, his pulse quickening as he raised the snitch in his fingers. I wasn't going to try too hard in front of Scrimger, was I? What do you mean? asked Hermione. The snitch I caught in my first ever Quidditch match, said Harry. Don't you remember? Hermione looked simply bemused. Ron, however, gasped, pointing frantically from Harry to the snitch and back again until he found his voice. That was the one you nearly swallowed. Exactly, said Harry, and with his heart beating fast, he pressed his mouth to the snitch. It did not open. Frustration and bitter disappointment welled up inside him. He lowered the golden sphere, but then Hermione cried out, Writing! There's writing on it! Quick, look! He nearly dropped the snitch in surprise and excitement. Hermione was quite right. Engraved upon the smooth golden surface, where seconds before there had been nothing, were five words, written in the thin, slanting handwriting that Harry recognized as Dumbledore's. I open at the close. He had barely read them when the words vanished again. I open at the close. What's that supposed to mean? Hermione and Ron shook their heads, looking blank. I open at the close? At the close? I open at the close? But no matter how often they repeated the words, with many different inflections, they were unable to wring any more meaning from them. And the sword? said Ron finally, when they had at last abandoned their attempts to divine meaning in the snitch's inscription. Why did he want Harry to have the sword? And why couldn't he just have told me? Harry said quietly. It was there. It was right there on the wall of his office during all our talks last year. If he wanted me to have it, why didn't he just give it to me then? He felt as though he was sitting in an examination with a question he ought to have been able to answer in front of him his brain slow and unresponsive. Was there something he had missed in the long talks with Dumbledore last year? Ought he to know what it all meant? Had Dumbledore expected him to understand? And as for this book, said Hermione, the tales of Beedle the Bard, I've never even heard of them. You've never heard of the tales of Beedle the Bard? said Ron incredulously. You're kidding, right? No, I'm not said Hermione in surprise. Do you know them, then? 
Well, of course I do. Harry looked up, diverted. The circumstance of Ron having read a book that Hermione had not was unprecedented. Ron, however, looked bemused by their surprise. Oh, come on! All the old kids' stories are supposed to be beadles, aren't they? The Fountain of Fair Fortune, the Wizard and the Hopping Pot, Babbity Rabbity and her cackling stump. Excuse me, said Hermione, giggling. What was that last one? Come off it, said Ron, looking in disbelief from Harry to Hermione. You must have heard of Babbity Rabbity. Ron, you know full well Harry and I were brought up by muggles, said Hermione. We didn't hear stories like that when we were little. We heard Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Cinderella. What's that, an illness? asked Ron. So these are children's stories? asked Hermione, bending again over the runes. Yeah, said Ron uncertainly. I mean, that's just what you hear, you know, that all these old stories came from Beedle. I don't know what they're like in the original versions, but I wonder why Dumbledore thought I should read them. Something creaked downstairs. Probably just Charlie, now Mum's asleep, sneaking off to regrow his hair, said Ron nervously. All the same, we should get to bed, whispered Hermione. It wouldn't do to oversleep tomorrow. No, agreed Ron. A brutal triple murder by the bridegroom's mother might put a bit of a damper on the wedding. I'll get the lights. And he clicked the deluminator once more as Hermione left the room. Chapter 8 The Wedding Three o'clock on the following afternoon found Harry, Ron, Fred, and George standing outside the great white marquee in the orchard, awaiting the arrival of the wedding guests. Harry had taken a large dose of polyjuice potion and was now the double of a red-headed muggle boy from the local village, Otterisant Catchpole, from whom Fred had stolen hairs using a summoning charm. The plan was to introduce Harry as Cousin Barney and trust to the great number of Weasley relatives to camouflage him. All four of them were clutching seating plans so that they could help show people to the right seats. A host of white-robed waiters had arrived an hour earlier, along with a golden-jacketed band, and all of these wizards were currently sitting a short distance away under a tree. Harry could see a blue haze of pipe smoke issuing from the spot. Behind Harry, the entrance to the marquee revealed rows and rows of fragile golden chairs set on either side of a long purple carpet. The supporting poles were entwined with white and gold flowers. Fred and George had fastened an enormous bunch of golden balloons over the exact point where Bill and Fleur would shortly become husband and wife. Outside, butterflies and bees were hovering lazily over the grass and hedgerow. Harry was rather uncomfortable. The muggle boy whose appearance he was affecting was slightly fatter than him, and his dress robes felt hot and tight in the full glare of a summer's day. When I get married, said Fred, tugging at the collar of his own robes, I won't be bothering with any of this nonsense. You can all wear what you like, and I'll put a full body-bind curse on Mum until it's all over. She wasn't too bad this morning, considering, said George. Cried a bit about Percy not being here, but who wants him? Oh, blimey, brace yourselves. Here they come. Look. Brightly colored figures were appearing, one by one, out of nowhere, at the distant boundary of the yard. 
Within minutes, a procession had formed, which began to snake its way up through the garden toward the marquee. Exotic flowers and bewitched birds fluttered on the witches' hats, while precious gems glittered from many of the wizard's cravats. A hum of excited chatter grew louder and louder, drowning the sound of the bees as the crowd approached the tent. Excellent! I think I see a few Vela cousins, said George, craning his neck for a better look. They'll need help understanding our English customs. I'll look after them. Not so fast, your holiness, said Fred, and darting past the gaggle of middle-aged witches heading the procession, he said, Here, permettez-moi to assistez-vous to a pair of pretty French girls who giggled and allowed him to escort them inside. George was left to deal with the middle-aged witches, and Ron took charge of Mr. Weasley's old ministry colleague Perkins, while a rather deaf old couple fell to Harry's lot. Witcher, said a familiar voice as he came out of the marquee again, and found Tonks and Lupin at the front of the queue. She had turned blonde for the occasion. Arthur told us you were the one with the curly hair. Sorry about last night, she added in a whisper as Harry led them up the aisle. The ministry's been very anti-werewolf at the moment, and we thought our presence might not do you any favours. It's fine. I understand, said Harry, speaking more to Lupin than Tonks. Lupin gave him a swift smile, but as they turned away, Harry saw Lupin's face fall again into lines of misery. He did not understand it, but there was no time to dwell on the matter. Hagrid was causing a certain amount of disruption. Having misunderstood Fred's directions, he had sat himself, not upon the magically enlarged and reinforced seat set aside for him in the back row, but on five seats that now resembled a large pile of golden matchsticks. While Mr. Weasley repaired the damage and Hagrid shouted apologies to anybody who would listen, Harry hurried back to the entrance to find Ron face to face with a most eccentric-looking wizard. Slightly cross-eyed, with shoulder-length white hair the texture of candy floss, he wore a cap whose tassel dangled in front of his nose, and robes of an eye-watering shade of egg-yolk yellow. An odd symbol, rather like a triangular eye, glistened from a golden chain around his neck. Xenophilius Lovegood, he said, extending a hand to Harry. My daughter and I live just over the hill, so kind of the good Weasleys to invite us. But I think you know my Luna, he added to Ron. Yes, said Ron. Isn't she with you? She lingered in that charming little garden to say hello to the gnomes. Such a glorious infestation. How few wizards realize just how much we can learn from the wise little gnomes, or, to give them their correct name, the Gernumbly Gardensi. Ours do know a lot of excellent swear words, said Ron, but I think Fred and George taught them those. He led a party of warlocks into the marquee as Luna rushed up. Hello, Harry, she said. Uh, my name's Barney said Harry, flummoxed. Oh, have you changed that too? she asked brightly. How did you know? Oh, just your expression, she said. Like her father, Luna was wearing bright yellow robes, which she had accessorized with a large sunflower in her hair. 
Once you got over the brightness of it all, the general effect was quite pleasant. At least there were no radishes dangling from her ears. Xenophilius, who was deep in conversation with an acquaintance, had missed the exchange between Luna and Harry. Bidding the wizard farewell, he turned to his daughter, who held up her finger and said, Daddy, look, one of the gnomes actually bit me. How wonderful! Gnome saliva is enormously beneficial, said Mr. Lovegood, seizing Luna's outstretched finger and examining the bleeding puncture marks. Luna, my love, if you should feel any burgeoning talent today, perhaps an unexpected urge to sing opera or to declaim in Murmish, do not repress it. You may have been gifted by the Gernumblies. Ron, passing them in the opposite direction, let out a loud snort. Ron can laugh, said Luna serenely, as Harry led her and Xenophilius toward their seats. But my father has done a lot of research on Gernumbly magic. Really, said Harry, who had long since decided not to challenge Luna or her father's peculiar views. Are you sure you don't want to put anything on that bite, though? Oh, it's fine, said Luna, sucking her finger in a dreamy fashion and looking Harry up and down. You look smart. I told Daddy most people would probably wear dress robes, but he believes you ought to wear sun colors to a wedding for luck, you know. As she drifted off after her father, Ron reappeared with an elderly witch clutching his arm. Her beaky nose, red-rimmed eyes, and feathery pink hat gave her the look of a bad-tempered flamingo. And your hair's much too long, Ronald. For a moment I thought you were Ginevra. Merlin's beard, what is Xenophilius Lovegood wearing? He looks like an omelette. And who are you? She barked at Harry. Oh, yeah, Auntie Muriel, this is our cousin Barney. Another Weasley. You breed like gnomes. Isn't Harry Potter here? I was hoping to meet him. I thought he was a friend of yours, Ronald. Or have you merely been boasting? No, he couldn't come. Hmm, made an excuse, did he? Not as gormless as he looks in best photographs, then. I've just been instructing the bride on how best to wear my tiara, she shouted at Harry. Goblin maid, you know, and been in my family for centuries. She's a good-looking girl, but still French. Well, well, find me a good seat, Ronald. I'm a hundred and seven, and I ought not to be on my feet too long. Ron gave Harry a meaningful look as he passed and did not reappear for some time. When next they met at the entrance, Harry had shown a dozen more people to their places. The marquee was nearly full now, and for the first time there was no queue outside. Nightmare, Muriel is, said Ron, mopping his forehead on his sleeve. She used to come for Christmas every year. Then, thank God, she took offense because Fred and George set off a dung bum under her chair at dinner. Dad always says she'll have written them out of her will, like they care. They're going to end up richer than anyone in the family, right there going. Wow, he added, blinking rather rapidly as Hermione came hurrying toward them. You look great. Always a tone of surprise, said Hermione, though she smiled. She was wearing a floaty, lilac-colored dress with matching high heels. Her hair was sleek and shiny. 
Your great-aunt Muriel doesn't agree. I just met her upstairs while she was giving Fleur the tiara. She said, Oh, dear, is this the muggle-born? And then, bad posture and skinny ankles. Don't take it personally. She's rude to everyone, said Ron. Talking about Muriel? inquired George, re-emerging from the marquee with Fred. Yeah, she's just told me my ears are lopsided. Old bat. I wish old Uncle Billius was still with us, though. He was a right laugh at weddings. Wasn't he the one who saw a grim and died twenty-four hours later? asked Hermione. Well, yeah, he went a bit odd toward the end, conceded George. But before he went, Loopy, he was the life and soul of the party, said Fred. He used to down an entire bottle of fire whiskey, then run onto the dance floor, hoist up his robes, and start pulling bunches of flowers out of his... Yes, he sounds a real charmer, said Hermione, while Harry roared with laughter. Never married, for some reason, said Ron. You amaze me, said Hermione. They were all laughing so much that none of them noticed the latecomer, a dark-haired young man with a large curved nose and thick black eyebrows, until he held out his invitation to Ron and said, with his eyes on Hermione, You look wonderful. Victor! She shrieked and dropped her small beaded bag, which made a loud thump quite disproportionate to its size. As she scrambled, blushing to pick it up, she said, I didn't know you were... Goodness, it's lovely to see. How are you? Ron's ears had turned bright red again. After glancing at Crumb's invitation as if he did not believe a word of it, he said, much too loudly, How come you're here? Fleur invited me, said Crumb, eyebrows raised. Harry, who had no grudge against Crumb, shook hands. Then, feeling that it would be prudent to remove Crumb from Ron's vicinity, offered to show him his seat. Your friend is not pleased to see me, said Crumb, as they entered the now-packed marquee. Or is he a relative? he added, with a glance at Harry's red curly hair. Cousin, Harry muttered, but Crumb was not really listening. His appearance was causing a stir, particularly amongst the Vila cousins. He was, after all, a famous Quidditch player. While people were still craning their necks to get a good look at him, Ron, Hermione, Fred, and George came hurrying down the aisle. Time to sit down, Fred told Harry, or we're going to get run over by the bride. Harry, Ron, and Hermione took their seats in the second row behind Fred and George. Hermione looked rather pink, and Ron's ears were still scarlet. After a few moments, he muttered to Harry, Did you see he's grown a stupid little beard? Harry gave a non-committal grunt. A sense of jittery anticipation had filled the warm tent, the general murmuring broken by occasional spurts of excited laughter. Mr. and Mrs. Weasley strolled up the aisle, smiling and waving at relatives. Mrs. Weasley was wearing a brand-new set of amethyst-colored robes with a matching hat. A moment later, Bill and Charlie stood up at the front of the marquee, both wearing dress robes with large white roses in their buttonholes. Fred Wolf whistled, and there was an outbreak of giggling from the Vila cousins. Then the crowd fell silent as music swelled from what seemed to be the golden balloons. Oh, said Hermione, swiveling around in her seat to look at the entrance. A great collective sigh issued from the assembled witches and wizards as Monsieur Delacour and Fleur came walking up the aisle. 
Fleur gliding, Monsieur Delacour bouncing and beaming. Fleur was wearing a very simple white dress and seemed to be emitting a strong, silvery glow. While her radiance usually dimmed everyone else by comparison, today it beautified everybody it fell upon. Ginny and Gabrielle, both wearing golden dresses, looked even prettier than usual, and once Fleur had reached him, Bill did not look as though he had ever met Fenrir Greyback. Ladies and gentlemen, said a slightly sing-song voice, and with a slight shock, Harry saw the same small, tufty-haired wizard who had presided at Dumbledore's funeral, now standing in front of Bill and Fleur. We have gathered here today to celebrate the union of two faithful souls. Yes, my tiara sets off the whole thing nicely, said Auntie Muriel in a rather carrying whisper. But I must say, Ginevra's dress is far too low-cut. Ginny glanced around, grinning, winked at Harry, then quickly faced the front again. Harry's mind wandered a long way from the marquee, back to afternoons spent alone with Ginny in lonely parts of the school grounds. They seemed so long ago. They had always seemed too good to be true, as though he had been stealing shining hours from a normal person's life, a person without a lightning-shaped scar on his forehead. Do you, William Arthur, take Fleur Isabel? In the front row, Mrs. Weasley and Madame Delacour were both sobbing quietly into scraps of lace. Trumpet-like sounds from the back of the marquee told everyone that Hagrid had taken out one of his own tablecloth-sized handkerchiefs. Hermione turned and beamed at Harry. Her eyes, too, were full of tears. Then I declare you bonded for life. The tufty-haired wizard waved his wand high over the heads of Bill and Fleur, and a shower of silver stars fell upon them, spiraling around their now-entwined figures. As Fred and George led a round of applause, the golden balloons overhead burst. Birds of paradise and tiny golden bells flew and floated out of them, adding their songs and chimes to the din. Ladies and gentlemen, called the tufty-haired wizard, if you would please stand up. They all did so, Auntie Muriel grumbling audibly. He waved his wand again. The seats on which they had been sitting rose gracefully into the air as the canvas walls of the marquee vanished, so that they stood beneath a canopy supported by golden poles with a glorious view of the sunlit orchard and surrounding countryside. Next, a pool of molten gold spread from the center of the tent to form a gleaming dance floor. The hovering chairs grouped themselves around small, white-clothed tables, which all floated gracefully back to earth around it and the golden-jacketed band trooped toward a podium. Smooth, said Ron approvingly, as the waiters popped up on all sides, some bearing silver trays of pumpkin juice, butter beer, and fire whiskey, others tottering piles of tarts and sandwiches. We should go and congratulate them, said Hermione, standing on tiptoe to see the place where Bill and Fleur had vanished amid a crowd of well-wishers. We'll have time later. "'shrugged Ron, snatching three butterbeers from a passing tray "'and handing one to Harry. "'Hermione, cop hold. Let's grab a table. "'Not there. Nowhere near Muriel.' "'Ron led the way across the empty dance floor, "'glancing left and right as he went. "'Harry felt sure that he was keeping an eye out for Crumb. "'By the time they had reached the other side of the marquee, "'most of the tables were occupied. 
The emptiest was the one where Luna sat alone. All right, if we join you, asked Ron. Oh, yes, she said happily. Daddy's just gone to give Bill and Fleur our present. What is it? A lifetime supply of Gurdy roots? asked Ron. Hermione aimed a kick at him under the table, but caught Harry instead. Eyes watering in pain, Harry lost track of the conversation for a few moments. The band had begun to play. Bill and Fleur took to the dance floor first, to great applause. After a while, Mr. Weasley led Madame Delacour onto the floor, followed by Mrs. Weasley and Fleur's father. I like this song, said Luna, swaying in time to the waltz-like tune, and a few seconds later she stood up and glided onto the dance floor, where she revolved on the spot, quite alone, eyes closed and waving her arms. She's great, isn't she? said Ron admiringly. Always good value. But the smile vanished from his face at once. Victor Crumb had dropped into Luna's vacant seat. Hermione looked pleasurably flustered, but this time Crumb had not come to compliment her. With a scowl on his face, he said, Who is that man in the yellow? That's Xenophilius Lovegood. He's the father of a friend of ours, said Ron. His pugnacious tone indicated that they were not about to laugh at Xenophilius, despite the clear provocation. Come and dance, he added abruptly to Hermione. She looked taken aback, but pleased, too, and got up. They vanished together into the growing throng on the dance floor. Ah, they are together now? asked Crumb, momentarily distracted. Uh, sort of, said Harry. Who are you? Crumb asked. Barney Weasley. They shook hands. You, Barney... You know this man Lovegood, well? No, I only met him today. Why? Crumb glowered over the top of his drink, watching Xenophilius, who was chatting to several warlocks on the other side of the dance floor. Because, said Crumb, if he was not a guest of Fleur's, I would duel him, here and now, for wearing that filthy sign upon his chest. Sign? said Harry, looking over at Xenophilius too. The strange triangular eye was gleaming on his chest. Why? What's wrong with it? Grindelwald! That is Grindelwald's sign! Grindelwald? The dark wizard Dumbledore defeated? Exactly! Crumb's jaw muscles worked as if he were chewing, then he said, Grindelwald killed many people, my grandfather, for instance. Of course, he was never powerful in this country. They said he feared Dumbledore, and rightly, seeing how he was finished, but this... He pointed a finger at Xenophilius. This is his symbol. I recognized it at once. Grindelwald carved it into a wall at Durmstrang when he was a pupil there. Some idiots copied it onto their books and clothes, thinking to shock, make themselves impressive, until those of us who had lost family members to Grindelwald taught them better. Crumb cracked his knuckles menacingly and glowered at Xenophilius. Harry felt perplexed. It seemed incredibly unlikely that Luna's father was a supporter of the dark arts, and nobody else in the tent seemed to have recognized the triangular, rune-like shape. Are you, uh, quite sure it's Grindelwald's? I am not mistaken, said Crumb coldly. I've walked past that sign for several years. I know it well. 
Well, there's a chance, said Harry, that Xenophilius doesn't actually know what the symbol means. The love goods are quite unusual. He could easily have picked it up somewhere and think it's a cross-section of the head of a crumple-horned snorkak, or something. The cross-section of a what? Well, I don't know what they are, but apparently he and his daughter go on holiday looking for them. Harry felt he was doing a bad job explaining Luna and her father. That's her, he said, pointing at Luna, who was still dancing alone, waving her arms around her head like someone attempting to beat off midges. Why is she doing that? asked Crumb. Probably trying to get rid of a rackspurt, said Harry, who recognized the symptoms. Crumb did not seem to know whether or not Harry was making fun of him. He drew his wand from inside his robes and tapped it menacingly on his thigh. Sparks flew out of the end. Gregorovich, said Harry loudly, and Crumb started, but Harry was too excited to care. The memory had come back to him at the sight of Crumb's wand, Ollivander taking it and examining it carefully before the Triwizard Tournament. What about him? asked Crumb suspiciously. He's a wand-maker. I know that, said Crumb. He made your wand. That's why I thought Quidditch. Crumb was looking more and more suspicious. How do you know Gregorovich made my wand? I, I read it somewhere, I think, said Harry, in a, a fan magazine. He improvised wildly, and Crumb looked mollified. I had not realized I ever discussed my wand with fans, he said. So, uh, where is Grigorovich these days? Crumb looked puzzled. He retired several years ago. I was one of the last to purchase a Grigorovich wand. They are the best, although I know, of course, that you Britons set much store by Ollivander. Harry did not answer. He pretended to watch the dancers like Crumb, but he was thinking hard. So Voldemort was looking for a celebrated wand-maker, and Harry did not have to search far for a reason. It was surely because of what Harry's wand had done on the night that Voldemort had pursued him across the skies. The holly and phoenix feather wand had conquered the borrowed wand, something that Ollivander had not anticipated or understood. Would Grigorovich know better? Was he truly more skilled than Ollivander? Did he know secrets of ones that Ollivander did not? This girl is very nice-looking, Crumb said, recalling Harry to his surroundings. Crumb was pointing at Ginny, who had just joined Luna. She is also a relative of yours? Yeah, said Harry, suddenly irritated. And she's seeing someone. Jealous type, big bloke. You wouldn't want to cross him. Crumb grunted. What, he said, draining his goblet and getting to his feet again, is the point of being an international Quidditch player if all the good-looking girls are taken? And he strode off, leaving Harry to take a sandwich from a passing waiter and make his way around the edge of the crowded dance floor. He wanted to find Ron to tell him about Grigorovich, but Ron was dancing with Hermione out in the middle of the floor. Harry leaned up against one of the golden pillars and watched Ginny, who was now dancing with Fred and George's friend Lee Jordan, trying not to feel resentful about the promise he had given Ron. He had never been to a wedding before, so he could not judge how wizarding celebrations differed from muggle ones, 
though he was pretty sure that the latter would not involve a wedding cake topped with two model phoenixes that took flight when the cake was cut, or bottles of champagne that floated unsupported through the crowd. As evening drew in, and moths began to swoop under the canopy, now lit with floating golden lanterns, the revelry became more and more uncontained. Fred and George had long since disappeared into the darkness with a pair of Fleur's cousins. Charlie, Hagrid, and a squat wizard in a purple pork-pie hat were singing Odo the Hero in a corner. Wandering through the crowd so as to escape a drunken uncle of Ron's, who seemed unsure whether or not Harry was his son, Harry spotted an old wizard sitting alone at a table. His cloud of white hair made him look rather like an aged dandelion clock and was topped by a moth-eaten fez. He was vaguely familiar. Racking his brains, Harry suddenly realized that this was Elpheus Doge, member of the Order of the Phoenix and the writer of Dumbledore's obituary. Harry approached him. May I sit down? Of course, of course, said Doge. He had a rather high-pitched, wheezy voice. Harry leaned in. Mr. Doge, I'm Harry Potter. Doge gasped. My dear boy, Arthur told me you were here, disguised. I am so glad, so honored. In a flutter of nervous pleasure, Doge poured Harry a goblet of champagne. I thought of writing to you, he whispered. After Dumbledore, the shock, and for you, I am sure. Doge's tiny eyes filled with sudden tears. I saw the obituary you wrote for the Daily Prophet, said Harry. I didn't realize you knew Professor Dumbledore so well. As well as anyone, said Doge, dabbing his eyes with a napkin. Certainly I knew him longest, if you don't count Aberforth. And somehow people never do seem to count Aberforth. Speaking of the Daily Prophet... I don't know whether you saw, Mr. Doge. Oh, please, call me Elpheus, dear boy. Elpheus, I don't know whether you saw the interview Rita Skeeter gave about Dumbledore. Doge's face flooded with angry color. Oh, yes, Harry, I saw it. That woman, or vulture might be a more accurate term, positively pestered me to talk to her. I am ashamed to say that I became rather rude calling her an interfering trout, which resulted, as you may have seen, in aspersions cast upon my sanity. Well, in that interview, Harry went on, Rita Skeeter hinted that Professor Dumbledore was involved in the dark arts when he was young. Don't believe a word of it, said Doge at once. Not a word, Harry. Let nothing tarnish your memories of Albus Dumbledore. Harry looked into Doge's earnest, pained face and felt, not reassured, but frustrated. Did Doge really think it was that easy that Harry could simply choose not to believe? Didn't Doge understand Harry's need to be sure, to know everything? Perhaps Doge suspected Harry's feelings, for he looked concerned and hurried on. Harry, Rita Skeeter is a dreadful... But he was interrupted by a shrill cackle. Rita Skeeter? Oh, I love her. Always read her. Harry and Doge looked up to see Auntie Muriel standing there, the plumes dancing on her hat, a goblet of champagne in her hand. She's written a book about Dumbledore, you know. 
Hello, Muriel, said Doge. Yes, we were just discussing. You there, give me your chair. I'm a hundred and seven. Another red-headed Weasley cousin jumped off his seat, looking alarmed, and Auntie Muriel swung it around with surprising strength and plopped herself down upon it between Doge and Harry. Hello again, Barry, or whatever your name is, she said to Harry. Now, what were you saying about Rita Skeeter, Alpheus? You know she's written a biography of Dumbledore. I can't wait to read it. I must remember to place an order at Flourish and Blots. Doge looked stiff and solemn at this, but Auntie Muriel drained her goblet and clicked her bony fingers at a passing waiter for a replacement. She took another large gulp of champagne, belched, and then said, There's no need to look like a pair of stuffed frogs. Before he became so respected and respectable and all that tosh, there were some mighty funny rumours about Albus. Ill-informed sniping, said Doge, turning radish-coloured again. You would say that, Alpheus, cackled Auntie Muriel. I noticed how you skated over the sticky patches in that obituary of yours. I'm sorry you think so said Doge, more coldly still. I assure you I was writing from the heart. Ah, we all know you worship Dumbledore. I dare say you'll still think he was a saint, even if it does turn out that he did away with his squib sister. Muriel, exclaimed Doge. A chill that had nothing to do with the iced champagne was stealing through Harry's chest. What do you mean? he asked Muriel. Who said his sister was a squib? I thought she was ill. Thought wrong then, didn't you, Barry? said Auntie Muriel, looking delighted at the effect she had produced. Anyway, how could you expect to know anything about it? It all happened years and years before you were even thought of, my dear. And the truth is that those of us who were alive then never knew what really happened. That's why I can't wait to find out what Skeeter's unearthed. Dumbledore kept that sister of his quiet for a long time. Untrue, wheezed Doge. Absolutely untrue. He never told me his sister was a squib, said Harry, without thinking, still cold inside. And why on earth would he tell you? screeched Muriel, swaying a little in her seat as she attempted to focus upon Harry. The reason Albus never spoke about Ariana, began Elpheus in a voice stiff with emotion, is, I should have thought quite clear, he was so devastated by her death. Why did nobody ever see her, Elpheus? squawked Muriel. Why did half of us never even know she existed until they carried the coffin out of the house and held a funeral for her? Where was saintly Albus while Ariana was locked in the cellar, off being brilliant at Hogwarts, and never mind what was going on in his own house? What do you mean, locked in the cellar? asked Harry. What is this? Doge looked wretched. Auntie Muriel cackled again and answered Harry. Dumbledore's mother was a terrifying woman, simply terrifying, muggle-born. 
Though I heard she pretended otherwise. She never pretended anything of the sort. Kendra was a fine woman, whispered Doge miserably, but Aunt Muriel ignored him. Proud and very domineering, the sort of witch who would have been mortified to produce a squib. Ariana was not a squib, wheezed Doge. So you say, Elpheus, but explain then why she never attended Hogwarts, said Auntie Muriel. She turned back to Harry. In our days, squibs were often hushed up, though to take it to the extreme of actually imprisoning a little girl in a house and pretending she didn't exist. I tell you, that's not what happened, said Doge. But Auntie Muriel steamrolled on, still addressing Harry. Squibs were usually shipped off to muggle schools and encouraged to integrate into the muggle community, much kinder than trying to find them a place in the wizarding world where they must always be second class. But naturally, Kendra Dumbledore wouldn't have dreamed of letting her daughter go to a muggle school. Ariana was delicate, said Doge desperately. Her health was always too poor to permit her. To permit her to leave the house, cackled Muriel. And yet she was never taken to St. Mungo's and no healer was ever summoned to see her. Really, Muriel, how you can possibly know whether... For your information, Elpheus, my cousin Lancelot was a healer at St. Mungo's at the time, and he told my family in strictest confidence that Ariana had never been seen there. Almost suspicious, Lancelot thought. Doge looked to be on the verge of tears. Auntie Muriel, who seemed to be enjoying herself hugely, snapped her fingers for more champagne. Numbly, Harry thought of how the Dursleys had once shut him up, locked him away, kept him out of sight, all for the crime of being a wizard. Had Dumbledore's sister suffered the same fate in reverse, imprisoned for her lack of magic? And had Dumbledore truly left her to her fate while he went off to Hogwarts to prove himself brilliant and talented? Now, if Kendra hadn't died first, Muriel resumed, I'd have said that it was she who finished off Ariana. How can you, Muriel? groaned Doge. A mother kill her own daughter. Think what you are saying. If the mother in question was capable of imprisoning her daughter for years on end, why not? shrugged Auntie Muriel. But, as I say, it doesn't fit. Because Kendra died before Ariana. Of what? Nobody ever seemed sure. Oh, no doubt Ariana murdered her, said Doge with a brave attempt at scorn. Why not? Yes, Ariana might have made a desperate bid for freedom and killed Kendra in the struggle, said Auntie Muriel thoughtfully. Shake your head all you like, Elpheus. You were at Ariana's funeral, were you not? Yes, I was, said Doge through trembling lips. And a more desperately sad occasion I cannot remember.
Albus was heartbroken. His heart wasn't the only thing. Didn't Aberforth break Albus's nose halfway through the service? If Doge had looked horrified before this, it was nothing to how he looked now. Muriel might have stabbed him. She cackled loudly and took another swig of champagne, which dribbled down her chin. How do you? croaked Doge. My mother was friendly with old Batilda Bagshot, said Auntie Muriel happily. Batilda described the whole thing to mother while I was listening at the door. A coffin-side brawl, the way Batilda told it. Aberforth shouted that it was all Albus's fault that Ariana was dead, and then punched him in the face. According to Batilda, Albus did not even defend himself, and that's odd enough in itself. Albus could have destroyed Aberforth in a duel with both hands tied behind his back. Muriel swigged yet more champagne. The recitation of these old scandals seemed to elate her as much as they horrified Doge. Harry did not know what to think, what to believe. He wanted the truth, and yet all Doge did was sit there and bleat feebly that Ariana had been ill. Harry could hardly believe that Dumbledore would not have intervened if such cruelty was happening inside his own house, and yet there was undoubtedly something odd about the story. And I'll tell you something else, Muriel said, hiccuping slightly as she lowered her goblet. I think Batilda has spilled the beans to Rita Skeeter. All those hints in Skeeter's interview about an important source close to the Dumbledores. Goodness knows she was there all through the Ariana business, and it would fit. But Zelda would never talk to Rita Skeeter, whispered Doge. But Tilda Bagshot, Harry said, the author of A History of Magic. The name was printed on the front of one of Harry's textbooks, though admittedly not one of the ones he had read most attentively. Yes, said Doge, clutching at Harry's question like a drowning man at a life belt. A most gifted magical historian and an old friend of Albus's. Quite gaga these days, I've heard, said Auntie Muriel cheerfully. If that is so, it is even more dishonorable for Skeeter to have taken advantage of her, said Doge. And no reliance can be placed on anything but Tilda may have said. Oh, there are ways of bringing back memories, and I'm sure Reacher Skeeter knows them all, said Auntie Muriel. But even if Batilda's completely cuckoo, I'm sure she'd still have old photographs, maybe even letters. She knew the Dumbledores for years. Well worth a trip to Godric's Hollow, I'd have thought. Harry, who'd been taking a sip of butterbeer, choked. Doge banged him on the back as Harry coughed, looking at Auntie Muriel through streaming eyes. Once he had control of his voice again, he asked, Batilda Bagshot lives in Godric's Hollow? Oh, yes, she's been there forever. The Dumbledores moved there after Percival was imprisoned, and she was their neighbour. The Dumbledores lived in Godric's Hollow? Yes, Barry, that's what I just said said Auntie Muriel testily. 
Harry felt drained, empty. Never once in six years had Dumbledore told Harry that they had both lived and lost loved ones in Godric's Hollow. Why? Were Lily and James buried close to Dumbledore's mother and sister? Had Dumbledore visited their graves, perhaps walked past Lily's and James's to do so, and he had never once told Harry, never bothered to say? And why it was so important— Harry could not explain even to himself, yet he felt it had been tantamount to a lie not to tell him that they had this place and these experiences in common. He stared ahead of him, barely noticing what was going on around him, and did not realize that Hermione had appeared out of the crowd until she drew up a chair beside him. I simply can't dance any more, she panted, slipping off one of her shoes and rubbing the sole of her foot. Ron's gone looking to find more butterbeers. It's a bit hard. I'd just seen Victor storming away from Luna's father. It looked like they'd been arguing. She dropped her voice, staring at him. Harry, are you okay? Harry did not know where to begin, but it did not matter. At that moment, something large and silver came falling through the canopy over the dance floor. Graceful and gleaming, the lynx landed lightly in the middle of the astonished dancers. Heads turned as those nearest it froze absurdly in mid-dance. Then the Patronus's mouth opened wide, and it spoke in the loud, deep, slow voice of Kingsley Shacklebolt. The ministry has fallen. Scrimger is dead. They are coming. Chapter 9 A Place to Hide Everything seemed fuzzy, slow. Harry and Hermione jumped to their feet and drew their wands. Many people were only just realizing that something strange had happened. Heads were still turning toward the silver cat as it vanished. Silence spread outward in cold ripples from the place where the Patronus had landed. Then somebody screamed. Harry and Hermione threw themselves into the panicking crowd. Guests were sprinting in all directions. Many were disapparating. The protective enchantments around the burrow had broken. Ron! Hermione cried. Ron! Where are you? As they pushed their way across the dance floor, Harry saw cloaked and masked figures appearing in the crowd. Then he saw Lupin and Tonks, their wands raised, and heard both of them shout, Protego! A cry that was echoed on all sides. Ron! Ron! Hermione called, half-sobbing as she and Harry were buffeted by terrified guests. Harry seized her hand to make sure they weren't separated as a streak of light whizzed over their heads. Whether a protective charm or something more sinister, he did not know. And then Ron was there. He caught hold of Hermione's free arm, and Harry felt her turn on the spot. Sight and sound were extinguished as darkness pressed in upon him. All he could feel was Hermione's hand as he was squeezed through space and time, away from the burrow, away from the descending Death Eaters, away, perhaps, from Voldemort himself. Where are we? said Ron's voice. Harry opened his eyes. For a moment he thought they had not left the wedding after all. They still seemed to be surrounded by people. Tottenham Court Road, panted Hermione. Walk! Just walk. We need to find somewhere for you to change. Harry did as she asked. They half walked, half ran up the wide, dark street, thronged with late-night revelers and lined with closed shops, stars twinkling above them. 
A double-decker bus rumbled by, and a group of merry pub-goers ogled them as they passed. Harry and Ron were still wearing dress robes. Hermione, we haven't got anything to change into, Ron told her as a young woman burst into raucous giggles at the sight of him. Why didn't I make sure I had the invisibility cloak with me, said Harry, inwardly cursing his own stupidity. All last year I kept it on me, and it's okay, I've got the cloak. I've got clothes for both of you, said Hermione. Just try and act naturally until this will do. She led them down a side street, then into the shelter of a shadowy alleyway. When you say you've got the cloak and clothes, said Harry, frowning at Hermione, who was carrying nothing except her small beaded handbag in which she was now rummaging. Yes, they're here, said Hermione, and to Harry and Ron's utter astonishment, she pulled out a pair of jeans, a sweatshirt, some maroon socks, and finally the silvery invisibility cloak. How the ruddy hell! Undetectable extension charm, said Hermione. Tricky, but I think I've done it okay. Anyway, I managed to fit everything we need in here. She gave the fragile-looking bag a little shake, and it echoed like a cargo hold as a number of heavy objects rolled around inside it. Oh, damn, that'll be the books, she said, peering into it. And I had them all stacked by subject. Oh, well, Harry, you'd better take the invisibility cloak. Ron, hurry up and change. When did you do all this? Harry asked as Ron stripped off his robes. I told you, at the burrow. I've had the essentials packed for days, you know, in case we needed to make a quick getaway. I packed your rucksack this morning, Harry, after you changed, and put it in here. I just had a feeling. You're amazing, you are, said Ron, handing her his bundled-up robes. Thank you, said Hermione, managing a small smile as she pushed the robes into the bag. Please, Harry, get that cloak on. Harry threw the invisibility cloak around his shoulders and pulled it up over his head, vanishing from sight. He was only just beginning to appreciate what had happened. The others, everyone at the wedding. We can't worry about that now, whispered Hermione. It's you there after, Harry, and we'll just put everyone in even more danger by going back. She's right, said Ron, who seemed to know that Harry was about to argue, even if he could not see his face. Most of the order was there. They'll look after everyone. Harry nodded, then remembered that they could not see him and said, Yeah. But he thought of Ginny, and fear bubbled like acid in his stomach. Come on, I think we ought to keep moving, said Hermione. They moved back up the side street and onto the main road again, where a group of men on the opposite side was singing and weaving across the pavement. Just as a matter of interest, why Tottenham Court Road? Ron asked Hermione. I've no idea. It just popped into my head. But I'm sure we're safer out in the muggle world. It's not where they'll expect us to be. True, said Ron, looking around. But don't you feel a bit... exposed? Where else is there? asked Hermione, cringing as the men on the other side of the road started wolf-whistling at her. We can hardly book rooms at the Leaky Cauldron, can we? And grim old place is out if Snape can get in there. I suppose we could try my parents' house though I think there's a chance they might check there. Oh, I wish they'd shut up. All right, darling, the drunkest of the men on the other pavement was yelling. Fancy a drink? Ditch ginger and come and have a pint. Let's sit down somewhere, 
Hermione said hastily, as Ron opened his mouth to shout back across the road. Look, this will do. In here. It was a small and shabby all-night cafe. A light layer of grease lay on all the four mica-top tables, but it was at least empty. Harry slipped into a booth first, and Ron sat next to him opposite Hermione, who had her back to the entrance and did not like it. She glanced over her shoulder so frequently she appeared to have a twitch. Harry did not like being stationary. Walking had given the illusion that they had a goal. Beneath the cloak, he could feel the last vestiges of polyjuice leaving him, his hands returning to their usual length and shape. He pulled his glasses out of his pocket and put them on again. After a minute or two, Ron said, You know, we're not far from the leaky cauldron here. It's only in Charing Cross. Ron, we can't, said Hermione at once. Not to stay there, but to find out what's going on. We know what's going on. Voldemort's taken over the Ministry. What else do we need to know? Okay, okay, it was just an idea. They relapsed into a prickly silence. The gum-chewing waitress shuffled over, and Hermione ordered two cappuccinos. As Harry was invisible, it would have looked odd to order him one. A pair of burly workmen entered the cafe and squeezed into the next booth. Hermione dropped her voice to a whisper. I say we find a quiet place to disapparate and head for the countryside. Once we're there, we could send a message to the Order. Can you do that talking Patronus thing, then? asked Ron. I've been practicing, and I think so, said Hermione. Well, as long as it doesn't get them into trouble, though they might have been arrested already. God, that's revolting, Ron added after one sip of the foamy, greyish coffee. The waitress had heard. She shot Ron a nasty look as she shuffled off to take the new customer's orders. The larger of the two workmen, who was blonde and quite huge, now that Harry came to look at him, waved her away. She stared, affronted. Let's get going, then. I don't want to drink this muck, said Ron. Hermione, have you got muggle money to pay for this? Yes, I took out all my building society savings before I came to the burrow. I'll bet all the change is at the bottom, sighed Hermione, reaching for her beaded bag. The two workmen made identical movements, and Harry mirrored them without conscious thought. All three of them drew their wands. Ron, a few seconds late in realizing what was going on, lunged across the table, pushing Hermione sideways onto her bench. The force of the Death Eater's spells shattered the tiled wall where Ron's head had just been, as Harry, still invisible, yelled, Stupefy! The great blonde Death Eater was hit in the face by a jet of red light. He slumped sideways, unconscious. His companion, unable to see who had cast the spell, fired another at Ron. Shining black ropes flew from his wand tip and bound Ron head to foot. The waitress screamed and ran for the door. Harry sent another stunning spell at the Death Eater with the twisted face who had tied up Ron. But the spell missed, rebounded on the window, and hit the waitress, who collapsed in front of the door. Exposo! bellowed the Death Eater, and the table behind which Harry was standing blew up. The force of the explosion slammed him into the wall, and he felt his wand leave his hand as the cloak slipped off him. Petrificus Totalus! screamed Hermione from out of sight, and the Death Eater fell forward like a statue to land with a crunching thud on the mess of broken china, table, and coffee. Hermione crawled out from underneath the bench, shaking bits of glass ashtray out of her hair and trembling all over. 
Defindo, she said, pointing her wand at Ron, who roared in pain as she slashed open the knee of his jeans, leaving a deep cut. Oh, I'm so sorry, Ron. My hand's shaking. Defindo! The severed ropes fell away. Ron got to his feet, shaking his arms to regain feeling in them. Harry picked up his wand and climbed over all the debris to where the large, blonde Death Eater was sprawled across the bench. I should have recognized him. He was there the night Dumbledore died, he said. He turned over the darker Death Eater with his foot. The man's eyes moved rapidly between Harry, Ron, and Hermione. That's Dolohoff, said Ron. I recognize him from the old wanted posters. I think the big one's Thorfinn Rowell. Never mind what they're called, said Hermione, a little hysterically. How did they find us? What are we going to do? Somehow her panic seemed to clear Harry's head. Lock the door, he told her, and Ron, turn out the lights. He looked down at the paralyzed Dolohov, thinking fast as the lock clicked, and Ron used the deluminator to plunge the cafe into darkness. Harry could hear the men who had jeered at Hermione earlier, yelling at another girl in the distance. What are we going to do with them? Ron whispered to Harry through the dark. Then, even more quietly, Kill them? They'd kill us. They had a good go just now. Hermione shuddered and took a step backward. Harry shook his head. We just need to wipe their memories, said Harry. It's better like that. It'll throw them off the scent. If we killed them, it'd be obvious we were here. You're the boss, said Ron, sounding profoundly relieved. But I've never done a memory charm. Nor have I, said Hermione. But I know the theory. She took a deep, calming breath, then pointed her wand at Dolohov's forehead and said, Obliviate! At once, Dolohov's eyes became unfocused and dreamy. Brilliant! said Harry, clapping her on the back. Take care of the other one and the waitress while Ron and I clear up. Clear up, said Ron, looking around at the partly destroyed cafe. Why? Don't you think they might wonder what's happened if they wake up and find themselves in a place that looks like it's just been bombed? Oh, right, yeah. Ron struggled for a moment before managing to extract his wand from his pocket. It's no wonder I can't get it out, Hermione. You packed my old jeans. They're tight. Oh, I'm so sorry, hissed Hermione, and as she dragged the waitress out of sight of the windows, Harry heard her mutter a suggestion as to where Ron could stick his wand instead. Once the cafe was restored to its previous condition, they heaved the Death Eaters back into their booth and propped them up facing each other. But how did they find us? Hermione asked, looking from one inert man to the other. How did they know where we were? She turned to Harry. You, you don't think you've still got your trace on you, do you, Harry? He can't have, said Ron. The trace breaks at seventeen. That's wizarding law. You can't put it on an adult. As far as you know, said Hermione. What if the Death Eaters have found a way to put it on a seventeen-year-old? But Harry hasn't been near a Death Eater in the last twenty-four hours. Who's supposed to have put a trace back on him? Hermione did not reply. Harry felt contaminated, tainted. Was that really how the Death Eaters had found them? If I can't use magic and you can't use magic near me without us giving away our position, he began. We're not splitting up, said Hermione firmly. We need a safe place to hide, said Ron. Give us time to think things through. Grim old place, said Harry. 
The other two gaped. Don't be silly, Harry. Snape can get in there. Ron's dad said they've put up jinxes against him, and even if they haven't worked, he pressed on as Hermione began to argue. So what? I swear I'd like nothing better than to meet Snape. But, Hermione, where else is there? It's the best chance we've got. Snape's only one Death Eater. If I've still got the trace on me, we'll have whole crowds of them on us wherever else we go. She could not argue, though she looked as if she would have liked to. While she unlocked the cafe door, Ron clicked the deluminator to release the cafe's light. Then, on Harry's count of three, they reversed the spells upon their three victims, and before the waitress or either of the Death Eaters could do more than stir sleepily, Harry, Ron, and Hermione had turned on the spot and vanished into the compressing darkness once more. Seconds later, Harry's lungs expanded gratefully, and he opened his eyes. They were now standing in the middle of a familiar small and shabby square. Tall, dilapidated houses looked down on them from every side. Number twelve was visible to them, for they had been told of its existence by Dumbledore, its secret keeper, and they rushed toward it, checking every few yards that they were not being followed or observed. They raced up the stone steps, and Harry tapped the front door once with his wand. They heard a series of metallic clicks and the clatter of a chain. Then the door swung open with a creak, and they hurried over the threshold. As Harry closed the door behind them, the old-fashioned gas lamps sprang into life, casting flickering light along the length of the hallway. It looked just as Harry remembered it. Eerie, cobwebbed, the outlines of the house-elf heads on the wall throwing odd shadows up the staircase. Long, dark curtains concealed the portrait of Sirius's mother. The only thing that was out of place was the troll's leg umbrella stand, which was lying on its side as if Tonks had just knocked it over again. I think somebody's been in here, Hermione whispered, pointing toward it. That could have happened as the order left, Ron murmured back. So where are these jinxes they put up against Snape? Harry asked. Maybe they're only activated if he shows up, suggested Ron. Yet they remained close together on the doormat, backs against the door, scared to move farther into the house. Well, we can't stay here forever, said Harry and he took a step forward. Severus Snape? Mad-Eye Moody's voice whispered out of the darkness, making all three of them jump back in fright. We're not Snape, croaked Harry, before something whooshed over him like cold air, and his tongue curled backward on itself, making it impossible to speak. Before he had time to feel inside his mouth, however, his tongue had unraveled again. The other two seemed to have experienced the same unpleasant sensation. Ron was making retching noises. Hermione stammered. That must have been the tongue-tying curse Mad-Eye set up for Snape. Gingerly, Harry took another step forward. Something shifted in the shadows at the end of the hall, and before any of them could say another word, a figure had risen up out of the carpet. Tall, dust-colored, and terrible. Hermione screamed, and so did Mrs. Black, her curtains flying open. The grey figure was gliding toward them, faster and faster, its waist-length hair and beard streaming behind it, its face sunken, fleshless, with empty eye sockets, horribly familiar, dreadfully altered. It raised a wasted arm, pointing at Harry. No! Harry shouted, and though he had raised his wand, no spell occurred to him. 
No, it wasn't us. We didn't kill you. On the word kill, the figure exploded in a great cloud of dust. Coughing, his eyes watering, Harry looked around to see Hermione crouched on the floor by the door with her arms over her head, and Ron, who was shaking from head to foot, patting her clumsily on the shoulder and saying, It's all right, it's gone. Dust swirled around Harry like mist, catching the blue gaslight as Mrs. Black continued to scream, Mad bloods, filth, stains of dishonor, taint of shame on the house of my fathers. Shut up! Harry bellowed, directing his wand at her, and with a bang and a burst of red sparks, the curtains swung shut again, silencing her. That... that was... Hermione whimpered as Ron helped her to her feet. Yeah, said Harry, but it wasn't really him, was it? Just something to scare Snape. Had it worked, Harry wondered? Or had Snape already blasted the horror figure aside as casually as he had killed the real Dumbledore? Nerves still tingling, he led the other two up the hall, half expecting some new terror to reveal itself, but nothing moved except for a mouse skittering along the skirting board. Before we go any farther, I think we'd better check, whispered Hermione, and she raised her wand and said, Hominum Revelio. Nothing happened. Well, you've just had a big shock, said Ron kindly. What was that supposed to do? It did what I meant it to do, said Hermione rather crossly. That was a spell to reveal human presence, and there's nobody here except us. And old Dusty, said Ron, glancing at the patch of carpet from which the corpse figure had risen. Let's go up, said Hermione with a frightened look at the same spot, and she led the way up the creaking stairs to the drawing room on the first floor. Hermione waved her wand to ignite the old gas lamps, then, shivering slightly in the drafty room, she perched on the sofa, her arms wrapped tightly around her. Ron crossed to the window and moved the heavy velvet curtain aside an inch. Can't see anyone out there, he reported, and you'd think if Harry still had a trace on him, they'd have followed us here. I know they can't get in the house, but what's up, Harry? Harry had given a cry of pain. His scar had burned again as something flashed across his mind like a bright light on water. He saw a large shadow and felt a fury that was not his own pound through his body, violent and brief as an electric shock. What did you see? Ron asked, advancing on Harry. Did you see him at my place? No, I just felt anger. He's really angry. But that could be at the burrow, said Ron loudly. What else? Didn't you see anything? Was he cursing someone? No, I just felt anger. I couldn't tell. Harry felt badgered, confused, and Hermione did not help as she said in a frightened voice, Your scar again? But what's going on? I thought that connection had closed. It did, for a while, muttered Harry. His scar was still painful, which made it hard to concentrate. I, I think it started opening again whenever he loses control. That's how it used to. But then you've got to close your mind, said Hermione shrilly. Harry, Dumbledore didn't want you to use that connection. He wanted you to shut it down. That's why you were supposed to use occlumency. Otherwise Voldemort can plant false images in your mind. Remember? Yeah, I do remember, thanks, said Harry through gritted teeth. He did not need Hermione to tell him that Voldemort had once used this selfsame connection between them to lead him into a trap. 
nor that it had resulted in Sirius's death. He wished that he had not told them what he had seen and felt. It made Voldemort more threatening, as though he were pressing against the window of the room, and still the pain in his scar was building, and he fought it. It was like resisting the urge to be sick. He turned his back on Ron and Hermione, pretending to examine the old tapestry of the black family tree on the wall. Then Hermione shrieked. Harry drew his wand again and spun around to see a silver Patronus soar through the drawing-room window and land upon the floor in front of them, where it solidified into the weasel that spoke with the voice of Ron's father. Family safe. Do not reply. We are being watched. The Patronus dissolved into nothingness. Ron let out a noise between a whimper and a groan and dropped onto the sofa. Hermione joined him, gripping his arm. They're all right. They're all right, she whispered, and Ron half laughed and hugged her. Harry, he said over Hermione's shoulder. I... It's not a problem, said Harry, sickened by the pain in his head. It's your family. Of course you're worried. I'd feel the same way. He thought of Ginny. I do feel the same way. The pain in his scar was reaching a peak, burning as it had done in the garden of the burrow. Faintly, he heard Hermione say, I don't want to be on my own. Could we use the sleeping bags I brought and camp in here tonight? He heard Ron agree. He could not fight the pain much longer. He had to succumb. Bathroom, he muttered, and he left the room as fast as he could without running. He barely made it. Bolting the door behind him with trembling hands, he grasped his pounding head and fell to the floor. Then, in an explosion of agony, he felt the rage that did not belong to him possess his soul, saw a long room lit only by firelight, and the great blonde Death Eater on the floor, screaming and writhing, and a slighter figure standing over him, wand outstretched, while Harry spoke in a high, cold, merciless voice. More, Raoul, or shall we end it and feed you to Nagini? Lord Voldemort is not sure that he will forgive this time. You called me back for this, to tell me that Harry Potter has escaped again? Draco, give Raoul another taste of our displeasure. Do it, or feel my wrath yourself. A log fell in the fire. Flames reared, their light darting across a terrified, pointed white face, with a sense of emerging from deep water. Harry drew heaving breaths and opened his eyes. He was spread-eagled on the cold black marble floor, his nose inches from one of the silver serpent tails that supported the large bathtub. He sat up. Malfoy's gaunt, petrified face seemed branded on the inside of his eyes. Harry felt sickened by what he had seen, by the use to which Draco was now being put by Voldemort. There was a sharp rap on the door, and Harry jumped as Hermione's voice rang out. Harry, do you want your toothbrush? I've got it here. Yeah. Great. Thanks, he said, fighting to keep his voice casual as he stood up to let her in. Chapter 10 Creature's Tale Harry woke early next morning, wrapped in a sleeping bag on the drawing-room floor. A chink of sky was visible between the heavy curtains. It was the cool, clear blue of watered ink, 
somewhere between night and dawn, and everything was quiet, except for Ron and Hermione's slow, deep breathing. Harry glanced over at the dark shapes they made on the floor beside him. Ron had had a fit of gallantry and insisted that Hermione sleep on the cushions from the sofa so that her silhouette was raised above his. Her arm curved to the floor, her fingers inches from Ron's. Harry wondered whether they had fallen asleep holding hands. The idea made him feel strangely lonely. He looked up at the shadowy ceiling, the cobweb chandelier. Less than twenty-four hours ago he had been standing in the sunlight at the entrance to the marquee, waiting to show in wedding guests. It seemed a lifetime away. What was going to happen now? He lay on the floor and he thought of the Horcruxes, of the daunting, complex mission Dumbledore had left him. Dumbledore. The grief that had possessed him since Dumbledore's death felt different now. The accusations he had heard from Muriel at the wedding seemed to have nested in his brain, like diseased things, infecting his memories of the wizard he had idolized. Could Dumbledore have let such things happen? Had he been like Dudley, content to watch neglect and abuse as long as it did not affect him? Could he have turned his back on a sister who was being imprisoned and hidden? Harry thought of Godric's Hollow, of graves Dumbledore had never mentioned there. He thought of mysterious objects left without explanation in Dumbledore's will, and resentment swelled in the darkness. Why hadn't Dumbledore told him? Why hadn't he explained? Had Dumbledore actually cared about Harry at all? Or had Harry been nothing more than a tool to be polished and honed, but not trusted, never confided in? Harry could not stand lying there with nothing but bitter thoughts for company. Desperate for something to do, for distraction, he slipped out of his sleeping bag, picked up his wand, and crept out of the room. On the landing he whispered, Lumos, and started to climb the stairs by wand light. On the second landing was the bedroom in which he and Ron had slept last time they had been here. He glanced into it. The wardrobe doors stood open, and the bedclothes had been ripped back. Harry remembered the overturned troll leg downstairs. Somebody had searched the house since the order had left. Snape? Or perhaps Mundungus, who had pilfered plenty from this house, both before and after Sirius died. Harry's gaze wandered to the portrait that sometimes contained Phineas Nigellus Black, Sirius's great-great-grandfather, but it was empty, showing nothing but a stretch of muddy backdrop. Phineas Nigellus was evidently spending the night in the headmaster's study at Hogwarts. Harry continued up the stairs until he reached the topmost landing, where there were only two doors. The one facing him bore a nameplate reading Sirius. Harry had never entered his godfather's bedroom before. He pushed open the door, holding his wand high to cast light as widely as possible. The room was spacious and must once have been handsome. There was a large bed with a carved wooden headboard, a tall window obscured by long velvet curtains, and a chandelier thickly coated in dust with candle stubs still resting in its sockets, solid wax hanging in frost-like drips. A fine film of dust covered the pictures on the walls and the bed's headboard. A spider's web stretched between the chandelier and the top of the large wooden wardrobe, and as Harry moved deeper into the room, he heard a scurrying of disturbed mice. 
The teenage Sirius had plastered the walls with so many posters and pictures that little of the wall's silvery-gray silk was visible. Harry could only assume that Sirius's parents had been unable to remove the permanent sticking charm that kept them on the wall, because he was sure they would not have appreciated their eldest son's taste in decoration. Sirius seemed to have gone out of his way to annoy his parents. There were several large Gryffindor banners, faded scarlet and gold, just to underline his difference from all the rest of the Slytherin family. There were many pictures of muggle motorcycles, and also, Harry had to admire Sirius's nerve, several posters of bikini-clad muggle girls. Harry could tell that they were muggles because they remained quite stationary within their pictures, faded smiles and glazed eyes frozen on the paper. This was in contrast to the only wizarding photograph on the walls, which was a picture of four Hogwarts students standing arm in arm, laughing at the camera. With a leap of pleasure, Harry recognized his father. His untidy black hair stuck up at the back like Harry's, and he too wore glasses. Beside him was Sirius, carelessly handsome, his slightly arrogant face so much younger and happier than Harry had ever seen it alive. To Sirius's right stood Pettigrew, more than a head shorter, plump and watery-eyed, flushed with pleasure at his inclusion in this coolest of gangs, with the much-admired rebels that James and Sirius had been. On James's left was Lupin, even then a little shabby-looking, but he had the same air of delighted surprise at finding himself liked and included. Or was it simply because Harry knew how it had been that he saw these things in the picture? He tried to take it from the wall. It was his now, after all. Sirius had left him everything, but it would not budge. Sirius had taken no chances in preventing his parents from redecorating his room. Harry looked around at the floor. The sky outside was growing brighter. A shaft of light revealed bits of paper, books, and small objects scattered over the carpet. Evidently, Sirius's bedroom had been searched, too, although its contents seemed to have been judged mostly, if not entirely, worthless. A few of the books had been shaken roughly enough to park company with their covers, and sundry pages littered the floor. Harry bent down, picked up a few of the pieces of paper, and examined them. He recognized one as part of an old edition of A History of Magic by Matilda Bagshot, and another as belonging to a motorcycle maintenance manual. The third was handwritten and crumpled. He smoothed it out. Dear Padfoot, thank you. Thank you for Harry's birthday present. It was his favorite by far. One year old and already zooming along on a toy broomstick, he looks so pleased with himself, I'm enclosing a picture so you can see. You know it only rises about two feet off the ground, but he nearly killed the cat, and he smashed the horrible vase Petunia sent me for Christmas. No complaints there. Of course, James thought it was so funny. Says he's going to be a great Quidditch player, but we've had to pack away all the ornaments and make sure we don't take our eyes off him when he gets going. We had a very quiet birthday tea, just us and old Batilda, who has always been sweet to us and who dotes on Harry. We were so sorry you couldn't come, but the order's got to come first, and Harry's not old enough to know it's his birthday anyway. James is getting a bit frustrated shut up here. He tries not to show it, but I can tell. Also, Dumbledore's still got his invisibility cloak, so no chance of little excursions. If you could visit, it would cheer him up so much. 
Wormy was here last weekend. I thought he seemed down, but that was probably the news about the McKinnons. I cried all evening when I heard. Batilda drops in most days. She's a fascinating old thing with the most amazing stories about Dumbledore. I'm not sure he'd be pleased if he knew. I don't know how much to believe, actually, because it seems incredible that Dumbledore— Harry's extremities seemed to have gone numb. He stood quite still, holding the miraculous paper in his nerveless fingers, while inside him a kind of quiet eruption sent joy and grief thundering in equal measure through his veins. Lurching to the bed, he sat down. He read the letter again, but could not take in any more meaning than he had done the first time, and was reduced to staring at the handwriting itself. She had made her G's the same way he did. He searched through the letter for every one of them, and each felt like a friendly little wave, glimpsed from behind a veil. The letter was an incredible treasure, proof that Lily Potter had lived, really lived, that her warm hand had once moved across this parchment, tracing ink into these letters, these words, words about him, Harry, her son. Impatiently, brushing away the wetness in his eyes, he reread the letter this time concentrating on the meaning. It was like listening to a half-remembered voice. They had had a cat. Perhaps it had perished, like his parents at Godric's Hollow, or else fled when there was nobody left to feed it. Sirius had bought him his first broomstick. His parents had known Batilda Bagshot. Had Dumbledore introduced them? Dumbledore still got his invisibility cloak. There was something funny there. Harry paused, pondering his mother's words. Why had Dumbledore taken James's invisibility cloak? Harry distinctly remembered his headmaster telling him years before, I don't need a cloak to become invisible. Perhaps some less gifted order member had needed its assistance, and Dumbledore had acted as carrier. Harry passed on. Wormy was here. Pettigrew the traitor had seemed down, had he? Was he aware that he was seeing James and Lily alive for the last time? And finally, Batilda again, who told incredible stories about Dumbledore. It seems incredible that Dumbledore... that Dumbledore what? But there were any number of things that would seem incredible about Dumbledore. That he had once received bottom marks in a transfiguration test, for instance, or had taken up goat charming like Aberforth. Harry got to his feet and scanned the floor. Perhaps the rest of the letter was here somewhere. He seized papers, treating them in his eagerness with as little consideration as the original searcher. He pulled open drawers, shook out books, stood on a chair to run his hand over the top of the wardrobe, and crawled under the bed and armchair. At last, lying face down on the floor, he spotted what looked like a torn piece of paper under the chest of drawers. When he pulled it out, it proved to be most of the photograph Lily had described in her letter. A black-haired baby was zooming in and out of the picture on a tiny broom, roaring with laughter, and a pair of legs that must have belonged to James was chasing after him. Harry tucked the photograph into his pocket with Lily's letter and continued to look for the second sheet. After another quarter of an hour, however, he was forced to conclude that the rest of his mother's letter was gone, 
Had it simply been lost in the sixteen years that had elapsed since it had been written, or had it been taken by whoever had searched the room? Harry read the first sheet again, this time looking for clues as to what might have made the second sheet valuable. His toy broomstick could hardly be considered interesting to the Death Eaters. The only potentially useful thing he could see here was possible information on Dumbledore. It seems incredible that Dumbledore... What? Harry! 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 I'm here! he called. What's happened? There was a clatter of footsteps outside the door, and Hermione burst inside. We woke up and didn't know where you were, she said breathlessly. She turned and shouted over her shoulder, Ron, I found him! Ron's annoyed voice echoed distantly from several floors below. Good! Tell him from me he's a git! Harry, don't just disappear, please, we were terrified. Why did you come up here anyway? She gazed around the ransacked room. What have you been doing? Look what I've just found. He held out his mother's letter. Hermione took it and read it while Harry watched her. When she reached the end of the page, she looked up at him. Oh, Harry. And there's this, too. He handed her the torn photograph, and Hermione smiled at the baby, zooming in and out of sight on the toy broom. I've been looking for the rest of the letter, Harry said, but it's not here. Hermione glanced around. Did you make all this mess, or was some of it done when you got here? Someone had searched before me, said Harry. I thought so. Every room I looked into on the way up had been disturbed. What were they after, do you think? Information on the order, if it was Snape. But you'd think he'd already have all he needed. I mean, he was in the order, wasn't he? Well then, said Harry, keen to discuss his theory, what about information on Dumbledore? The second page of this letter, for instance. You know this Batilda my mum mentions? You know who she is? Who? Batilda Bagshot, the author of A History of Magic, said Hermione, looking interested. So, your parents knew her. She was an incredible magical historian. And she's still alive, said Harry. And she lives in Godric's Hollow. Ron's Auntie Muriel was talking about her at the wedding. She knew Dumbledore's family, too. Be pretty interesting to talk to, wouldn't she? There was a little too much understanding in the smile Hermione gave him for Harry's liking. He took back the letter and the photograph and tucked them inside the pouch around his neck, so as not to have to look at her and give himself away. I understand why you'd love to talk to her about your mum and dad, and Dumbledore too, said Hermione, but that wouldn't really help us in our search for the Horcruxes, would it? Harry did not answer, and she rushed on. Harry, I know you really want to go to Godric's Hollow, but I'm scared. I'm scared at how easily those Death Eaters found us yesterday. It just makes me feel more than ever that we ought to avoid the place where your parents are buried. I'm sure they'd be expecting you to visit it. It's not just that, Harry said, still avoiding looking at her. Muriel said stuff about Dumbledore at the wedding. I want to know the truth. He told Hermione everything that Muriel had told him. When he had finished, Hermione said, Of course. I can see why that's upset you, Harry. I'm not upset, he lied. I'd just like to know whether or not it's true, or... Harry, 
Do you really think you'll get the truth from a malicious old woman like Muriel, or from Rita Skeeter? How can you believe them? You knew Dumbledore. I thought I did, he muttered. But you know how much truth there was in everything Rita wrote about you. Doge is right. How can you let these people tarnish your memories of Dumbledore? He looked away, trying not to betray the resentment he felt. There it was again, choose what to believe. He wanted the truth. Why was everybody so determined that he should not get it? Shall we go down to the kitchen? Hermione suggested after a little pause. Find something for breakfast? He agreed, but grudgingly, and followed her out onto the landing and past the second door that led off it. There were deep scratch marks in the paintwork below a small sign that he had not noticed in the dark. He paused at the top of the stairs to read it. It was a pompous little sign, neatly lettered by hand, the sort of thing that Percy Weasley might have stuck on his bedroom door. Do not enter without the express permission of Regulus Arcturus Black. Excitement trickled through Harry, but he was not immediately sure why. He read the sign again. Hermione was already a flight of stairs below him. Hermione, he said, and he was surprised that his voice was so calm. Come back up here. What's the matter? R.A.B. I think I found him. There was a gasp, and then Hermione ran back up the stairs. In your mum's letter? But I didn't see. Harry shook his head, pointing at Regulus's sign. She read it then clutched Harry's arm so tightly that he winced. Sirius's brother? she whispered. He was a Death Eater, said Harry. Sirius told me about him. He joined up when he was really young, and then got cold feet and tried to leave. So they killed him. That fits, gasped Hermione. If he was a Death Eater, he had access to Voldemort. And if he became disenchanted, then he would have wanted to bring Voldemort down. She released Harry, leaned over the banister, and screamed, Ron! Ron! Get up here, quick! Ron appeared, panting a minute later, his wand ready in his hand. What's up? If it's massive spiders again, I want breakfast before I... He frowned at the sign on Regulus's door, to which Hermione was silently pointing. What? That was Sirius's brother, wasn't it? Regulus Arcturus Regulus? R-A-B? The locket! You don't reckon— Let's find out, said Harry. He pushed the door. It was locked. Hermione pointed her wand at the handle and said, Aloha, Mora! There was a click, and the door swung open. They moved over the threshold together, gazing around. Regulus's bedroom was slightly smaller than Sirius's, though it had the same sense of former grandeur. Whereas Sirius had sought to advertise his difference from the rest of the family— Regulus had striven to emphasize the opposite. The slithering colors of emerald and silver were everywhere, draping the bed, the walls, and the windows. The black family crest was painstakingly painted over the bed, along with its motto, Toujours Pure. Beneath this was a collection of yellow newspaper cuttings, all stuck together to make a ragged collage. Hermione crossed the room to examine them. They're all about Voldemort, she said. Regulus seems to have been a fan for a few years before he joined the Death Eaters. A little puff of dust rose from the bed covers as she sat down to read the clippings. Harry, meanwhile, had noticed another photograph. 
A Hogwarts Quidditch team was smiling and waving out of the frame. He moved closer and saw the snakes emblazoned on their chests, Slytherins. Regulus was instantly recognizable as the boy sitting in the middle of the front row. He had the same dark hair and slightly haughty look of his brother, though he was smaller, slighter, and rather less handsome than Sirius had been. He played Seeker, said Harry. What? said Hermione vaguely. She was still immersed in Voldemort's press clippings. He's sitting in the middle of the front row. That's where the Seeker... Never mind, said Harry, realizing that nobody was listening. Ron was on his hands and knees, searching under the wardrobe. Harry looked around the room for likely hiding places and approached the desk. Yet again, somebody had searched before them. The drawer's contents had been turned over recently, the dust disturbed, but there was nothing of value there, old quills, out-of-date textbooks that bore evidence of being roughly handled, a recently smashed ink bottle, its sticky residue covering the contents of the drawer. There's an easier way, said Hermione, as Harry wiped his inky fingers on his jeans. She raised her wand and said, Asio, lock it! Nothing happened. Ron, who had been searching the folds of the faded curtains, looked disappointed. Is that it, then? It's not here. Oh, it could still be here, but under counter-enchantments, said Hermione. Charms to prevent it being summoned magically, you know. Like Voldemort put on the stone basin in the cave, said Harry, remembering how he had been unable to summon the fake locket. How are we supposed to find it, then? asked Ron. We search manually, said Hermione. That's a good idea, said Ron, rolling his eyes, and he resumed his examination of the curtains. They combed every inch of the room for more than an hour, but were forced, finally, to conclude that the locket was not there. The sun had risen now. Its light dazzled them even through the grimy landing windows. It could be somewhere else in the house, though, said Hermione in a rallying tone as they walked back downstairs. As Harry and Ron had become more discouraged, she seemed to have become more determined. Whether he'd managed to destroy it or not, he'd want to keep it hidden from Voldemort, wouldn't he? Remember all those awful things we had to get rid of when we were here last time? That clock that shot bolts at everyone, and those old robes that tried to strangle Ron? Regulus might have put them there to protect the locket's hiding place, even though we didn't realize it at... at... Harry and Ron looked at her. She was standing with one foot in midair, with the dumbstruck look of one who had just been obliviated. Her eyes had even drifted out of focus. At the time, she finished in a whisper. Something wrong? asked Ron. There was a locket. What? said Harry and Ron together. In the cabinet, in the drawing room. Nobody could open it, and we... we... Harry felt as though a brick had slid down through his chest into his stomach. He remembered. He had even handled the thing as they passed it around, each trying in turn to prise it open. It had been tossed into a sack of rubbish, along with the snuff box of wart cap powder and the music box that had made everyone sleepy. Creature nicked loads of things back from us, said Harry. It was the only chance, the only slender hope left to them, and he was going to cling to it until forced to let go. He had a whole stash of stuff in his cupboard in the kitchen. Come on. He ran down the stairs, taking two steps at a time, the other two thundering along in his wake. They made so much noise that they woke the portrait of Sirius's mother as they passed through the hall. Filth! Mudbloods! Scum! 
She screamed after them as they dashed down into the basement kitchen and slammed the door behind them. Harry ran the length of the room, skidded to a halt at the door of Creature's cupboard, and wrenched it open. There was the nest of dirty old blankets in which the house-elf had once slept, but they were no longer glittering with the trinkets Creature had salvaged. The only thing there was an old copy of Nature's Nobility, A Wizarding Genealogy. Refusing to believe his eyes, Harry snatched up the blankets and shook them. A dead mouse fell out and rolled dismally across the floor. Ron groaned as he threw himself into a kitchen chair. Hermione closed her eyes. It's not over yet, said Harry, and he raised his voice and called, Creature! There was a loud crack, and the house-elf that Harry had so reluctantly inherited from Sirius appeared out of nowhere in front of the cold and empty fireplace. Tiny, half-human-sized, his pale skin hanging off him in folds, white hair sprouting copiously from his bat-like ears. He was still wearing the filthy rag in which they had first met him, and the contemptuous look he bent upon Harry showed that his attitude to his change of ownership had altered no more than his outfit. Master, croaked Creature in his bullfrog voice, and he bowed low, muttering to his knees. Back in my mistress's old house with the blood traitor Weasley and the mud blood. I forbid you to call anyone blood traitor or mud blood, growled Harry. He would have found Creature, with his snout-like nose and bloodshot eyes, a distinctly unlovable object, even if the elf had not betrayed Sirius to Voldemort. I've got a question for you, said Harry, his heart beating rather fast as he looked down at the elf, and I order you to answer it truthfully. Understand? Yes, master, said Creature, bowing low again. Harry saw his lips moving soundlessly, undoubtedly framing the insults he was now forbidden to utter. Two years ago, said Harry, his heart now hammering against his ribs, there was a big gold locket in the drawing room upstairs. We threw it out. Did you seal it back? There was a moment's silence, during which Creature straightened up to look Harry full in the face. Then he said, Yes. Where is it now? asked Harry jubilantly, as Ron and Hermione looked gleeful. Creature closed his eyes as though he could not bear to see their reactions to his next word. Gone. Gone? echoed Harry, elation flooding out of him. What do you mean, it's gone? The elf shivered. He swayed. Creature, said Harry fiercely, I order you. Mundungus Fletcher, croaked the elf, his eyes still tight shut. Mundungus Fletcher stole it all. Miss Bellas and Miss Sissy's pictures, my mistress's gloves, the Order of Merlin first class, the goblets with the family crest, and, and... <gasps> Creature was gulping for air. His hollow chest was rising and falling rapidly. Then his eyes flew open, and he uttered a blood-curdling scream. And the locket! Master Regulus's locket! Creature did wrong! Creature failed in his orders! Harry reacted instinctively. As Creature lunged for the poker standing in the grate, he launched himself upon the elf, flattening him. Hermione's scream mingled with Creature's, but Harry bellowed louder than both of them. Creature, I order you to stay still! He felt the elf freeze and released him. Creature lay flat on the cold stone floor, 
tears gushing from his sagging eyes. Harry, let him up, Hermione whispered. So he can beat himself up with a poker? snorted Harry, kneeling beside the elf. I don't think so. Right, creature. I want the truth. How do you know Mundungus Fletcher stole the locket? Creature saw him, gasped the elf as tears poured over his snout and into his mouth full of graying teeth. Creature saw him coming out of Creature's cupboard with his hands full of Creature's treasures. Creature told the sneak thief to stop, but Mundungus Fletcher laughed and ran. You call the locket Master Regulus's, said Harry. Why? Where did it come from? What did Regulus have to do with it? Creature, sit up and tell me everything you know about that locket and everything Regulus had to do with it. The elf sat up, curled into a ball, placed his wet face between his knees, and began to rock backward and forward. When he spoke, his voice was muffled but quite distinct in the silent, echoing kitchen. Master Sirius ran away, good riddance, for he was a bad boy and broke my mistress's heart with his lawless ways. But Master Regulus had proper pride. He knew what was due to the name of Black and the dignity of his pure blood. For years he talked of the Dark Lord who was going to bring the wizards out of hiding to rule the muggles and the muggle-borns. And when he was sixteen years old, Master Regulus joined the Dark Lord. So proud, so proud, so happy to serve. And one day, a year after he had joined, Master Regulus came down to the kitchen to see Creature. Master Regulus always liked Creature, and Master Regulus said, he said, the old elf rocked faster than ever, he said that the Dark Lord required an elf. Voldemort needed an elf, Harry repeated, looking around at Ron and Hermione, who looked just as puzzled as he did. Oh, yes moaned Creature, and Master Regulus had volunteered Creature. It was an honour, said Master Regulus, an honour for him and for Creature, who must be sure to do whatever the Dark Lord ordered him to do, and then to come home. Creature rocked still faster, his breath coming in sobs. So Creature went to the Dark Lord. The Dark Lord did not tell Creature what they were to do, but took Creature with him to a cave beside the sea, and beyond the cave there was a cavern, and in the cavern was a great black lake. The hairs on the back of Harry's neck stood up. Creature's croaking voice seemed to come to him from across that dark water. He saw what had happened as clearly as though he had been present. There was a boat. Of course there had been a boat. Harry knew the boat, ghostly green and tiny, bewitched so as to carry one wizard and one victim toward the island in the centre. This, then, was how Voldemort had tested the defences surrounding the Horcrux, by borrowing a disposable creature, a house elf. 
There was a basin full of potion on the island that the Dark Lord made Creature drink it. The elf quaked from head to foot. Creature drank, and as he drank he saw terrible things. Creature's insides burned. Creature cried for Master Regulus to save him. He cried for his mistress Black, but the Dark Lord only laughed. He made Creature drink all the potion. He dropped a locket into the empty basin. He filled it with more potion. And then the Dark Lord sailed away, leaving Creature on the island. Harry could see it happening. He watched Voldemort's white, snake-like face vanishing into darkness, those red eyes fixed pitilessly on the thrashing elf whose death would occur within minutes whenever he succumbed to the desperate thirst that the burning potion caused its victim. But here, Harry's imagination could go no further, for he could not see how Creature had escaped. Creature needed water. He crawled to the island's edge, and he drank from the Black Lake. And hands, dead hands, came out of the water and dragged Creature under the surface. How did you get away? Harry asked, and he was not surprised to hear himself whispering. Creature raised his ugly head and looked at Harry with his great bloodshot eyes. Master Regulus told Creature to come back, he said. I know, but how did you escape the Inferi? Creature did not seem to understand. Master Regulus told Creature to come back, he repeated. I know, but... Well, it's obvious, isn't it, Harry? said Ron. He disapparated. But you couldn't apparate in and out of that cave, said Harry. Otherwise, Dumbledore... Elf magic isn't like wizard magic, is it? said Ron. I mean... They can apparate and disapparate in and out of Hogwarts when we can't. There was silence as Harry digested this. How could Voldemort have made such a mistake? But even as he thought this, Hermione spoke, and her voice was icy. Of course, Voldemort would have considered the ways of house elves far beneath his notice, just like all the pure bloods who treat them like animals. It would never have occurred to him that they might have magic that he didn't. The house elf's highest law is his master's bidding, intoned Creature. Creature was told to come home, so Creature came home. Well then, you did what you were told, didn't you? said Hermione kindly. You didn't disobey orders at all. Creature shook his head, rocking as fast as ever. So what happened when you got back? Harry asked. What did Regulus say when you told him what had happened? Master Regulus was very worried, very worried, croaked Creature. Master Regulus told Creature to stay hidden and not to leave the house. And then, it was a little while later, Master Regulus came to find Creature in his cupboard one night. And Master Regulus was strange, not as he usually was, disturbed in his mind. Creature could tell, and he asked Creature to take him to the cave, the cave where Creature had gone with the Dark Lord. And so they had set off. Harry could visualize them quite clearly. 
the frightened old elf and the thin, dark seeker who had so resembled Sirius. Creature knew how to open the concealed entrance to the underground cavern, knew how to raise the tiny boat. This time it was his beloved Regulus who sailed with him to the island with its basin of poison. And he made you drink the potion? said Harry, disgusted. But Creature shook his head and wept. Hermione's hands leapt to her mouth. She seemed to have understood something. M Master Regulus took from his pocket a locket like the one the Dark Lord had, said Creature, tears pouring down either side of his snout-like nose. And he told Creature to take it, and when the basin was empty, to switch the locket. Creature's sobs came in great rasps now. Harry had to concentrate hard to understand him. And he ordered Creature to leave without him, and he told Creature to go home and never to tell my mistress what he had done, but to destroy the first locket. And he drank all the potion, and Creature swapped the lockets and watched as Master Regulus was dragged beneath the water, and... Oh, creature, wailed Hermione, who was crying. She dropped to her knees beside the elf and tried to hug him. At once he was on his feet, cringing away from her, quite obviously repulsed. Let my blood touch, creature. He will not allow it. What would his mistress say? I told you not to call her Mudblood, snarled Harry, but the elf was already punishing himself. He fell to the ground and banged his forehead on the floor. Stop him! Stop him! Hermione cried. Oh, don't you see now how sick it is, the way they've got to obey? Creature! Stop! Stop! shouted Harry. The elf lay on the floor, panting and shivering, green mucus glistening around his snout a bruise already blooming on his pallid forehead where he had struck himself, his eyes swollen and bloodshot and swimming in tears. Harry had never seen anything so pitiful. So you brought the locket home, he said relentlessly, for he was determined to know the full story, and you tried to destroy it. Nothing creature did made any mark upon it, moaned the elf. Creature tried everything. Everything he knew, but nothing, nothing would work. So many powerful spells upon the casing. Creature was sure the way to destroy it was to get inside it, but it would not open. Creature punished himself. He tried again. He punished himself. He tried again. Creature failed to obey orders. Creature could not destroy the locket, and his mistress was mad with grief, because Master Regulus had disappeared, and Creature could not tell her what had happened, no, because Master Regulus had f f forbidden him to tell any of the f f family what happened in the cave. Creature began to sob so hard that there were no more coherent words. 
Tears flowed down Hermione's cheeks as she watched the creature, but she did not dare touch him again. Even Ron, who was no fan of creatures, looked troubled. Harry sat back on his heels and shook his head, trying to clear it. I don't understand you, creature, he said finally. Voldemort tried to kill you. Regulus died to bring Voldemort down, but you were still happy to betray Sirius to Voldemort? You were happy to go to Narcissa and Bellatrix and pass information to Voldemort through them. Harry, creature doesn't think like that, said Hermione, wiping her eyes on the back of her hand. He's a slave. House elves are used to bad, even brutal treatment. What Voldemort did to creature wasn't that far out of the common way. What do wizard wars mean to an elf like creature? He's loyal to people who are kind to him, and Mrs. Black must have been, and Regulus certainly was, so he served them willingly and parroted their beliefs. I know what you're going to say, she went on as Harry began to protest, that Regulus changed his mind, but he doesn't seem to have explained that to Creature, does he? And I think I know why. Creature and Regulus's family were all safer if they kept to the old pure-blood line. Regulus was trying to protect them all. Sirius, Sirius was horrible to Creature, Harry, and it's no good looking like that. You know it's true. Creature had been alone for a long time when Sirius came to live here, and he was probably starving for a bit of affection. I'm sure Miss Sissy and Miss Bella were perfectly lovely to Creature when he turned up, so he did them a favor and told them everything they wanted to know. I've said all along that wizards would pay for how they treat house elves. Well, Voldemort did and so did Sirius. Harry had no retort. As he watched Creature sobbing on the floor, he remembered what Dumbledore had said to him mere hours after Sirius's death. I do not think Sirius ever saw Creature as a being with feelings as acute as a human's. Creature, said Harry after a while, when you feel up to it, uh, please sit up. It was several minutes before Creature hiccuped himself into silence. Then he pushed himself into a sitting position again, rubbing his knuckles into his eyes like a small child. Creature, I'm going to ask you to do something, said Harry. He glanced at Hermione for assistance. He wanted to give the order kindly, but at the same time he could not pretend that it was not an order. However, the change in his tone seemed to have gained her approval. She smiled encouragingly. Creature, I want you, please, to go and find Mundungus Fletcher. We need to find out where the locket, where Master Regulus's locket is. It's really important. We want to finish the work Master Regulus started. We want to, uh, ensure that he didn't die in vain. Creature dropped his fists and looked up at Harry. Find Mundungus Fletcher, he croaked, and bring him here to Grimald Place said Harry. Do you think you could do that for us? As Creature nodded and got to his feet, Harry had a sudden inspiration. He pulled out Hagrid's purse and took out the fake Horcrux, the substitute locket in which Regulus had placed the note to Voldemort. Creature, I'd, uh, like you to have this, he said, pressing the locket into the elf's hand. This belonged to Regulus, and I'm sure he'd want you to have it as a token of gratitude for what you... Overkill, mate, said Ron, as the elf took one look at the locket, let out a howl of shock and misery, and threw himself back onto the ground. 
It took them nearly half an hour to calm down Creature, who was so overcome to be presented with a black family heirloom for his very own that he was too weak at the knees to stand properly. When finally he was able to totter a few steps, they all accompanied him to his cupboard, watched him tuck up the locket safely in his dirty blankets, and assured him that they would make its protection their first priority while he was away. He then made two low bows to Harry and Ron, and even gave a funny little spasm in Hermione's direction that might have been an attempt at a respectful salute, before disapparating with a usual loud crack. Chapter 11 The Bribe If Creature could escape a lake full of inferi, Harry was confident that the capture of Mundungus would take a few hours at most, and he prowled the house all morning in a state of high anticipation. However, Creature did not return that morning, or even that afternoon. By nightfall, Harry felt discouraged and anxious, and a supper composed largely of mouldy bread, upon which Hermione had tried a variety of unsuccessful transfigurations, did nothing to help. Creature did not return the following day, nor the day after that. However, two cloaked men had appeared in the square outside Number 12, and they remained there into the night gazing in the direction of the house that they could not see. "'Death Eaters, for sure,' said Ron, as he, Harry, and Hermione watched from the drawing-room windows. "'Reckon they know we're in here?' "'I don't think so,' said Hermione, though she looked frightened. "'Or they'd have sent Snape in after us, wouldn't they?' "'Do you reckon he's been in here and had his tongue tied by Moody's curse?' asked Ron. "'Yes,' said Hermione. "'Otherwise he'd have been able to tell that lot how to get in, wouldn't he?' but they're probably watching to see whether we turn up. They know that Harry owns the house, after all. How do they... began Harry. Wizarding wills are examined by the Ministry, remember? They'll know Sirius left you the place. The presence of the Death Eaters outside increased the ominous mood inside Number 12. They had not heard a word from anyone beyond grim old place since Mr. Weasley's Patronus, and the strain was starting to tell. Restless and irritable... Ron had developed an annoying habit of playing with the deluminator in his pocket. This particularly infuriated Hermione, who was whiling away the wait for Creature by studying the tales of Beadle the Bard, and did not appreciate the way the lights kept flashing on and off. "'Will you stop it?' she cried on the third evening of Creature's absence, as all light was sucked from the drawing-room yet again. "'Sorry, sorry,' said Ron, clicking the deluminator and restoring the lights. I don't know I'm doing it. Well, can't you find something useful to occupy yourself? What, like reading kids' stories? Dumbledore left me this book, Ron. And he left me the Deluminator. Maybe I'm supposed to use it. Unable to stand the bickering, Harry slipped out of the room, unnoticed by either of them. He headed downstairs toward the kitchen, which he kept visiting, because he was sure that was where Creature was most likely to reappear. Halfway down the flight of stairs into the hall, however, he heard a tap on the front door, then metallic clicks and the grinding of the chain. Every nerve in his body seemed to tauten. He pulled out his wand, moved into the shadows beside the decapitated elf heads, and waited. The door opened. He saw a glimpse of the lamplit square outside, and a cloaked figure edged into the hall and closed the door behind it. The intruder took a step forward, and Moody's voice asked, Severus Snape? 
Then the dust figure rose from the end of the hall and rushed him, raising its dead hand. It was not I who killed you, Albus, said a quiet voice. The jinx broke. The dust figure exploded again, and it was impossible to make out the newcomer through the dense grey cloud it left behind. Harry pointed his wand into the middle of it. Don't move! He had forgotten the portrait of Mrs. Black. At the sound of his yell, the curtains hiding her flew open, and she began to scream, Mad bloods and filth dishonoring my house! Ron and Hermione came crashing down the stairs behind Harry, wands pointing, like his, at the unknown man now standing with his arms raised in the hall below. Hold your fire! It's me, Remus. Oh, thank goodness, said Hermione weakly, pointing her wand at Mrs. Black instead. With a bang, the curtains swished shut again, and silence fell. Ron, too, lowered his wand, but Harry did not. Show yourself, he called back. Lupin moved forward into the lamplight, hands still held high in a gesture of surrender. I am Remus John Lupin, werewolf, sometimes known as Mooney, one of the four creators of the Marauder's Map, married to Nymphadora, usually known as Tonks, and I taught you how to produce a Patronus, Harry, which takes the form of a stag. Oh, all right, said Harry, lowering his wand. But I had to check, didn't I? Speaking as your ex-defense against the Dark Arts teacher, I quite agree that you had to check. Ron, Hermione, you shouldn't be quite so quick to lower your defenses. They ran down the stairs toward him. Wrapped in a thick black traveling cloak, he looked exhausted, but pleased to see them. No sign of Severus, then? he asked. No, said Harry. What's going on? Is everyone okay? Yes, said Lupin, but we're all being watched. There are a couple of Death Eaters in the square outside. We know. I had to apparate very precisely onto the top step outside the front door to be sure that they would not see me. They can't know you're in here, or I'm sure they'd have more people out there. They're staking out everywhere that's got any connection with you, Harry. Let's go downstairs. There's a lot to tell you, and I want to know what happened after you left the burrow. They descended into the kitchen, where Hermione pointed her wand at the grate. A fire sprang up instantly. It gave the illusion of coziness to the stark stone walls and glistened off the long wooden table. Lupin pulled a few butter beers from beneath his traveling cloak, and they sat down. I'd have been here three days ago, but I needed to shake off the Death Eater tailing me, said Lupin. So you came straight here after the wedding? No, said Harry, only after we ran into a couple of Death Eaters in a cafe on Tottenham Court Road. Lupin slopped most of his butter beer down his front. What? They explained what had happened. When they had finished, Lupin looked aghast. But how did they find you so quickly? It's impossible to track anyone who apparates, unless you grab hold of them as they disappear. And it doesn't seem likely they were just strolling down Tottenham Court Road at the time, does it? said Harry. We wondered, said Hermione tentatively, whether Harry could still have the trace on him. Impossible, said Lupin. Ron looked smug, and Harry felt hugely relieved. Apart from anything else... They'd know for sure Harry was here if he still had the trace on him, wouldn't they? But I can't see how they could have tracked you to Tottenham Court Road. That's worrying, really worrying. He looked disturbed, but as far as Harry was concerned, that question could wait. Tell us what happened after we left, 
We haven't heard a thing since Ron's dad told us the family was safe. Well, Kingsley saved us, said Lupin. Thanks to his warning, most of the wedding guests were able to disapparate before they arrived. Were they Death Eaters or Ministry people? interjected Hermione. A mixture. But to all intents and purposes, they're the same thing now, said Lupin. There were about a dozen of them, but they didn't know you were there, Harry. Arthur heard a rumor that they tried to torture your whereabouts out of Scrimger before they killed him. If it's true, he didn't give you away. Harry looked at Ron and Hermione. Their expressions reflected the mingled shock and gratitude he felt. He had never liked Scrimger much, but if what Lupin said was true, the man's final act had been to try to protect Harry. The Death Eaters searched the burrow from top to bottom, Lupin went on. They found the ghoul but didn't want to get too close, and then they interrogated those of us who remained for hours. They were trying to get information on you, Harry, but of course nobody apart from the Order knew that you had been there. At the same time that they were smashing up the wedding, more Death Eaters were forcing their way into every Order-connected house in the country. No deaths, he added quickly, forestalling the question. But they were rough. They burned down Daedalus Dickel's house, but as you know, he wasn't there. And they used the Cruciatus curse on Tonks's family, again trying to find out where you went after you visited them. They're all right, shaken, obviously, but otherwise okay. The Death Eaters got through all those protective charms? Harry asked, remembering how effective these had been on the night he had crashed in Tonks's parents' garden. What you've got to realize, Harry, is that the Death Eaters have got the full might of the Ministry on their side now, said Lupin. They've got the power to perform brutal spells without fear of identification or arrest. They managed to penetrate every defensive spell we'd cast against them, and once inside, they were completely open about why they'd come. And are they bothering to give an excuse for torturing Harry's whereabouts out of people? asked Hermione, an edge to her voice. Well, said Lupin. He hesitated, then pulled out a folded copy of the Daily Prophet. Here, he said, pushing it across the table to Harry. You'll know sooner or later anyway. That's their pretext for going after you. Harry smoothed out the paper. A huge photograph of his own face filled the front page. He read the headline over it. Wanted for questioning about the death of Albus Dumbledore. Ron and Hermione gave roars of outrage, but Harry said nothing. He pushed the newspaper away. He did not want to read any more. He knew what it would say. Nobody but those who had been on top of the tower when Dumbledore died knew who had really killed him, and, as Rita Skeeter had already told the wizarding world, Harry had been seen running from the place moments after Dumbledore had fallen. I'm sorry, Harry, Lupin said. So Death Eaters have taken over the Daily Prophet, too? asked Hermione furiously. Lupin nodded. But surely people realize what's going on? The coup has been smooth and virtually silent, said Lupin. The official version of Scrimger's murder is that he resigned. He has been replaced by Pious Thickness, who is under the Imperious Curse. Why didn't Voldemort declare himself Minister of Magic? asked Ron. Lupin laughed. He doesn't need to, Ron. Effectively, he is the minister. But why should he sit behind a desk at the ministry? His puppet thickness is taking care of everyday business, leaving Voldemort free to extend his power beyond the ministry. 
Naturally, many people have deduced what has happened. There has been such a dramatic change in ministry policy in the last few days, and many are whispering that Voldemort must be behind it. However, that is the point. They whisper. They daren't confide in each other, not knowing whom to trust. They are scared to speak out in case their suspicions are true and their families are targeted. Yes, Voldemort is playing a very clever game. Declaring himself might have provoked open rebellion. Remaining masked has created confusion, uncertainty, and fear. And this dramatic change in ministry policy, said Harry, involves warning the wizarding world against me instead of Voldemort? That's certainly part of it, said Lupin. And it is a masterstroke. Now that Dumbledore is dead, you, the boy who lived was sure to be the symbol and rallying point for any resistance to Voldemort. But by suggesting that you had a hand in the old hero's death, Voldemort has not only set a price upon your head, but sown doubt and fear amongst many who would have defended you. Meanwhile, the Ministry has started moving against Muggleborns. Lupin pointed at the Daily Prophet. Look at page two. Hermione turned the pages with much the same expression of distaste she had worn when handling secrets of the darkest art. Muggleborn Register, she read aloud. The Ministry of Magic is undertaking a survey of so-called Muggleborns, the better to understand how they came to possess magical secrets. Recent research undertaken by the Department of Mysteries reveals that magic can only be passed from person to person when wizards reproduce. Where no proven wizarding ancestry exists, therefore, the so-called Muggle-born is likely to have obtained magical power by theft or force. The Ministry is determined to root out such usurpers of magical power, and to this end has issued an invitation to every so-called Muggle-born to present themselves for interview by the newly appointed Muggle-born Registration Commission. People won't let this happen, said Ron. It is. Happening, Ron, said Lupin. Muggle-borns are being rounded up as we speak. But how are they supposed to have stolen magic? said Ron. It's mental. If you could steal magic, there wouldn't be any squibs, would there? I know, said Lupin. Nevertheless, unless you can prove that you have at least one close wizarding relative, you are now deemed to have obtained your magical power illegally and must suffer the punishment. Ron glanced at Hermione, then said, what if purebloods and half-bloods swear a muggle-born's part of their family? I'll tell everyone Hermione is my cousin. Hermione covered Ron's hand with hers and squeezed it. Thank you, Ron, but I couldn't let you. You won't have a choice, said Ron fiercely, gripping her hand back. I'll teach you my family tree so you can answer questions on it. Hermione gave a shaky laugh. Ron... As we're on the run with Harry Potter, the most wanted person in the country, I don't think it matters. If I was going back to school, it would be different. What's Voldemort planning for Hogwarts? she asked Lupin. Attendance is now compulsory for every young witch and wizard, he replied. That was announced yesterday. It's a change because it was never obligatory before. Of course, nearly every witch and wizard in Britain has been educated at Hogwarts, but their parents had the right to teach them at home or send them abroad if they preferred. This way, Voldemort will have the whole wizarding population under his eye from a young age. 
And it's also another way of weeding out muggle-borns, because students must be given blood status, meaning that they have proven to the Ministry that they are of wizard descent before they are allowed to attend. Harry felt sickened and angry. At this moment, excited eleven-year-olds would be poring over stacks of newly purchased spellbooks, unaware that they would never see Hogwarts, perhaps never see their families again either. It's... it's he muttered, struggling to find words that did justice to the horror of his thoughts, but Lupin said quietly, I know. Lupin hesitated. I'll understand if you can't confirm this, Harry, but the Order is under the impression that Dumbledore left you a mission. He did, Harry replied, and Ron and Hermione are in on it, and they're coming with me. Can you confide in me what the mission is? Harry looked into the prematurely lined face, framed in thick but graying hair, and wished that he could return a different answer. I can't, Remus. I'm sorry. If Dumbledore didn't tell you, I don't think I can. I thought you'd say that, said Lupin, looking disappointed. But I might still be of some use to you. You know what I am and what I can do. I could come with you to provide protection. There would be no need to tell me exactly what you were up to. Harry hesitated. It was a very tempting offer, though how they would be able to keep their mission secret from Lupin if he were with them all the time, he could not imagine. Hermione, however, looked puzzled. But what about Tonks? she asked. What about her? said Lupin. Well, said Hermione, frowning, you're married. How does she feel about you going away with us? Tonks will be perfectly safe, said Lupin. She'll be at her parents' house. There was something strange in Lupin's tone. It was almost cold. There was also something odd in the idea of Tonks remaining hidden at her parents' house. She was, after all, a member of the Order, and, as far as Harry knew, was likely to want to be in the thick of the action. Remus, said Hermione tentatively, is everything all right? You know, between you and... Everything is fine, thank you said Lupin pointedly. Hermione turned pink. There was another pause, an awkward and embarrassed one. And then Lupin said, with an air of forcing himself to admit something unpleasant, Tonks is going to have a baby. Oh, how wonderful, squealed Hermione. Excellent, said Ron enthusiastically. Congratulations, said Harry. Lupin gave an artificial smile that was more like a grimace, then said, So, do you accept my offer? Will three become four? I cannot believe that Dumbledore would have disapproved. He appointed me your defense against the Dark Arts teacher, after all, and I must tell you that I believe that we are facing magic many of us have never encountered or imagined. Ron and Hermione both looked at Harry. Just, just to be clear, he said, you want to leave Tonks at her parents' house and come away with us? She'll be perfectly safe there. They'll look after her, said Lupin. He spoke with a finality bordering on indifference. Harry, I'm sure James would have wanted me to stick with you. Well, said Harry slowly, I'm not. I'm pretty sure my father would have wanted to know why you aren't sticking with your own kid, actually. Lupin's face drained of color. The temperature in the kitchen might have dropped ten degrees. Ron stared around the room as though he had been bidden to memorize it. 
while Hermione's eyes swiveled backward and forward from Harry to Lupin. You don't understand, said Lupin at last. Explain, then, said Harry. Lupin swallowed. I... I made a grave mistake in marrying Tonks. I did it against my better judgment, and I have regretted it very much ever since. I see, said Harry. So you're just going to dump her and the kid and run off with us? Lupin sprang to his feet. His chair toppled over backward, and he glared at them so fiercely that Harry saw, for the first time ever, the shadow of the wolf upon his human face. Don't you understand what I've done to my wife and my unborn child? I should never have married her. I've made her an outcast. Lupin kicked aside the chair he had overturned. You have only ever seen me amongst the Order, or under Dumbledore's protection at Hogwarts. You don't know how most of the wizarding world sees creatures like me. When they know of my affliction, they can barely talk to me. Don't you see what I've done? Even her own family is disgusted by our marriage. What parents want their only daughter to marry a werewolf? And the child. The child. Lupin actually seized handfuls of his own hair. He looked quite deranged. My kind don't usually breed. It will be like me. I am convinced of it. How can I forgive myself when I knowingly risked passing on my own condition to an innocent child? And if, by some miracle, it is not like me, then it will be better off a hundred times so without a father of whom it must always be ashamed. Remus, whispered Hermione, tears in her eyes. Don't say that. How could any child be ashamed of you? Oh, I don't know, Hermione, said Harry. I'd be pretty ashamed of him. Harry did not know where his rage was coming from, but it had propelled him to his feet, too. Lupin looked as though Harry had hit him. If the new regime thinks muggle-borns are bad, Harry said, what will they do to a half-werewolf whose father's in the order? My father died trying to protect my mother and me, and you reckon he'd tell you to abandon your kid to go on an adventure with us? How, how dare you, said Lupin. This is not about a desire for, for danger or personal glory. How dare you suggest such a... I think you're feeling a bit of a daredevil, Harry said. You fancy stepping into Sirius's shoes. Harry, no, Hermione begged him but he continued to glare into Lupin's livid face. I'd never have believed this, Harry said. The man who taught me to fight Dementors, a coward. Lupin drew his wand so fast that Harry had barely reached for his own. There was a loud bang, and he felt himself flying backward as if punched. As he slammed into the kitchen wall and slid to the floor, he glimpsed the tail of Lupin's cloak disappearing around the door. Remus! Remus! Come back! Hermione cried, but Lupin did not respond. A moment later, they heard the front door slam. Harry! wailed Hermione. How could you? It was easy, said Harry. He stood up. He could feel a lump swelling where his head had hit the wall. He was still so full of anger, he was shaking. Don't look at me like that! He snapped at Hermione. Don't you start on her, snarled Ron. No, no, we mustn't fight, said Hermione, launching herself between them. You shouldn't have said that stuff to Lupin, Ron told Harry. He had it coming to him, said Harry. 
Broken images were racing each other through his mind. Sirius falling through the veil. Dumbledore suspended, broken in midair. A flash of green light and his mother's voice begging for mercy. Parents, said Harry, shouldn't leave their kids unless, unless they've got to. Harry, said Hermione, stretching out a consoling hand. But he shrugged it off and walked away, his eyes on the fire Hermione had conjured. He had once spoken to Lupin out of that fireplace, seeking reassurance about James, and Lupin had consoled him. Now Lupin's tortured white face seemed to swim in the air before him. He felt a sickening surge of remorse. Neither Ron nor Hermione spoke, but Harry felt sure that they were looking at each other behind his back, communicating silently. He turned around and caught them turning hurriedly away from each other. I know I shouldn't have called him a coward. No, you shouldn't, said Ron at once. But he's acting like one. All the same, said Hermione. I know, said Harry. But if it makes him go back to Tonks, it'll be worth it, won't it? He could not keep the plea out of his voice. Hermione looked sympathetic, Ron uncertain. Harry looked down at his feet, thinking of his father. Would James have backed Harry in what he had said to Lupin, or would he have been angry at how his son had treated his old friend? The silent kitchen seemed to hum with the shock of the recent scene, and with Ron and Hermione's unspoken reproaches. The daily profit Lupin had brought was still lying on the table, Harry's own face staring up at the ceiling from the front page. He walked over to it and sat down opened the paper at random, and pretended to read. He could not take in the words. His mind was still too full of the encounter with Lupin. He was sure that Ron and Hermione had resumed their silent communications on the other side of the prophet. He turned a page loudly, and Dumbledore's name leapt out at him. It was a moment or two before he took in the meaning of the photograph, which showed a family group. Beneath the photograph were the words, The Dumbledore family... Left to right, Albus, Percival, holding newborn Ariana, Kendra, and Aberforth. His attention caught, Harry examined the picture more carefully. Dumbledore's father, Percival, was a good-looking man, with eyes that seemed to twinkle even in this faded old photograph. The baby, Ariana, was little longer than a loaf of bread, and no more distinctive-looking. The mother, Kendra, had jet-black hair pulled into a high bun. Her face had a carved quality about it. Harry thought of photos of Native Americans he'd seen as he studied her dark eyes, high cheekbones and straight nose, formerly composed above a high-necked silk gown. Albus and Aberforth wore matching lacy-collared jackets and had identical shoulder-length hairstyles. Albus looked several years older, but otherwise the two boys looked very alike for this was before Albus's nose had been broken and before he started wearing glasses. The family looked quite happy and normal, smiling serenely up out of the newspaper. Baby Ariana's arm waved vaguely out of her shawl. Harry looked above the picture and saw the headline, Exclusive Extract from the Upcoming Biography of Albus Dumbledore, by Rita Skeeter. Thinking that it could hardly make him feel any worse than he already did, Harry began to read. 
Proud and haughty, Kendra Dumbledore could not bear to remain in Mold on the Wold after her husband Percival's well-publicized arrest and imprisonment in Azkaban. She therefore decided to uproot the family and relocate to Godric's Hollow, the village that was later to gain fame as the scene of Harry Potter's strange escape from you-know-who. Like Mold on the Wold, Godric's Hollow was home to a number of wizarding families, but as Kendra knew none of them, she would be spared the curiosity about her husband's crime she had faced in her former village. By repeatedly rebuffing the friendly advances of her new wizarding neighbors, she soon ensured that her family was left well alone. Slammed the door in my face when I went around to welcome her with a batch of homemade cauldron cakes, says Batilda Bagshot. The first year they were there, I only ever saw the two boys. Wouldn't have known there was a daughter if I hadn't been picking plangentines by moonlight the winter after they moved in and saw Kendra leading Ariana out into the back garden. Walked her around the lawn once, keeping a firm grip on her, then took her back inside. Didn't know what to make of it. It seems that Kendra thought the move to Godric's Hollow was the perfect opportunity to hide Ariana once and for all, something she had probably been planning for years. The timing was significant. Ariana was barely seven years old when she vanished from sight, and seven is the age by which most experts agree that magic will have revealed itself, if present. Nobody now alive remembers Ariana ever demonstrating even the slightest sign of magical ability. It seems clear, therefore, that Kendra made a decision to hide her daughter's existence rather than suffer the shame of admitting that she had produced a squib. Moving away from the friends and neighbors who knew Ariana would, of course, make imprisoning her all the easier. The tiny number of people who henceforth knew of Ariana's existence could be counted upon to keep the secret, including her two brothers, who deflected awkward questions with the answer their mother had taught them. My sister is too frail for school. Next week, Albus Dumbledore at Hogwarts, the prizes and the pretense. Harry had been wrong. What he had read had indeed made him feel worse. He looked back at the photograph of the apparently happy family. Was it true? How could he find out? He wanted to go to Godric's Hollow, even if Batilda was in no fit state to talk to him. He wanted to visit the place where he and Dumbledore had both lost loved ones. He was in the process of lowering the newspaper to ask Ron and Hermione's opinions when a deafening crack echoed around the kitchen. For the first time in three days, Harry had forgotten all about Creature. His immediate thought was that Lupin had burst back into the room, and for a split second he did not take in the mass of struggling limbs that had appeared out of thin air right beside his chair. He hurried to his feet as Creature disentangled himself and, bowing low to Harry, croaked, Creature has returned with the thief Mundungus Fletcher, Master. Mundungus scrambled up and pulled out his wand. Hermione, however, was too quick for him. Expelliarmus! Mundungus's wand soared into the air and Hermione caught it. Wild-eyed, Mundungus dived for the stairs. Ron rugby tackled him and Mundungus hit the stone floor with a muffled crunch. What? He bellowed, writhing in his attempts to free himself from Ron's grip. What have I done? Setting a bleeding ourself on me? What are you playing at? What have I done? Let me go, let me go, or... You're not in much of a position to make threats, said Harry. He threw aside the newspaper, crossed the kitchen in a few strides, and dropped to his knees beside Mundungus, who stopped struggling and looked terrified. 
Ron got up, panting, and watched as Harry pointed his wand deliberately at Mundungus's nose. Mundungus stank of stale sweat and tobacco smoke. His hair was matted and his robe stained. Creature apologizes for the delay in bringing the thief, master, croaked the elf. Flesher knows how to avoid capture, has many hidey-holes and accomplices. Nevertheless, Creature cornered the thief in the end. You've done really well, Creature, said Harry, and the elf bowed low. Right, we've got a few questions for you, Harry told Mundungus, who shouted at once. I panicked, okay? I never wanted to come along, no offence, mate, but I never volunteered to die for you, and that was bleeding you-know-who come flying at me. Anyone would have got out of there. I said all along, I didn't want to do it. For your information, none of the rest of us disapparated, said Hermione. Well, you're a bunch of bleeding heroes then, aren't you? But I never pretended I was up for killing myself. We're not interested in why you ran out on Mad-Eye said Harry, moving his wand a little closer to Mundungus's baggy bloodshot eyes. We already knew you were an unreliable bit of scum. Well, then, why the hell am I being hunted down by house elves? Or is this about them goblets again? I ain't got none of them left, or you could have them. It's not about the goblets either, although you're getting warmer, said Harry. Shut up and listen. It felt wonderful to have something to do, someone of whom he could demand some small portion of truth. Harry's wand was now so close to the bridge of Mundungus's nose that Mundungus had gone cross-eyed, trying to keep it in view. When you cleaned out this house of anything valuable, Harry began, but Mundungus interrupted him again. Sirius never cared about any of the junk. There was the sound of pattering feet a blaze of shining copper, an echoing clang, and a shriek of agony. Creature had taken a run at Mundungus and hit him over the head with a saucepan. Call him off! Call him off! He should be locked up! screamed Mundungus, cowering as Creature raised the heavy-bottomed pan again. Creature! No! shouted Harry. Creature's thin arms trembled with the weight of the pan, still held aloft. Perhaps just one more, Master Harry, for luck. Ron laughed. We need him conscious, creature, but if he needs persuading, you can do the honours, said Harry. Thank you very much, master, said Creature with a bow, and he retreated a short distance, his great pale eyes still fixed upon Mundungus with loathing. When you stripped this house of all the valuables you could find, Harry began again, you took a bunch of stuff from the kitchen cupboard. There was a locket there. Harry's mouth was suddenly dry. He could sense Ron and Hermione's tension and excitement, too. What did you do with it? Why? asked Mundungus. Is it valuable? You've still got it, cried Hermione. No, he hasn't, said Ron shrewdly. He's wondering whether he should have asked more money for it. More? said Mundungus. That wouldn't have been effing difficult. Bleeding gave it away, didn't I? No choice. What do you mean? I was selling in Diagon Alley, and she come up to me and asks if I've got a license for trading in magical artifacts. Bleeding snoop, 
She was going to find me, but she took a fancy to the locket and told me she'd take it and let me off that time, and to think myself lucky. Who was this woman? asked Harry. I don't know, some ministry hag. Mundungus considered for a moment, brow wrinkled. Little woman, bow on top of her head. He frowned and then added, Look like a toad. Harry dropped his wand. It hit Mundungus on the nose and shot red sparks into his eyebrows, which ignited. Agramenti! screamed Hermione, and a jet of water streamed from her wand, engulfing a spluttering and choking Mundungus. Harry looked up and saw his own shock reflected in Ron's and Hermione's faces. The scars on the back of his right hand seemed to be tingling again. Chapter 12 Magic is Might As August wore on, the square of unkempt grass in the middle of grim old place shriveled in the sun until it was brittle and brown. The inhabitants of Number 12 were never seen by anybody in the surrounding houses, and nor was Number 12 itself. The muggles who lived in grim old place had long since accepted the amusing mistake in the numbering that had caused Number 11 to sit beside Number 13. And yet the square was now attracting a trickle of visitors who seemed to find the anomaly most intriguing. Barely a day passed without one or two people arriving in Grimald Place, with no other purpose, or so it seemed, than to lean against the railings facing numbers 11 and 13, watching the join between the two houses. The lurkers were never the same two days running, although they all seemed to share a dislike for normal clothing. Most of the Londoners who passed them were used to eccentric dresses and took little notice although occasionally one of them might glance back, wondering why anyone would wear such long cloaks in this heat. The watchers seemed to be gleaning little satisfaction from their vigil. Occasionally one of them started forward excitedly, as if they had seen something interesting at last, only to fall back looking disappointed. On the first day of September there were more people lurking in the square than ever before. Half a dozen men in long cloaks stood silent and watchful, gazing as ever at houses eleven and thirteen, but the thing for which they were waiting still appeared elusive. As evening drew in, bringing with it an unexpected gust of chilly rain for the first time in weeks, there occurred one of those inexplicable moments when they appeared to have seen something interesting. The man with the twisted face pointed, and his closest companion, a podgy, pallid man, started forward but a moment later they had relaxed into their previous state of inactivity, looking frustrated and disappointed. Meanwhile, inside number twelve, Harry had just entered the hall. He had nearly lost his balance as he apparated onto the top step just outside the front door and thought that the Death Eaters might have caught a glimpse of his momentarily exposed elbow. Shutting the front door carefully behind him, he pulled off the invisibility cloak, draped it over his arm, and hurried along the gloomy hallway toward the door that led to the basement, a stolen copy of the Daily Prophet clutched in his hand. The usual low murmur of, Severus Snape, greeted him. The chill wind swept him, and his tongue rolled up for a moment. I didn't kill you, he said, once it had unrolled, then held his breath as the dusty jinx figure exploded. He waited until he was halfway down the hall to the kitchen, out of earshot of Mrs. Black, and clear of the dust cloud, before calling, I've got news, and you won't like it. The kitchen was almost unrecognizable. Every surface now shone, 
Copper pots and pans had been burnished to a rosy glow. The wooden tabletop gleamed. The goblets and plates already laid for dinner glinted in the light from a merrily blazing fire on which a cauldron was simmering. Nothing in the room, however, was more dramatically different than the house-elf, who now came hurrying toward Harry, dressed in a snowy white towel, his ear hair as clean and fluffy as cotton wool, Regulus's locket bouncing on his thin chest. Shoes off, if you please, Master Harry, and hands washed before dinner, croaked Creature, seizing the invisibility cloak and slouching off to hang it on a hook on the wall beside a number of old-fashioned robes that had been freshly laundered. What's happened? Ron asked apprehensively. He and Hermione had been poring over a sheaf of scribbled notes and hand-drawn maps that littered the end of the long kitchen table, but now they watched Harry as he strode toward them and threw down the newspaper on top of their scattered parchment. A large picture of a familiar, hook-nosed, black-haired man stared up at them all beneath a headline that read, Severus Snape confirmed as Hogwarts headmaster. No, said Ron and Hermione loudly. Hermione was quickest. She snatched up the newspaper and began to read the accompanying story out loud. Severus Snape, long-standing potions master at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, was today appointed headmaster in the most important of several staffing changes at the ancient school. Following the resignation of the previous Muggle Studies teacher, Electo Caro will take over the post, while her brother, Amicus, fills the position of defense against the Dark Arts Professor. I welcome the opportunity to uphold our finest wizarding traditions and values. Like committing murder and cutting off people's ears, I suppose. Snape, headmaster, Snape in Dumbledore's study, Merlin's pants, she shrieked, making both Harry and Ron jump. She leapt up from the table and hurtled from the room, shouting as she went, I'll be back in a minute. Merlin's pants? repeated Ron, looking amused. She must be upset. He pulled the newspaper toward him and perused the article about Snape. The other teachers won't stand for this. McGonagall and Flitwick and Sprout all know the truth. They know how Dumbledore died. They won't accept Snape as headmaster. And who are these Carrows? Death Eaters said Harry. There are pictures of them inside. They were at the top of the tower when Snape killed Dumbledore. So it's all friends together. And, Harry went on bitterly, drawing up a chair, I can't see that the other teachers have got any choice but to stay. If the Ministry and Voldemort are behind Snape, it'll be a choice between staying and teaching, or a nice few years in Azkaban, and that's if they're lucky. I reckon they'll stay to try and protect the students. Creature came bustling to the table with a large tureen in his hands and ladled out soup into pristine bowls, whistling between his teeth as he did so. Thanks, Creature, said Harry, flipping over the prophet so as not to have to look at Snape's face. Well, at least we know exactly where Snape is now. He began to spoon soup into his mouth. The quality of Creature's cooking had improved dramatically ever since he had been given Regulus's locket. Today's French onion was as good as Harry had ever tasted. There was still a load of Death Eaters watching the house, he told Ron as he ate. More than usual. It's like they're hoping we'll march out, carrying our school trunks and head off for the Hogwarts Express. Ron glanced at his watch. I've been thinking about that all day. It left nearly six hours ago. Weird. Not being on it, isn't it? 
In his mind's eye, Harry seemed to see the scarlet steam engine as he and Ron had once followed it by air, shimmering between fields and hills, a rippling scarlet caterpillar. He was sure Ginny, Neville, and Luna were sitting together at this moment, perhaps wondering where he, Ron, and Hermione were, or debating how best to undermine Snape's new regime. They nearly saw me coming back in just now, Harry said. I landed badly on the top step and the cloak slipped. I do that every time. Oh, here she is, Ron added, craning around in his seat to watch Hermione re-entering the kitchen. And what in the name of Merlin's most baggy wife fronts was that about? <sighs> I remembered this, Hermione panted. She was carrying a large framed picture which she now lowered to the floor before seizing her small beaded bag from the kitchen sideboard. Opening it, she proceeded to force the painting inside, and despite the fact that it was patently too large to fit inside the tiny bag, within a few seconds it had vanished, like so much else into the bag's capacious depths. Phineas Nigellus, Hermione explained as she threw the bag onto the kitchen table with the usual sonorous clanking crash. Sorry, said Ron, but Harry understood. The painted image of Phineas Nigellus Black was able to flit between his portrait in Grimold Place and the one that hung in the headmaster's office at Hogwarts, the circular tower-top room where Snape was no doubt sitting right now, in triumphant possession of Dumbledore's collection of delicate silver magical instruments, the stone pensive, the sorting hat, and, unless it had been moved elsewhere, the sword of Gryffindor. Snape could send Phineas Nigellus to look inside this house for him, Hermione explained to Ron as she resumed her seat. But let him try it now. All Phineas Nigellus will be able to see is the inside of my handbag. Good thinking, said Ron, looking impressed. Thank you, smiled Hermione, pulling her soup toward her. So, Harry, what else happened today? Nothing, said Harry. Watched the ministry entrance for seven hours. No sign of her. Saw your dad, though, Ron. He looks fine. Ron nodded his appreciation of this news. They had agreed that it was far too dangerous to try and communicate with Mr. Weasley while he walked in and out of the ministry because he was always surrounded by other ministry workers. It was, however, reassuring to catch these glimpses of him, even if he did look very strained and anxious. Dad always told us most ministry people use the flu network to get to work, Ron said. That's why we haven't seen Umbridge. She'd never walk. She'd think she's too important. And what about that funny old witch and that little wizard in the navy robes? Hermione asked. Oh, yeah, the bloke for magical maintenance, said Ron. How do you know he works for magical maintenance? Hermione asked, her soup spoon suspended in midair. Dad said everyone for magical maintenance wears navy blue robes. But you never told us that. Hermione dropped her spoon and pulled toward her the sheaf of notes and maps that she and Ron had been examining when Harry had entered the kitchen. There's nothing in here about navy blue robes. Nothing, she said, flipping feverishly through the pages. Well, does it really matter? Ron, it all matters. If we're going to get into the ministry and not give ourselves away when they're bound to be on the lookout for intruders, every little detail matters. We've been over and over this. I mean, what's the point of all these reconnaissance trips if you aren't even bothering to tell us? Blimey, Hermione, I forget one little thing.
You do realise, don't you, that there's probably no more dangerous place in the whole world for us to be right now than the Ministry of... I think we should do it tomorrow, said Harry. Hermione stopped dead, her jaw hanging. Ron choked a little over his soup. Tomorrow, repeated Hermione. You aren't serious, Harry. I am, said Harry. I don't think we're going to be much better prepared than we are now, even if we skulk around the Ministry entrance for another month. The longer we put it off, the farther away that locket could be. There's already a good chance Umbridge has chucked it away. The thing doesn't open. Unless, said Ron, she's found a way of opening it and she's now possessed. Wouldn't make any difference to her. She was so evil in the first place, Harry shrugged. Hermione was biting her lip, deep in thought. We know everything important, Harry went on, addressing Hermione. We know they've stopped apparition in and out of the Ministry. We know only the most senior Ministry members are allowed to connect their homes to the flu network now, because Ron heard those two unspeakables complaining about it. And we know roughly where Umbridge's office is, because of what you heard that bearded bloke saying to his mate. I'll be up on level one. Dolores wants to see me, Hermione recited immediately. Exactly, said Harry. And we know you get in using those funny coins or tokens or whatever they are, because I saw that witch borrowing one from her friend. But we haven't got any. If the plan works, we will have, Harry continued calmly. I don't know, Harry, I don't know. There are an awful lot of things that could go wrong. So much relies on chance. That'll be true even if we spend another three months preparing, said Harry. It's time to act. He could tell from Ron's and Hermione's faces that they were scared. He was not particularly confident himself, and yet he was sure the time had come to put their plan into operation. They had spent the previous four weeks taking it in turns to don the invisibility cloak and spy on the official entrance to the Ministry, which Ron, thanks to Mr. Weasley, had known since childhood. They had tailed Ministry workers on their way in, eavesdropped on their conversations, and learned by careful observation which of them could be relied upon to appear alone at the same time every day. Occasionally there had been a chance to sneak a daily profit out of somebody's briefcase. Slowly they had built up the sketchy maps and notes now stacked in front of Hermione. All right, said Ron slowly. Let's say we go for it tomorrow. I think it should be just me and Harry. Oh, don't start that again, sighed Hermione. I thought we'd settled this. It's one thing hanging around the entrances under the cloak, but this is different, Hermione. Ron jabbed a finger at a copy of the Daily Prophet, dated ten days previously. You're on the list of muggle-borns who didn't present themselves for interrogation. And you're supposed to be dying of spatagroit at the burrow. If anyone shouldn't go, it's Harry. He's got a ten thousand galleon price on his head. Fine, I'll stay here, said Harry. Let me know if you ever defeat Voldemort, won't you? As Ron and Hermione laughed, pain shot through the scar on Harry's forehead. His hand jumped to it. He saw Hermione's eyes narrow, and he tried to pass off the movement by brushing his hair out of his eyes. Well, if all three of us go, we'll have to disapparate separately, Ron was saying. We can't all fit under the cloak anymore. Harry's scar was becoming more and more painful. He stood up. At once, Creature hurried forward. Master has not finished his soup. Would Master prefer the savoury stew, or else the treacle tart to which Master is so partial? 
Thanks, creature. But I'll be back in a minute. Uh, bathroom. Aware that Hermione was watching him suspiciously, Harry hurried up the stairs to the hall and then to the first landing, where he dashed into the bathroom and bolted the door again. Grunting with pain, he slumped over the black basin with its taps in the form of open-mouthed serpents and closed his eyes. He was gliding along a twilit street. The buildings on either side of him had high, timbered gables. They looked like gingerbread houses. He approached one of them, then saw the whiteness of his own long-fingered hand against the door. He knocked. He felt a mounting excitement. The door opened. A laughing woman stood there. Her face fell as she looked into Harry's face. Humor gone, terror replacing it. Gregorovich, said a high, cold voice. She shook her head. She was trying to close the door. A white hand held it steady, prevented her shutting him out. I want Gregorovich. Everyone here, Nishmir, she cried, shaking her head. He no live here. He no live here. I know him not. Abandoning the attempt to close the door, she began to back away down the dark hall, and Harry followed, gliding toward her, and his long-fingered hand had drawn his wand. Where is he? Das weiß ich nicht. He move. I know not. I know not. He raised the wand. She screamed. Two young children came running into the hall. She tried to shield them with her arms. There was a flash of green light. Harry! Harry! He opened his eyes. He had sunk to the floor. Hermione was pounding on the door again. Harry! Help one up! He had shouted out. He knew it. He got up and unbolted the door. Hermione toppled inside at once, regained her balance, and looked around suspiciously. Ron was right behind her, looking unnerved as he pointed his wand into the corners of the chilly bathroom. What were you doing? asked Hermione sternly. What do you think I was doing? asked Harry with feeble bravado. You were yelling your head off, said Ron. Oh, yeah, I must have dozed off, or... Harry, please don't insult our intelligence, said Hermione, taking deep breaths. We know your scar hurt downstairs, and you're white as a sheet. Harry sat down on the edge of the bath. Fine. I've just seen Voldemort murdering a woman. By now, he's probably killed her whole family, and he didn't need to. It was Cedric all over again. They were just there. Harry, you aren't supposed to let this happen anymore, Hermione cried, her voice echoing through the bathroom. Dumbledore wanted you to use occlumency. He thought the connection was dangerous. Voldemort can use it, Harry. What good is it to watch him kill and torture? How can it help? Because it means I know what he's doing, said Harry. So you're not even going to try to shut him out? Hermione, I can't. You know I'm lousy at occlumency. I never got the hang of it. You never really tried, she said hotly. I don't get it, Harry. Do you like having this special connection or relationship or what, whatever? She faltered under the look he gave her as he stood up. Like it, he said quietly. Would you like it? I... no. I'm sorry, Harry. I didn't mean... I hate it. I hate the fact that he can get inside me, that I have to watch him when he's most dangerous. But I'm going to use it. Dumbledore... Forget Dumbledore. This is my choice. Nobody else's. I want to know why he's after Grigorovich. Who? 
He's a foreign wand maker, said Harry. He made Crumb's wand, and Crumb reckons he's brilliant. But according to you, said Ron, Voldemort's got Ollivander locked up somewhere. If he's already got a wand maker, what does he need another one for? Maybe he agrees with Crumb. Maybe he thinks Grigorovich is better. Or else he thinks Grigorovich will be able to explain what my wand did when he was chasing me, because Ollivander didn't know. Harry glanced into the cracked, dusty mirror and saw Ron and Hermione exchange sceptical looks behind his back. Harry, you keep talking about what your wand did, said Hermione, but you made it happen. Why are you so determined not to take responsibility for your own power? Because I know it wasn't me, and so does Voldemort, Hermione. We both know what really happened. They glared at each other. Harry knew that he had not convinced Hermione, and that she was marshalling counter-arguments against both his theory on his wand and the fact that he was permitting himself to see into Voldemort's mind. To his relief, Ron intervened. Drop it, he advised her. It's up to him. And if we're going to the Ministry tomorrow, don't you reckon we should go over the plan? Reluctantly, as the other two could tell, Hermione let the matter rest, though Harry was quite sure she would attack again at the first opportunity. In the meantime, they returned to the basement kitchen, where creatures served them all stew and treacle tart. They did not get to bed until late that night, after spending hours going over and over their plan until they could recite it, word perfect to each other. Harry, who was now sleeping in Sirius's room, lay in bed with his wand-like trained on the old photograph of his father, Sirius, Lupin, and Pettigrew, and muttered the plan to himself for another ten minutes. As he extinguished his wand, however, he was thinking not of polyjuice potion, puking pastils, or the navy blue robes of magical maintenance. He thought of Grigorovich, the wand-maker, and how long he could hope to remain hidden while Voldemort sought him so determinedly. Dawn seemed to follow midnight with indecent haste. You look terrible, was Ron's greeting as he entered the room to wake Harry. Not for long, said Harry, yawning. They found Hermione downstairs in the kitchen. She was being served coffee and hot rolls by creature, and wearing the slightly manic expression that Harry associated with exam review. Robes, she said under her breath, acknowledging their presence with a nervous nod and continuing to poke around in her beaded bag. Polyjuice potion? Invisibility cloak? Decoy detonators? You should each take a couple just in case. Puking pastilles? Nosebleed nougat? Extendable ears? They gulped down their breakfast then set off upstairs, Creature bowing them out and promising to have a steak and kidney pie ready for them when they returned. Bless him, said Ron fondly, and when you think I used to fantasize about cutting off his head and sticking it on the wall. They made their way onto the front step with immense caution. They could see a couple of puffy-eyed Death Eaters watching the house from across the misty square. Hermione disapparated with Ron first, then came back for Harry. After the usual brief spell of darkness and near suffocation, Harry found himself in the tiny alleyway where the first phase of their plan was scheduled to take place. It was as yet deserted, except for a couple of large bins. The first ministry workers did not usually appear here until at least eight o'clock. Right then, said Hermione, checking her watch. She ought to be here in about five minutes. When I've stunned her, Hermione, we know, 
said Ron sternly, and I thought we were supposed to open the door before she got here. Hermione squealed. I nearly forgot. Stand back. She pointed her wand at the padlocked and heavily graffitied fire door beside them, which burst open with a crash. The dark corridor behind it led, as they knew from their careful scouting trips, into an empty theatre. Hermione pulled the door back toward her to make it look as though it was still closed. And now, she said, turning back to face the other two in the alleyway, we put on the cloak again. And we wait, Ron finished, throwing it over Hermione's head like a blanket over a birdcage and rolling his eyes at Harry. Little more than a minute later, there was a tiny pop and a little ministry witch with flyaway grey hair apparated feet from them, blinking a little in the sudden brightness. The sun had just come out from behind a cloud. She barely had time to enjoy the unexpected warmth, however, before Hermione's silent, stunning spell hit her in the chest, and she toppled over. Nicely done, Hermione, said Ron, emerging from behind a bin beside the theatre door as Harry took off the invisibility cloak. Together they carried the little witch into the dark passageway that led backstage. Hermione plucked a few hairs from the witch's head and added them to a flask of muddy polyjuice potion she had taken from the beaded bag. Ron was rummaging through the little witch's handbag. She's Mafalda Hopkirk, he said, reading a small card that identified their victim as an assistant in the improper use of magic office. You'd better take this, Hermione, and here are the tokens. He passed her several small golden coins, all embossed with the letters M-O-M, -M, which he had taken from the witch's purse. Hermione drank the polyjuice potion, which was now a pleasant heliotrope color, and within seconds stood before them, the double of Mafalda Hopkirk. As she removed Mafalda's spectacles and put them on, Harry checked his watch. We're running late. Mr. Magical Maintenance will be here any second. They hurried to close the door on the real Mafalda. Harry and Ron threw the invisibility cloak over themselves, but Hermione remained in view, waiting. Seconds later there was another pop, and a small, ferrety-looking wizard appeared before them. Oh, hello, Mafalda. Hello, said Hermione in a quavery voice. How are you today? Not so good, actually replied the little wizard, who looked thoroughly downcast. As Hermione and the wizard headed for the main road, Harry and Ron crept along behind them. I'm sorry to hear you're under the weather, said Hermione, talking firmly over the little wizard as he tried to expound upon his problems. It was essential to stop him from reaching the street. Yeah, have a sweet. Uh, oh, no thanks. I insist said Hermione aggressively, shaking the bag of pastilles in his face. Looking rather alarmed, the little wizard took one. The effect was instantaneous. The moment the pastille touched his tongue, the little wizard started vomiting so hard that he did not even notice as Hermione yanked a handful of hairs from the top of his head. Oh, dear, she said as he splattered the alley with sick. Perhaps you'd better take the day off. No, no, he choked and retched, trying to continue on his way, despite being unable to walk straight. I must, today, must go. But that's just silly, said Hermione, alarmed. You can't go to work in this state. I think you ought to go to some mangoes and get them to sort you out. 
the wizard had collapsed, heaving onto all fours, still trying to crawl toward the main street. You simply can't go to work like this, cried Hermione. At last, he seemed to accept the truth of her words. Using a repulsed Hermione to claw his way back into a standing position, he turned on the spot and vanished, leaving nothing behind but the bag Ron had snatched from his hand as he went, and some flying chunks of vomit. Ugh, said Hermione, holding up the skirts of her robe to avoid the puddles of sick. It would have made much less mess to stun him, too. Yeah, said Ron, emerging from under the cloak holding the wizard's bag. But I still think a whole pile of unconscious bodies would have drawn more attention. Keen on his job, though, isn't he? Chuck us the hair and the potion, then. Within two minutes, Ron stood before them, as small and ferrety as the sick wizard, and wearing the navy blue robes that had been folded in his bag. Weird he wasn't wearing them today, wasn't it? Seeing how much he wanted to go. Anyway, I'm Reg Catamole, according to the label in the back. Now wait here, Hermione told Harry, who was still under the invisibility cloak, and we'll be back with some hairs for you. He had to wait ten minutes, but it seemed much longer to Harry, skulking alone in the six-splattered alleyway beside the door concealing the stunned Mafalda. Finally, Ron and Hermione reappeared. We don't know who he is, Hermione said, passing Harry several curly black hairs. But he's gone home with a dreadful nosebleed. Here, he's pretty tall. You'll need bigger robes. She pulled out a set of the old robes Creature had laundered for them, and Harry retired to take the potion and change. Once the painful transformation was complete, he was more than six feet tall and, from what he could tell from his well-muscled arms, powerfully built. He also had a beard. Stowing the invisibility cloak and his glasses inside his new robes, he rejoined the other two. Blimey, that's scary, said Ron, looking up at Harry, who now towered over him. Take one of Mafalda's tokens, Hermione told Harry, and let's go. It's nearly nine. They stepped out of the alleyway together. Fifty yards along the crowded pavement, there were spiked black railings flanking two flights of steps, one labelled gentlemen, the other ladies. See you in a moment, then, said Hermione nervously, and she tottered off down the steps to ladies. Harry and Ron joined a number of oddly dressed men, descending into what appeared to be an ordinary underground public toilet, tiled in grimy black and white. Morning, Reg! called another wizard in navy blue robes as he let himself into a cubicle by inserting his golden token into a slot in the door. Blooming pain in the bomb, this, eh? Forcing us all to get to work this way. Who are they expecting to turn up? Harry Potter? <laughs> the wizard roared with laughter at his own wit. Ron gave a forced chuckle. Yeah, he said. Stupid, isn't it? And he and Harry let themselves into adjoining cubicles. To Harry's left and right came the sound of flushing. He crouched down and peered through the gap at the bottom of the cubicle, just in time to see a pair of booted feet climbing into the toilet next door. He looked left and saw Ron blinking at him. We have to flush ourselves in, he whispered. Looks like it, Harry whispered back. His voice came out deep and gravelly. They both stood up. Feeling exceptionally foolish, Harry clambered into the toilet. 
He knew at once that he had done the right thing. Though he appeared to be standing in water, his shoes, feet, and robes remained quite dry. He reached up, pulled the chain, and next moment had zoomed down a short chute, emerging out of a fireplace into the Ministry of Magic. He got up clumsily. There was a lot more of his body than he was accustomed to. The great atrium seemed darker than Harry remembered it. Previously, a golden fountain had filled the center of the hall, casting shimmering spots of light over the polished wooden floor and walls. Now, a gigantic statue of black stone dominated the scene. It was rather frightening, this vast sculpture of a witch and a wizard sitting on ornately carved thrones, looking down at the ministry workers toppling out of fireplaces below them. Engraved in foot-high letters at the base of the statue were the words, Magic is might. Harry received a heavy blow on the back of the legs. Another wizard had just flown out of the fireplace behind him. Out of the way, cat! Oh, sorry, Runcorn. Clearly frightened, the balding wizard hurried away. Apparently the man whom Harry was impersonating, Runcorn, was intimidating. Psst, said a voice and he looked around to see a wispy little witch and the ferrety wizard from Magical Maintenance gesturing to him from over beside the statue. Harry hastened to join them. You got in all right, then? Hermione whispered to Harry. No, he's still stuck in the bog, said Ron. Oh, very funny. It's horrible, isn't it? She said to Harry, who was staring up at the statue. Have you seen what they're sitting on? Harry looked more closely and realized that what he had thought were decoratively carved thrones were actually mounds of carved humans. Hundreds and hundreds of naked bodies, men, women, and children, all with rather stupid, ugly faces, twisted and pressed together to support the weight of the handsomely robed wizards. Muckles, whispered Hermione, in their rightful place. Come on, let's get going. They joined the stream of witches and wizards moving toward the golden gates at the end of the hall, looking around as surreptitiously as possible, but there was no sign of the distinctive figure of Dolores Umbridge. They passed through the gates and into a smaller hall, where queues were forming in front of twenty golden grills housing as many lifts. They had barely joined the nearest one when a voice said, Catamole! They looked around. Harry's stomach turned over. One of the Death Eaters who had witnessed Dumbledore's death was striding toward them. The Ministry workers beside them fell silent, their eyes downcast. Harry could feel fear rippling through them. The man's scowling, slightly brutish face was somehow at odds with his magnificent sweeping robes, which were embroidered with much gold thread. Someone in the crowd around the lifts called sycophantically, Morning, Yaxley! Yaxley ignored them. I requested somebody from Magical Maintenance to sort out my office, Catamol. It's still raining in there. Ron looked around as though hoping somebody else would intervene, but nobody spoke. Raining? In your office? That's... that's not good, is it? Ron gave a nervous laugh. Yaxley's eyes widened. You think it's funny, Catamol, do you? A pair of witches broke away from the queue for the lift and bustled off. No, said Ron. No, of course. You realize that I am on my way downstairs to interrogate your wife, Catamole. 
In fact, I'm quite surprised you're not down there holding her hand while she waits. Already given her up as a bad job, have you? Probably wise. Be sure and marry a pure blood next time. Hermione had let out a little squeak of horror. Yaxley looked at her. She coughed feebly and turned away. I, I, stammered Ron. But if my wife were accused of being a mudblood, said Yaxley, not that any woman I married would ever be mistaken for such filth. And the head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement needed a job doing. I would make it my priority to do that job, Catamore. Do you understand me? Yes, whispered Ron. Then attend to it, Catamole, and if my office is not completely dry within an hour, your wife's blood status will be in even graver doubt than it is now. The golden grill before them clattered open. With a nod and unpleasant smile to Harry, who was evidently expected to appreciate this treatment of Catamole, Yaxley swept away toward another lift. Harry, Ron, and Hermione entered theirs, but nobody followed them. It was as if they were infectious. The grills shut with a clang, and the lift began to move upward. What am I going to do? Ron asked the other two at once. He looked stricken. If I don't turn up, my wife, I mean, Catamole's wife. We'll come with you. We should stick together, began Harry, but Ron shook his head feverishly. That's mental. We haven't got much time. You two find Umbridge. I'll go and sort out Yax's office. But how do I stop it raining? Try finite incantatum, said Hermione at once. That should stop the rain if it's a hex or curse. If it doesn't, something's gone wrong with an atmospheric charm, which will be more difficult to fix. So, as an interim measure, try impervious to protect his belongings. Say it again, slowly, said Ron, searching his pockets desperately for a quill. But at that moment, the lift juddered to a halt. A disembodied female voice said, Level 4, Department for the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures, Incorporating Beast, Being, and Spirit Divisions, Goblin Liaison Office, and Pest Advisory Bureau. And the grills slid open again, admitting a couple of wizards and several pale violet paper airplanes that fluttered around the lamp in the ceiling of the lift. Morning, Albert, said a bushily whiskered man, smiling at Harry. He glanced over at Ron and Hermione as the lift creaked upward once more. Hermione was now whispering frantic instructions to Ron. The wizard leaned toward Harry, leering, and muttered, Dirk Cresswell, eh? From Goblin Liaison. Nice one, Albert. I'm pretty confident I'll get his job now. He winked. Harry smiled back, hoping that this would suffice. The lift stopped. The grills opened once more. Level 2, Department of Magical Law Enforcement, including the improper use of magic office, Auror headquarters, and Wizengamot administration services, said the disembodied witch's voice. Harry saw Hermione give Ron a little push, and he hurried out of the lift, followed by the other wizards, leaving Harry and Hermione alone. The moment the golden door had closed, Hermione said very fast, Actually, Harry, I think I'd better go after him. I don't think he knows what he's doing, and if he gets caught, the whole thing... Level 1, Minister of Magic and Support Staff. The golden grills slid apart again, and Hermione gasped. 
Four people stood before them, two of them deep in conversation, a long-haired wizard wearing magnificent robes of black and gold, and a squat, toad-like witch wearing a velvet bow in her short hair and clutching a clipboard to her chest. Chapter 13 The Muggle-Born Registration Commission Ah, Mafalda, said Umbridge, looking at Hermione. Travis sent you, did he? Yes, squeaked Hermione. Good, you will do perfectly well. Umbridge spoke to the wizard in black and gold. That's that problem solved, Minister. If Mafalda can be spared for record-keeping, we should be able to start straight away. She consulted her clipboard. Ten people today, and one of them the wife of a ministry employee. Tut-tut, even here, in the heart of the ministry. She stepped into the lift beside Hermione, as did the two wizards who had been listening to Umbridge's conversation with the minister. We'll go straight down, Mafalda. You'll find everything you need in the courtroom. Good morning, Albert. Aren't you getting out? Uh, yes, of course, said Harry in Runcorn's deep voice. Harry stepped out of the lift. The golden grills clanged shut behind him. Glancing over his shoulder, Harry saw Hermione's anxious face sinking back out of sight, a tall wizard on either side of her, Umbridge's velvet hair bow level with her shoulder. What brings you up here, Runcorn? asked the new Minister of Magic. His long black hair and beard were streaked with silver, and a great overhanging forehead shadowed his glinting eyes, putting Harry in mind of a crab looking out from beneath a rock. Needed a quick word with... Harry hesitated for a fraction of a second. Arthur Weasley. Someone said he was up on level one. Ah, said Pius Thickness. Has he been caught having contact with an undesirable? No, said Harry, his throat dry. No, nothing like that. Ah, well, it's only a matter of time, said Thickness. If you ask me, the blood traitors are as bad as the mudbloods. Good day, Runcorn. Good day, Minister. Harry watched Thickness march away along the thickly carpeted corridor. The moment the minister had passed out of sight, Harry tugged the invisibility cloak out from under his heavy black cloak, threw it over himself, and set off along the corridor in the opposite direction. Runcorn was so tall that Harry was forced to stoop to make sure his big feet were hidden. Panic pulsed in the pit of his stomach. As he passed gleaming wooden door after gleaming wooden door, each bearing a small plaque with the owner's name and occupation upon it, the might of the ministry, its complexity, its impenetrability, seemed to force itself upon him, so that the plan he had been carefully concocting with Ron and Hermione over the past four weeks seemed laughably childish. They had concentrated all their efforts on getting inside without being detected. They had not given a moment's thought to what they would do if they were forced to separate. Now Hermione was stuck in court proceedings, which would undoubtedly last hours. Ron was struggling to do magic that Harry was sure was beyond him. A woman's liberty, possibly depending on the outcome. And he, Harry, was wandering around on the top floor when he knew perfectly well that his quarry had just gone down in the lift. He stopped walking, leaned against a wall, and tried to decide what to do. The silence pressed upon him. There was no bustling or talk or swift footsteps here. The purple-carpeted corridors were as hushed as though the muffliato charm had been cast over the place. 
Her office must be up here, Harry thought. It seemed most unlikely that Umbridge would keep her jewellery in her office, but on the other hand, it seemed foolish not to search it to make sure. He therefore set off along the corridor again, passing nobody but a frowning wizard who was murmuring instructions to a quill that floated in front of him, scribbling on a trail of parchment. Now paying attention to the names on the doors, Harry turned a corner. Halfway along the next corridor, he emerged into a wide open space where a dozen witches and wizards sat in rows at small desks, not unlike school desks, though much more highly polished and free from graffiti. Harry paused to watch them, for the effect was quite mesmerizing. They were all waving and twiddling their wands in unison, and squares of colored paper were flying in every direction like little pink kites. After a few seconds, Harry realized that there was a rhythm to the proceedings, that the papers all formed the same pattern. And after a few more seconds, he realized that what he was watching was the creation of pamphlets, that the paper squares were pages which, when assembled, folded, and magicked into place, fell into neat stacks beside each witch or wizard. Harry crept closer, although the workers were so intent on what they were doing that he doubted they would notice a carpet-muffled footstep and he slid a completed pamphlet from the pile beside a young witch. He examined it beneath the invisibility cloak. Its pink cover was emblazoned with a golden title, Mudbloods, and the dangers they pose to a peaceful, pure-blood society. Beneath the title was a picture of a red rose with a simpering face in the middle of its petals, being strangled by a green weed with fangs and a scowl. There was no author's name upon the pamphlet, but again, the scars on the back of his right hand seemed to tingle as he examined it. Then the young witch beside him confirmed his suspicion as she said, still waving and twirling her wand, Will the old hag be interrogating mudbloods all day? Does anyone know? Careful, said the wizard beside her, glancing around nervously. One of his pages slipped and fell to the floor. What? Has she got magic ears as well as an eye now? The witch glanced toward the shining mahogany door facing the space full of pamphlet makers. Harry looked too, and rage reared in him like a snake. Where there might have been a peephole on a muggle front door, a large round eye with a bright blue iris had been set into the wood, an eye that was shockingly familiar to anybody who had known Alastor Moody. For a split second, Harry forgot where he was and what he was doing there. He even forgot that he was invisible. He strode straight over to the door to examine the eye. It was not moving. It gazed blindly upward, frozen. The plaque beneath it read, Dolores Umbridge, Senior Undersecretary to the Minister. Below that, a slightly shinier new plaque read, Head of the Muggle-Born Registration Commission. Harry looked back at the dozen pamphlet makers. Though they were intent upon their work, he could hardly suppose that they would not notice if the door of an empty office opened in front of them. He therefore withdrew from an inner pocket an odd object with little waving legs and a rubber-bulbed horn for a body. Crouching down beneath the cloak, he placed the decoy detonator on the ground. It scuttled away at once through the legs of the witches and wizards in front of him. A few moments later, during which Harry waited with his hand upon the doorknob, there came a loud bang, and a great deal of acrid black smoke billowed from a corner. The young witch in the front row shrieked, 
pink pages flew everywhere, and she and her fellows jumped up, looking around for the source of the commotion. Harry turned the doorknob, stepped into Umbridge's office, and closed the door behind him. He felt he had stepped back in time. The room was exactly like Umbridge's office at Hogwarts. Lace draperies, doilies, and dried flowers covered every available surface. The walls bore the same ornamental plates, each featuring a highly colored, beribboned kitten, gambling and frisking with sickening cuteness. The desk was covered with a flouncy flowered cloth. Behind Mad-Eye's eye, a telescopic attachment enabled Umbridge to spy on the workers on the other side of the door. Harry took a look through it and saw that they were all still gathered around the decoy detonator. He wrenched the telescope out of the door, leaving a hole behind, pulled the magical eyeball out of it, and placed it in his pocket. Then he turned to face the room again, raised his wand, and murmured, Asio, lock it. Nothing happened, but he had not expected it to. No doubt Umbridge knew all about protective charms and spells. He therefore hurried behind her desk and began pulling open the drawers. He saw quills and notebooks and spellotape, enchanted paper clips that coiled snake-like from their drawer and had to be beaten back, a fussy little lace box full of spare hair bows and clips, but no sign of a locket. There was a filing cabinet behind the desk. Harry set to searching it. Like Filch's filing cabinets at Hogwarts, it was full of folders, each labelled with a name. It was not until Harry reached the bottommost drawer that he saw something to distract him from his search. Mr. Weasley's file. He pulled it out and opened it. Arthur Weasley. Blood status? Pure blood, but with unacceptable pro-muggle leanings. Known member of the Order of the Phoenix. Family? Wife. Pure blood. Seven children, two youngest at Hogwarts. N.B. Youngest son currently at home, seriously ill. Ministry inspectors have confirmed. Security status, tracked. All movements are being monitored. Strong likelihood undesirable number one will contact. Has stayed with Weasley family previously. Undesirable number one, Harry muttered under his breath as he replaced Mr. Weasley's folder and shut the drawer. He had an idea he knew who that was, and, sure enough, as he straightened up and glanced around the office for fresh hiding places, he saw a poster of himself on the wall with the words, Undesirable Number One, emblazoned across his chest. A little pink note was stuck to it with a picture of a kitten in the corner. Harry moved across to read it and saw that Umbridge had written, To Be Punished. Angrier than ever, he proceeded to grope in the bottoms of the vases and baskets of dried flowers, but was not at all surprised that the locket was not there. He gave the office one last sweeping look, and his heart skipped a beat. Dumbledore was staring at him from a small rectangular mirror propped up on a bookcase beside the desk. Harry crossed the room at a run and snatched it up, but realized the moment he touched it that it was not a mirror at all. Dumbledore was smiling wistfully out of the front cover of a glossy book. Harry had not immediately noticed the curly green writing across his hat, the life and lies of Albus Dumbledore, nor the slightly smaller writing across his chest, by Rita Skeeter, best-selling author of Armando Dippet, Master or Moron. Harry opened the book at random and saw a full-page photograph of two teenage boys, 
both laughing immoderately with their arms around each other's shoulders. Dumbledore, now with elbow-length hair, had grown a tiny wispy beard that recalled the one on Crumb's chin that had so annoyed Ron. The boy who roared in silent amusement beside Dumbledore had a gleeful, wild look about him. His golden hair fell in curls to his shoulders. Harry wondered whether it was a young doge, but before he could check the caption, the door of the office opened. If Thickness had not been looking over his shoulder as he entered, Harry would not have had time to pull the invisibility cloak over himself. As it was, he thought Thickness might have caught a glimpse of movement, because for a moment or two he remained quite still, staring curiously at the place where Harry had just vanished. Perhaps deciding that all he had seen was Dumbledore scratching his nose on the front of the book, for Harry had hastily replaced it upon the shelf, Thickness finally walked to the desk and pointed his wand at the quill standing ready in the ink pot. It sprang out and began scribbling a note to Umbridge. Very slowly, hardly daring to breathe, Harry backed out of the office into the open area beyond. The pamphlet makers were still clustered around the remains of the decoy detonator, which continued to hoot feebly as it smoked. Harry hurried off up the corridor, as the young witch said, I bet it sneaked up here from experimental charms. They're so careless. Remember that poisonous duck? Speeding back toward the lifts, Harry reviewed his options. It had never been likely that the locket was here at the Ministry, and there was no hope of bewitching its whereabouts out of umbrage while she was sitting in a crowded court. Their priority now had to be to leave the Ministry before they were exposed and try again another day. The first thing to do was to find Ron, and then they could work out a way of extracting Hermione from the courtroom. The lift was empty when it arrived. Harry jumped in and pulled off the invisibility cloak as it started its descent. To his enormous relief, when it rattled to a halt at level two, a soaking wet and wild-eyed Ron got in. Morning, he stammered to Harry as the lift set off again. Ron, it's me, Harry. Harry, blimey, I forgot what you looked like. Why isn't Hermione with you? She had to go down to the courtrooms with Umbridge. She couldn't refuse, and... But before Harry could finish, the lift had stopped again. The doors opened, and Mr. Weasley walked inside, talking to an elderly witch whose blonde hair was teased so high it resembled an anthill. I quite understand what you're saying, Wakanda, but I'm afraid I cannot be party to... Mr. Weasley broke off. He had noticed Harry. It was very strange to have Mr. Weasley glare at him with that much dislike. The lift doors closed and the four of them trundled downward once more. Oh, hello, Ridge, said Mr. Weasley, looking around at the sound of steady dripping from Ron's robes. Isn't your wife in for questioning today? Uh, what's happened to you? Why are you so wet? Yaxley's office is raining, said Ron. He addressed Mr. Weasley's shoulder, and Harry felt sure he was scared that his father might recognize him if they looked directly into each other's eyes. I couldn't stop it, so they've sent me to get Bernie. Pillsworth, I think they said. Yes, a lot of offices have been raining lately, said Mr. Weasley. Did you try Meteola Jinx Recanto? It worked for Bletchley. Meteola Jinx Recanto? whispered Ron. No, I didn't. Thanks, Dad. I mean, thanks, Arthur. The lift doors opened. 
The old witch with the anthill hair left, and Ron darted past her out of sight. Harry made to follow him, but found his path blocked as Percy Weasley strode into the lift, his nose buried in some papers he was reading. Not until the doors had clanged shut again did Percy realize he was in a lift with his father. He glanced up, saw Mr. Weasley, turned radish red, and left the lift the moment the doors opened again. For the second time, Harry tried to get out, but this time found his way blocked by Mr. Weasley's arm. One moment, Runcorn. The lift doors closed, and as they clanked down another floor, Mr. Weasley said, I hear you laid information about Dirk Criswell. Harry had the impression that Mr. Weasley's anger was no less because of the brush with Percy. He decided his best chance was to act stupid. Sorry, he said. Don't pretend, Runcorn, said Mr. Weasley fiercely. You tracked down the wizard who faked his family tree, didn't you? I saw what if I did, said Harry. So Dirk Cresswell is ten times the wizard you are, said Mr. Weasley quietly, as the lift sank even lower. And if he survives Azkaban, you'll have to answer to him, not to mention his wife, his sons, and his friends. Arthur, Harry interrupted, you know you're being tracked, don't you? Is that a threat, Runcorn? said Mr. Weasley loudly. No, said Harry. It's a fact. They're watching your every move. The lift doors opened. They had reached the atrium. Mr. Weasley gave Harry a scathing look and swept from the lift. Harry stood there, shaken. He wished he was impersonating somebody other than Runcorn. The lift doors clanged shut. Harry pulled out the invisibility cloak and put it back on. He would try to extricate Hermione on his own while Ron was dealing with the reigning office. When the doors opened, he stepped out into a torch-lit stone passageway quite different from the wood-paneled and carpeted corridors above. As the lift rattled away again, Harry shivered slightly, looking toward the distant black door that marked the entrance to the Department of Mysteries. He set off, his destination not the black door, but the doorway he remembered on the left-hand side, which opened onto the flight of stairs down to the court chambers. His mind grappled with possibilities as he crept down them. He still had a couple of decoy detonators, but perhaps it would be better to simply knock on the courtroom door, enter as Runcorn, and ask for a quick word with Mafalda. Of course, he did not know whether Runcorn was sufficiently important to get away with this, and even if he managed it, Hermione's non-reappearance might trigger a search before they were clear of the ministry. Lost in thought, he did not immediately register the unnatural chill that was creeping over him, as if he were descending into fog. It was becoming colder and colder with every step he took, a cold that reached right down into his throat and tore at his lungs, and then he felt that stealing sense of despair, of hopelessness, filling him, expanding inside him. Dementors, he thought. And as he reached the foot of the stairs and turned to his right, he saw a dreadful scene. The dark passage outside the courtrooms was packed with tall, black-hooded figures, their faces completely hidden, their ragged breathing the only sound in the place. The petrified muggle-borns, brought in for questioning, sat huddled and shivering on hard wooden benches. Most of them were hiding their faces in their hands, perhaps in an instinctive attempt to shield themselves from the Dementor's greedy mouths.
Some were accompanied by families, others sat alone. The Dementors were gliding up and down in front of them, and the cold and the hopelessness and the despair of the place laid themselves upon Harry like a curse. Fight it, he told himself, but he knew that he could not conjure a Patronus here without revealing himself instantly. So he moved forward as silently as he could, and with every step he took, numbness seemed to steal over his brain. But he forced himself to think of Hermione and of Ron, who needed him. Moving through the towering black figures was terrifying. The eyeless faces hidden beneath their hoods turned as he passed, and he felt sure that they sensed him, sensed, perhaps, a human presence that still had some hope, some resilience. And then, abruptly and shockingly amid the frozen silence, one of the dungeon doors on the left of the corridor was flung open, and screams echoed out of it. No, no, I'm half-blood, I'm half-blood, I tell you, my father was a wizard, he was. Look him up, Archie Alderson, he's a well-known broomstick designer, look him up, I tell you, get your hands off me, get your hands off. This is your final warning, said Umbridge's soft voice magically magnified so that it sounded clearly over the man's desperate screams. If you struggle, you will be subjected to the Dementor's kiss. The man's screams subsided, but dry sobs echoed through the corridor. Take him away, said Umbridge. Two Dementors appeared in the doorway of the courtroom, their rotting, scabbed hands clutching the upper arms of a wizard who appeared to be fainting. They glided away down the corridor with him, and the darkness they trailed behind them swallowed him from sight. Next, Mary Catamold, called Umbridge. A small woman stood up. She was trembling from head to foot. Her dark hair was smoothed back into a bun, and she wore long, plain robes. Her face was completely bloodless. As she passed the Dementors, Harry saw her shudder. He did it instinctively without any sort of plan, because he hated the sight of her walking alone into the dungeon. As the door began to swing closed, he slipped into the courtroom behind her. It was not the same room in which he had once been interrogated for improper use of magic. This one was much smaller, though the ceiling was quite as high. It gave the claustrophobic sense of being stuck at the bottom of a deep well. There were more Dementors in here, casting their freezing aura over the place. They stood like faceless sentinels in the corners farthest from the high raised platform. Here, behind a balustrade, sat Umbridge, with Yaxley on one side of her, and Hermione, quite as white-faced as Mrs. Catamole, on the other. At the foot of the platform, a bright silver, long-haired cat prowled up and down, up and down, and Harry realized that it was there to protect the prosecutors from the despair that emanated from the Dementors. That was for the accused to feel, not the accusers. Sit down, said Umbridge in her soft, silky voice. Mrs. Catamole stumbled to the single seat in the middle of the floor beneath the raised platform. The moment she had sat down, chains clinked out of the arms of the chair and bound her there. You are Mary Elizabeth Catamole? asked Umbridge. Mrs. Catamole gave a single shaky nod. Married to Reginald Catamole of the Magical Maintenance Department? Mrs. Catamole burst into tears. I don't know where he is. He was supposed to meet me here. Umbridge ignored her. 
mother to Maisie, Ellie, and Alfred Cattermole? Mrs. Cattermole sobbed harder than ever. They're frightened. They think I might not come home. Spare us, spat Yaxley. The brats of mudbloods do not stir our sympathies. Mrs. Cattermole's sobs masked Harry's footsteps as he made his way carefully toward the steps that led up to the raised platform. The moment he had passed the place where the Patronus cat patrolled, he felt the change in temperature. It was warm and comfortable here. The Patronus, he was sure, was Umbridge's, and it glowed brightly because she was so happy here, in her element, upholding the twisted laws she had helped to write. Slowly and very carefully, he edged his way along the platform behind Umbridge, Yaxley, and Hermione, taking a seat behind the latter. He was worried about making Hermione jump. He thought of casting the muffliato charm upon Umbridge and Yaxley, but even murmuring the word might cause Hermione alarm. Then Umbridge raised her voice to address Mrs. Catamole, and Harry seized his chance. I'm behind you, he whispered into Hermione's ear. As he had expected, she jumped so violently she nearly overturned the bottle of ink with which she was supposed to be recording the interview. But both Umbridge and Yaxley were concentrating upon Mrs. Catamole, and this went unnoticed. A wand was taken from you upon your arrival at the Ministry today, Mrs. Catamole, Umbridge was saying. Eight and three-quarter inches, cherry, unicorn hair, core. Do you recognize that description? Mrs. Catamole nodded mopping her eyes on her sleeve. Could you please tell us from which witch or wizard you took that wand? T-took, sobbed Mrs. Catamole. I didn't take it from anybody. I bought it when I was eleven years old. It-it-it chose me. She cried harder than ever. Umbridge laughed a soft girlish laugh that made Harry want to attack her. She leaned forward over the barrier the better to observe her victim, and something gold swung forward, too, and dangled over the void. The locket. Hermione had seen it. She let out a little squeak, but Umbridge and Yaxley, still intent upon their prey, were deaf to everything else. No, said Umbridge. No, I don't think so, Mrs. Catamole. Wands only choose witches or wizards. You are not a witch. I have your responses to the questionnaire that was sent to you here. Mafalda, pass them to me. Umbridge held out a small hand. She looked so toad-like at that moment that Harry was quite surprised not to see webs between the stubby fingers. Hermione's hands were shaking with shock. She fumbled in a pile of documents balanced on the chair beside her, finally withdrawing a sheaf of parchment with Mrs. Catamole's name on it. That's, that's pretty, Dolores she said, pointing at the pendant gleaming in the ruffled folds of Umbridge's blouse. What? snapped Umbridge, glancing down. Oh, yes, an old family heirloom, she said, patting the locket lying on her large bosom. The S stands for Selwyn. I am related to the Selwyns. Indeed, there are few pure-blood families to whom I am not related. A pity, she continued in a louder voice, flicking through Mrs. Catamole's questionnaire, that the same cannot be said for you. Parents' professions. Greengrocers. Yaxley laughed jeeringly. Below, the fluffy silver cat patrolled up and down, and the Dementors stood waiting in the corners. 
It was Umbridge's lie that brought the blood surging into Harry's brain and obliterated his sense of caution, that the locket she had taken as a bribe from a petty criminal was being used to bolster her own pure blood credentials. He raised his wand, not even troubling to keep it concealed beneath the invisibility cloak, and said, Stupefy! There was a flash of red light. Umbridge crumpled, and her forehead hit the edge of the balustrade. Mrs. Catamull's papers slid off her lap onto the floor, and, down below, the prowling silver cat vanished. Ice-cold air hit them like an oncoming wind. Yaxley, confused, looked around for the source of the trouble, and saw Harry's disembodied hand and wand pointing at him. He tried to draw his own wand, but too late. Stupefy! Yaxley slid to the ground to lie curled on the floor. <laughs> Harry! Hermione, if you think I was going to sit here and let her pretend... Harry! Mrs. Catamull! Harry whirled around, throwing off the invisibility cloak. Down below, the Dementors had moved out of their corners. They were gliding toward the woman chained to the chair. Whether because the Patronus had vanished, or because they sensed that their masters were no longer in control, they seemed to have abandoned restraint. Mrs. Catamull let out a terrible scream of fear as a slimy, scabbed hand grasped her chin and forced her face back. Expecto Patronum! The silver stag soared from the tip of Harry's wand and leapt toward the Dementors, which fell back and melted into the dark shadows again. The stag's light, more powerful and more warming than the cat's protection, filled the whole dungeon as it cantered around and around the room. Get the Horcrux! Harry told Hermione. He ran back down the steps, stuffing the invisibility cloak back into his bag, and approached Mrs. Catamole. You, she whispered, gazing into his face. But, but Reg said you were the one who submitted my name for questioning. Did I? muttered Harry, tugging at the chains binding her arms. Well, I've had a change of heart. Defindo! Nothing happened. Hermione, how do I get rid of these chains? Wait, I'm trying something up here. Hermione, we're surrounded by Dementors. I know that, Harry, but if she wakes up and the locket's gone, I need to duplicate it. Geminio! There, that should fool her. Hermione came running downstairs. Let's see. Relascio! The chains clinked and withdrew into the arms of the chair. Mrs. Catamole looked just as frightened as ever before. I don't understand, she whispered. You're going to leave here with us, said Harry, pulling her to her feet. Go home, grab your children, and get out. Get out of the country if you've got to. Disguise yourselves and run. You've seen how it is. You won't get anything like a fair hearing here. Harry, said Hermione. How are we going to get out of here with all those Dementors outside the door? Patronuses, said Harry, pointing his wand at his own. The stag slowed and walked, still gleaming brightly, toward the door. As many as we can muster. Do yours, Hermione. Expect, expecto Patronum, said Hermione. Nothing happened. It's the only spell she ever has trouble with. Harry told a completely bemused Mrs. Catamull. Bit unfortunate, really. Come on, Hermione. Expecto Patronum! A silver otter burst from the end of Hermione's wand and swam gracefully through the air to join the stag. Come on, said Harry, 
and he led Hermione and Mrs. Cattermole to the door. When the Patronuses glided out of the dungeon, there were cries of shock from the people waiting outside. Harry looked around. The Dementors were falling back on both sides of them, melding into the darkness, scattering before the silver creatures. It's been decided that you should all go home and go into hiding with your families, Harry told the waiting Muggleborns, who were dazzled by the light of the Patronuses and still cowering slightly. Go abroad if you can. Just get well away from the Ministry. That's the, uh, new official position. Now, if you'll just follow the Patronuses, you'll be able to leave from the atrium. They managed to get up the stone steps without being intercepted, but as they approached the lifts, Harry started to have misgivings. If they emerged into the atrium with a silver stag, an otter soaring alongside it, and twenty or so people, half of them accused Muggleborns, he could not help feeling that they would attract unwanted attention. He had just reached this unwelcome conclusion when the lift clanged to a halt in front of them. Ridge! screamed Mrs. Catamull, and she threw herself into Ron's arms. Runcorn let me out. He attacked Umbridge and Yaxley, and he's told all of us to leave the country. I think we'd better do it, Reg. I really do. Let's hurry home and fetch the children, and... Why are you so wet? Water, muttered Ron, disengaging himself. Harry, they know there are intruders inside the Ministry. Something about a hole in Umbridge's office door. I reckon we've got five minutes, if that. Hermione's Patronus vanished with a pop as she turned a horror-struck face to Harry. Harry, if we're trapped here... We won't be if we move fast, said Harry. He addressed the silent group behind them, who were all gawping at him. Who's got wands? About half of them raised their hands. Okay, all of you who haven't got wands need to attach yourself to somebody who has. We'll need to be fast before they stop us. Come on. They managed to cram themselves into two lifts. Harry's Patronus stood sentinel before the golden grills as they shut and the lifts began to rise. Level eight, said the witch's cool voice. Atrium. Harry knew at once that they were in trouble. The atrium was full of people moving from fireplace to fireplace, sealing them off. Harry, squeaked Hermione. What are we going to? Stop, Harry thundered and the powerful voice of Runcorn echoed through the atrium. The wizards sealing the fireplaces froze. Follow me, he whispered to the group of terrified Muggleborns, who moved forward in a huddle, shepherded by Ron and Hermione. What's up, Albert? said the same balding wizard who had followed Harry out of the fireplace earlier. He looked nervous. This lot need to leave before you seal the exit said Harry, with all the authority he could muster. The group of wizards in front of him looked at one another. We've been told to seal all exits and not let anyone... Are you contradicting me? Harry blustered. Would you like me to have your family tree examined, like I had Dirk Cresswell's? Sorry, gasped the balding wizard, backing away. I didn't mean nothing, Albert, but I thought... I thought they were in for questioning and... Their blood is pure said Harry, and his deep voice echoed impressively through the hall. Purer than many of yours, I dare say. Off you go, he boomed to the Muggleborns, who scurried forward into the fireplaces and began to vanish in pairs. 
The ministry wizards hung back, some looking confused, others scared and resentful. Then... Mary! Mrs. Catamole looked over her shoulder. The real Reg Catamole, no longer vomiting but pale and wan, had just come running out of a lift. Reg? She looked from her husband to Ron, who swore loudly. The balding wizard gaped, his head turning ludicrously from one Reg Catamole to the other. Hey, what's going on? What is this? Seal the exit! Seal it! Yaxley had burst out of another lift and was running toward the group beside the fireplaces, into which all of the Muggleborns but Mrs. Catamole had now vanished. As the balding wizard lifted his wand, Harry raised an enormous fist and punched him, sending him flying through the air. He's been helping Muggleborns escape, Yaxley, Harry shouted. The balding wizard's colleagues set up an uproar, under cover of which Ron grabbed Mrs. Catamole, pulled her into the still-open fireplace, and disappeared. Confused, Yaxley looked from Harry to the punched wizard, while the real Reg Catamole screamed, My wife! Who was that with my wife? What's going on? Harry saw Yaxley's head turn, saw an inkling of the truth dawn in that brutish face. Come on! Harry shouted at Hermione. He seized her hand, and they jumped into the fireplace together as Yaxley's curse sailed over Harry's head. They spun for a few seconds before shooting up out of a toilet into a cubicle. Harry flung open the door. Ron was standing there beside the sinks, still wrestling with Mrs. Catamole. Rich, I don't understand. Let go. I'm not your husband. You've got to go home. There was a noise in the cubicle behind them. Harry looked around. Yaxley had just appeared. Let's go, Harry yelled. He seized Hermione by the hand and Ron by the arm and turned on the spot. Darkness engulfed them, along with a sensation of compressing bands, but something was wrong. Hermione's hand seemed to be sliding out of his grip. He wondered whether he was going to suffocate. He could not breathe or see and the only solid things in the world were Ron's arm and Hermione's fingers, which were slowly slipping away. And then he saw the door of Number 12 Grimmauld Place with its serpent door-knocker. But before he could draw breath, there was a scream and a flash of purple light. Hermione's hand was suddenly vice-like upon his, and everything went dark again. Chapter 14 The Thief Harry opened his eyes and was dazzled by gold and green. He had no idea what had happened. He only knew that he was lying on what seemed to be leaves and twigs. Struggling to draw breath into lungs that felt flattened, he blinked and realized that the gaudy glare was sunlight streaming through a canopy of leaves far above him. Then an object twitched close to his face. He pushed himself onto his hands and knees, ready to face some small, fierce creature but saw that the object was Ron's foot. Looking around, Harry saw that they and Hermione were lying on a forest floor, apparently alone. Harry's first thought was of the forbidden forest, and for a moment, even though he knew how foolish and dangerous it would be for them to appear in the grounds of Hogwarts, his heart leapt at the thought of sneaking through the trees to Hagrid's hut. However, in the few moments it took for Ron to give a low groan and Harry to start crawling toward him, he realized that this was not the Forbidden Forest. The trees looked younger, they were more widely spaced, the ground clearer. He met Hermione, also on her hands and knees, at Ron's head. 
The moment his eyes fell upon Ron, all other concerns fled Harry's mind, for blood drenched the whole of Ron's left side, and his face stood out, grayish-white, against the leaf-strewn earth. The polyjuice potion was wearing off now. Ron was halfway between Catamol and himself in appearance, his hair turning redder and redder as his face drained of the little color it had left. What's happened to him? Splinched, said Hermione, her fingers already busy at Ron's sleeve, where the blood was wettest and darkest. Harry watched, horrified, as she tore open Ron's shirt. He had always thought of splinching as something comical, but this... His insides crawled unpleasantly as Hermione laid bare Ron's upper arm, where a great chunk of flesh was missing, scooped cleanly away, as though by a knife. Harry, quickly, in my bag. There's a small bottle labeled Essence of Dittany. Bag. Right. Harry sped to the place where Hermione had landed, seized the tiny beaded bag, and thrust his hand inside it. At once, object after object began presenting itself to his touch. He felt the leather spines of books, woolly sleeves of jumpers, heels of shoes. Quickly! He grabbed his wand from the ground and pointed it into the depths of the magical bag. Asio Titany! A small brown bottle zoomed out of the bag. He caught it and hastened back to Hermione and Ron, whose eyes were now half-closed, strips of white eyeball all that were visible between his lids. He's fainted said Hermione, who was also rather pale. She no longer looked like Mafalda, though her hair was still grey in places. Unstopper it for me, Harry. My hands are shaking. Harry wrenched the stopper off the little bottle. Hermione took it and poured three drops of the potion onto the bleeding wound. Greenish smoke billowed upward, and when it had cleared, Harry saw that the bleeding had stopped. The wound now looked several days old. New skin stretched over what had just been open flesh. Wow, said Harry. It's all I feel safe doing, said Hermione shakily. There are spells that would put him completely right, but I daren't try in case I do them wrong and cause more damage. He's lost so much blood already. How did he get hurt? I mean... Harry shook his head, trying to clear it, to make sense of whatever had just taken place. Why are we here? I thought we were going back to Grimald Place. Hermione took a deep breath. She looked close to tears. Harry, I don't think we're going to be able to go back there. What do you... As we disapparated, Yaxley caught hold of me, and I couldn't get rid of him. He was too strong, and he was still holding on when we arrived at Grimald Place. And then, well, I think he must have seen the door, and thought we were stopping there, so he slackened his grip, and I managed to shake him off and I brought us here instead. But then, where's he? Hang on, you don't mean he's at Grimmauld Place? He can't get in there. Her eyes sparkled with unshed tears as she nodded. Harry, I think he can. I, I forced him to let go with a revulsion jinx, but I'd already taken him inside the Fidelius charm's protection. Since Dumbledore died, we're secret keepers. So I've given him the secret. There was no pretending. Harry was sure she was right. It was a serious blow. If Yaxley could now get inside the house, there was no way that they could return. Even now he could be bringing other Death Eaters in there by apparition. Gloomy and oppressive though the house was, it had been their one safe refuge. Even, now that Creature was so much happier and friendlier, 
a kind of home. With a twinge of regret that had nothing to do with food, Harry imagined the house-elf busying himself over the steak and kidney pie that Harry, Ron, and Hermione would never eat. Harry, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Don't be stupid. It wasn't your fault. If anything, it was mine. Harry put his hand in his pocket and drew out Mad-Eye's eye. Hermione recoiled, looking horrified. Umbridge had stuck it to her office door to spy on people. I couldn't leave it there, but that's how they knew there were intruders. Before Hermione could answer, Ron groaned and opened his eyes. He was still grey and his face glistened with sweat. How do you feel? Hermione whispered. Lousy, croaked Ron, wincing as he felt his injured arm. Where are we? In the woods where they held the Quidditch World Cup, said Hermione. I wanted somewhere enclosed under cover, and this was... The first place you thought of, Harry finished for her, glancing around at the apparently deserted glade. He could not help remembering what had happened the last time they had apparated to the first place Hermione had thought of, how Death Eaters had found them within minutes. Had it been legitimacy? Did Voldemort or his henchmen know even now where Hermione had taken them? Do you reckon we should move on? Ron asked Harry, and Harry could tell by the look on Ron's face that he was thinking the same. I don't know. Ron still looked pale and clammy. He had made no attempt to sit up, and it looked as though he was too weak to do so. The prospect of moving him was daunting. Let's stay here for now, Harry said. Looking relieved, Hermione sprang to her feet. Where are you going? asked Ron. If we're staying, we should put some protective enchantments around the place, she replied. And, raising her wand, she began to walk in a wide circle around Harry and Ron, murmuring incantations as she went. Harry saw little disturbances in the surrounding air. It was as if Hermione had cast a heat haze upon their clearing. Salvio Hexia! Protego Totalum! Repello Muggletum! Muffliato! You could get out the tent, Harry. Tent? In the bag. In the... Of course, said Harry. He did not bother to grope inside it this time, but used another summoning charm. The tent emerged in a lumpy mass of canvas, rope, and poles. Harry recognized it, partly because of the smell of cats, as the same tent in which they had slept on the night of the Quidditch World Cup. I thought this belonged to that bloke Perkins at the Ministry, he asked, starting to disentangle the tent pegs. Apparently he didn't want it back, his lumbago's so bad said Hermione, now performing complicated figure-of-eight movements with her wand. So Ron's dad said I could borrow it. Erecto, she added, pointing her wand at the misshapen canvas, which, in one fluid motion, rose into the air and settled, fully constructed, onto the ground before Harry, out of whose startled hands a tent-peg soared, to land with a final thud at the end of a guy-rope. Cave inimicum! Hermione finished with a skyward flourish. That's as much as I can do. At the very least, we should know they're coming. I can't guarantee it will keep out Vol. Don't say the name! Ron cut across her, his voice harsh. Harry and Hermione looked at each other. I'm sorry, Ron said, moaning a little as he raised himself to look at them. But it feels like a, a jinx or something. Can't we call him you-know-who, please? Dumbledore said fear of a name, began Harry, 
In case you hadn't noticed, mate, calling you-know-who by his name didn't do Dumbledore much good in the end. Ron snapped back. Just, just show you-know-who some respect, will you? Respect? Harry repeated. But Hermione shot him a warning look. Apparently, he was not to argue with Ron while the latter was in such a weakened condition. Harry and Hermione half-carried, half-dragged Ron through the entrance of the tent. The interior was exactly as Harry remembered it, a small flat, complete with bathroom and tiny kitchen. He shoved aside an old armchair and lowered Ron carefully onto the lower berth of a bunk bed. Even this very short journey had turned Ron whiter still, and once they had settled him on the mattress, he closed his eyes again and did not speak for a while. I'll make some tea said Hermione breathlessly, pulling kettle and mugs from the depths of her bag and heading toward the kitchen. Harry found the hot drink as welcome as the fire whiskey had been on the night that Mad-Eye had died. It seemed to burn away a little of the fear fluttering in his chest. After a minute or two, Ron broke the silence. What do you reckon happened to the catamoles? With any luck, they'll have got away, said Hermione, clutching her hot mug for comfort. As long as Mr. Catamole had his wits about him, he'll have transported Mrs. Catamole by side-along apparition, and they'll be fleeing the country right now with their children. That's what Harry told her to do. Blimey, I hope they escaped, said Ron, leaning back on his pillows. The tea seemed to be doing him good. A little of his colour had returned. I didn't get the feeling Reg Catamole was all that quick-witted, though, the way everyone was talking to me when I was him. God, I hope they made it. If they both end up in Azkaban because of us. Harry looked over at Hermione, and the question he had been about to ask, about whether Mrs. Catamore's lack of a wand would prevent her apparating alongside her husband, died in his throat. Hermione was watching Ron fret over the fate of the Catamore's, and there was such tenderness in her expression that Harry felt almost as if he had surprised her in the act of kissing him. So. Have you got it? Harry asked her, partly to remind her that he was there. Got? Got what? She said with a little start. What did we just go through all that for? The locket! Where's the locket? You got it? Shouted Ron, raising himself a little higher on his pillows. No one sells me anything. Blimey, you could have mentioned it. Well, we were running for our lives from the Death Eaters, weren't we? Said Hermione. Here and she pulled the locket out of the pocket of her robes and handed it to Ron. It was as large as a chicken's egg. An ornate letter S, inlaid with many small green stones, glinted dully in the diffused light shining through the tent's canvas roof. There isn't any chance someone's destroyed it since Creature had it, asked Ron hopefully. I mean, are we sure it's still a Horcrux? I think so, said Hermione, taking it back from him and looking at it closely. There'd be some sign of damage if it had been magically destroyed. She passed it to Harry, who turned it over in his fingers. The thing looked perfect, pristine. He remembered the mangled remains of the diary, and how the stone in the Horcrux ring had been cracked open when Dumbledore destroyed it. I reckon Creature's right, said Harry. We're going to have to work out how to open this thing before we can destroy it. Sudden awareness of what he was holding, of what lived behind the little golden doors, hit Harry as he spoke. Even after all their efforts to find it, he felt a violent urge to fling the locket from him. 
Mastering himself again, he tried to prise the locket apart with his fingers, then attempted the charm Hermione had used to open Regulus's bedroom door. Neither worked. He handed the locket back to Ron and Hermione, each of whom did their best, but were no more successful at opening it than he had been. Can you feel it, though? Ron asked in a hushed voice as he held it tight in his clenched fist. What do you mean? Ron passed the Horcrux to Harry. After a moment or two, Harry thought he knew what Ron meant. Was it his own blood pulsing through his veins that he could feel, or was it something beating inside the locket, like a tiny metal heart? What are we going to do with it? Hermione asked. Keep it safe till we work out how to destroy it, Harry replied, and, little though he wanted to, he hung the chain around his own neck, dropping the locket out of sight beneath his robes, where it rested against his chest beside the pouch Hagrid had given him. I think we should take it in turns to keep watch outside the tent, he added to Hermione, standing up and stretching. And we'll need to think about some food as well. You stay there, he added sharply, as Ron attempted to sit up and turned a nasty shade of green. With a sneakerscope Hermione had given Harry for his birthday set carefully upon the table in the tent, Harry and Hermione spent the rest of the day sharing the role of lookout. However, the sneakerscope remained silent and still upon its point all day, and whether because of the protective enchantments and muggle-repelling charms Hermione had spread around them, or because people rarely ventured this way, their patch of wood remained deserted, apart from occasional birds and squirrels. Evening brought no change. Harry lit his wand as he swapped places with Hermione at ten o'clock and looked out upon a deserted scene, noting the bats fluttering high above him across the single patch of starry sky visible from their protected clearing. He felt hungry now and a little light-headed. Hermione had not packed any food in her magical bag as she had assumed that they would be returning to Grimold Place that night so they had had nothing to eat except some wild mushrooms that Hermione had collected from amongst the nearest trees and stewed in a billy can. After a couple of mouthfuls, Ron had pushed his portion away, looking queasy. Harry had only persevered so as not to hurt Hermione's feelings. The surrounding silence was broken by odd rustlings and what sounded like crackings of twigs. Harry thought that they were caused by animals rather than people, yet he kept his wand held tight at the ready. His insides, already uncomfortable due to their inadequate helping of rubbery mushrooms, tingled with unease. He had thought that he would feel elated if they managed to steal back the Horcrux, but somehow he did not. All he felt as he sat looking out at the darkness, of which his wand lit only a tiny part, was worry about what would happen next. It was as though he had been hurtling toward this point for weeks, months, maybe even years, but now he had come to an abrupt halt, run out of road. There were other horcruxes out there somewhere, but he did not have the faintest idea where they could be. He did not even know what all of them were. Meanwhile, he was at a loss to know how to destroy the only one that they had found, the horcrux that currently lay against the bare flesh of his chest. Curiously, it had not taken heat from his body, but lay so cold against his skin it might just have emerged from icy water. From time to time Harry thought, or perhaps imagined, that he could feel the tiny heartbeat ticking irregularly alongside his own. Nameless forebodings crept upon him as he sat there in the dark. He tried to resist them, push them away, 
yet they came at him relentlessly. Neither can live while the other survives. Ron and Hermione, now talking softly behind him in the tent, could walk away if they wanted to. He could not. And it seemed to Harry as he sat there, trying to master his own fear and exhaustion, that the horcrux against his chest was ticking away the time he had left. Stupid idea, he told himself. Don't think that. His scar was starting to prickle again. He was afraid that he was making it happen by having these thoughts, and tried to direct them into another channel. He thought of poor creature, who had expected them home, and had received Yaxley instead. Would the elf keep silent, or would he tell the Death Eater everything he knew? Harry wanted to believe that Creature had changed toward him in the past month, that he would be loyal now. But who knew what would happen? What if the Death Eaters tortured the elf? Sick images swarmed into Harry's head, and he tried to push these away too, for there was nothing he could do for Creature. He and Hermione had already decided against trying to summon him. What if someone from the Ministry came too? They could not count on elfish apparition being free from the same flaw that had taken Yaxley to Grimald Place on the hem of Hermione's sleeve. Harry's scar was burning now. He thought that there was so much they did not know. Lupin had been right about magic they had never encountered or imagined. Why hadn't Dumbledore explained more? Had he thought that there would be time, that he would live for years, for centuries perhaps, like his friend Nicholas Flamel? If so, he had been wrong. Snape had seen to that. Snape, the sleeping snake who had struck at the top of the tower. And Dumbledore had fallen. Fallen. Give it to me, Gregorovich! Harry's voice was high, clear and cold, his wand held in front of him by a long-fingered white hand. The man at whom he was pointing was suspended upside down in midair, though there were no ropes holding him. He swung there, invisibly and eerily bound, his limbs wrapped about him, his terrified face on a level with Harry's, ruddy due to the blood that had rushed to his head. He had pure white hair and a thick, bushy beard, a trussed-up Father Christmas. I have it not! I have it no more! It was many years ago, stolen from me! Do not lie to Lord Voldemort, Gregorovich. He knows. He always knows. The hanging man's pupils were wide, dilated with fear, and they seemed to swell, bigger and bigger, until their blackness swallowed Harry whole. And now Harry was hurrying along a dark corridor, in stout little Grigorovich's wake as he held a lantern aloft. Grigorovich burst into the room at the end of the passage, and his lantern illuminated what looked like a workshop. Wood shavings and gold gleamed in the swinging pool of light, and there on the window ledge sat perched, like a giant bird, a young man with golden hair. In the split second that the lantern's light illuminated him, Harry saw the delight upon his handsome face. Then the intruder shot a stunning spell from his wand, and jumped neatly backward out of the window with a crow of laughter. And Harry was hurtling back out of those wide, tunnel-like pupils, and Grigorovich's face was stricken with terror. Who was the thief, Grigorovich? said the high, cold voice. I do not know. I never knew. A young man. No, please, please. A scream that went on and on, and then a burst of green light. Harry! 
He opened his eyes, panting, his forehead throbbing. He had passed out against the side of the tent, had slid sideways down the canvas, and was sprawled on the ground. He looked up at Hermione, whose bushy hair obscured the tiny patch of sky visible through the dark branches high above them. Dream, he said, sitting up quickly and attempting to meet Hermione's glower with a look of innocence. Must have dozed off. Sorry. I know it was your scar. I can tell by the look on your face. You were looking into Vol. Don't say his name, came Ron's angry voice from the depths of the tent. Fine, retorted Hermione. You know who's mine, then. I didn't mean it to happen, Harry said. It was a dream. Can you control what you dream about, Hermione? If you just learnt to apply occlumency. But Harry was not interested in being told off. He wanted to discuss what he had just seen. He's found Grigorovich, Hermione, and I think he's killed him. But before he killed him, he read Grigorovich's mind. And I saw... I think I'd better take over the watch if you're so tired. You're falling asleep, said Hermione coldly. I can finish the watch. No, you're obviously exhausted. Go and lie down. She dropped down in the mouth of the tent, looking stubborn. Angry but wishing to avoid a row, Harry ducked back inside. Ron's still pale face was poking out from the lower bunk. Harry climbed into the one above him, lay down, and looked up at the dark canvas ceiling. After several moments, Ron spoke in a voice so low that it would not carry to Hermione, huddled in the entrance. What's you know who doing? Harry screwed up his eyes in the effort to remember every detail, then whispered into the darkness, He found Grigorovich. He had him tied up. He was torturing him. How's Grigorovich supposed to make him a new wand if he's tied up? I don't know. It's weird, isn't it? Harry closed his eyes, thinking of all he had seen and heard. The more he recalled, the less sense it made. Voldemort had said nothing about Harry's wand, nothing about the twin cores, nothing about Grigorovich making a new and more powerful wand to beat Harry's. He wanted something from Grigorovich, Harry said, eyes still closed tight. He asked him to hand it over, but Grigorovich said it had been stolen from him, and then... Then he remembered how he, as Voldemort, had seemed to hurtle through Grigorovich's eyes into his memories. He read Grigorovich's mind, and I saw this young bloke perched on a windowsill, and he fired a curse at Grigorovich and jumped out of sight. He stole it. He stole whatever you know who's after, and I, I think I've seen him somewhere. Harry wished he could have another glimpse of the laughing boy's face. The theft had happened many years ago, according to Grigorovich. Why did the young thief look familiar? The noises of the surrounding woods were muffled inside the tent. All Harry could hear was Ron's breathing. After a while, Ron whispered, Couldn't you see what the thief was holding? No, it must have been something small. Harry? The wooden slats of Ron's bunk creaked as he repositioned himself in bed. Harry? You don't reckon you know who's after something else to turn into a Horcrux? I don't know, said Harry slowly. Maybe. But wouldn't it be dangerous for him to make another one? Didn't Hermione say he had pushed his soul to the limit already? Yeah, but maybe he doesn't know that. Yeah, maybe, said Harry. 
He had been sure that Voldemort had been looking for a way around the problem of the twin cores, sure that Voldemort sought a solution from the old wandmaker, and yet he had killed him, apparently without asking him a single question about wand law. What was Voldemort trying to find? Why, with a ministry of magic and the wizarding world at his feet, was he far away, intent on the pursuit of an object that Grigorovich had once owned, and which had been stolen by the unknown thief? Harry could still see the blonde-haired youth's face. It was merry, wild. There was a Fred and Georgish air of triumphant trickery about him. He had soared from the windowsill like a bird, and Harry had seen him before, but he could not think where. With Grigorovich dead, it was the merry-faced thief who was in danger now, and it was on him that Harry's thoughts dwelled as Ron's snores began to rumble from the lower bunk and as he himself drifted slowly into sleep once more. Chapter 15 The Goblin's Revenge Early next morning before the other two were awake, Harry left the tent to search the woods around them for the oldest, most gnarled and resilient-looking tree he could find. There, in its shadow, he buried Mad-Eye Moody's eye and marked the spot by gouging a small cross in the bark with his wand. It was not much, but Harry felt that Mad-Eye would have much preferred this to being stuck on Dolores Umbridge's door. Then he returned to the tent to wait for the others to wake and discuss what they were going to do next. Harry and Hermione felt that it was best not to stay anywhere too long, and Ron agreed, with a sole proviso that their next move took them within reach of a bacon sandwich. Hermione therefore removed the enchantments she had placed around the clearing, while Harry and Ron obliterated all the marks and impressions on the ground that might show they had camped there. Then they disapparated to the outskirts of a small market town. Once they had pitched the tent in the shelter of a small copse of trees and surrounded it with freshly cast defensive enchantments, Harry ventured out under the invisibility cloak to find sustenance. This, however, did not go as planned. He had barely entered the town when an unnatural chill, a descending mist, and a sudden darkening of the skies made him freeze where he stood. But you can make a brilliant Patronus! protested Ron when Harry arrived back at the tent empty-handed, out of breath and mouthing the single word, Dementors. I couldn't make one, he panted, clutching the stitch in his side. Wouldn't come. Their expressions of consternation and disappointment made Harry feel ashamed. It had been a nightmarish experience seeing the Dementors gliding out of the mist in the distance and realizing, as the paralyzing cold choked his lungs and a distant screaming filled his ears, that he was not going to be able to protect himself. It had taken all Harry's willpower to uproot himself from the spot and run, leaving the eyeless Dementors to glide amongst the Muggles who might not be able to see them but would assuredly feel the despair they cast wherever they went. So we still haven't got any food! Shut up, Ron, snapped Hermione. Harry, what happened? Why do you think you couldn't make your Patronus? You managed perfectly yesterday. I don't know. He sat low in one of Perkins's old armchairs, feeling more humiliated by the moment. He was afraid that something had gone wrong inside him. Yesterday seemed a long time ago. Today, he might have been thirteen years old again, the only one who collapsed on the Hogwarts Express. Ron kicked a chair leg. What? he snarled at Hermione, 
I'm starving. All I've had since I bled half to death is a couple of toadstools. You go and fight your way through the Dementors, then, said Harry, stung. I would, but my arm's in a sling in case you hadn't noticed. That's convenient. And what's that supposed to... Of course, cried Hermione, clapping her hand to her forehead and startling both of them into silence. Harry, give me the locket. Come on, she said impatiently, clicking her fingers at him when he did not react. The Horcrux, Harry, you're still wearing it. She held out her hands, and Harry lifted the golden chain over his head. The moment it parted contact with Harry's skin, he felt free and oddly light. He had not even realized that he was clammy or that there was a heavy weight pressing on his stomach until both sensations lifted. Better? asked Hermione. Yeah, loads better. Harry, she said, crouching down in front of him and using the kind of voice he associated with visiting the very sick. You don't think you've been possessed, do you? What? No, he said defensively. I remember everything we've done while I've been wearing it. I wouldn't know what I'd done if I'd been possessed, would I? Ginny told me there were times when she couldn't remember anything. Hmm, said Hermione, looking down at the heavy gold locket. Well, maybe we ought not to wear it. We can just keep it in the tent. We are not leaving that Horcrux lying around, Harry stated firmly. If we lose it, if it gets stolen... Oh, all right, all right, said Hermione, and she placed it around her own neck and tucked it out of sight down the front of her shirt. But we'll take turns wearing it so nobody keeps it on too long. Great, said Ron irritably. And now we've sorted that out, can we please get some food? Fine, but we'll go somewhere else to find it, said Hermione with half a glance at Harry. There's no point staying where we know Dementors are swooping around. In the end, they settled down for the night in a far-flung field belonging to a lonely farm, from which they had managed to obtain eggs and bread. It's not stealing, is it? asked Hermione in a troubled voice as they devoured scrambled eggs on toast. Not if I left some money under the chicken coop. Ron rolled his eyes and said, with his cheeks bulging, Hermione, who are you, Max? Relax. And indeed, it was much easier to relax when they were comfortably well fed. The argument about the Dementors was forgotten in laughter that night, and Harry felt cheerful, even hopeful, as he took the first of the three night watches. This was their first encounter with the fact that a full stomach meant good spirits, an empty one, bickering and gloom. Harry was least surprised by this, because he had suffered periods of near starvation at the Dursleys. Hermione bore up reasonably well on those nights when they managed to scavenge nothing but berries or stale biscuits, her temper perhaps a little shorter than usual, and her silences rather dour. Ron, however, had always been used to three delicious meals a day, courtesy of his mother or of the Hogwarts house-elves, and hunger made him both unreasonable and irascible. Whenever lack of food coincided with Ron's turn to wear the Horcrux, he became downright unpleasant. So, where next? was his constant refrain. He did not seem to have any ideas himself, but expected Harry and Hermione to come up with plans while he sat and brooded over the low food supplies. Accordingly, Harry and Hermione spent fruitless hours trying to decide where they might find the other Horcruxes, and how to destroy the one they had already got, their conversations becoming increasingly repetitive as they had no new information. 
as Dumbledore had told Harry that he believed Voldemort had hidden the Horcruxes in places important to him, they kept reciting, in a sort of dreary litany, those locations they knew that Voldemort had lived or visited. The orphanage where he had been born and raised, Hogwarts where he had been educated, Borgin and Burks where he had worked after completing school, then Albania where he had spent his years of exile. These formed the basis of their speculations. Yeah, let's go to Albania. Shouldn't take more than an afternoon to search an entire country, said Ron sarcastically. There can't be anything there. He'd already made five of his horcruxes before he went into exile, and Dumbledore was certain the snake is the sixth, said Hermione. We know the snake's not in Albania. It's usually with Vol. Didn't I ask you to stop saying that? Fine. The snake is usually with you-know-who. Happy? Not particularly. I can't see him hiding anything at Borgin and Burke's, said Harry, who had made this point many times before, but said it again simply to break the nasty silence. Borgin and Burke were experts at dark objects. They would have recognized the Horcrux straight away. Ron yawned pointedly. Repressing a strong urge to throw something at him, Harry ploughed on. I still reckon he might have hidden something at Hogwarts. Hermione sighed. But Dumbledore would have found it, Harry. Harry repeated the argument he kept bringing out in favour of this theory. Dumbledore said in front of me that he never assumed he knew all of Hogwarts' secrets. I'm telling you, if there was one place, Vol, oi, you know who, then... Harry shouted, goaded past endurance. If there was one place that was really important to you-know-who, it was Hogwarts. Oh, come on, scoffed Ron. His school? Yeah, his school. It was his first real home, the place that meant he was special. It meant everything to him, and even after he left. This is you-know-who we're talking about, right? Not you, inquired Ron. He was tugging at the chain of the Horcrux around his neck. Harry was visited by a desire to seize it and throttle him. You told us that you-know-who asked Dumbledore to give him a job after he left, said Hermione. That's right, said Harry. And Dumbledore thought he only wanted to come back to try and find something, probably another founder's object, to make into another Horcrux. Yeah, said Harry. But he didn't get the job, did he? said Hermione, so he never got the chance to find a founder's object there and hide it in the school. Okay, then, said Harry, defeated. Forget Hogwarts. Without any other leads, they travelled into London and, hidden beneath the invisibility cloak, searched for the orphanage in which Voldemort had been raised. Hermione stole into a library and discovered from their records that the place had been demolished many years before. They visited its site and found a tower block of offices. We could try digging in the foundations, Hermione suggested half-heartedly. He wouldn't have hidden a Horcrux here, Harry said. He had known it all along. The orphanage had been the place Voldemort had been determined to escape. He would never have hidden a part of his soul there. Dumbledore had shown Harry that Voldemort sought grandeur or mystique in his hiding places. This dismal grey corner of London was as far removed as you could imagine from Hogwarts, or the Ministry, or a building like Gringotts, the Wizarding Bank, with its golden doors and marble floors. Even without any new ideas, they continued to move through the countryside, pitching the tent in a different place each night for security. 
Every morning they made sure that they had removed all clues to their presence, then set off to find another lonely and secluded spot, travelling by apparition to more woods, to the shadowy crevices of cliffs, to purple moors, gorse-covered mountainsides, and once a sheltered and pebbly cove. Every twelve hours or so they passed the Horcrux between them as though they were playing some perverse slow-motion game of Pass the Parcel, where they dreaded the music stopping because the reward was twelve hours of increased fear and anxiety. Harry's scar kept prickling. It happened most often, he noticed, when he was wearing the Horcrux. Sometimes he could not stop himself reacting to the pain. What? What did you see? demanded Ron whenever he noticed Harry wince. A face, muttered Harry every time. The same face, the thief who stole from Grigorovich. And Ron would turn away, making no effort to hide his disappointment. Harry knew that Ron was hoping to hear news of his family or of the rest of the Order of the Phoenix. But after all, he, Harry, was not a television aerial. He could only see what Voldemort was thinking at the time, not tune in to whatever took his fancy. Apparently Voldemort was dwelling endlessly on the unknown youth with a gleeful face whose name and whereabouts Harry felt sure Voldemort knew no better than he did. As Harry's scar continued to burn and the merry blond-haired boy swam tantalizingly in his memory, he learned to suppress any sign of pain or discomfort, for the other two showed nothing but impatience at the mention of the thief. He could not entirely blame them when they were so desperate for a lead on the Horcruxes. As the days stretched into weeks, Harry began to suspect that Ron and Hermione were having conversations without and about him. Several times they stopped talking abruptly when Harry entered the tent, and twice he came accidentally upon them, huddled a little distance away, heads together and talking fast. Both times they fell silent when they realized he was approaching them and hastened to appear busy collecting wood or water. Harry could not help wondering whether they had only agreed to come on what now felt like a pointless and rambling journey because they thought he had some secret plan that they would learn in due course. Ron was making no effort to hide his bad mood, and Harry was starting to fear that Hermione too was disappointed by his poor leadership. In desperation, he tried to think of further Horcrux locations, but the only one that continued to occur to him was Hogwarts, and as neither of the others thought this at all likely, he stopped suggesting it. Autumn rolled over the countryside as they moved through it. They were now pitching the tent on mulches of fallen leaves. Natural mists joined those cast by the Dementors. Wind and rain added to their troubles. The fact that Hermione was getting better at identifying edible fungi could not altogether compensate for their continuing isolation, the lack of other people's company, or their total ignorance of what was going on in the war against Voldemort. My mother, said Ron one night as they sat in the tent on a riverbank in Wales, can make good food appear out of thin air. He prodded moodily at the lumps of charred grey fish on his plate. Harry glanced automatically at Ron's neck and saw, as he had expected, the golden chain of the Horcrux glinting there. He managed to fight down the impulse to swear at Ron, whose attitude would, he knew, improve slightly when the time came to take off the locket. Your mother can't produce food out of thin air, said Hermione. No one can. Food is the first of the five principal exceptions to Gamp's law of elemental transfigure. Oh, speak English, can't you? 
Ron said, prizing a fishbone out from between his teeth. It's impossible to make good food out of nothing. You can summon it if you know where it is. You can transform it. You can increase the quantity if you've already got some. Well, don't bother increasing this. It's disgusting, said Ron. Harry caught the fish, and I did my best with it. I notice I'm always the one who ends up sorting out the food because I'm a girl, I suppose. No, it's because you're supposed to be the best at magic, shot back Ron. Hermione jumped up, and bits of roast pike slid off her tin plate onto the floor. You can do the cooking tomorrow, Ron. You can find the ingredients and try and charm them into something worth eating. And I'll sit here and pull faces and moan, and you can see how you... Shut up! said Harry, leaping to his feet and holding up both hands. Shut up, now! Hermione looked outraged. How can you side with him? He hardly ever does the cook. Hermione, be quiet. I can hear someone. He was listening hard, his hands still raised, warning them not to talk. Then, over the rush and gush of the dark river beside them, he heard voices again. He looked around at the sneakerscope. It was not moving. You cast the Muffliato charm over us, right? He whispered to Hermione. I did everything, she whispered back. Muffliato, muggle-repelling and disillusionment charms, all of it. They shouldn't be able to hear or see us, whoever they are. Heavy scuffing and scraping noises, plus the sound of dislodged stones and twigs, told them that several people were clambering down the steep wooded slope that descended to the narrow bank where they had pitched the tent. They drew their wands, waiting. The enchantments they had cast around themselves ought to be sufficient, in the near-total darkness, to shield them from the notice of muggles and normal witches and wizards. If these were Death Eaters, then perhaps their defences were about to be tested by dark magic for the first time. The voices became louder, but no more intelligible as the group of men reached the bank. Harry estimated that their owners were fewer than twenty feet away, but the cascading river made it impossible to tell for sure. Hermione snatched up the beaded bag and started to rummage. After a moment, she drew out three extendable ears and threw one each to Harry and Ron, who hastily inserted the ends of the flesh-coloured strings into their ears and fed the other ends out of the tent entrance. Within seconds, Harry heard a weary male voice. There ought to be a few salmon in here, or do you reckon it's too early in the season? That's the old salmon. There were several distinct splashes, and then the slapping sounds of fish against flesh. Somebody grunted appreciatively. Harry pressed the extendable ear deeper into his own. Over the murmur of the river, he could make out more voices, but they were not speaking English or any human language he had ever heard. It was a rough and unmelodious tongue, a string of rattling, guttural noises, and there seemed to be two speakers, one with a slightly lower, slower voice than the other. A fire danced into life on the other side of the canvas. Large shadows passed between tent and flames. The delicious smell of baking salmon wafted tantalizingly in their direction. Then came the clinking of cutlery on plates, and the first man spoke again. Here, Griphook! Gornok! Goblins! Hermione mouthed at Harry, who nodded. Thank you, said the goblins together in English. So, you three have been on the run how long? asked a new, mellow and pleasant voice. It was vaguely familiar to Harry, who pictured a round-bellied, cheerful-faced man. 
Six weeks, seven, I forget, said the tired man. Met up with Griphook in the first couple of days, and joined forces with Gornut not long after. Nice to have a bit of company. There was a pause while knives scraped plates, and tin mugs were picked up and replaced on the ground. What made you leave, Ted? continued the man. Knew they were coming for me, replied mellow-voiced Ted, and Harry suddenly knew who he was. Tonks's father. Her Death Eaters were in the area last week and decided I'd better run for it. Refused to register as a muggle-born on principle, see? So, I knew it was a matter of time. Knew I'd have to leave in the end. My wife should be okay. She's pure blood. And then I met Dean here. What, a few days ago, son? Yeah, said another voice, and Harry, Ron, and Hermione stared at each other, silent but beside themselves with excitement. Sure, they recognized the voice of Dean Thomas, their fellow Gryffindor. Muggle-born, eh? asked the first man. I'm not sure, said Dean. My dad left my mum when I was a kid. I've got no proof he was a wizard, though. There was silence for a while, except for the sounds of munching. Then Ted spoke again. I've got to say, Dirk, I'm surprised to run into you. Pleased, but surprised. Word was you'd been caught. I was, said Dirk. I was halfway to Azkaban when I made a break for it. Stunned Dawlish and nicked his broom. It was easier than you'd think. I don't reckon he's quite right at the moment. Might be confounded. If so, I'd like to shake the hand of the witch or wizard who did it. Probably save my life. There was another pause in which the fire crackled and the river rushed on. Then Ted said, And where do you two fit in? I uh, had the impression the goblins were for you-know-who, on the whole. You had a false impression, said the higher voice of the goblins. We take no sides. This is a wizard's war. How come you're in hiding, then? I deemed it prudent said the deeper-voiced goblin. Having refused what I considered an impertinent request, I could see that my personal safety was in jeopardy. What did they ask you to do? asked Ted. Duties ill-befitting the dignity of my race, replied the goblin, his voice rougher and less human as he said it. I am not a house-elf. What about you, Griphook? Similar reasons said the higher-voiced goblin. Gringotts is no longer under the sole control of my race. I recognize no wizarding master. He added something under his breath in gobbledygook, and Gornock laughed. What's the joke? asked Dean. He said, replied Dirk, that there are things wizards don't recognize either. There was a short pause. I don't get it, said Dean. I had my small revenge before I left, said Griphook in English. Good man, goblin, I should say, amended Ted hastily. Didn't manage to lock a Death Eater up in one of the old high-security vaults, I suppose? If I had, the sword would not have helped him break out, replied Griphook. Gornook laughed again, and even Dirk gave a dry chuckle. Dean and I are still missing something here, said Ted. So is Severus Snape, though he does not know it, said Griphook, and the two goblins roared with malicious laughter. Inside the tent, Harry's breathing was shallow with excitement. 
He and Hermione stared at each other, listening as hard as they could. Didn't you hear about that, Ted? asked Dirk. About the kids who tried to steal Gryffindor's sword out of Snape's office at Hogwarts? An electric current seemed to course through Harry, jangling his every nerve as he stood rooted to the spot. Never heard a word, said Ted. Not in a profit, was it? Hardly, chortled Dirk. Griphook here told me. He heard about it from Bill Weasley, who works for the bank. One of the kids who tried to take the sword was Bill's younger sister. Harry glanced toward Hermione and Ron, both of whom were clutching the extendable ears as tightly as lifelines. She and a couple of friends got into Snape's office and smashed open the glass case where he was apparently keeping the sword. Snape caught them as they were trying to smuggle it down the staircase. Ah, oh, God bless them, said Ted. What did they think, that they'd be able to use the sword on you-know-who or on Snape himself? Well, whatever they thought they were going to do with it, Snape decided the sword wasn't safe where it was, said Dirk. Couple of days later, once he'd got the say-so from you-know-who, I imagine, he sent it down to London to be kept in Gringotts instead. The goblins started to laugh again. I'm still not seeing the joke, said Ted. It's a fake, rasped Griphook. The sword of Gryffindor. Oh, yes, it is a copy. An excellent copy, it is true, but it was wizard-made. The original was forged centuries ago by goblins and had certain properties only goblin-made armor possesses. Wherever the genuine sword of Gryffindor is, it is not in a vault at Gringotts Bank. I see, said Ted. And I take it you didn't bother telling the Death Eaters this? I saw no reason to trouble them with the information, said Griphook smugly. And now Ted and Dean joined in Gornock and Dirk's laughter. Inside the tent, Harry closed his eyes, willing someone to ask the question he needed answered, and after a minute that seemed ten, Dean obliged. He was, Harry remembered with a jolt, an ex-boyfriend of Ginny's, too. What happened to Ginny and the others? The ones who tried to steal it? Oh, they were punished and cruelly, said Griphook indifferently. They're okay, though, asked Ted quickly. I mean, the Weasleys don't need any more of their kids injured, do they? They suffered no serious injury, as far as I am aware, said Griphook. Lucky for them, said Ted. With Snape's track record, I suppose we should just be glad they're still alive. You believe that story, then, do you, Ted? asked Dirk. You believe Snape killed Dumbledore? Course I do, said Ted. You're not going to sit there and tell me you think Potter had anything to do with it? Hard to know what to believe these days muttered Dirk. I know Harry Potter, said Dean, and I reckon he's the real thing, the chosen one, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, there's a lot we'd like to believe he's that son, said Dirk, me included. But where is he? Run for it by the looks of things. You'd think if he knew anything we don't, or had anything special going for him, he'd be out there now, fighting, rallying resistance instead of hiding. And you know, the Prophet made a pretty good case against him. The Prophet, scoffed Ted. You deserve to be lied to if you're still reading that, Mark Dirk. You want the facts. Try the quibbler. There was a sudden explosion of choking and retching, plus a good deal of thumping. 
By the sound of it, Dirk had swallowed a fishbone. At last, he spluttered. The quibbler? That lunatic rag of Zeno Lovegood's? It's not so lunatic these days, said Ted. You want to give it a look. Zeno is printing all the stuff the prophet's ignoring. Not a single mention of Crumplehorn Snorkax in the last issue. How long they'll let him get away with it, mind, I don't know. But Zeno says, front page of every issue, that any wizard who's against you-know-who ought to make helping Harry Potter their number one priority. Hard to help a boy who's vanished off the face of the earth, said Dirk. Listen, the fact that they haven't caught him yet's one hell of an achievement, said Ted. I'd take tips from him gladly. It's what we're trying to do. Stay free, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you've got a point there, said Dirk heavily. With the whole of the ministry and all their informers looking for him, I'd have expected him to be caught by now. Mind, who's to say they haven't already caught and killed him without publicizing it? Ah, don't say that, Dirk, murmured Ted. There was a long pause filled with more clattering of knives and forks. When they spoke again, it was to discuss whether they ought to sleep on the bank or retreat back up the wooded slope. Deciding the trees would give better cover, they extinguished their fire, then clambered back up the incline, their voices fading away. Harry, Ron, and Hermione reeled in the extendable ears. Harry, who had found the need to remain silent increasingly difficult the longer they eavesdropped, now found himself unable to say more than, Ginny, the sword. I know, said Hermione. She lunged for the tiny beaded bag, this time sinking her arm in it right up to the armpit. Here we are, she said between gritted teeth, and she pulled at something that was evidently in the depths of the bag. Slowly the edge of an ornate picture frame came into sight. Harry hurried to help her. As they lifted the empty portrait of Phineas Nigellus free of Hermione's bag, she kept her wand pointing at it, ready to cast a spell at any moment. If somebody swapped the real sword for the fake while it was in Dumbledore's office, she panted as they propped the painting against the side of the tent, Phineas Nigellus would have seen it happen. He hangs right beside the case. Unless he was asleep, said Harry, but he still held his breath as Hermione knelt down in front of the empty canvas, her wand directed at its center, cleared her throat, then said, Ah, Phineas! Phineas Nigellus! Nothing happened. Phineas Nigellus, said Hermione again. Professor Black, please, could we talk to you? Please? Please, always helps, said a cold, snide voice, and Phineas Nigellus slid into his portrait. At once, Hermione cried, Obscura! A black blindfold appeared over Phineas Nigellus's clever, dark eyes, causing him to bump into the frame and shriek with pain. What? How dare? What are you? I'm very sorry, Professor Black, said Hermione, but it's a necessary precaution. Remove this foul addition at once. Remove it, I say. You are ruining a great work of art. Where am I? What is going on? Never mind where we are, said Harry, and Phineas Nigellus froze, abandoning his attempts to peel off the painted blindfold. Can that possibly be the voice of the elusive Mr. Potter? Maybe, said Harry, knowing that this would keep Phineas Nigellus's interest. We've got a couple of questions to ask you about the Sword of Gryffindor. 
"'Ah!' said Phineas Nigellus, now turning his head this way and that, in an effort to catch sight of Harry. "'Yes, that silly girl acted most unwisely there.' "'Shut up about my sister,' said Ron roughly. Phineas Nigellus raised supercilious eyebrows. "'Who else is here?' he asked, turning his head from side to side. "'Your tone displeases me. The girl and her friends were foolhardy in the extreme, thieving from the headmaster.' They weren't thieving, said Harry. That sword isn't Snape's. It belongs to Professor Snape's school, said Phineas Nigellus. Exactly what claim did the Weasley girl have upon it? She deserved her punishment, as did the idiot Longbottom and the Lovegood oddity. Neville is not an idiot and Luna is not an oddity, said Hermione. Where am I? repeated Phineas Nigellus, starting to wrestle with the blindfold again. Where have you brought me? Why have you removed me from the house of my forebears? Never mind that. How did Snape punish Ginny, Neville, and Luna? asked Harry urgently. Professor Snape sent them into the Forbidden Forest to do some work for the oaf, Hagrid. Hagrid's not an oaf, said Hermione shrilly. And Snape might have thought that was a punishment, said Harry. But Ginny, Neville, and Luna probably had a good laugh with Hagrid. The Forbidden Forest? They've faced plenty worse than the Forbidden Forest. Big deal. He felt relieved. He had been imagining horrors, the Cruciatus curse at the very least. What we really wanted to know, Professor Black, is whether anyone else has, um, taken out the sword at all. Maybe it's been taken away for cleaning or, or something. Phineas Nigellus paused again in his struggles to free his eyes and snickered. Muggle-borns, he said. Goblin-made armor does not require cleaning, simple gal. Goblin silver repels mundane dirt, imbibing only that which strengthens it. Don't call Hermione simple, said Harry. I grow weary of contradiction, said Phineas Nigellus. Perhaps it is time for me to return to the headmaster's office? Still blindfolded, he began groping the side of his frame trying to feel his way out of his picture and back into the one at Hogwarts. Harry had a sudden inspiration. Dumbledore! Can't you bring us Dumbledore? I beg your pardon? asked Phineas Nigellus. Professor Dumbledore's portrait. Couldn't you bring him along, here, into yours? Phineas Nigellus turned his face in the direction of Harry's voice. Evidently it is not only Muggleborns who are ignorant, Potter. The portraits of Hogwarts may commune with each other, but they cannot travel outside the castle except to visit a painting of themselves hanging elsewhere. Dumbledore cannot come here with me, and after the treatment I have received at your hands, I can assure you that I shall not be making a return visit. Slightly crestfallen, Harry watched Phineas redouble his attempts to leave his frame. Professor Black, said Hermione, couldn't you just tell us, please, when was the last time the sword was taken out of its case? Before Ginny took it out, I mean. Phineas snorted impatiently. I believe that the last time I saw the sword of Gryffindor leave its case was when Professor Dumbledore used it to break open a ring. Hermione whipped around to look at Harry. Neither of them dared say more in front of Phineas Nigellus, who had at last managed to locate the exit. Well, good night to you, 
he said a little waspishly, and he began to move out of sight again. Only the edge of his hat brim remained in view when Harry gave a sudden shout. Wait, have you told Snape you saw this? Phineas Nigellus stuck his blindfolded head back into the picture. Professor Snape has more important things on his mind than the many eccentricities of Albus Dumbledore. Goodbye, Potter. And with that, he vanished completely, leaving behind him nothing but his murky backdrop. Harry, Hermione cried. I know, Harry shouted. Unable to contain himself, he punched the air. It was more than he had dared to hope for. He strode up and down the tent, feeling that he could have run a mile. He did not even feel hungry anymore. Hermione was squashing Phineas Nigellus's portrait back into the beaded bag. When she had fastened the clasp, she threw the bag aside and raised a shining face to Harry. The sword can destroy horcruxes. Goblin-made blades imbibe only that which strengthened them. Harry, that sword's impregnated with basilisk venom. And Dumbledore didn't give it to me because he still needed it. He wanted to use it on the locket. And he must have realized they wouldn't let you have it if he put it in his will. So he made a copy and put a fake in the glass case. And he left the real one. Where? They gazed at each other. Harry felt that the answer was dangling invisibly in the air above them, tantalizingly close. Why hadn't Dumbledore told him? Or had he, in fact, told Harry, but Harry had not realized it at the time? Think, whispered Hermione. Think. Where would he have left it? Not at Hogwarts, said Harry, resuming his pacing. Somewhere in Hogsmeade? suggested Hermione. The Shrieking Shack, said Harry. Nobody ever goes in there. But Snape knows how to get in. Wouldn't that be a bit risky? Dumbledore trusted Snape, Harry reminded her. Not enough to tell him that he had swapped the swords, said Hermione. Yeah, you're right, said Harry. And he felt even more cheered at the thought that Dumbledore had had some reservations, however faint, about Snape's trustworthiness. So, would he have hidden the sword well away from Hogsmeade, then? What do you reckon, Ron? Ron? Harry looked around. For one bewildered moment he thought that Ron had left the tent, then realized that Ron was lying in the shadow of a lower bunk, looking stony. Oh, remembered me, have you? he said. What? Ron snorted as he stared up at the underside of the upper bunk. You two carry on. Don't let me spoil your fun. Perplexed, Harry looked to Hermione for help, but she shook her head, apparently as nonplussed as he was. What's the problem? asked Harry. Problem? There's no problem, said Ron, still refusing to look at Harry. Not according to you, anyway. There were several plunks on the canvas over their heads. It had started to rain. Well, you've obviously got a problem, said Harry. Spit it out, will you? Ron swung his long legs off the bed and sat up. He looked mean, unlike himself. All right, I'll spit it out. Don't expect me to skip up and down the tent because there's some other damn thing we've got to find. Just add it to the list of stuff you don't know. I don't know, repeated Harry. I don't know. Plunk, plunk, plunk. The rain was falling harder and heavier. It pattered on the leaf-strewn bank all around them and into the river chattering through the dark. Dread doused Harry's jubilation. Ron was saying exactly what he had suspected and feared him to be thinking. It's not like I'm having the time of my life here, said Ron. 
You know, with my arm mangled and nothing to eat and freezing my backside off every night. I just hoped, you know, after we'd been running round a few weeks, we'd have achieved something. Ron, Hermione said, but in such a quiet voice that Ron could pretend not to have heard it over the loud tattoo the rain was now beating on the tent. I thought you knew what you'd signed up for, said Harry. Yeah, I thought I did too. So what part of it isn't living up to your expectations, asked Harry. Anger was coming to his defense now. Did you think we'd be staying in five-star hotels, finding a horcrux every other day? Did you think you'd be back to mummy by Christmas? We thought you knew what you were doing, shouted Ron, standing up and his words pierced Harry like scalding knives. We thought Dumbledore had told you what to do. We thought you had a real plan. Ron, said Hermione, this time clearly audible over the rain, thundering on the tent roof, but again he ignored her. Well, sorry to let you down, said Harry, his voice quite calm, even though he felt hollow, inadequate. I've been straight with you from the start. I told you everything Dumbledore told me. And, in case you haven't noticed, we found one Horcrux. Yeah, and we're about as near getting rid of it as we are to finding the rest of them. Nowhere effing near, in other words. Take off the locket, Ron, Hermione said, her voice unusually high. Please, take it off. You wouldn't be talking like this if you hadn't been wearing it all day. Yeah, he would, said Harry, who did not want excuses made for Ron. Do you think I haven't noticed the two of you whispering behind my back? Do you think I didn't guess you were thinking this stuff? Harry, we weren't. Don't lie, Ron hurled at her. You said it too. You said you were disappointed. You said you'd thought he had a bit more to go on then. I didn't say it like that, Harry. I didn't, she cried. The rain was pounding the tent. Tears were pouring down Hermione's face, and the excitement of a few minutes before had vanished as if it had never been. A short-lived firework that had flared and died, leaving everything dark, wet, and cold. The sword of Gryffindor was hidden, they knew not where, and they were three teenagers in a tent whose only achievement was not yet to be dead. So why are you still here? Harry asked Ron. Search me, said Ron. Go home, then, said Harry. Yeah, maybe I will, shouted Ron, and he took several steps toward Harry, who did not back away. Didn't you hear what they said about my sister? But you don't give a rat's fart, do you? It's only the forbidden forest. Harry, I've faced worse. Potter doesn't care what happens to her in here. Well, I do, all right? Giant spiders and mental stuff. I was only saying she was with the others. They were with Hagrid. Yeah, I get it. You don't care. And what about the rest of my family? The Weasleys don't need another kid injured. Did you hear that? Yeah, I... Not bothered what it meant, though. Fun, said Hermione, forcing her way between them. I don't think it means anything new has happened. Anything we don't know about. Think, Ron. Bill's already scarred. Plenty of people must have seen that George has lost an ear by now, and you're supposed to be on your deathbed with Spattergroit. I'm sure that's all he meant. Oh, you're sure, are you? Right then. Well, I won't bother myself about them. It's all right for you two, isn't it? With your parents safely out of the way. My parents are dead, Harry bellowed. And mine could be going the same way, yelled Ron. Then go, roared Harry. Go back to them. Pretend you've got over your spattergroit and mummy'll be able to feed you up and... Ron made a sudden movement, 
Harry reacted, but before either wand was clear of its owner's pocket, Hermione had raised her own. Protego! she cried, and an invisible shield expanded between her and Harry on the one side and Ron on the other. All of them were forced backward a few steps by the strength of the spell, and Harry and Ron glared from either side of the transparent barrier as though they were seeing each other clearly for the first time. Harry felt a corrosive hatred toward Ron. Something had broken between them. Leave the Horcrux, Harry said. Ron wrenched the chain from over his head and cast the locket into a nearby chair. He turned to Hermione. What are you doing? What do you mean? Are you staying, or what? I... She looked anguished. Yes, yes, I'm staying, Ron. We said we'd go with Harry. We said we'd help. I get it. You choose him. Ron, no, please, come back, come back. She was impeded by her own shield charm. By the time she had removed it, he had already stormed into the night. Harry stood quite still and silent, listening to her sobbing and calling Ron's name amongst the trees. After a few minutes, she returned, her sopping hair plastered to her face. He's gone, disapparated. She threw herself into a chair, curled up, and started to cry. Harry felt dazed. He stooped, picked up the horcrux, and placed it around his own neck. He dragged blankets off Ron's bunk and threw them over Hermione. Then he climbed onto his own bed and stared up at the dark canvas roof, listening to the pounding of the rain. Chapter 16 Godric's Hollow When Harry woke the following day, it was several seconds before he remembered what had happened. Then he hoped, childishly, that it had been a dream, but Ron was still there and had never left. Yet by turning his head on his pillow, he could see Ron's deserted bunk. It was like a dead body in the way it seemed to draw his eyes. Harry jumped down from his own bed, keeping his eyes averted from Ron's. Hermione, who was already busy in the kitchen, did not wish Harry good morning, but turned her face away quickly as he went by. He's gone, Harry told himself. He's gone. He had to keep thinking it as he washed and dressed, as though repetition would dull the shock of it. He's gone, and he's not coming back. And that was the simple truth of it, Harry knew, because their protective enchantments meant that it would be impossible, once they vacated this spot, for Ron to find them again. He and Hermione ate breakfast in silence. Hermione's eyes were puffy and red. She looked as if she had not slept. They packed up their things, Hermione dawdling, Harry knew why she wanted to spin out their time on the riverbank. Several times he saw her look up eagerly, and he was sure she had deluded herself into thinking that she heard footsteps through the heavy rain, but no red-haired figure appeared between the trees. Every time Harry imitated her, looked around, for he could not help hoping a little himself, and saw nothing but rain-swept woods, another little parcel of fury exploded inside him. He could hear Ron saying, we thought you knew what you were doing. And he resumed packing with a hard knot in the pit of his stomach. The muddy river beside them was rising rapidly and would soon spill over onto their bank. They had lingered a good hour after they would usually have departed their campsite. Finally, having entirely repacked the beaded bag three times, Hermione seemed unable to find any more reasons to delay. She and Harry grasped hands and disapparated, 
reappearing on a wind-swept, heather-covered hillside. The instant they arrived, Hermione dropped Harry's hand and walked away from him, finally sitting down on a large rock, her face on her knees, shaking with what he knew were sobs. He watched her, supposing that he ought to go and comfort her, but something kept him rooted to the spot. Everything inside him felt cold and tight. Again he saw the contemptuous expression on Ron's face. Harry strode off through the heather, walking in a large circle with the distraught Hermione at its center, casting the spells she usually performed to ensure their protection. They did not discuss Ron at all over the next few days. Harry was determined never to mention his name again, and Hermione seemed to know that it was no use forcing the issue, although sometimes at night, when she thought he was sleeping, he would hear her crying. Meanwhile, Harry had started bringing out the Marauder's Map and examining it by wandlight. He was waiting for the moment when Ron's labeled Dot would reappear in the corridors of Hogwarts, proving that he had returned to the comfortable castle, protected by his status of pure blood. However, Ron did not appear on the map, and after a while Harry found himself taking it out simply to stare at Ginny's name in the girl's dormitory, wondering whether the intensity with which he gazed at it might break into her sleep, that she would somehow know he was thinking about her, hoping that she was all right. By day, they devoted themselves to trying to determine the possible locations of Gryffindor's sword, but the more they talked about the places in which Dumbledore might have hidden it, the more desperate and far-fetched their speculation became. Cudgel his brains though he might, Harry could not remember Dumbledore ever mentioning a place in which he might hide something. There were moments when he did not know whether he was angrier with Ron or with Dumbledore. We thought you knew what you were doing. We thought Dumbledore had told you what to do. We thought you had a real plan. He could not hide it from himself. Ron had been right. Dumbledore had left him with virtually nothing. They had discovered one Horcrux, but they had no means of destroying it. The others were as unattainable as they had ever been. Hopelessness threatened to engulf him. He was staggered now to think of his own presumption in accepting his friend's offers to accompany him on this meandering, pointless journey. He knew nothing, he had no ideas, and he was constantly, painfully on the alert for any indication that Hermione too was about to tell him that she had had enough, that she was leaving. They were spending many evenings in near silence, and Hermione took to bringing out Phineas Nigellus's portrait and propping it up in a chair, as though he might fill part of the gaping hole left by Ron's departure. Despite his previous assertion that he would never visit them again, Phineas Nigellus did not seem able to resist the chance to find out more about what Harry was up to, and consented to reappear, blindfolded, every few days or so. Harry was even glad to see him, because he was company, albeit of a snide and taunting kind. They relished any news about what was happening at Hogwarts, though Phineas Nigellus was not an ideal informer. He venerated Snape, the first Slytherin headmaster since he himself had controlled the school, and they had to be careful not to criticize or ask impertinent questions about Snape, or Phineas Nigellus would instantly leave his painting. However, he did let drop certain snippets. Snape seemed to be facing a constant low level of mutiny from a hard core of students. Ginny had been banned from going into Hogsmeade. Snape had reinstated Umbridge's old decree forbidding gatherings of three or more students or any unofficial student societies. From all of these things, 
Harry deduced that Ginny, and probably Neville and Luna, along with her, had been doing their best to continue Dumbledore's army. This scant news made Harry want to see Ginny so badly it felt like a stomachache. But it also made him think of Ron again, and of Dumbledore, and of Hogwarts itself, which he missed nearly as much as his ex-girlfriend. Indeed, as Phineas Nigellus talked about Snape's crackdown, Harry experienced a split second of madness when he imagined simply going back to school to join the destabilization of Snape's regime. Being fed and having a soft bed and other people being in charge seemed the most wonderful prospect in the world at that moment. But then he remembered that he was undesirable number one, that there was a ten thousand galleon price on his head, and that to walk into Hogwarts these days was just as dangerous as walking into the Ministry of Magic. Indeed, Phineas Nigellus inadvertently emphasized this fact by slipping in leading questions about Harry and Hermione's whereabouts. Hermione shoved him back inside the beaded bag every time he did this, and Phineas Nigellus invariably refused to reappear for several days after these unceremonious goodbyes. The weather grew colder and colder. They did not dare remain in any one area too long, so rather than staying in the south of England, where a hard ground frost was the worst of their worries, they continued to meander up and down the country, braving a mountainside, where sleet pounded the tent, a wide flat marsh, where the tent was flooded with chill water, and a tiny island in the middle of a Scottish loch, where snow half buried the tent in the night. They had already spotted Christmas trees twinkling from several sitting-room windows before there came an evening when Harry resolved to suggest again what seemed to him the only unexplored avenue left to them. They had just eaten an unusually good meal. Hermione had been to a supermarket under the invisibility cloak, scrupulously dropping the money into an open till as she left, and Harry thought that she might be more persuadable than usual on a stomach full of spaghetti bolognese and tinned pears. He had also had the foresight to suggest that they take a few hours' break from wearing the horcrux, which was hanging over the end of the bunk beside him. Hermione? Hmm? She was curled up in one of the sagging armchairs with The Tales of Beadle the Bard. He could not imagine how much more she could get out of the book, which was not, after all, very long. But evidently she was still deciphering something in it, because Spellman's syllabary lay open on the arm of the chair. Harry cleared his throat. He felt exactly as he had done on the occasion several years previously when he had asked Professor McGonagall whether he could go into Hogsmeade, despite the fact that he had not persuaded the Dursleys to sign his permission slip. Hermione, I've been thinking, and... Harry, could you help me with something? Apparently she had not been listening to him. She leaned forward and held out the tales of Beadle the Bard. Look at that symbol, she said, pointing to the top of a page. Above what Harry assumed was the title of the story, being unable to read runes, he could not be sure, there was a picture of what looked like a triangular eye, its pupil crossed with a vertical line. I never took ancient runes, Hermione. I know that, but it isn't a rune, and it's not in the syllabary either. All along I thought it was a picture of an eye, but I don't think it is. It's been inked in. Look, somebody's drawn it there. It isn't really part of the book. Think, have you ever seen it before? No. No, wait a moment. Harry looked closer. Isn't it the same symbol Luna's dad was wearing round his neck? 
Well, that's what I thought, too. Then it's Grindelwald's mark. She stared at him, open-mouthed. What? Crumb told me. He recounted the story that Victor Crumb had told him at the wedding. Hermione looked astonished. Grindelwald's mark? She looked from Harry to the weird symbol and back again. I've never heard that Grindelwald had a mark. There's no mention of it in anything I've ever read about him. Well, like I say, Crumb reckoned that symbol was carved on a wall at Durmstrang, and Grindelwald put it there. She fell back into the old armchair, frowning. That's very odd. If it's a symbol of dark magic, what's it doing in a book of children's stories? Yeah, it is weird, said Harry, and you'd think Scrimger would have recognized it. He was minister. He ought to have been expert on dark stuff. I know. Perhaps he thought it was an eye, just like I did. All the other stories have little pictures over the titles. She did not speak, but continued to pore over the strange mark. Harry tried again. Hermione? Hmm? I've been thinking. I... I want to go to Godric's Hollow. She looked up at him, but her eyes were unfocused, and he was sure she was still thinking about the mysterious mark on the book. Yes, she said. Yes, I've been wondering that too. I really think we'll have to. Did you hear me right? he asked. Of course I did. You want to go to Godric's Hollow? I agree, I think we should. I mean, I can't think of anywhere else it could be either. It'll be dangerous, but the more I think about it, the more likely it seems it's there. Uh, what's there? asked Harry. At that, she looked just as bewildered as he felt. Well, the sword, Harry. Dumbledore must have known you'd want to go back there, and I mean Godric's Hollow is Godric Gryffindor's birthplace. Really? Gryffindor came from Godric's Hollow? Harry, did you ever even open a history of magic? Um, he said, smiling for what felt like the first time in months. The muscles in his face felt oddly stiff. I might have opened it, you know, when I bought it, just the once. Well, as the village is named after him, I'd have thought you might have made the connection, said Hermione. She sounded much more like her old self than she had done of late. Harry half expected her to announce that she was off to the library. There's a bit about the village in A History of Magic. Wait. She opened the beaded bag and rummaged for a while, finally extracting her copy of their old school textbook, A History of Magic, by Batilda Bagshot, which she thumbed through until finding the page she wanted. Upon the signature of the International Statute of Secrecy in 1689, wizards went into hiding for good. It was natural, perhaps, that they formed their own small communities within a community. Many small villages and hamlets attracted several magical families, who banded together for mutual support and protection. The villages of Tinworth in Cornwall, Upper Flagley in Yorkshire, and Ottery St. Catchpole on the south coast of England were notable homes to knots of wizarding families who lived alongside tolerant and sometimes confounded muggles. Most celebrated of these half-magical dwelling places is, perhaps, Godric's Hollow, the West Country village where the great wizard Godric Gryffindor was born, and where Bowman Wright, Wizarding Smith forged the first golden snitch. The graveyard is full of the names of ancient magical families, and this accounts, no doubt, for the stories of hauntings that have dogged the little church beside it for many centuries. You and your parents aren't mentioned, Hermione said, closing the book 
because Professor Bagshot doesn't cover anything later than the end of the nineteenth century. But you see, Godric's Hollow, Godric Gryffindor, Gryffindor's Sword. Don't you think Dumbledore would have expected you to make the connection? Oh, yeah. Harry did not want to admit that he had not been thinking about the sword at all when he suggested they go to Godric's Hollow. For him, the lure of the village lay in his parents' graves, the house where he had narrowly escaped death and in the person of Batilda Bagshot. Remember what Muriel said? he asked eventually. Who? You know? he hesitated. He did not want to say Ron's name. Ginny's great-aunt, at the wedding, the one who said you had skinny ankles. Oh, said Hermione. It was a sticky moment. Harry knew that she had sensed Ron's name in the offing. He rushed on. She said Batilda Bagshot still lives in Godric's Hollow. Batilda Bagshot, murmured Hermione, running her index finger over Batilda's embossed name on the front cover of A History of Magic. Well, I suppose... She gasped so dramatically that Harry's insides turned over. He drew his wand, looking around at the entrance, half expecting to see a hand forcing its way through the entrance flap. But there was nothing there. What? he said, half angry, half relieved. What did you do that for? I thought you'd seen a Death Eater unzipping the tent, at least. Harry, what if Batilda's got the sword? What if Dumbledore entrusted it to her? Harry considered this possibility. Matilda would be an extremely old woman by now, and according to Muriel, she was Gaga. Was it likely that Dumbledore would have hidden the sword of Gryffindor with her? If so, Harry felt that Dumbledore had left a great deal to chance. Dumbledore had never revealed that he had replaced the sword with a fake, nor had he so much as mentioned a friendship with Batilda. Now, however, was not the moment to cast doubt on Hermione's theory, not when she was so surprisingly willing to fall in with Harry's dearest wish. Yeah, he might have done. So, are we going to go to Godric's Hollow? Yes, but we'll have to think it through carefully, Harry. She was sitting up now, and Harry could tell that the prospect of having a plan again had lifted her mood as much as his. We'll need to practice disapparating together under the invisibility cloak for a start, and perhaps disillusionment charms would be sensible too, unless you think we should go the whole hog and use polyjuice potion. In that case, we'll need to collect hair from somebody. I actually think we'd better do that, Harry. The thicker our disguises, the better. Harry let her talk, nodding and agreeing whenever there was a pause, but his mind had left the conversation. For the first time since he had discovered that the sword in Gringotts was a fake, he felt excited. He was about to go home, about to return to the place where he had had a family. It was in Godric's Hollow that, but for Voldemort, he would have grown up and spent every school holiday. He could have invited friends to his house. He might even have had brothers and sisters. It would have been his mother who had made his seventeenth birthday cake. The life he had lost had hardly ever seemed so real to him as at this moment when he knew he was about to see the place where it had been taken from him. After Hermione had gone to bed that night, Harry quietly extracted his rucksack from Hermione's beaded bag, and from inside it the photograph album Hagrid had given him so long ago. For the first time in months he perused the old pictures of his parents, smiling and waving up at him from the images which were all he had left of them now.
Harry would gladly have set out for Godric's Hollow the following day, but Hermione had other ideas. Convinced as she was that Voldemort would expect Harry to return to the scene of his parents' deaths, she was determined that they would set off only after they had ensured that they had the best disguises possible. It was therefore a full week later, once they had surreptitiously obtained hairs from innocent muggles who were Christmas shopping, and had practiced apparating and disapparating while underneath the invisibility cloak together, that Hermione agreed to make the journey. They were to apparate to the village under cover of darkness, so it was late afternoon when they finally swallowed Polyjuice Potion, Harry transforming into a balding, middle-aged muggle man, Hermione into his small and rather mousy wife. The beaded bag containing all of their possessions, apart from the horcrux which Harry was wearing around his neck, was tucked into an inside pocket of Hermione's buttoned-up coat. Harry lowered the invisibility cloak over them, then they turned into the suffocating darkness once again. Heart beating in his throat, Harry opened his eyes. They were standing hand in hand in a snowy lane under a dark blue sky in which the night's first stars were already glimmering feebly. Cottages stood on either side of the narrow road, Christmas decorations twinkling in their windows. A short way ahead of them, a glow of golden streetlights indicated the center of the village. All this snow! Hermione whispered beneath the cloak. Why didn't we think of snow? After all our precautions, we'll leave, Prince. We'll just have to get rid of them. You go in front, I'll do it. Harry did not want to enter the village like a pantomime horse, trying to keep themselves concealed while magically covering their traces. Let's take off the cloak, said Harry, and when she looked frightened, Oh, come on, we don't look like us, and there's no one around. He stowed the cloak under his jacket, and they made their way forward unhampered, the icy air stinging their faces as they passed more cottages. Any one of them might have been the one in which James and Lily had once lived, or where Batilda lived now. Harry gazed at the front doors, their snow-burdened roofs, and their front porches, wondering whether he remembered any of them, knowing deep inside that it was impossible, that he had been little more than a year old when he had left this place forever. He was not even sure whether he would be able to see the cottage at all. He did not know what happened when the subjects of a Fidelius charm died. Then the little lane along which they were walking curved to the left, and the heart of the village, a small square, was revealed to them. Strung all around with colored lights, there was what looked like a war memorial in the middle, partly obscured by a wind-blown Christmas tree. There were several shops, a post office, a pub and a little church whose stained-glass windows were glowing jewel-bright across the square. The snow here had become impacted. It was hard and slippery where people had trodden on it all day. Villagers were crisscrossing in front of them, their figures briefly illuminated by street lamps. They heard a snatch of laughter and pop music as the pub door opened and closed. Then they heard a carol start up inside the little church. Harry, I think it's Christmas Eve said Hermione. Is it? He had lost track of the date. They had not seen a newspaper for weeks. I'm sure it is, said Hermione, her eyes upon the church. They, they'll be in there, won't they? Your mum and dad. I can see the graveyard behind it. Harry felt a thrill of something that was beyond excitement, more like fear. Now that he was so near, he wondered whether he wanted to see after all. Perhaps Hermione knew how he was feeling, 
because she reached for his hand and took the lead for the first time, pulling him forward. Halfway across the square, however, she stopped dead. Harry, look! She was pointing at the war memorial. As they had passed it, it had transformed. Instead of an obelisk covered in names, there was a statue of three people, a man with untidy hair and glasses, a woman with long hair and a kind, pretty face, and a baby boy sitting in his mother's arms. Snow lay upon all their heads like fluffy white caps. Harry drew closer, gazing up into his parents' faces. He had never imagined that there would be a statue. How strange it was to see himself represented in stone, a happy baby without a scar on his forehead. Come on, said Harry when he had looked his fill, and they turned again toward the church. As they crossed the road, he glanced over his shoulder. The statue had turned back into the war memorial. The singing grew louder as they approached the church. It made Harry's throat constrict. It reminded him so forcefully of Hogwarts, of Peeves bellowing rude versions of carols from inside suits of armor, of the Great Hall's twelve Christmas trees, of Dumbledore wearing a bonnet he had won in a cracker, of Ron in a hand-knitted sweater. There was a kissing gate at the entrance to the graveyard. Hermione pushed it open as quietly as possible, and they edged through it. On either side of the slippery path to the church doors, the snow lay deep and untouched. They moved off through the snow, carving deep trenches behind them as they walked around the building, keeping to the shadows beneath the brilliant windows. Behind the church, row upon row of snowy tombstones protruded from a blanket of pale blue that was flecked with dazzling red, gold, and green wherever the reflections from the stained glass hit the snow. Keeping his hand closed tightly on the wand in his jacket pocket, Harry moved toward the nearest grave. Look at this. It's an abbot. Could be some long-lost relation of Hannah's. Keep your voice down, Hermione begged him. They waded deeper and deeper into the graveyard, gouging dark tracks into the snow behind them, stooping to peer at the words on old headstones, every now and then squinting into the surrounding darkness to make absolutely sure that they were unaccompanied. Hurry, here! Hermione was two rows of tombstones away. He had to wade back to her, his heart positively banging in his chest. Is it? No, but look! She pointed to the dark stone. Harry stooped down and saw, upon the frozen lichen-spotted granite, the words Kendra Dumbledore and, a short way below her dates of birth and death, and her daughter Ariana. There was also a quotation. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So Rita Skeeter and Muriel had got some of their facts right. The Dumbledore family had indeed lived here and part of it had died here. Seeing the grave was worse than hearing about it. Harry could not help thinking that he and Dumbledore both had deep roots in this graveyard, and that Dumbledore ought to have told him so, yet he had never thought to share the connection. They could have visited the place together. For a moment, Harry imagined coming here with Dumbledore, of what a bond that would have been, of how much it would have meant to him but it seemed that to Dumbledore the fact that their families lay side by side in the same graveyard had been an unimportant coincidence, irrelevant perhaps to the job he wanted Harry to do. Hermione was looking at Harry, and he was glad that his face was hidden in shadow. 
He read the words on the tombstone again. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He did not understand what these words meant. Surely Dumbledore had chosen them as the eldest member of the family once his mother had died. Are you sure he never mentioned? Hermione began. No, said Harry curtly. Then, let's keep looking. And he turned away, wishing he had not seen the stone. He did not want his excited trepidation tainted with resentment. Here, cried Hermione again a few moments later from out of the darkness. Oh, no, sorry. I thought it said Potter. She was rubbing at a crumbling, mossy stone, gazing down at it, a little frown on her face. Harry, come back a moment. He did not want to be sidetracked again, and only grudgingly made his way back through the snow toward her. Wow, look at this. The grave was extremely old, weathered so that Harry could hardly make out the name. Hermione showed him the symbol beneath it. Harry, that's the mark in the book. He peered at the place she indicated. The stone was so worn that it was hard to make out what was engraved there, though there did seem to be a triangular mark beneath the nearly illegible name. Yeah, it could be. Hermione lit her wand and pointed it at the name on the headstone. It says Ig, Ignotus, I think. I'm going to keep looking for my parents, all right? Harry told her, a slight edge to his voice, and he set off again, leaving her crouched beside the old grave. Every now and then he recognized a surname that, like Abbott, he had met at Hogwarts. Sometimes there were several generations of the same wizarding family represented in the graveyard. Harry could tell from the dates that it had either died out or the current members had moved away from Godric's Hollow. Deeper and deeper amongst the graves he went, and every time he reached a new headstone he felt a little lurch of apprehension and anticipation. The darkness and the silence seemed to become, all of a sudden, much deeper. Harry looked around, worried, thinking of Dementors, then realized that the carols had finished, that the chatter and flurry of churchgoers were fading away as they made their way back into the square. Somebody inside the church had just turned off the lights. Then Hermione's voice came out of the blackness for the third time, sharp and clear from a few yards away. Harry, they're here. Right here. And he knew by her tone that it was his mother and father this time. He moved toward her, feeling as if something heavy were pressing on his chest, the same sensation he had had right after Dumbledore had died, a grief that had actually weighed on his heart and lungs. The headstone was only two rows behind Kendra and Ariana's. It was made of white marble just like Dumbledore's tomb, and this made it easy to read, as it seemed to shine in the dark. Harry did not need to kneel or even approach very close to it to make out the words engraved upon it. James Potter, born 27 March 1960, died 31 October 1981. Lily Potter, born 30 January 1960, died 31 October 1981. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Harry read the words slowly, as though he would have only one chance to take in their meaning, and he read the last of them aloud. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. A horrible thought came to him, and with it a kind of panic. Isn't that a Death Eater idea? 
Why is that there? It doesn't mean defeating death in the way the Death Eaters mean it, Harry, said Hermione, her voice gentle. It means, you know, living beyond death, living after death. But they were not living, thought Harry. They were gone. The empty words could not disguise the fact that his parents' mouldering remains lay beneath snow and stone, indifferent, unknowing, and tears came before he could stop them, boiling hot, then instantly freezing on his face, and what was the point in wiping them off or pretending? He let them fall, his lips pressed hard together, looking down at the thick snow, hiding from his eyes the place where the last of Lily and James lay. Bones now, surely, or dust, not knowing or caring that their living sons stood so near, his heart still beating, alive because of their sacrifice and close to wishing at this moment that he was sleeping under the snow with them. Hermione had taken his hand again and was gripping it tightly. He could not look at her but returned the pressure, now taking deep, sharp gulps of the night air, trying to steady himself, trying to regain control. He should have brought something to give them, and he had not thought of it, and every plant in the graveyard was leafless and frozen. But Hermione raised her wand, moved it in a circle through the air, and a wreath of Christmas roses blossomed before them. Harry caught it and laid it on his parents' grave. As soon as he stood up, he wanted to leave. He did not think he could stand another moment there. He put his arm around Hermione's shoulders, and she put hers around his waist, and they turned in silence and walked away through the snow, past Dumbledore's mother and sister, back toward the dark church and the out-of-sight kissing gate. Chapter 17 Batilda's Secret Harry, stop! What's wrong? They had only just reached the grave of the unknown abbot. There's someone there, someone watching us. I can tell. There, over by the bushes. They stood quite still, holding on to each other, gazing at the dense black boundary of the graveyard. Harry could not see anything. Are you sure? I saw something move. I could have sworn I did. She broke from him to free her wand arm. We look like muggles, Harry pointed out. Muggles who've just been laying flowers on your parents' grave. Harry, I'm sure there's someone over there. Harry thought of a history of magic. The graveyard was supposed to be haunted. What if... But then he heard a rustle and saw a little eddy of dislodged snow in the bush to which Hermione had pointed. Ghosts could not move snow. It's a cat, said Harry after a second or two. Or a bird. If it was a Death Eater, we'd be dead by now. But let's get out of here and we can put the cloak back on. They glanced back repeatedly as they made their way out of the graveyard. Harry, who did not feel as sanguine as he had pretended when reassuring Hermione, was glad to reach the gate and the slippery pavement. They pulled the invisibility cloak back over themselves. The pub was fuller than before. Many voices inside it were now singing the carol that they had heard as they approached the church. For a moment, Harry considered suggesting they take refuge inside it, but before he could say anything, Hermione murmured, Let's go this way, and pulled him down the dark street leading out of the village in the opposite direction from which they had entered. Harry could make out the point where the cottages ended and the lane turned into open country again. 
They walked as quickly as they dared, past more windows sparkling with multicolored lights, the outlines of Christmas trees dark through the curtains. How are we going to find Matilda's house? asked Hermione, who was shivering a little and kept glancing back over her shoulder. Harry? What do you think? Harry? She tugged at his arm, but Harry was not paying attention. He was looking toward the dark mass that stood at the very end of this row of houses. Next moment he had sped up, dragging Hermione along with him. She slipped a little on the ice. Harry! Look! Look at it, Hermione! I don't... Oh! He could see it. The Fidelius charm must have died with James and Lily. The hedge had grown wild in the sixteen years since Hagrid had taken Harry from the rubble that lay scattered amongst the waist-high grass. Most of the cottage was still standing, though entirely covered in dark ivy and snow, but the right side of the top floor had been blown apart. That, Harry was sure, was where the curse had backfired. He and Hermione stood at the gate, gazing up at the wreck of what must once have been a cottage just like those that flanked it. I wonder why nobody's ever rebuilt it, whispered Hermione. Maybe they can't rebuild it, Harry replied. Maybe it's like the injuries from dark magic, and you can't repair the damage. He slipped a hand from beneath the cloak and grasped the snowy and thickly rusted gate, not wishing to open it, but simply to hold some part of the house. You're not going to go inside. It looks unsafe. It might. Oh, Harry, look. His touch on the gate seemed to have done it. A sign had risen out of the ground in front of them, up through the tangles of nettles and weeds, like some bizarre fast-growing flower, and in golden letters upon the wood it said, On this spot, on the night of 31 October 1981, Lily and James Potter lost their lives. Their son, Harry, remains the only wizard ever to have survived the killing curse. This house, invisible to muggles, has been left in its ruined state as a monument to the Potters and as a reminder of the violence that tore apart their family. And all around these neatly lettered words, scribbles had been added by other witches and wizards who had come to see the place where the boy who lived had escaped. Some had merely signed their names in everlasting ink. Others had carved their initials into the wood. Still others had left messages. The most recent of these, shining brightly over sixteen years' worth of magical graffiti, all said similar things. Good luck, Harry, wherever you are. If you read this, Harry, we're all behind you. Long live Harry Potter! They shouldn't have written on the sign, said Hermione, indignant. But Harry beamed at her. It's brilliant. I'm glad they did. I... He broke off. A heavily muffled figure was hobbling up the lane toward them, silhouetted by the bright lights in the distant square. Harry thought, though it was hard to judge, that the figure was a woman. She was moving slowly, possibly frightened of slipping on the snowy ground. Her stoop, her stoutness, her shuffling gait all gave an impression of extreme age. They watched in silence as she drew nearer. Harry was waiting to see whether she would turn into any of the cottages she was passing, but he knew instinctively that she would not. At last, she came to a halt a few yards from them and simply stood there in the middle of the frozen road, facing them. He did not need Hermione's pinch to his arm. There was next to no chance that this woman was a muggle. She was standing there gazing at a house that ought to have been completely invisible to her 
if she was not a witch. Even assuming that she was a witch, however, it was odd behavior to come out on a night this cold simply to look at an old ruin. By all the rules of normal magic, meanwhile, she ought not to be able to see Hermione and him at all. Nevertheless, Harry had the strangest feeling that she knew that they were there, and also who they were. Just as he had reached this uneasy conclusion, she raised a gloved hand and beckoned. Hermione moved closer to him under the cloak, her arm pressed against his. How does she know? He shook his head. The woman beckoned again, more vigorously. Harry could think of many reasons not to obey the summons, and yet his suspicions about her identity were growing stronger every moment that they stood facing each other in the deserted street. Was it possible that she had been waiting for them all these long months, that Dumbledore had told her to wait, and that Harry would come in the end? Was it not likely that it was she who had moved in the shadows in the graveyard and had followed them to this spot? Even her ability to sense them suggested some Dumbledoreish power that he had never encountered before. Finally, Harry spoke, causing Hermione to gasp and jump. Are you Batilda? The muffled figure nodded and beckoned again. Beneath the cloak, Harry and Hermione looked at each other. Harry raised his eyebrows. Hermione gave a tiny, nervous nod. They stepped toward the woman, and at once she turned and hobbled off back the way they had come. Leading them past several houses, she turned in at a gate. They followed her up the front path, through a garden nearly as overgrown as the one they had just left. She fumbled for a moment with a key at the front door, then opened it and stepped back to let them pass. She smelled bad, or perhaps it was her house. Harry wrinkled his nose as they sidled past her and pulled off the cloak. Now that he was beside her, he realized how tiny she was. Bowed down with age, she came barely level with his chest. She closed the door behind them, her knuckles blue and mottled against the peeling paint, then turned and peered into Harry's face. Her eyes were thick with cataracts and sunken into folds of transparent skin, and her whole face was dotted with broken veins and liver spots. He wondered whether she could make him out at all. Even if she could, it was the balding muggle whose identity he had stolen that she would see. The odor of old age, of dust, of unwashed clothes and stale food intensified as she unwound a moth-eaten black shawl, revealing a head of scant white hair through which the scalp showed clearly. Batilda? Harry repeated. She nodded again. Harry became aware of the locket against his skin, the thing inside it that sometimes ticked or beat had woken. He could feel it pulsing through the cold gold. Did it know, could it sense that the thing that would destroy it was near? Batilda shuffled past them, pushing Hermione aside as though she had not seen her, and vanished into what seemed to be a sitting room. Harry, I'm not sure about this, breathed Hermione. Look at the size of her. I think we could overpower her if we had to, said Harry. Listen, I should have told you. I knew she wasn't all there. Muriel called her Daga. Come, called Batilda from the next room. Hermione jumped and clutched Harry's arm. It's okay, said Harry reassuringly, and he led the way into the sitting room. Batilda was tottering around the place lighting candles, 
but it was still very dark, not to mention extremely dirty. Thick dust crunched beneath their feet, and Harry's nose detected, underneath the dank and mildewed smell, something worse, like meat gone bad. He wondered when was the last time anyone had been inside Batilda's house to check whether she was coping. She seemed to have forgotten that she could do magic, too, for she lit the candles clumsily by hand, her trailing lace cuff in constant danger of catching fire. Let me do that, offered Harry, and he took the matches from her. She stood watching him as he finished lighting the candle stubs that stood on saucers around the room, perched precariously on stacks of books and on side tables crammed with cracked and moldy cups. The last surface on which Harry spotted a candle was a bow-fronted chest of drawers on which there stood a large number of photographs. When the flame danced into life, its reflection wavered on their dusty glass and silver. He saw a few tiny movements from the pictures. As Batilda fumbled with logs for the fire, he muttered, Turgio! The dust vanished from the photographs, and he saw at once that half a dozen were missing from the largest and most ornate frames. He wondered whether Batilda or somebody else had removed them. Then the sight of a photograph near the back of the collection caught his eye, and he snatched it up. It was the golden-haired, merry-faced thief, the young man who had perched on Grigorovich's windowsill, smiling lazily up at Harry out of the silver frame. And it came to Harry instantly where he had seen the boy before, in The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore, arm in arm with the teenage Dumbledore, and that must be where all the missing photographs were, in Rita's book. Mrs. Miss Bagshaw, he said, and his voice shook slightly. Who is this? Batilda was standing in the middle of the room, watching Hermione light the fire for her. Miss Bagshaw, Harry repeated, and he advanced with the picture in his hands as the flames burst into life in the fireplace. Batilda looked up at his voice, and the horcrux beat faster upon his chest. Who is this person? Harry asked her, pushing the picture forward. She peered at it solemnly, then up at Harry. Do you know who this is? he repeated in a much slower and louder voice than usual. This man? Do you know him? What's he called? Batilda merely looked vague. Harry felt an awful frustration. How had Rita Skeeter unlocked Batilda's memories? Who is this man? he repeated loudly. Harry, what are you doing? asked Hermione. This picture, Hermione, is the thief. The thief who stole from Grigorovich. Please, he said to Batilda. Who is this? But she only stared at him. Why did you ask us to come with you, Mrs. Miss Bagshot? Asked Hermione, raising her own voice. Was there something you wanted to tell us? Giving no sign that she had heard Hermione, Batilda now shuffled a few steps closer to Harry. With a little jerk of her head, she looked back into the hall. You want us to leave? He asked. She repeated the gesture this time pointing firstly at him, then at herself, then at the ceiling. Oh, right. Hermione, I think she wants me to go upstairs with her. All right, said Hermione. Let's go. But when Hermione moved, Batilda shook her head with surprising vigor, once more pointing first at Harry, then to herself. She wants me to go with her alone. Why? asked Hermione, and her voice rang out sharp and clear in the candlelit room. 
The old lady shook her head a little at the loud noise. Maybe Dumbledore told her to give the sword to me, and only to me. Do you really think she knows who you are? Yes, said Harry, looking down into the milky eyes fixed upon his own. Oh, I think she does. Well, okay then, but be quick, Harry. Lead the way, Harry told Batilda. She seemed to understand, because she shuffled around him toward the door. Harry glanced back at Hermione with a reassuring smile, but he was not sure she had seen it. She stood hugging herself in the midst of the candle-lit squalor, looking toward the bookcase. As Harry walked out of the room, unseen by both Hermione and Batilda, he slipped the silver-framed photograph of the unknown thief inside his jacket. The stairs were steep and narrow. Harry was half-tempted to place his hands on stout Batilda's backside to ensure that she did not topple over backward on top of him, which seemed only too likely. Slowly, wheezing a little, she climbed to the upper landing, turned immediately right, and led him into a low-ceilinged bedroom. It was pitch black and smelled horrible. Harry had just made out a chamber pot protruding from under the bed before Batilda closed the door, and even that was swallowed by the darkness. Lumos, said Harry, and his wand ignited. He gave a start. Batilda had moved close to him in those few seconds of darkness, and he had not heard her approach. You are Potter, she whispered. Yes, I am. She nodded slowly, solemnly. Harry felt the Horcrux beating fast, faster than his own heart. It was an unpleasant, agitating sensation. Have you got anything for me? Harry asked, but she seemed distracted by his lit one tip. Have you got anything for me? He repeated. Then she closed her eyes and several things happened at once. Harry's scar prickled painfully. The horcrux twitched so that the front of his sweater actually moved. The dark, fetid room dissolved momentarily. He felt a leap of joy and spoke in a high, cold voice. Hold him! Harry swayed where he stood. The dark, foul-smelling room seemed to close around him again. He did not know what had just happened. Have you got anything for me? He asked for a third time, much louder. Over here, she whispered, pointing to the corner. Harry raised his wand and saw the outline of a cluttered dressing table beneath the curtained window. This time she did not lead him. Harry edged between her and the unmade bed, his wand raised. He did not want to look away from her. What is it? he asked as he reached the dressing table, which was heaped high with what looked and smelled like dirty laundry. <sighs> she said, pointing at the shapeless mass. And in the instant that he looked away, his eyes raking the tangled mess for a sword hilt, a ruby, she moved weirdly. He saw it out of the corner of his eye. Panic made him turn, and horror paralyzed him as he saw the old body collapsing, and the great snake pouring from the place where her neck had been. The snake struck as he raised his wand. The force of the bite to his forearm sent the wand spinning up toward the ceiling. Its light swung dizzyingly around the room and was extinguished. Then a powerful blow from the tail to his midriff knocked the breath out of him. He fell backward onto the dressing table, into the mound of filthy clothing. He rolled sideways, narrowly avoiding the snake's tail, which thrashed down upon the table where he had been a second earlier. 
Fragments of the glass surface rained upon him as he hit the floor. From below, he heard Hermione call, Hurry! He could not get enough breath into his lungs to call back. Then a heavy, smooth mass smashed him to the floor, and he felt it slide over him, powerful, muscular. No! He gasped, pinned to the floor. Yes, whispered the voice. Yes, hold you, hold you. Athiel, Athiel Wand! But nothing happened and he kneaded his hands to try to force the snake from him as it coiled itself around his torso, squeezing the air from him, pressing the horcrux hard into his chest, a circle of ice that throbbed with life inches from his own frantic heart, and his brain was flooding with cold white light, all thought obliterated, his own breath drowned, distant footsteps, everything going. A metal heart was banging outside his chest, and now he was flying, flying with triumph in his heart, without need of broomstick or thestral. He was abruptly awake in the sour-smelling darkness. Nagini had released him. He scrambled up and saw the snake outlined against the landing light. It struck, and Hermione dived aside with a shriek. Her deflected curse hit the curtained window, which shattered. Frozen air filled the room as Harry ducked to avoid another shower of broken glass, and his foot slipped on a pencil-like something. His wand. He bent and snatched it up, but now the room was full of the snake, its tail thrashing. Hermione was nowhere to be seen, and for a moment Harry thought the worst. But then there was a loud bang and a flash of red light, and the snake flew into the air, smacking Harry hard in the face as it went, coil after heavy coil rising up to the ceiling. Harry raised his wand, but as he did so, his scar seared more painfully, more powerfully than it had done in years. He's coming! Hermione! He's coming! As he yelled, the snake fell, hissing wildly. Everything was chaos. It smashed shelves from the wall, and splintered china flew everywhere as Harry jumped over the bed and seized the dark shape he knew to be Hermione. She shrieked with pain as he pulled her back across the bed. The snake reared again, but Harry knew that worse than the snake was coming, was perhaps already at the gate. His head was going to split open with the pain from his scar. The snake lunged as he took a running leap, dragging Hermione with him. As it struck, Hermione screamed, Confringle! And her spell flew around the room, exploding the wardrobe mirror and ricocheting back at them, bouncing from floor to ceiling. Harry felt the heat of it sear the back of his hand. Glass cut his cheek as... Pulling Hermione with him, he leapt from bed to broken dressing table and then straight out of the smashed window into nothingness, her scream reverberating through the night as they twisted in midair. And then his scar burst open, and he was Voldemort, and he was running across the fetid bedroom, his long white hands clutching at the windowsill as he glimpsed the bald man and the little woman twist and vanish, and he screamed with rage, a scream that mingled with the girls, that echoed across the dark gardens over the church bells ringing in Christmas Day. And his scream was Harry's scream. His pain was Harry's pain. That it could happen here, where it had happened before, here, within sight of that house where he had come so close to knowing what it was to die. To die. The pain was so terrible, ripped from his body. But if he had no body, why did his head hurt so badly? If he was dead... How could he feel so unbearably? 
Didn't pain cease with death? Didn't it go? The night, wet and windy, two children dressed as pumpkins waddling across the square, and the shop windows covered in paper spiders, all the tawdry muggle trappings of a world in which they did not believe. And he was gliding along, that sense of purpose and power and rightness in him that he always knew on these occasions. Not anger, that was for weaker souls than he, but triumph. Yes, he had waited for this, he had hoped for it. Nice costume, mister. He saw the small boy's smile falter as he ran near enough to see beneath the hood of the cloak, saw the fear cloud his painted face. Then the child turned and ran away. Beneath the robe he fingered the handle of his wand. One simple movement and the child would never reach his mother. But unnecessary, quite unnecessary. And along a new and darker street he moved, and now his destination was in sight at last, the Fidelius charm broken, though they did not know it yet, and he made less noise than the dead leaves slithering along the pavement as he drew level with the dark hedge and stared over it. They had not drawn the curtains. He saw them quite clearly in their little sitting-room, the tall, black-haired man in his glasses making puffs of coloured smoke erupt from his wand for the amusement of the small, black-haired boy in his blue pyjamas. The child was laughing and trying to catch the smoke, to grab it in his small fist. A door opened and the mother entered, saying words he could not hear, her long, dark red hair falling over her face. Now the father scooped up the son and handed him to the mother. He threw his wand down upon the sofa and stretched, yawning. The gate creaked a little as he pushed it open, but James Potter did not hear. His white hand pulled out the wand beneath his cloak and pointed it at the door, which burst open. He was over the threshold as James came sprinting into the hall. It was easy, too easy. He had not even picked up his wand. Lily, take Harry and go. It's him. Go, run. I'll hold him off. Hold him off without a wand in his hand. He laughed before casting the curse. Havada Kadavra! The green light filled the cramped hallway. It lit the pram pushed against the wall. It made the banisters glare like lightning rods, and James Potter fell like a marionette whose strings were cut. He could hear her screaming from the upper floor, trapped, but as long as she was sensible, she, at least, had nothing to fear. He climbed the steps, listening with faint amusement to her attempts to barricade herself in. She had no wand upon her either. How stupid they were, and how trusting, thinking that their safety lay in friends, that weapons could be discarded even for moments. He forced the door open, cast aside the chair and boxes hastily piled against it with one lazy wave of his wand, and there she stood, the child in her arms. At the sight of him, she dropped her son into the crib behind her and threw her arms wide, as if this would help, as if in shielding him from sight, she hoped to be chosen instead. Not Harry, not Harry, please, not Harry. Stand aside, you silly girl, stand aside now. Not Harry, please no, take me, kill me instead. This is my last warning. Not Harry, please, have mercy, have mercy, not Harry. 
Not Harry, please. I'll do anything. Stand aside. Stand aside, girl. He could have forced her away from the crib, but it seemed more prudent to finish them all. The green light flashed around the room, and she dropped like her husband. The child had not cried all this time. He could stand, clutching the bars of his crib, and he looked up into the intruder's face with a kind of bright interest, perhaps thinking that it was his father who hid beneath the cloak, making more pretty lights, and his mother would pop up any moment, laughing. He pointed the wand very carefully into the boy's face. He wanted to see it happen, the destruction of this one inexplicable danger. The child began to cry. It had seen that he was not James. He did not like it crying. He had never been able to stomach the small ones whining in the orphanage. Havana, Cadavra. And then he broke. He was nothing, nothing but pain and terror. And he must hide himself. Not here in the rubble of the ruined house where the child was trapped and screaming, but far away, far away. No, he moaned. The snake rustled on the filthy, cluttered floor, and he had killed the boy. And yet he was the boy. No. And now he stood at the broken window of Batilda's house, immersed in memories of his greatest loss. And at his feet, the great snake slithered over broken china and glass. He looked down and saw something, something incredible. No! Harry, it's all right. You're all right. He stooped down and picked up the smashed photograph. There he was, the unknown thief, the thief he was seeking. No, I chopped it. I chopped it. Harry, it's okay. Wake up. Wake up. He was Harry. Harry, not Voldemort. And the thing that was rustling was not a snake. He opened his eyes. Harry, Hermione whispered. Do you feel all, all right? Yes, he lied. He was in the tent, lying on one of the lower bunks beneath a heap of blankets. He could tell that it was almost dawn by the stillness and the quality of the cold, flat light beyond the canvas ceiling. He was drenched in sweat. He could feel it on the sheets and blankets. We got away. Yes, said Hermione. I had to use a hover charm to get you into your bunk. I couldn't lift you. You've been... Well, you haven't been quite... There were purple shadows under her brown eyes, and he noticed a small sponge in her hand. She had been wiping his face. You've been ill, she finished. Quite ill. How long ago did we leave? Hours ago. It's nearly morning. And I've been, what, unconscious? Not exactly, said Hermione uncomfortably. You've been shouting and moaning and things, she added in a tone that made Harry feel uneasy. What had he done? Screamed curses like Voldemort? Cried like the baby in the crib? I couldn't get the horcrux off you, Hermione said, and he knew she wanted to change the subject. It was stuck, stuck to your chest. You've got a mark. I'm sorry. I had to use a severing charm to get it away. The snake bit you too, but I cleaned the wound and put some dittany on it. He pulled the sweaty T-shirt he was wearing away from himself and looked down. There was a scarlet oval over his heart where the locket had burned him. He could also see the half-healed puncture marks to his forearm. Where have you put the horcrux? In my bag, 
I think we should keep it off for a while. He lay back on his pillows and looked into her pinched grey face. We shouldn't have gone to Godric's Hollow. It's my fault. It's all my fault, Hermione. I'm sorry. It's not your fault. I wanted to go too. I really thought Dumbledore might have left the sword there for you. Yeah. Well, we got that wrong, didn't we? What happened, Harry? What happened when she took you upstairs? Was the snake hiding somewhere? Did it just come out and kill her and attack you? No, he said. She was the snake, or the snake was her, all along. W what? He closed his eyes. He could still smell Batilda's house on him. It made the whole thing horribly vivid. Batilda must have been dead a while. The snake was, was inside her. You know who put it there in Godric's Hollow to wait. You were right. He knew I'd go back. The snake was inside her? He opened his eyes again. Hermione looked revolted, nauseated. Lupin said there would be magic we'd never imagined, Harry said. She didn't want to talk in front of you because it was parcel tongue, all parcel tongue, and I didn't realize, but of course, I could understand her. Once we were up in the room, the snake sent a message to you-know-who. I heard it happen inside my head. I felt him get excited. He said to keep me there. And then... He remembered the snake coming out of Batilda's neck. Hermione did not need to know the details. She changed. Changed into the snake and attacked. He looked down at the puncture marks. It wasn't supposed to kill me. Just keep me there till you know who came. If he had only managed to kill the snake, it would have been worth it, all of it. Sick at heart, he sat up and threw back the covers. Harry, no, I'm sure you ought to rest. You're the one who needs sleep. No offense, but you look terrible. I'm fine. I'll keep watch for a while. Where's my wand? She did not answer. She merely looked at him. Where's my wand, Hermione? She was biting her lip, and tears swam in her eyes. Harry, where's my wand? She reached down beside the bed and held it out to him. The holly and phoenix wand was nearly severed in two. One fragile strand of phoenix feather kept both pieces hanging together. The wood had splintered apart completely. Harry took it into his hands as though it was a living thing that had suffered a terrible injury. He could not think properly. Everything was a blur of panic and fear. Then he held out the wand to Hermione. Mend it. Please. Harry, I don't think when it's broken like this. Please, Hermione, try. The... the barrel. The dangling half of the wand resealed itself. Harry held it up. Lumos! The wand sparked feebly, then went out. Harry pointed it at Hermione. Expelliarmus! Hermione's wand gave a little jerk but did not leave her hand. The feeble attempt at magic was too much for Harry's wand, which split into two again. He stared at it, aghast, unable to take in what he was seeing. The wand that had survived so much. Harry, Hermione whispered so quietly he could hardly hear her. I'm so, so sorry. I think it was me. As we were leaving, you know, the snake was coming for us, and so I cast a blasting curse and it rebounded everywhere, and it must have, must have hit. It was an accident, said Harry mechanically. He felt empty, stunned. We'll, we'll find a way to repair it. Harry, I don't think we're going to be able to. 
said Hermione, the tears trickling down her face. Remember? Remember Ron? When he broke his wand, crashing the car? It was never the same again. He had to get a new one. Harry thought of Ollivander, kidnapped and held hostage by Voldemort, of Gregorovich, who was dead. How was he supposed to find himself a new wand? Well, he said, in a falsely matter-of-fact voice, well, I'll just borrow yours for now, then, while I keep watch. Her face glazed with tears. Hermione handed over her wand, and he left her sitting beside his bed, desiring nothing more than to get away from her. Chapter 18 The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore The sun was coming up. The pure, colorless vastness of the sky stretched over him, indifferent to him and his suffering. Harry sat down in the tent entrance and took a deep breath of clean air. Simply to be alive, to watch the sun rise over the sparkling snowy hillside, ought to have been the greatest treasure on earth. Yet he could not appreciate it. His senses had been spiked by the calamity of losing his wand. He looked out over a valley blanketed in snow, distant church bells chiming through the glittering silence. Without realizing it, he was digging his fingers into his arms as if he were trying to resist physical pain. He had spilled his own blood more times than he could count. He had lost all the bones in his right arm once. This journey had already given him scars to his chest and forearm to join those on his hand and forehead, but never until this moment had he felt himself to be fatally weakened, vulnerable and naked, as though the best part of his magical power had been torn from him. He knew exactly what Hermione would say if he expressed any of this. The wand is only as good as the wizard. But she was wrong. His case was different. She had not felt the wand spin like the needle of a compass and shoot golden flames at his enemy. He had lost the protection of the twin cause, and only now that it was gone did he realize how much he had been counting upon it. He pulled the pieces of the broken wand out of his pocket and, without looking at them, tucked them away in Hagrid's pouch around his neck. The pouch was now too full of broken and useless objects to take any more. Harry's hand brushed the old snitch through the mokeskin, and for a moment he had to fight the temptation to pull it out and throw it away. Impenetrable, unhelpful, useless, like everything else Dumbledore had left behind. And his fury at Dumbledore broke over him now like lava, scorching him inside, wiping out every other feeling. Out of sheer desperation, they had talked themselves into believing that Godric's Hollow held answers, convinced themselves that they were supposed to go back, that it was all part of some secret path laid out for them by Dumbledore. But there was no map, no plan. Dumbledore had left them to grope in the darkness, to wrestle with unknown and undreamed-of terrors, alone and unaided. Nothing was explained, nothing was given freely. They had no sword, and now Harry had no wand, and he had dropped the photograph of the thief, and it would surely be easy now for Voldemort to find out who he was. Voldemort had all the information now. Harry? Hermione looked frightened that he might curse her with her own wand. Her face streaked with tears. She crouched down beside him, two cups of tea trembling in her hands, and something bulky under her arm. Thanks he said, taking one of the cups. Do you mind if I talk to you? No, he said, because he did not want to hurt her feelings. Harry, you wanted to know who that man in the picture was. Well, 
I've got the book. Timidly, she pushed it onto his lap, a pristine copy of The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore. Where? How? It was in Batilda's sitting room, just lying there. This note was sticking out of the top of it. Hermione read the few lines of spiky, acid-green writing aloud. Dear Batty, thanks for your help. Here's a copy of the book. Hope you like it. You said everything, even if you don't remember it. Rita. I think it must have arrived while the real Batilda was alive, but perhaps she wasn't in any fit state to read it. No, she probably wasn't. Harry looked down upon Dumbledore's face and experienced a surge of savage pleasure. Now he would know all the things that Dumbledore had never thought it worth telling him, whether Dumbledore wanted him to or not. You're still really angry at me, aren't you? said Hermione. He looked up to see fresh tears leaking out of her eyes, and knew that his anger must have shown in his face. No, he said quietly. No, Hermione, I know it was an accident. You were trying to get us out of there alive, and you were incredible. I'd be dead if you hadn't been there to help me. He tried to return her watery smile, then turned his attention to the book. Its spine was stiff. It had clearly never been opened before. He riffled through the pages, looking for photographs. He came across the one he sought almost at once, the young Dumbledore and his handsome companion, roaring with laughter at some long-forgotten joke. Harry dropped his eyes to the caption. Albus Dumbledore, shortly after his mother's death, with his friend Galette Grindelwald. Harry gaped at the last word for several long moments. Grindelwald, his friend Grindelwald. He looked sideways at Hermione, who was still contemplating the name as though she could not believe her eyes. Slowly, she looked up at Harry. Grindelwald! Ignoring the remainder of the photographs, Harry searched the pages around them for a recurrence of that fatal name. He soon discovered it and read greedily, but became lost. It was necessary to go further back to make sense of it all, and eventually he found himself at the start of a chapter entitled The Greater Good. Together, he and Hermione started to read. Now approaching his eighteenth birthday, Dumbledore left Hogwarts in a blaze of glory. Head boy, prefect, winner of the Barnabas Finkley Prize for Exceptional Spellcasting, British Youth Representative to the Wizengamot, gold medal winner for groundbreaking contribution to the International Alchemical Conference in Cairo. Dumbledore intended, next, to take a grand tour with Elpheus Dogbreath Doge, the dim-witted but devoted sidekick he had picked up at school. The two young men were staying at the Leaky Cauldron in London, preparing to depart for Greece the following morning, when an owl arrived, bearing news of Dumbledore's mother's death. Dogbreath Doge, who refused to be interviewed for this book, has given the public his own sentimental version of what happened next. He represents Kendra's death as a tragic blow, and Dumbledore's decision to give up his expedition as an act of noble self-sacrifice. Certainly Dumbledore returned to Godric's Hollow at once, supposedly to care for his younger brother and sister. But how much care did he actually give them? He were a headcase, that Aberforth, says Enid Smeek, whose family lived on the outskirts of Godric's Hollow at that time. Ran wild. Of course, with his mum and dad gone, you'd have felt sorry for him. Only he kept chucking goat dung at my head. I don't think Albus was fussed about him. I never saw them together anyway. So what was Albus doing, if not comforting his wild young brother? 
The answer, it seems, is ensuring the continued imprisonment of his sister. For, though her first jailer had died, there was no change in the pitiful condition of Ariana Dumbledore. Her very existence continued to be known only to those few outsiders who, like Dogbreath Doge, could be counted upon to believe in the story of her ill health. Another such easily satisfied friend of the family was Batilda Bagshot, the celebrated magical historian who has lived in Godric's Hollow for many years. Kendra, of course, had rebuffed Batilda when she first attempted to welcome the family to the village. Several years later, however, the author sent an owl to Albus at Hogwarts, having been favorably impressed by his paper on transspecies transformation in Transfiguration Today. This initial contact led to acquaintance with the entire Dumbledore family. At the time of Kendra's death, Batilda was the only person in Godric's Hollow who was on speaking terms with Dumbledore's mother. Unfortunately, the brilliance that Batilda exhibited earlier in her life has now dimmed. The fire's lit, but the cauldron's empty, as Ivor Dillonsby put it to me, or, in Enid's meek, slightly earthier phrase, she's nutty as squirrel-poo. Nevertheless, a combination of tried-and-tested reporting techniques enabled me to extract enough nuggets of hard fact to string together the whole scandalous story. Like the rest of the wizarding world, Batilda puts Kendra's premature death down to a backfiring charm, a story repeated by Albus and Aberforth in later years. Batilda also parrots the family line on Ariana, calling her frail and delicate. On one subject, however, Batilda is well worth the effort I put into procuring Veritas Serum, for she, and she alone, knows the full story of the best-kept secret of Albus Dumbledore's life. Now revealed for the first time, it calls into question everything that his admirers believed of Dumbledore. His supposed hatred of the dark arts, his opposition to the oppression of muggles, even his devotion to his own family. The very same summer that Dumbledore went home to Godric's Hollow, now an orphan and head of the family, Batilda Bagshot agreed to accept into her home her great-nephew, Gellert Grindelwald. The name of Grindelwald is justly famous. In a list of most dangerous dark wizards of all time, he would miss out on the top spot only because you-know-who arrived a generation later to steal his crown. As Grindelwald never extended his campaign of terror to Britain, however, the details of his rise to power are not widely known here. Educated at Durmstrang, a school famous even then for its unfortunate tolerance of the dark arts, Grindelwald showed himself quite as precociously brilliant as Dumbledore. Rather than channel his abilities into the attainment of awards and prizes, however, Gellert Grindelwald devoted himself to other pursuits. At sixteen years old, even Durmstrang felt it could no longer turn a blind eye to the twisted experiments of Gellert Grindelwald, and he was expelled. Hitherto, all that has been known of Grindelwald's next movements is that he travelled abroad for some months. It can now be revealed that Grindelwald chose to visit his great-aunt in Godric's Hollow, and that there, intensely shocking though it will be for many to hear it, he struck up a close friendship with none other than Albus Dumbledore. He seemed a charming boy to me, babbles Batilda, whatever he became later. Naturally, I introduced him to poor Albus, who was missing the company of lads his own age. The boys took to each other at once. They certainly did. 
Batilda shows me a letter, kept by her, that Albus Dumbledore sent Gellert Grindelwald in the dead of night. Yes, even after they'd spent all day in discussion, both such brilliant young boys they got on like a cauldron on fire, I'd sometimes hear an owl tapping at Gellert's bedroom window, delivering a letter from Albus. An idea would have struck him, and he had to let Gellert know immediately. And what ideas they were. Profoundly shocking, though Albus Dumbledore's fans will find it. Here are the thoughts of their seventeen-year-old hero, as relayed to his new best friend. A copy of the original letter may be seen on page 463. Gellert, your point about wizard dominance being for the muggle's own good, this, I think, is the crucial point. Yes, we have been given power, and yes, that power gives us the right to rule, but it also gives us responsibilities over the ruled. We must stress this point. It will be the foundation stone upon which we build. Where we are opposed, as we surely will be, this must be the basis of all our counter-arguments. We seize control for the greater good, and from this it follows that where we meet resistance, we must use only the force that is necessary, and no more. This was your mistake at Durmstrang, but I do not complain, because if you had not been expelled, we would never have met. Albus Astonished and appalled though his many admirers will be, this letter constitutes proof that Albus Dumbledore once dreamed of overthrowing the statute of secrecy and establishing wizard rule over muggles. What a blow for those who have always portrayed Dumbledore as the muggle-born's greatest champion. How hollow those speeches promoting muggle rights seem in the light of this damning new evidence. How despicable does Albus Dumbledore appear, busy plotting his rise to power, when he should have been mourning his mother and caring for his sister. No doubt those determined to keep Dumbledore on his crumbling pedestal will bleat that he did not, after all, put his plans into action that he must have suffered a change of heart, that he came to his senses. However, the truth seems altogether more shocking. Barely two months into their great new friendship, Dumbledore and Grindelwald parted, never to see each other again until they met for their legendary duel. For more, see Chapter 22. What caused this abrupt rupture? Had Dumbledore come to his senses? Had he told Grindelwald he wanted no more part in his plans? Alas, no. It was poor little Ariana dying, I think, that did it, says Batilda. It came as an awful shock. Gellert was there in the house when it happened, and he came back to my house all of a dither, told me he wanted to go home the next day. Terribly distressed, you know. So I arranged a port key, and that was the last I saw of him. Albus was beside himself at Ariana's death. It was so dreadful for those two brothers. They had lost everybody except each other. No wonder tempers ran a little high. Aberforth blamed Albus, you know, as people will under these dreadful circumstances. But Aberforth always talked a little madly, poor boy. All the same, breaking Albus's nose at the funeral was not decent. It would have destroyed Kendra to see her sons fighting like that across her daughter's body. A shame Gellert could not have stayed for the funeral. He would have been a comfort to Albus, at least. This dreadful coffin-side brawl known only to those few who attended Ariana Dumbledore's funeral, raises several questions. Why exactly did Aberforth Dumbledore blame Albus for his sister's death? Was it, as Batty pretends, a mere effusion of grief? Or could there have been some more concrete reason for his fury? 
Grindelwald, expelled from Durmstrang for near-fatal attacks upon fellow students, fled the country hours after the girl's death, and Albus, out of shame or fear, never saw him again, not until forced to do so by the pleas of the wizarding world. Neither Dumbledore nor Grindelwald ever seems to have referred to this brief boyhood friendship in later life. However, there can be no doubt that Dumbledore delayed, for some five years of turmoil, fatalities and disappearances, his attack upon Gellert Grindelwald. Was it lingering affection for the man, or fear of exposure as his once best friend that caused Dumbledore to hesitate? Was it only reluctantly that Dumbledore set out to capture the man he was once so delighted he had met? And how did the mysterious Ariana die? Was she the inadvertent victim of some dark rite? Did she stumble across something she ought not to have done, as the two young men sat practicing for their attempt at glory and domination? Is it possible that Ariana Dumbledore was the first person to die for the greater good? The chapter ended here, and Harry looked up. Hermione had reached the bottom of the page before him. She tugged the book out of Harry's hands, looking a little alarmed by his expression, and closed it without looking at it, as though hiding something indecent. Harry! But he shook his head. Some inner certainty had crashed down inside him. It was exactly as he had felt after Ron left. He had trusted Dumbledore, believed him the embodiment of goodness and wisdom. All was ashes. How much more could he lose? Ron? Dumbledore? The Phoenix Wand? Harry? She seemed to have heard his thoughts. Listen to me. It, it doesn't make very nice reading. Yeah, you could say that. But don't forget, Harry, this is Rita Skeeter writing. You did read that letter to Grindelwald, didn't you? Yes, I, I did. She hesitated, looking upset, cradling her tea in her cold hands. I think that's the worst bit. I know Batilda thought it was all just talk, but for the greater good became Grindelwald's slogan, his justification for all the atrocities he committed later, and from that it looks like Dumbledore gave him the idea. They say for the greater good was even carved over the entrance to Nurmengard. What's Nurmengard? The prison Grindelwald had built to hold his opponents. He ended up in there himself once Dumbledore had caught him. Anyway, it's... It's an awful thought that Dumbledore's ideas helped Grindelwald rise to power. But on the other hand, even Rita can't pretend that they knew each other for more than a few months one summer when they were both really young. And I thought you'd say that, said Harry. He did not want to let his anger spill out at her, but it was hard to keep his voice steady. I thought you'd say they were young. They were the same age as we are now. And here we are, risking our lives to fight the dark arts, and there he was, in a huddle with his new best friend, plotting their rise to power over the muggles. His temper would not remain in check much longer. He stood up and walked around, trying to work some of it off. I'm not trying to defend what Dumbledore wrote, said Hermione. All that right to rule rubbish, it's magic is might all over again. But Harry, his mother had just died. He was stuck alone in the house. Alone? He wasn't alone. He had his brother and sister for company, his squib sister he was keeping locked up. I don't believe it, said Hermione. She stood up too. Whatever was wrong with that girl, I don't think she was a squib. 
The Dumbledore we knew would never, ever have allowed. The Dumbledore we thought we knew didn't want to conquer muggles by force, Harry shouted, his voice echoing across the empty hilltop, and several blackbirds rose into the air, squawking and spiraling against the pearly sky. He changed, Harry, he changed. It's as simple as that. Maybe he did believe these things when he was seventeen, but the whole of the rest of his life was devoted to fighting the dark arts. Dumbledore was the one who stopped Grindelwald, the one who always voted for muggle protection and muggle-born rights, who fought you-know-who from the start, and who died trying to bring him down. Rita's book lay on the ground between them, so that the face of Albus Dumbledore smiled dolefully at both. Harry, I'm sorry, but I think the real reason you're so angry is that Dumbledore never told you any of this himself. Maybe I am. Harry bellowed, and he flung his arms over his head, hardly knowing whether he was trying to hold in his anger or protect himself from the weight of his own disillusionment. Look what he asked from me, Hermione. Risk your life, Harry, and again, and again, and don't expect me to explain everything. Just trust me blindly. Trust that I know what I'm doing. Trust me even though I don't trust you. Never the whole truth. Never. His voice cracked with the strain and they stood looking at each other in the whiteness and the emptiness, and Harry felt they were as insignificant as insects beneath that wide sky. He loved you, Hermione whispered. I know he loved you. Harry dropped his arms. I don't know who he loved, Hermione, but it was never me. This isn't love, the mess he's left me in. He shared a damn sight more of what he was really thinking with Gellert Grindelwald than he ever shared with me. Harry picked up Hermione's wand, which he had dropped in the snow, and sat back down in the entrance of the tent. Thanks for the tea. I'll finish the watch. You get back in the warm. She hesitated, but recognized the dismissal. She picked up the book and then walked back past him into the tent. But as she did so, she brushed the top of his head lightly with her hand. He closed his eyes at her touch and hated himself for wishing that what she said was true, that Dumbledore had really cared. Chapter 19 The Silver Doe It was snowing by the time Hermione took over the watch at midnight. Harry's dreams were confused and disturbing. Nagini wove in and out of them, first through a gigantic cracked ring, then through a wreath of Christmas roses. He woke repeatedly, panicky, convinced that somebody had called out to him in the distance, imagining that the wind whipping around the tent was footsteps or voices. Finally, he got up in the darkness and joined Hermione, who was huddled in the entrance to the tent reading A History of Magic by the light of her wand. The snow was still falling thickly, and she greeted with relief his suggestion of packing up early and moving on. We'll go somewhere more sheltered she agreed, shivering as she pulled on a sweatshirt over her pajamas. I kept thinking I could hear people moving outside. I even thought I saw somebody once or twice. Harry paused in the act of pulling on a jumper and glanced at the silent, motionless sneakerscope on the table. I'm sure I imagined it, said Hermione, looking nervous. The snow in the dark, it plays tricks on your eyes. But perhaps we ought to disapparate under the invisibility cloak just in case. Half an hour later, with the tent packed, Harry wearing the horcrux and Hermione clutching the beaded bag, they disapparated. The usual tightness engulfed them. 
Harry's feet parted company with the snowy ground, then slammed hard onto what felt like frozen earth covered with leaves. Where are we? he asked, peering around at a fresh mass of trees, as Hermione opened the beaded bag and began tugging out tent poles. The Forest of Dean, she said. I came camping here once with my mum and dad. Here, too, snow lay on the trees all around, and it was bitterly cold. But they were at least protected from the wind. They spent most of the day inside the tent, huddled for warmth, around the useful bright blue flames that Hermione was so adept at producing, and which could be scooped up and carried around in a jar. Harry felt as though he was recuperating from some brief but severe illness, an impression reinforced by Hermione's solicitousness. That afternoon, fresh flakes drifted down upon them, so that even their sheltered clearing had a fresh dusting of powdery snow. After two nights of little sleep, Harry's senses seemed more alert than usual. Their escape from Godric's Hollow had been so narrow that Voldemort seemed somehow closer than before, more threatening. As darkness drew in again, Harry refused Hermione's offer to keep watch and told her to go to bed. Harry moved an old cushion into the tent mouth and sat down, wearing all the sweaters he owned, but even so, still shivery. The darkness deepened with the passing hours until it was virtually impenetrable. He was on the point of taking out the Marauder's Map so as to watch Ginny's dot for a while before he remembered that it was the Christmas holidays and that she would be back at the burrow. Every tiny movement seemed magnified in the vastness of the forest. Harry knew that it must be full of living creatures, but he wished they would all remain still and silent so that he could separate their innocent scurryings and prowlings from noises that might proclaim other sinister movements. He remembered the sound of a cloak slithering over dead leaves many years ago, and at once thought he heard it again before mentally shaking himself. Their protective enchantments had worked for weeks. Why should they break now? And yet he could not throw off the feeling that something was different tonight. Several times he jerked upright, his neck aching because he had fallen asleep, slumped at an awkward angle against the side of the tent. The night reached such a depth of velvety blackness that he might have been suspended in limbo between disapparation and apparition. He had just held up a hand in front of his face to see whether he could make out his fingers when it happened. A bright silver light appeared right ahead of him, moving through the trees. Whatever the source, it was moving soundlessly. The light seemed simply to drift toward him. He jumped to his feet, his voice frozen in his throat, and raised Hermione's wand. He screwed up his eyes as the light became blinding, the trees in front of it pitch black in silhouette, and still the thing came closer. And then the source of the light stepped out from behind an oak. It was a silver-white doe, moon-bright and dazzling, picking her way over the ground, still silent, and leaving no hoofprints in the fine powdering of snow. She stepped toward him, her beautiful head with its wide, long-lashed eyes held high. Harry stared at the creature, filled with wonder, not at her strangeness, but at her inexplicable familiarity. He felt that he had been waiting for her to come, but that he had forgotten until this moment that they had arranged to meet. His impulse to shout for Hermione, which had been so strong a moment ago, had gone. He knew he would have staked his life on it that she had come for him, and him alone. 
They gazed at each other for several long moments, and then she turned and walked away. No, he said, and his voice was cracked with lack of use. Come back. She continued to step deliberately through the trees, and soon her brightness was striped by their thick black trunks. For one trembling second he hesitated. Caution murmured it could be a trick, a lure, a trap. But instinct, overwhelming instinct, told him that this was not dark magic. He set off in pursuit. Snow crunched beneath his feet, but the doe made no noise as she passed through the trees, for she was nothing but light. Deeper and deeper into the forest she led him, and Harry walked quickly, sure that when she stopped she would allow him to approach her properly, and then she would speak, and the voice would tell him what he needed to know. At last she came to a halt. She turned her beautiful head toward him once more, and he broke into a run, a question burning in him. But as he opened his lips to ask it, she vanished. Though the darkness has swallowed her whole, her burnished image was still imprinted on his retinas. It obscured his vision, brightening when he lowered his eyelids, disorienting him. Now fear came. Her presence had meant safety. Lumos, he whispered, and the wand tip ignited. The imprint of the doe faded away with every blink of his eyes as he stood there, listening to the sounds of the forest, to distant crackles of twigs, soft swishes of snow. Was he about to be attacked? Had she enticed him into an ambush? Was he imagining that somebody stood beyond the reach of the wand light, watching him? He held the wand higher. Nobody ran out at him. No flash of green light burst from behind a tree. Why, then, had she led him to this spot? Something gleamed in the light of the wand, and Harry spun about. But all that was there was a small, frozen pool, its cracked, black surface glittering as he raised the wand higher to examine it. He moved forward, rather cautiously, and looked down. The ice reflected his distorted shadow and the beam of wand light, but deep below the thick, misty grey carapace, something else glinted. A great silver cross. His heart skipped into his mouth. He dropped to his knees at the pool's edge and angled the wand so as to flood the bottom of the pool with as much light as possible. A glint of deep red. It was a sword with glittering rubies in its hilt. The sword of Gryffindor was lying at the bottom of the forest pool. Barely breathing, he stared down at it. How was this possible? How could it have come to be lying in a forest pool, this close to the place where they were camping? Had some unknown magic drawn Hermione to this spot, or was the doe, which he had taken to be a Patronus, some kind of guardian of the pool? Or had the sword been put into the pool after they had arrived, precisely because they were here? In which case, where was the person who had wanted to pass it to Harry? Again, he directed the wand at the surrounding trees and bushes, searching for a human outline, for the glint of an eye. But he could not see anyone there. All the same, a little more fear leavened his exhilaration as he returned his attention to the sword reposing upon the bottom of the frozen pool. He pointed the wand at the silvery shape and murmured, Asio sword! It did not stir. He had not expected it to. If it had been that easy, the sword would have lain on the ground for him to pick up, not in the depths of a frozen pool. 
He set off around the circle of ice, thinking hard about the last time the sword had delivered itself to him. He had been in terrible danger then, and had asked for help. Help, he murmured, but the sword remained upon the pool bottom, indifferent, motionless. What was it? Harry asked himself, walking again, that Dumbledore had told him the last time he had retrieved the sword. Only a true Gryffindor could have pulled that out of the hat. And what were the qualities that defined a Gryffindor? A small voice inside Harry's head answered him. Their daring, nerve, and chivalry set Gryffindors apart. Harry stopped walking and let out a long sigh, his smoky breath dispersing rapidly upon the frozen air. He knew what he had to do. If he was honest with himself, he had thought it might come to this from the moment he had spotted the sword through the ice. He glanced around at the surrounding trees again, but was convinced now that nobody was going to attack him. They had had their chance as he walked alone through the forest, had had plenty of opportunity as he examined the pool. The only reason to delay at this point was because the immediate prospect was so deeply uninviting. With fumbling fingers, Harry started to remove his many layers of clothing. Where chivalry entered into this, he thought ruefully, he was not entirely sure, unless it counted as chivalrous that he was not calling for Hermione to do it in his stead. An owl hooted somewhere as he stripped off, and he thought with a pang of Hedwig. He was shivering now, his teeth chattering horribly, and yet he continued to strip off, until at last he stood there in his underwear, barefooted in the snow. He placed the pouch containing his wand, his mother's letter, the shard of Sirius's mirror, and the old snitch on top of his clothes. Then he pointed Hermione's wand at the ice. Defindo! It cracked with a sound like a bullet in the silence. The surface of the pool broke, and chunks of dark ice rocked on the ruffled water. As far as Harry could judge, it was not deep, but to retrieve the sword, he would have to submerge himself completely. Contemplating the task ahead would not make it easier or the water warmer. He stepped to the pool's edge and placed Hermione's wand on the ground, still lit. Then, trying not to imagine how much colder he was about to become or how violently he would soon be shivering, he jumped. Every pore of his body screamed in protest. The very air in his lungs seemed to freeze solid as he was submerged to his shoulders in the frozen water. He could hardly breathe. Trembling so violently, the water lapped over the edges of the pool. He felt for the blade with his numb feet. He only wanted to dive once. Harry put off the moment of total submersion from second to second, gasping and shaking until he told himself that it must be done, gathered all his courage, and dived. The cold was agony. It attacked him like fire. His brain itself seemed to have frozen as he pushed through the dark water to the bottom and reached out, groping for the sword. His fingers closed around the hilt. He pulled it upward. Then something closed tight around his neck. He thought of water weeds, though nothing had brushed him as he dived, and raised his empty hand to free himself. It was not weed. The chain of the Horcrux had tightened and was slowly constricting his windpipe. Harry kicked out wildly, trying to push himself back to the surface, but merely propelled himself into the rocky side of the pool. Thrashing, suffocating, he scrabbled at the strangling chain, his frozen fingers unable to loosen it. 
and now little lights were popping inside his head, and he was going to drown. There was nothing left, nothing he could do, and the arms that closed around his chest were surely deaths. Choking and retching, soaking and colder than he had ever been in his life, he came to, face down in the snow. Somewhere close by, another person was panting and coughing and staggering around. Hermione had come again, as she had come when the snake attacked. Yet it did not sound like her, not with those deep coughs, not judging by the weight of the footsteps. Harry had no strength to lift his head to see his saviour's identity. All he could do was raise a shaking hand to his throat and feel the place where the locket had cut tightly into his flesh. It was gone. Someone had cut him free. Then a panting voice spoke from over his head. Ah, oh, you mental! Nothing but the shock of hearing that voice could have given Harry the strength to get up. Shivering violently, he staggered to his feet. There before him stood Ron, fully dressed but drenched to the skin, his hair plastered to his face, the sword of Gryffindor in one hand and the Horcrux dangling from its broken chain in the other. Why the hell, panted Ron, holding up the Horcrux, which swung backward and forward on its shortened chain in some parody of hypnosis. Didn't you take this thing off before you dived? Harry could not answer. The silver dough was nothing, nothing compared with Ron's reappearance. He could not believe it. Shuddering with cold, he caught up the pile of clothes still lying at the water's edge and began to pull them on. As he dragged sweater after sweater over his head, Harry stared at Ron, half expecting him to have disappeared every time he'd lost sight of him, and yet he had to be real. He had just dived into the pool. He had saved Harry's life. It was you, Harry said at last, his teeth chattering, his voice weaker than usual due to his near strangulation. Well, yeah, said Ron, looking slightly confused. You cast that dough? What? No, of course not. I thought it was you doing it. My Patronus is a stag. Oh, yeah. I thought it looked different. No antlers. Harry put Hagrid's pouch back around his neck, pulled on a final sweater, stooped to pick up Hermione's wand, and faced Ron again. How come you're here? Apparently Ron had hoped that this point would come up later, if at all. Well, I've, you know, I've come back, if... He cleared his throat. You know, you still want me? There was a pause, in which the subject of Ron's departure seemed to rise like a wall between them. Yet he was here, he had returned, he had just saved Harry's life. Ron looked down at his hands. He seemed momentarily surprised to see the things he was holding. Oh, yeah, I got it out he said rather unnecessarily, holding up the sword for Harry's inspection. That's why you jumped in, right? Yeah, said Harry, but I don't understand. How did you get here? How did you find us? Long story, said Ron. I've been looking for you for hours. It's a big forest, isn't it? And I was just thinking I'd have to kip under a tree and wait for morning when I saw that deer coming and you following. You didn't see anyone else? No, said Ron. I but he hesitated, glancing at two trees growing close together some yards away. I did think I saw something move over there, but I was running to the pool at the time, because you'd gone in and you hadn't come up. 
So I wasn't going to make a detour to... Hey! Harry was already hurrying to the place Ron had indicated. The two oaks grew close together. There was a gap of only a few inches between the trunks at eye level, an ideal place to see but not be seen. The ground around the roots, however, was free of snow, and Harry could see no sign of footprints. He walked back to where Ron stood waiting, still holding the sword and the horcrux. Anything there? Ron asked. No, said Harry. So, how did the sword get in that pool? Whoever cast the Patronus must have put it there. They both looked at the ornate silver sword, its rubied hilt glinting a little in the light from Hermione's wand. You reckon this is the real one? asked Ron. One way to find out, isn't there? said Harry. The Horcrux was still swinging from Ron's hand. The locket was twitching slightly. Harry knew that the thing inside it was agitated again. It had sensed the presence of the sword and had tried to kill Harry rather than let him possess it. Now was not the time for long discussions. Now was the moment to destroy the locket once and for all. Harry looked around, holding Hermione's wand high, and saw the place, a flattish rock lying in the shadow of a sycamore tree. Come here, he said, and he led the way, brushed snow from the rock's surface, and held out his hand for the horcrux. When Ron offered the sword, however, Harry shook his head. No, you should do it. Me? said Ron, looking shocked. Why? Because you got the sword out of the pool. I think it's supposed to be you. He was not being kind or generous, as certainly as he had known that the doe was benign, he knew that Ron had to be the one to wield the sword. Dumbledore had at least taught Harry something about certain kinds of magic, of the incalculable power of certain acts. I'm going to open it, said Harry, and you stab it, straight away, okay? Because whatever's in there will put up a fight. The bit of riddle in the diary tried to kill me. How are you going to open it? asked Ron. He looked terrified. I'm going to ask it to open, using parcel tongue said Harry. The answer came so readily to his lips that he thought that he had always known it deep down. Perhaps it had taken his recent encounter with Nagini to make him realize it. He looked at the serpentine S, inlaid with glittering green stones. It was easy to visualize it as a minuscule snake curled upon the cold rock. No, said Ron. No, don't open it. I'm serious. Why not? asked Harry. Let's get rid of the damn thing. It's been months. I can't, Harry. I'm serious. You do it. But why? Because that thing's bad for me, said Ron, backing away from the locket on the rock. I can't handle it. I'm not making excuses, Harry, for what I was like. But it affects me worse than it affected you and Hermione. It made me think stuff. Stuff I was thinking anyway, but it made everything worse. I can't explain it. And then I'd take it off and I'd get my head on straight again, and then I'd have to put the effing thing back on. I can't do it, Harry. He had backed away, the sword dragging at his side, shaking his head. You can do it, said Harry. You can. You've just got the sword. I know it's supposed to be you who uses it. Please, just get rid of it, Ron. The sound of his name seemed to act like a stimulant. Ron swallowed, then still breathing hard through his long nose moved back toward the rock. Tell me when, he croaked. On three, 
said Harry, looking back down at the locket and narrowing his eyes, concentrating on the letter S, imagining a serpent, while the contents of the locket rattled like a trapped cockroach. It would have been easy to pity it, except that the cut around Harry's neck still burned. One. Two. Three. Open! The last word came as a hiss and a snarl, and the golden doors of the locket swung wide with a little click. Behind both of the glass windows within blinked a living eye, dark and handsome as Tom Riddle's eyes had been before he turned them scarlet and slip-pupiled. Stab! said Harry, holding the locket steady on the rock. Ron raised the sword in his shaking hands. The point dangled over the frantically swiveling eyes, and Harry gripped the locket tightly, bracing himself, already imagining blood pouring from the empty windows. Then a voice hissed from out of the Horcrux. I have seen your heart, and it is mine. Don't listen to it, Harry said harshly. Stab it! I have seen your dreams, Ronald Weasley, and I have seen your fears. All you desire is possible, but all that you dread is also possible. Stab! shouted Harry. His voice echoed off the surrounding trees. The sword point trembled, and Ron gazed down into Riddle's eyes. Least loved always by the mother who craved a daughter. Least loved now by the girl who prefers your friend. Second best always, eternally overshadowed. Run! Stab it now! Harry bellowed. He could feel the locket quivering in his grip and was scared of what was coming. Ron raised the sword still higher, and as he did so, Riddle's eyes gleamed scarlet. Out of the locket's two windows, out of the eyes, there bloomed, like two grotesque bubbles, the heads of Harry and Hermione, weirdly distorted. Ron yelled in shock and backed away as the figures blossomed out of the locket, first chests, then waists, then legs, until they stood in the locket, side by side like trees with a common root, swaying over Ron and the real Harry, who had snatched his fingers away from the locket as it burned suddenly white-hot. Ron! he shouted, but the riddle Harry was now speaking with Voldemort's voice, and Ron was gazing mesmerized into its face. Why return? We were better without you, happier without you, glad of your absence. We laughed at your stupidity, your cowardice, your presumption. Presumption, echoed the riddle Hermione, who was more beautiful and yet more terrible than the real Hermione. She swayed, cackling before Ron, who looked horrified yet transfixed the sword hanging pointlessly at his side. Who could look at you? Who would ever look at you beside Harry Potter? What have you ever done compared with the Chosen One? What are you compared with the boy who lived? Ron! Stab it! Stab it! Harry yelled, but Ron did not move. His eyes were wide and the riddle Harry and the riddle Hermione were reflected in them, their hair swirling like flames, their eyes shining red, their voices lifted in an evil duet. Your mother confessed, sneered riddle Harry, 
while Riddle Hermione jeered, that she would have preferred me as a son would be glad to exchange. Who wouldn't prefer him? What woman would take you? You are nothing, nothing, nothing to him, crooned Riddle Hermione, and she stretched like a snake and entwined herself around Riddle Harry, wrapping him in a close embrace. Their lips met. On the ground in front of them, Ron's face filled with anguish. He raised the sword high, his arms shaking. Do it, Ron! Harry yelled. Ron looked toward him, and Harry thought he saw a trace of scarlet in his eyes. Ron! The sword flashed, plunged. Harry threw himself out of the way. There was a clang of metal and a long, drawn-out scream. Harry whirled around, slipping in the snow, wand held ready to defend himself but there was nothing to fight. The monstrous versions of himself and Hermione were gone. There was only Ron, standing there with a sword held slackly in his hand, looking down at the shattered remains of the locket on the flat rock. Slowly, Harry walked back to him, hardly knowing what to say or do. Ron was breathing heavily. His eyes were no longer red at all, but their normal blue. They were also wet. Harry stooped, pretending he had not seen, and picked up the broken horcrux. Ron had pierced the glass in both windows. Riddle's eyes were gone, and the stained silk lining of the locket was smoking slightly. The thing that had lived in the horcrux had vanished. Torturing Ron had been its final act. The sword clanged as Ron dropped it. He had sunk to his knees, his head in his arms, he was shaking, but not, Harry realized, from cold. Harry crammed the broken locket into his pocket, knelt down beside Ron, and placed a hand cautiously on his shoulder. He took it as a good sign that Ron did not throw it off. After you left, he said in a low voice, grateful for the fact that Ron's face was hidden. She cried for a week, probably longer, only she didn't want me to see. There were loads of nights when we never even spoke to each other. With you gone, he could not finish. It was only now that Ron was here again that Harry fully realized how much his absence had cost them. She's like my sister, he went on. I love her like a sister, and I reckon she feels the same way about me. It's always been like that. I thought you knew. Ron did not respond but turned his face away from Harry and wiped his nose noisily on his sleeve. Harry got to his feet again and walked to where Ron's enormous rucksack lay yards away, discarded as Ron had run toward the pool to save Harry from drowning. He hoisted it onto his own back and walked back to Ron, who clambered to his feet as Harry approached, eyes bloodshot but otherwise composed. I'm sorry, he said in a thick voice. I'm sorry I left. I know I was a, a... He looked around at the darkness, as if hoping a bad enough word would swoop down upon him and claim him. You've sort of made up for it tonight, said Harry, getting the sword, finishing off the Horcrux, saving my life. That makes me sound a lot cooler than I was, Ron mumbled. Stuff like that always sounds cooler than it really was, said Harry. I've been trying to tell you that for years. Simultaneously, they walked forward and hugged, Harry gripping the still-sopping back of Ron's jacket. 
And now, said Harry, as they broke apart, all we've got to do is find the tent again. But it was not difficult, though the walk through the dark forest with the doe had seemed lengthy. With Ron by his side, the journey back seemed to take a surprisingly short time. Harry could not wait to wake Hermione, and it was with quickening excitement that he entered the tent, Ron lagging a little behind him. It was gloriously warm after the pool and the forest, the only illumination, the bluebell flames still shimmering in a bowl on the floor. Hermione was fast asleep, curled up under her blankets, and did not move until Harry had said her name several times. Hermione! She stirred, then sat up quickly, pushing her hair out of her face. What's wrong? Harry, are you all right? It's okay. Everything's fine. <laughs> More than fine. I'm great. There's someone here. What do you mean? Who? She saw Ron, who stood there holding the sword and dripping onto the threadbare carpet. Harry backed into a shadowy corner, slipped off Ron's rucksack, and attempted to blend in with the canvas. Hermione slid out of her bunk and moved like a sleepwalker toward Ron, her eyes upon his pale face. She stopped right in front of him, her lips slightly parted, her eyes wide. Ron gave a weak, hopeful smile and half-raised his arms. Hermione launched herself forward and started punching every inch of him that she could reach. Ouch! Oh! Get off! What the— Hermione! Ow! You complete ass, Ronald Weasley. She punctuated every word with a blow. Ron backed away, shielding his head as Hermione advanced. You crawl back here after weeks and weeks. Oh, where's my wand? She looked as though ready to wrestle it out of Harry's hands, and he reacted instinctively. Predato! The invisible shield erupted between Ron and Hermione. The force of it knocked her backward onto the floor. Spitting hair out of her mouth, she leapt up again. Hermione, said Harry, calm. I will not calm down, she screamed. Never before had he seen her lose control like this. She looked quite demented. Give me back my wand! Give it back to me! Hermione, will you please? Don't you tell me what to do, Harry Potter! She screeched. Don't you dare! Give it back now! And you! She was pointing at Ron in dire accusation. It was like a malediction, and Harry could not blame Ron for retreating several steps. I came running after you. I called you. I begged you to come back. I know, Ron said. Hermione, I'm sorry. I'm really... Oh, you're sorry! She laughed, a high-pitched, out-of-control sound. Ron looked at Harry for help, but Harry merely grimaced his helplessness. You come back here after weeks, weeks, and you think it's all going to be all right if you just say sorry? Well, what else can I say? Ron shouted, and Harry was glad that Ron was fighting back. Oh, I don't know, yelled Hermione with awful sarcasm. Wreck your brains, Ron. That should only take a couple of seconds. Hermione, interjected Harry, who considered this a low blow. He just saved my... I don't care. She screamed. I don't care what he's done. Weeks and weeks. We could have been dead for all he knew. I knew you weren't dead, bellowed Ron, drowning her voice for the first time and approaching as close as he could with a shield charm between them. Harry's all over the prophet. 
All over the radio. They're looking for you everywhere. All these rumours and mental stories. I knew I'd hear straight off if you were dead. You don't know what it's been like. What it's been like for you? Her voice was now so shrill, only bats would be able to hear it soon. But she had reached a level of indignation that rendered her temporarily speechless. And Ron seized his opportunity. I wanted to come back the minute I'd disapparated. But I walked straight into a gang of snatchers, Hermione, and I couldn't go anywhere. A gang of what? asked Harry, as Hermione threw herself down into a chair, with her arms and legs crossed so tightly it seemed unlikely that she would unravel them for several years. Snatchers, said Ron. They're everywhere. Gangs trying to earn gold by rounding up muggle-borns and blood traitors. There's a reward from the Ministry for everyone captured. I was on my own, and I looked like I might be school-age. They got really excited. Thought I was a muggle-born in hiding. I had to talk fast to get out of being dragged to the Ministry. What did you say to them? Told them I was Stan Shunpike. First person I could think of. And they believed that? They weren't the brightest. One of them was definitely part troll. The smell of him. Ron glanced at Hermione, clearly hopeful she might soften at this small instance of humour but her expression remained stony above her tightly knotted limbs. Anyway, they had a row about whether I was Stan or not. It was a bit pathetic, to be honest, but there were still five of them and only one of me, and they'd taken my wand. Then two of them got into a fight, and while the others were distracted, I managed to hit the one holding me in the stomach, grabbed his wand, disarmed the bloke holding mine, and disapparated. I didn't do it so well. Splinched myself again. Ron held up his right hand to show two missing fingernails. Hermione raised her eyebrows coldly. And I came out miles from where you were. By the time I got back to that bit of riverbank where we'd been, you'd gone. Gosh, what a gripping story, Hermione said in the lofty voice she adopted when wishing to wound. You must have been simply terrified. Meanwhile, we went to Godric's Hollow and... Let's think... What happened there, Harry? Oh, yes, you know whose snake turned up. It nearly killed both of us. And then you know who himself arrived and missed us by about a second. What? Ron said, gaping from her to Harry. But Hermione ignored him. Imagine losing fingernails, Harry. That really puts our sufferings into perspective, doesn't it? Hermione, said Harry quietly. Ron just saved my life. She appeared not to have heard him. One thing I would like to know, though, she said, fixing her eyes on a spot a foot over Ron's head. How exactly did you find us tonight? That's important. Once we know, we'll be able to make sure we're not visited by anyone else we don't want to see. Ron glared at her, then pulled a small silver object from his jeans pocket. This. She had to look at Ron to see what he was showing them. The Deluminator? she asked. So surprised, she forgot to look cold and fierce. It doesn't just turn the lights on and off, said Ron. I don't know how it works, or why it happened then and not any other time, because I've been wanting to come back ever since I left. But I was listening to the radio really early on Christmas morning, and I heard... I heard you. He was looking at Hermione. You've heard me on the radio? She asked incredulously. No. I heard you coming out of my pocket. Your voice, he held up the deluminator again, came out of this. And what exactly did I say? 
asked Hermione, her tone somewhere between skepticism and curiosity. My name, Ron, and you said something about a wand. Hermione turned a fiery shade of scarlet. Harry remembered. It had been the first time Ron's name had been said aloud by either of them since the day he had left. Hermione had mentioned it when talking about repairing Harry's wand. So I took it out, Ron went on, looking at the deluminator, and it didn't seem different or anything. But I was sure I'd heard you. So I clicked it, and the light went out in my room, but another light appeared right outside the window. Ron raised his empty hand and pointed in front of him. His eyes focused on something neither Harry nor Hermione could see. It was a ball of light, kind of pulsing and bluish, like that light you get around a port key, you know. Yeah, said Harry and Hermione together automatically. I knew this was it, said Ron. I grabbed my stuff and packed it. Then I put on my rucksack and went out into the garden. The little ball of light was hovering there, waiting for me. And when I came out, it bobbed along a bit, and I followed it behind the shed, and then it, well, it went inside me. Sorry, said Harry, sure he had not heard correctly. It sort of floated toward me, said Ron, illustrating the movement with his free index finger, right to my chest, and then it just went straight through. It was here. He touched a point close to his heart. I could feel it. It was hot. And once it was inside me, I knew what I was supposed to do. I knew it would take me where I needed to go. So I disapparated and came out on the side of a hill. There was snow everywhere. We were there, said Harry. We spent two nights there, and the second night I kept thinking I could hear someone moving around in the dark and calling out. Yeah, well, that would have been me, said Ron. Your protective spells work anyway because I couldn't see you and I couldn't hear you. I was sure you were around, though. So, in the end, I got in my sleeping bag and waited for one of you to appear. I thought you'd have to show yourselves when you packed up the tent. No, actually, said Hermione. We've been disapparating under the invisibility cloak as an extra precaution. And we left really early because, as Harry says, we'd heard somebody blundering around. Well, I stayed on that hill all day, said Ron. I kept hoping you'd appear, but when it started to get dark, I knew I must have missed you. So I clicked the deluminator again, the blue light came out and went inside me, and I disapparated and arrived here in these woods. I still couldn't see you, so I just had to hope one of you would show yourselves in the end, and Harry did. Well, I saw the doe first, obviously. You saw the what? said Hermione sharply. They explained what had happened. And as the story of the silver doe and the sword in the pool unfolded, Hermione frowned from one to the other of them, concentrating so hard she forgot to keep her limbs locked together. But it must have been a Patronus, she said. Couldn't you see who was casting it? Didn't you see anyone? And it led you to the sword? I can't believe this. Then what happened? Ron explained how he had watched Harry jump into the pool and had waited for him to resurface. How he had realized that something was wrong, dived in and saved Harry, then returned for the sword. He got as far as the opening of the locket, then hesitated, and Harry cut in. And Ron stabbed it with the sword. And it went, just like that, she whispered. Well, it... it screamed, said Harry, with a half-glance at Ron. Here. 
He threw the locket into her lap. Gingerly, she picked it up and examined its punctured windows. Deciding that it was at last safe to do so, Harry removed the shield charm with a wave of Hermione's wand and turned to Ron. Did you just say you got away from the Snatchers with a spare wand? What? said Ron, who had been watching Hermione examining the locket. Oh, oh, yeah. He tugged open a buckle on his rucksack and pulled a short, dark wand out of its pocket. Here, I figured it's always handy to have a backup. You were right, said Harry, holding out his hand. Mine's broken. You're kidding, Ron said. But at that moment Hermione got to her feet, and he looked apprehensive again. Hermione put the vanquished Horcrux into the beaded bag, then climbed back into her bed and settled down without another word. Ron passed Harry the new wand. About the best you could hope for, I think, murmured Harry. Yeah, said Ron. Could have been worse. Remember those birds she set on me? I still haven't ruled it out, came Hermione's muffled voice from beneath her blankets. But Harry saw Ron smiling slightly as he pulled his maroon pajamas out of his rucksack.